This is Audible. Podium Publishing presents The Cycle of Oron, The Complete Trilogy Written by Edward W. Robertson Read by Tim Gerard Reynolds Chapter 5 Peregrine's smile made Dante want to wring his well-bred neck. The man held the parchment at arm's length, as if he didn't want Waring's bare signature to come too close and taint him. After a long moment of admiration, he rolled up the writ of Nulla, stuffed it in his desk, and turned that smile on Dante. I sold the clan of the Green Lake to Lord Cassander of Beckenridge. The estate is some miles east of Setovan. If he hasn't broken up the sale, and I believe he'd just sunk his latest mine, so I don't see why he would, you'll find them there. Dante thanked him stiffly. Let's hope the right price can convince him to part with them regardless of his plans. Peregrine turned to gaze at the woven faces of his ancestors hanging from the wall. Well, there's always a price, isn't there? And often a later one to boot. The Lord gave him a curious look, but Dante turned on his heel. The carriage descended through row houses and a crisp sunlight that was too early in the season to be warm. They rattled over the bridge, smelling fresh water and wind-borne pollen, and halted in a plaza on the eastern shore. He relayed Peregrine's intelligence to Gala and Morn. Go tell your clan to get ready to move. I have one last thing to do before we leave. Don't tell me it's another game, Blaze groaned. I hope you didn't have plans for the rest of the week. What? It wasn't that boring, was it? Two weeks of watching you read books and play and even dog your version of chess. I'd have more fun learning to piss through my eyeballs. Dante's grin faded. No more games. Just one last debt. As they entered her dark shop, Waring's face folded as fast as her troops had in the final battle. I already know what you want. And for that, I'm sorry. Dante met her eyes. But I didn't come here to claim my nulla. I'm here to pay you mine. She laughed, deep and bitter. Beaten by a human who doesn't even know the rules. Do you think I'd be shamed, more or less, if I killed myself before I finished your order? I know the rules perfectly well. Now close this shop and take me to your father. Waring drew back her head. He lives in the far north of town. I spend a fortnight playing games. I think I can fit a few more hours into my busy schedule. Even so, Dante hired another carriage, spending most of what little he'd gained selling Nulla and placing side bets on other games. Wheels splashed mud and other substances across unpaved streets. A score of hammers rang from a dozen anvils. The metallic clanks faded by the time shacks replaced the proper houses. After a half-mile of dirt alleys and thatch-roofed single-room homes, Waring called a stop in front of one no different from a thousand others. She stepped into the cold dust, pausing before a door that fit worse than an older brother's hand-me-down trousers. Give me a minute. She slipped inside, tugging the door several times before it squeaked shut. 
Low tones filtered through the drafty wallboards. One voice female, the other male and coarse as a raven. Clinks, shuffles, and clatters overcut the talk, as if many small things were being converted into one large pile. I think she's into you, Blay said. I highly doubt that. Who else cleans just because a near stranger comes to their house? Women, Dante said. A good deal of men, too. Just about everyone, in fact, except those whose servants do it for them. We need to get out more, don't we? Not if it's to the sort of places where people clean. The door opened, pouring sunlight into a single, tight room. A blanket covered thigh-high lumps piled along the back wall. A rickety stove pumped smoke up the narrow chimney of fieldstone and clay, pouring heat into the sieve-like shack. A pale leg projected from a cot half visible behind the doorway. The Norrin it belonged to was well past middle age. The gray of his beard had begun to seep into his dark brown hair, coloring it like milk dribbled into unstirred coffee. He had the usual flabbiness of age, but his right leg was a bony broomstick beneath grimy pants. The room smelled faintly of urine. My father. Sean, Waring said. Dante introduced himself and Blaze. Your daughter's work is spectacular. No doubt, Blaze said. I stared at one weaving of a lady so long I feared she'd reach out of the thread and slap me. Well, she stole all she knows from me. Sean struggled to swing his legs from the cot, bracing himself on a block of wood that served as a table. Please don't get up, Dante said. That's why I'm here. To gape at a cripple. Sir, I can assure you. The old man held up a rough, warm palm. Shut up. Waring told me why you're here. She's expecting a miracle. And what are you expecting? To learn one more time that I told you so is always more satisfying in your head than spoken aloud. He lay back on the cot glaring at the bare, cobwebby rafters. Let's get to it. You might want to leave, Dante said to Waring. I expect this will hurt. It did. The knee was hard and knobbly as dry coral. To set it, Dante first had to re-break it, dissolving the old mending with hard rasps of nether. Sean screamed, sweat trickling through his ashy beard. Blaze helped hold him down, offering gulps from a flask. Once the knee was disjointed, to the nether's touch it felt like loose pebbles among an internal creak of hot blood and lymph. Dante aligned the old break as cleanly as he could, filling the gaps with nether-prompted growths of new bone. Most of Dante's intensive work had been done on the vibrant young, on warriors and soldiers, not to mention himself and Blaze and the old man's flesh and tissue responded sluggishly, accumulating and binding only through Dante's constant, steady focus on the nether. Grain by grain, the bone returned. After some time, a half hour, perhaps twice that long, Dante plopped on the floor as sweaty as the old man. As for Sean, he regarded Dante coolly as one watches a lone wolf from across an open meadow. Why did you come here? 
Dante wiped his sleeve across his forehead. Your daughter's a very fine Nulladoon player, too. That she got on her own. Dumb game ran me right out of business. Despite the old man's cynicism, a decade of anticipation was etched on his face. Sean swung his leg off the bed. The skin around his eyes relaxed. Jocian's toe, son. A man who can do what you do's got no business wasting time with games. Dante smiled and stepped outside. Waring pulled her finger from her mouth and spat a ragged bit of nail into the dirt. Well? Better, Dante said. Such modesty, Blaze said, eyes rolling. That old crank'll be fit enough to kick your ass again in no time. Maybe you can come see for yourself. Waring glanced through the door. If you come here again. Soon. Dante climbed inside the carriage. In the moment, he meant it. He and Blaze could come back here on their return from the estate outside Setovan. He'd like to play Waring again, a rematch where he competed without the knowledge of every one of her cards. He would even enjoy losing, he thought. And if he won, to have a weaving made for himself. But he wouldn't return for years. When at last he did, Waring would be old herself and retired from the tables, even friendly matches. She would tell him of how Sean had healed, walking to the shop with her each morning, this time not as her master, but her partner. His earnings from weaving just keeping up with the nulla he incurred from gaming. He would die three years before Dante made it back to Dolendon. While Dante played, the others had worked. The boomer sails were whole and white. Bright blonde wood stood out from the railing where wind and spray chapped timber, smashed in the battle with the bloody knuckles, had since been replaced. More surprisingly, Lyra stood on the deck to greet Dante. Leg better, he said. Fit to start working off my debt. Saving you was my idea, you know, Blaze said. If he doesn't want to boss you around, I'll bear that burden for him. She swept breeze-blown hair from her face. But I do owe you. Blaze raised his brows. In that case, you should know I can do my fighting on my own. It's other realms where it helps to have a partner. I don't know, Dante said. You seem plenty capable of handling that on your own, too. Orlan was striding across the deck on a beeline for him. Dante met him halfway. Good work of it, the chieftain said. When we heard the Lord refused to name his buyer, we began our battle prayers to Joseph Joe. Hope nobody went stir-crazy during the wait. We are accustomed enough to waiting. That's what we do all winter. What we're not accustomed to is other people fighting our battles for us. Good, Dante nodded because whenever I rescue a clan of slaves from the bottom of a mineshaft, I prefer to do it with thirty howling warriors at my side. It may not come to that, the tall man smiled, but I hope it does. The boomer pushed off that same day, negotiating its way through the pilings and river traffic of rowboats and flat-bottomed schooners. An hour later, Dolendon was a black mass of buildings to their back, a blocky forest of stone and hard-fired mud. 
Dante had a firm enough grasp on Guscan geography to know the Cricket River on which they'd been sailing this whole time was a tributary of the Roman that ran through Setevan, meaning they could more or less float the whole way to Beckenridge, debarking however many miles away to complete the journey overland. What he didn't know was how far that was. Varlin reported it was just over 250 miles, less than a week's journey if they sailed through the nights and made minimal stops. Dante had spent twice that long at Nulladoon, but the remainder of the trip felt much longer. Towns drifted past, but none nearly as large as Dolinden. Barges came upstream and down, and on two occasions the oars of war galleys slashed the grey water, but neither vessel showed the faintest sign of interest in the boomer. Even the land seemed to grow bored, flattening into an endless prairie of winter-yellowed grasses, hawks circling and screeching, mice and gophers ruffling the fields on their hunt for seeds, the skies clear and cool, but not quite cold and far from warm. He got out his boxes to play some desultory games of Nulladoon with Morn, but he was missing pieces and tiles, and the game suffered for it. He watched Blaze and Lyra practice swordplay on the deck, their blades glinting in the sunlight until the fighters' faces gleamed and their chests heaved. Lyra limped, but was able to lean and feint through all but the most delicate footwork. Out of eyeshot of major tans, clan warriors took to the decks too sparring or just sunning themselves to break up the closeness below decks. On both banks, the land rose, first into yellow hills, then high bluffs with pale green shrubs and scraggly pines. The sides of the gorge were so steep, Dante could see bare rock slanted in layers, great crumbles of loose stone mounded around the feet of the cliffs. The way grew fraught with sudden bends and jutting spurs of rock. Dante stayed up through the night, lighting the way from the prow with a white beam that flowed over black waters and cliffs. Snow capped the heights and the shadows where the sun rarely touched. The boomer emerged from the gorge into brackets of pine-heavy hills. The air was wet and dense and deceptively cold, a damp hand that snatched your warmth while you weren't looking. That night, Varlin put to port in a small town where the docks were slick with algae and the log houses were fuzzy with moss. He returned from the dockmaster to confirm this was their port. Orlin held the troops below decks until all the town's lanterns but those on the docks had been extinguished. Then the warriors padded down the gangway, single file as silent as snow, and gathered a short way into the woods. Dante, Blaze, and Lyra were the only humans to join them. The rest of the crew remained on board the boomer. According to plan, the ship would shove off in the morning, then turn around after two days to rendezvous with the clan and its cousins upriver in something like a week. If Captain Varlin hadn't seen or heard from the clan in a fortnight, he'd be free to leave without further obligation. The clan slipped into the forest along a plain dirt road that was frequently muddy and patchy with holes. Scouts returned to let them know the way ahead was clear. V estimated a two-day march to Beckenridge. Along with Orlin, she dropped back from the body of warriors to speak to Dante and Blaze alone, glaring at Lyra until she took the hint. 
With a cold nod, Lyra dropped back further yet, out of range of their murmurs, but close enough to watch their backs. We expect the situation at Beckenridge to be much the same as Dolendon, Orlin said. V glanced in the direction of a hoot from the darkness. Except in the sense that everything will be different. But once again, a full body of warriors will be unwelcome, so we must present a human face instead. Don't worry, we're experts at pretending to be what we're not, Blay said. Like, bathed. We'll use the same story we did in Dolendon, Dante said. Less suspicious, and with the added bonus of not requiring any more work. I can't agree with that fast enough. Orlin pulled his soft leather collar tight against the cold. As before, taking Morn and Gala should... The chieftain collapsed to his knees. In the darkened roadway, his head spasmed side to side, earrings flashing, as if he were attempting to shake a demon out of his skull. Spittle gleamed in the corner of his mouth. Dante knelt beside him, reaching for the nether. What's happening? V slapped his hand away with enough force to crack walnuts. You mustn't touch him. Joseph Joe is upon him. Orland's violent jerks subsided to irregular twitches. He was overcome by a stillness as perfect as the meditations of the supplicants of Ert. His eyes flicked open. Joshin Joe says the quivering bow is in the highest place, the clan of the Green Lake in the lowest. Yet, if one has two hands, both may be taken. You know, Blay said, Joseph Joe might get more done if he said things that made any damn sense. The meaning of his words often comes later, in singular moments of clarity. Orlin stood, wiping his eyes. We'll understand soon enough. The march was pleasantly uneventful. Scouts watched for carriages and riders. At their whistle, the clan melted into the woods like a morning fog. On the second day, the westward path sported a northern fork, leading them through shallow, rolling hills and the sharply sweet scent of pine. You realize we're showing up on foot, Blaze said, when the scouts returned with word the manor was less than five miles away. They're going to think we're the type of people who show up on foot. Leave it to the Norrin to forget the wealthy treated their feet as the decorative bulbs at the end of their pants, Dante said. We'll tell Lord Cassander we were robbed. That'll never work. You're right. Much more credible that we walked a thousand miles from Malin before suddenly realizing what we'd left at home. Horses. Come on, Blaze said. Who's going to believe I could get robbed? Dante nodded. We'll tell them you look strong, but inside you beats the heart of a coward. How about this? You thought our map was actual size and declared we'd have no need for horses. We're the type of noble who boasts as much as he drinks. We decided to walk from the river to remind ourselves of ancient days, to partake of the brisk forest air and to feel the strength of our legs beneath us. Suppose we'd better get drunk then, to get in character. The pair of forward scouts returned. Beckenridge was scant miles ahead. Orlin led the clan off trail into the woods single file.
The last member dragged a stone-filled sack behind her to confuse their tracks. Miles out of sight of the manor, the Nine Pines bivouacked near a minor creek trickling between the ferns and the mossy roots of colossal red trees. Warriors turned their axes on saplings and low branches, raising inconspicuous lean-tos, while V and Orlan rehashed the plan. There existed the fair chance that, as visiting aristocracy, and foreign ones at that, Dante and Blaze would be taken in as guests, and might find it difficult to slip away. In that event, their servants, particularly Morn and Gala, would find it much easier to sneak away and get word to the rest of the clan about what was happening inside. The clan itself, meanwhile, would investigate the mine as best they could while exploring the woods for escape routes and sound places to defend from in the event enemy riders overtook them. That was it. The rest was left to chance, or rather, to their ability to improvise on the fly. Dante sent Lyra and Morn ahead to announce their presence, then cleaned up in the ice-cold creek as much as he could stand. He dried himself with a blanket and gathered up his things. Horse droppings littered the path through the pines. The forest ended on the ridge of a low hill. Beckenridge spread in the valley below. For administrative purposes, the place was a single household, yet in practical purposes, it resembled a small village. The manor itself was a giant stone structure, L-shaped, with four floors of windows and several towers rising another three stories above that. At a tasteful distance, smoke poured from a smithy, the rhythm of clanging metal trickling through the damp air. A barn and stable sat close together. A number of other simple wooden structures were arranged here and there, housing for servants and resident employees. The dirt road continued past all this, widening as it climbed the ridge on the valley's opposite side. Gala walked with them, scanning the open fields as if she expected the old tree stumps to rip themselves from the ground and tear Dante and Blaze limb from limb. Dante saw no hint of Morn and Lyra, which was either a good sign or a very bad one. At the manor, a servant waited before iron-banded double doors that could have resisted most armies. The woman led them to a warm receiving room, thick with carpets, a full shelf of books, and the scent of wood smoke, where she explained that Cassander was currently at the mines but would return shortly. Lyra and Morn were brought to the room a few minutes later, taking up properly studied positions along the wall. See anything interesting? Dante asked. Moore nodded enthusiastically. A rather nice rendition of the confluence of the cricket and Roman. He said, Interesting, Blaze said. If you're referring to things you can eat, the answer is no. There's always something to eat. It just depends on how much you want to chew. They spent the next hour leafing through picaroon novels and poking at the reluctant fire. At last, the door opened. In it stood a shortish man in a quilted pine-green undercoat and the blotchy complexion of one who's been riding in the cold. His blond hair was cut severely short, a glowing fuzz above the sharp angles of his face. To Dante's surprise, he introduced himself as Cassander. 
Dante had expected your typical middle-aged and doughy middled lord, not a thin man nearly as young as himself. Gussander blinked at the books spread on the low table. There is no tea. In all the world, Belay said, have you checked under the bed? Excuse me. I will return with tea. Cassander did just that, personally bearing a bronze tray carrying five green-glazed mugs and a steaming clay pot. He set them on the table and poured each full, offering one not just to Blaze and Dante, but to Lyra, Gala, and Morn as well. I'd heard this was a strange land, Dante said in his best blustery, jovial, bring-me-a-beer-and-the-nanny voice. But not so strange that you serve the servants. Everyone gets cold. Cassander took a step from the table and gazed between his guests in the ritualistic old Gascon acknowledgement of presence that might well have been lost on Dante if he really were a travelling Malish lord and not, in fact, a Malish transplant who'd spent years attending dozens of versions of this same traditional tea greeting. Considering his station, Cassander's version of the ritual was extremely stripped down, yet respectful, a return to its historical origins. In other households, Dante had seen lords nod briefly at their guests while ignoring the servants pouring tea from emerald-crusted pots into delicate silver cups. Dante slurped tea. Some excellent weed juice you got here. We grow it ourselves. Funny, that's exactly why we're here, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I will not be insulted if you want to cut straight to the point. The Lord had a soft way of speaking that made you focus on every word. Dante suspected this was deliberate. Dante grinned and made another bonhomie-heavy insight about how nice it was to cut the crap, then launched into their cover story about needing to put the best possible laborers in front of their skeptical investors, specifically the figures of the fabled Clan of the Green Lake. They are, unfortunately for you, not for sale, Cassander said. Have you seen any of the Clan of the Green Lake? Not personally. Blaze grinned. Although we've heard so much about them, I could believe there are no other Norrin. Cassander gazed at the cooling teapot. To southern eyes, they look no different from any other Norrin. What's the difference to northern eyes? Dante said. Their beards are slightly reddish. That's it. That is what I said. Blaze cocked his head. Then why are they so important to you? Cassander refilled Blaze's tea. They and their nomad cousin clans are open supporters of Norrin independence. The message they send from down my mine is worth more than anything you can offer for them. Don't be too sure about that, Blaze said. In Malin, our gold grows as thickly as wheat. Our bread weighs eighty pounds a loaf. Then I am surprised you have come all this way for Norrin, when your own farmers must have the musculature of elephants. 
Are the Norans so likely to rebel they need reminders of their place? Dante said. From what I hear, they're so busy exchanging treatises and crafting cups, they can hardly run a village. Cassander laced his fingers together, gazing at his paralleled thumbs. The Noran are restless. If they push much more obviously, several clans will soon be headless. Sounds like you've got them under control either way. I will not sell my stock. I will consider pressing the matter any further, rude. Dante drew back, palms raised, eyes downcast. Not our intention at all, sir. But I hope you won't consider it rude if I ask to see them, so that when I look for stock elsewhere, I'll know for myself how close my purchase comes to the finest clan warriors in Gask. It is not rude, merely pointless. But you are guests. We will go to the mine tomorrow morning. Neither his expression nor posture changed, but there was a sudden absence to Cassander that made it perfectly clear their discussion was done for the day. Dante made a show of stretching, remarking how long the day had been. Cassander nodded and excused himself. He was replaced by a pair of servants moments later, one of whom led Lyra and the two Noran to the servants' wing, while the others showed Dante and Blaze up a stairwell so plushly carpeted they couldn't hear their feet at all. The walls were empty of paintings, cloth hangings, statues, any of the usual trappings of status and wealth. Their two guest rooms were similarly spartan. A bed, a reading chair, an end table, then nothing but carpet and blank walls, interrupted only by a fireplace. Dante visited the water closet, then returned to Blaze's room. What do you think of our host? he said in Malish, as if Cassander might have his pale ear pressed to the door. That he was born three months premature? The fact his fellow bluebloods haven't killed him and claimed they mistook him for a fox makes me think he's close enough to the throne to smell King Modigan's sweat. He's a second cousin or something. Are you telling me you didn't know that? Blaze turned to the waning sunset beyond the window. Good work down there, by the way. You almost convinced me you can hold a normal conversation. What? I can't talk to people. The same way a fish can wriggle out of a boat. Lots of flapping around and someone's going to wind up all slimy. If I had a club, it would be on its way to your skull right now. Dante glanced up at the plain ceiling. Where do you suppose the Nine Pines bow is? The armory. Blaze jerked his chin at the bare walls. Judging from the other furnishings, it'll be the only thing there. Joseph and Joe said it would be found in a high place. If the Green Lakes are at the bottom of a mine, the low place, where would that put the bow? At the top of a mine? That is definitely not the answer. At the top of an anti-mine? Of course, Dante said. By coincidence, it's rumored your brain is hidden there too. The attic, if this place has one. Or one of the towers. What do I look like, a pennish bowhound? We'll ask for a tour and see what there isn't to see. Which was actually a decent plan, given that it was low risk, unsuspicious, and might even involve a helpful friend or servant stopping to specifically point it out, 
with the implication that here is the quivering bow, a Noran artifact of unsurpassed power, so what does it say that it's now in the hands of our esteemed lord? Alternately, their tour leader might go the opposite route, conspicuously leaving a part of the manor unshown to avoid revealing their secret weapon to Malish eyes. Either way, the search would be narrowed. Cassander was gone again in the morning. Something about overseeing the latest extraction, said to be especially rich. Dante asked for, and was reluctantly granted, a tour of the household by its majordomo, a man near fifty with thinning grey hair and the tight, clipped gestures of a former soldier. He led Blaze and Dante through the manor's numerous wings, floors, and cellars, pointing out ancestral heirlooms, an engraved chalice, a sapphire ring, a broken arrow, which excited Dante until the majordomo explained it had been received from Cassander's great-great-grandfather after the battle of somewhere or other. The home's notable additions, along with which estate owner commissioned them and which architect designed them, and an endless procession of guest rooms, which were of interest not for what was in them, nothing for the most part, though a handful were appropriately if archaically furnished, but for who had once slept in them, a list of historical so-and-sos whose names Dante forgot as quickly as the balding man recited them. Is there an armory? Blaze said, as the majordomo returned them to the carpeted but otherwise blank hallway that opened to their rooms. Any legendary weapons of yore? Nothing restores your sense of wonder like looking at a sword that's killed a king. Unfortunately, there is nothing like that in the house itself, the man said. With Lord Cassander's permission, perhaps you might see the collection in the tower. He glanced down and to the corner. Yet, as with the house, the contents are austere. Our lord is ever a minimalist. Blaze took an expression of mock affront. Except in his hospitality. Of course. The man left them to the quiet house. Cassander returned by noon, flushed from the chilly ride. After convening downstairs along with the various servants and attendants of both parties, he offered Dante and Blaze a carriage for the ride to the mine. Horses are our own feet, Blaze said, continuing the bravado. Carriages separate a man from the world. You know what you get when you're separated from the world. Soft, and white enough to read by. Dante expected one of the man's chilly rebuffs, but Cassander responded with a fragile smile. It will be done. His people scattered for the stables, bringing back two fine-looking horses. For all the riding Dante had done between Narashtivik and the Norin territories, he still couldn't tell any equine differences more specific than mare or stallion. And an adequate, if less nobly, statured mount for Lyra. Gal and Morn were left to accompany on foot. Cassander's troop consisted of three mounted men and two unmounted Norrin of his own, who carried large packs on their broad backs. The trail curled up the hill. To both sides of the dark dirt, grass and ferns glistened in the sun, still damp. Vapor trailed from the horse's nostrils. Cassander ranged ahead. 
From most nobles, Dante could take this as a sign of arrogance, the light, ongoing cruelty of constantly reminding everyone around him of their place. But Cassander's long gazes over the green fields, and his nature in general, suggested he was simply the type to wander ahead because he was lost in his own thoughts. He was an odd duck, a strange bird among the social beasts that made up the aristocracy, and if Dante didn't have more pressing matters on his hands, he would have tried to get to know the young lord. Do you do any fencing? Dante said instead, trying to steer their host into martial matters. Boxing? Archery? I train with the beset, Cassander said, referring to a reed-thin blade that hadn't been popular in Gasque for at least three generations. It is a weapon of finesse. Just that. It only takes one weapon to kill a man. Blaze pushed out his lower lip. If you don't care about having fun, sure. Killing is a tool, not a sport. Cassander blinked, then offered that same fragile smile. I am sorry. My mother once told me I'd have to learn a blade to protect myself from my tongue. Smart woman. Dante pried further, but Cassander's responses turned monosyllabic until the Lord shifted the discourse to chummy small talk, their trip, their families, etc. The hill apexed and began a shallow downslope into a valley cleared of trees. Trying to clear the lush landscape of all growth would have been futile, however, and the ground remained fuzzy with bushes, weeds, ferns, stump mosses, and fungus. A few miles further along the road, the land swelled again. Atop its high crown, a narrow tower jutted into the sky. Is that where you keep your armory? Dante said without thinking. Cassander looked at him from the corner of his eyes. My armory. Your man gave us a tour of the household. We wanted to see the family arms, but he said they were kept in a tower. The original site of the house. The blond man swayed with the roll of his horse. But it is not a good time. Are you that busy? Surely one of your people could show us up. The steps to the top are in disrepair. Reaching the armory is currently impossible. Damn, Blaze said. When are they going to invent ropes already? Cassander gazed at the finger of stone on the hilltop. You would only be disappointed. There is only one item of note, acquired so recently it has not been given a proper display. Whatever Cassander's claims, the tower looked intact and unblemished, an impression Dante confirmed when they crested the hill and rode under its noon-shortened shadow. It was a simple construction, smooth walls of white stone flecked with brown and yellow, its curves broken by narrow arrow slits. The single door was average in size, but its ring handle was bulky enough to brain a bull. Cassander stared past it as they advanced. Dante caught Blazer's eye and raised his brows at the silent tower. They reached the mine within the hour. It sat halfway up a hill, a dirty sprawl of scaffold surrounding a cave-like tunnel into the stone. 
Norrin emerged with buckets, shoulders bent, dust sifting from their hair. Others turned the wheel of a listless windmill, siphoning water from the depths. Smoke poured from the chimneys of a smelter. A single long barracks stood a few hundred feet away. Men with swords and bows laughed, arms folded over their chests, sparing glances at the lean Norrin hauling rubble and ore up from the torch-lit tunnels. Cassander turned his horse sideways to watch the proceedings. Near the barracks, a one-armed Norrin tended pots above a fire pit. A woman limped up to set a water bucket beside him. Others emerged from the smelter, trudged to a clearing by the mine's entrance, and hefted buckets, arms and back straining, before returning to the smoking building. They showed no expression, but the occasional wince. Over Dante's shoulder, the faces of Morn and Gala were coldly blank. It is a pinnacle of the intersection of purpose and meaning, Cassander said softly, as if to himself. The labor of would-be traitors is instead turned to extracting the silver of one of the nation's wealthiest new mines. In this way, their treasonous spirit is converted into strength for the very country they would sabotage. Pretty fit punishment. Dante said. It's not a punishment. I didn't mean to imply they're not well treated. Cassander shook his head, features contracted into something sharp and eager. You misunderstand. It is a sign. Looks like hauling rocks to me, Blay said. I don't know what that's a sign of, other than a lifetime of shitwork. How do we know the things we do are right? Cassander said. Praise from others? But they are just men, their vision and wisdom limited by a mortal span and the circumscribed perspective that comes with it. Well, obviously. Others look to inner praise, the righteous pride one feels when one has done well. There is nothing purer than one's own spirit. But we're just men ourselves, Dante said. Cassander's head snapped down in a nod. Exactly, exactly. The praise of mortals, weak, flawed, rotting, cannot be trusted. Whose can? That of the gods. The heavens. But they do not speak to us, not in words like these. They operate by signs. He gestured to a dust-blackened Norrin as the workers staggered to a stop, dropped two buckets with a hollow thump, and gasped for air. The heavens are symmetry, perfection reflected and reproduced. The dirt in those buckets becomes pure silver. So the dirt in that man's rebellious soul becomes the power of Gask. Between this symmetry, we glimpse the approval of Aron. Dante had to literally bite his tongue to prevent himself from launching into an extensive cycle-quoting counter-argument that Aron doesn't in fact care about the acts of men at all, that we are all derived from and return to the same stuff the nether, 
the grist of Aron's mill, and so our time spent as men doesn't seem that significant to him at all. Instead, he said nothing. He was all but certain the quivering bow was locked in that tower with its broken steps. If he did nothing to impinge on his host's goodwill for two more nights, the bow would be his. You did not come here to see me speak. Cassander smiled into the silence Dante had inadvertently let grow awkward. Careful inside, there are rocks. Dante laughed, but Cassander's quickly hidden look of puzzlement suggested that hadn't been a joke. He provided them covered lanterns and warned them to let him know if the flame changed color, particularly green or blue. That much sounded exciting, but otherwise the mine looked exactly the way Dante would have guessed. Stone tunnels, boards planking the walls and ceiling to lock in loose rocks, grit, and dust, and sweating men bunching their arms to assault the walls with heavy picks. Other Norrin gathered the rubble into buckets and lugged it up to the light. No surprises except the silver ore itself. Gnarled rocks shot through with shades of rust and blue. Yet the banality of it all was a sign of its own. The Norrin struck the wall, rested a moment, struck the wall, rested. Others knelt among the clouds of dust and swept up loose rocks. It seemed suddenly foreign, even monstrous, that Cassander should own men, the same way he owned their shovels and buckets. Not that Dante was alone in this thought. There were abolitionists wherever there were slaves. Its wrongness was simply obvious to him now, in the same way his acceptance of it had been obvious earlier that day. The servants at Narashtevik's sealed citadel. Were they slaves or paid hands? Dante had no idea. In the darkness, his cheeks flushed red. He didn't speak much on the way back, which surely suited Cassander fine. The midday sun was full, but so lacking in warmth, Dante could still see the foggy ghost of his own breath. The echoing halls of the house at Beckenridge were nearly as cool as the outdoors, but the fire in his sparse room had been kept stoked in his absence by able servants. The room was so hot his skin itched. What do you think? Dante said shedding his coat and stripping off his doublet. That you should do more push-ups, Blaze said. About the bow, dummy. That just maybe it's up in that tower he refused to let us see inside. I agree with you, which makes me very scared. Blaze gestured at the squeaky-boarded floor. How much longer can we depend on a nobleman's hospitality towards his own kind? Cassander's the type of guy who wouldn't let the friends he doesn't have stay more than a few days. Dante circled the room, as if the motion would unwind the contents of his head. We'll move tomorrow night. That will give us another day to search and the clan to prepare. Get your stealing shoes on. Who says I ever take them off? Dante passed word of the decision to mourn, who promised to deliver the message that night. Dante didn't tell Gala or Lyra, the former because he didn't think she'd care one way or the other, and the latter because Lyra's earnest loyalty, she'd done nothing but play the part of a servant since arriving at Beckenridge, and almost too convenient method of meeting them on the river, 
had Dante privately concerned, she might not be who she said she was, which was perhaps paranoid given the broken leg and the starvation and all, but if her life-debt nonsense was as heartfelt as she claimed, she would happily follow them into the gallbladder of the fire squid. By contrast, accompanying them on a midnight break-in to a crumbling tower would be no trouble at all. In the morning, a bleary-eyed morn told them word had been passed, with Orland planning to raid the mine at 1 a.m. In case the clan and Dante's party stayed separated, they'd reconvene at the Boomer. Dante and Blaze spent the day pumping Cassander's servants on the history and lore of Beckenridge, recruiting Moore to do the same from his side of the social strata, hoping to induce a revelatory brag about the bow. In this way, they coaxed the major domo into confessing the estate's purchase of the clan of the Green Lake had come with the acquisition of a weapon of no small power. When Dante pressed for details, the man implied in the politest and most deniable terms that Dante might be a lord, but he was still a foreign lord, and it was not the majordomo's place to reveal what might well be considered a secret of the state. Still, besides being shot with the bow itself, it was the best confirmation Dante could have hoped for. He went to bed with the same childlike anticipation he'd once felt for Falmuck's Eve, much like that day of meat pies, fermented cider, and tiny wooden one-eyed idols, it would probably be all over before he knew it. He met Blaze in the hallway at midnight, or as close to it as he could reckon by the stars. Except for the sporadic crackle of fireplaces, the manor was silent and all but completely dark. The war candles had burnt out or been put out, leaving the starlight to fight its way through the windows that had iced over in the night. Dante crept down the spiral staircase, feeling the way with his feet. If they were intercepted by anyone with the courage and authority to question them, Blaze's idea of a cover story was they were meeting with Lyra in order to arrange a surprise feast for their host, a story which they would, through awkward phrasing and embarrassed glances, in turn imply to be a cover for your typically perverse, aristocratic sex with the help. But by the time they met Lyra in the servant's kitchen and its faded yet cloying scents of rendered fat and boiling beets, they hadn't seen another soul. She led them into the biting night. The dirt road was frozen underfoot. Frost glittered from the weeds. Dante heard no baying of hounds, saw no sudden lighting of lanterns. Under starlight, they'd be nearly invisible. He kept the nether close, its cold pulse mirrored his own. His breath swirled from his mouth, hanging in the damp air. Morn and Gala waited for them beyond the first ridge, swords on hips. The clan will move soon, Morn said. Don't expect subtlety. Blaze snorted. You guys are seven feet tall and weigh as much as a statue of yourselves. I don't think you do anything subtly. This isn't just a rescue, Gala said. It's vengeance. Good, Dante said. Then Cassander's soldiers will be too busy dying to notice we're stumbling around in their tower stealing their things. He could see it already, a finger-like silhouette rising from the opposite rim of the valley. He wanted to run to it, but maintained a brisk walk instead. The tower arrived soon enough. 
Standing beneath its hundred-foot rise of white stone, Dante could feel every ounce of its weight. Its very star-cast shadow pressed on him, simultaneously holding him down and compelling him onward. He pulled the door's huge iron ring. The door didn't budge. What would you do without me? Blaze knelt beside the lock, an outrageously huge pad that could be repurposed as an anvil at a moment's notice. I'd ask Morn to smash the lock right off, Dante said. I assumed picking it would make less noise, but I forgot that would leave your mouth as free as ever. Blaze unfolded a leather case of narrow metal prods, hooks, and squiggly-tipped wires. When they'd first met, Blaze had been a devoted student of the school of Bash it once, and if that doesn't work, bash it harder. But over the last year or two, he'd taken to practicing methods that left locks, knobs, and hinges intact, recognizing that much of their work in the Noran territories was the kind that must be denied rather than gloated about. His interest in the skill had doubled at a party in Narashtavik at Duke Abaddon's manor, which Dante's position on the council forced them to attend. On hearing Abaddon kept his best wines beside his own bed, Blaze went upstairs, trailed by a young lady he'd been after all night. The Duke's bedroom bore not one but three locks, but Blaze had them off in seconds, so impressing the lady that it took no kits or tools whatsoever to pry her from her dress, then and there. Beneath the white tower, Blaze set to his task with uncommon sobriety, methodically wiggling a number of thin rods into the lock's keyhole, squinting into the empty night as he poked and worried the tools about its raspy interior, guided by touch and sounds far too arcane for Dante to differentiate. Exhausting one pick, Blaze swapped it out for another and leveraged a third, thicker tool into the tumblers and latches lurking inside. I don't think this is happening, he said after a couple minutes of jiggling and prying. I guess we'll just have to forget the bow, renounce our beliefs, and return home to retire as farmers. Blaze reached down for an L-shaped rod with a crooked little tooth at its end, inserted it into the pad, and torqued his wrist. The lock squeaked, rust flaked into Blaze's hand. He slipped the opened pad from its loops and dropped it in the grass. Oh, I forgot. I'm the greatest. Congratulations, you have the skills of an eight-year-old orphan. Dante stepped into the darkness and lit a candle with a flicker of nether. The others crowded in beside him, accepting candles of their own. A wooden ceiling hung some twelve feet overhead, penetrated by a staircase that descended into darkness above. At its other end, it descended through the floor to an even deeper blackness below. Melted remnants of candles sat on the floor. Burnt-out torches rested in wall sconces. The ground floor was bare, except for a large wooden plank to bar the door, and a few sacks of what was, judging from the mice droppings, likely to be grain. I could only find the rope, Morn said, extracting it from his pack. I hope it's enough to get past the upper stairs. Dante tipped back his head, peering into the drafty heights. I doubt there's anything wrong with the stairs at all. That was just a cover to keep us out. Still, 
It's a depressing thought to come hundreds of miles and wind up ten feet out of reach of the object of your desire. I don't know what I'd do. Jump from one of the windows, I bet. Me too, but only because of the shame of lacking basic problem-solving skills. Get moving. Dante led the way up the steps. The stairwell was so tight Morn and Gala not only had to duck, they had to turn their shoulders too, filling Dante's head with nightmare scenarios of one of them slipping and getting so thoroughly lodged between the steps that those above them on the stairs would be trapped, left to starve to death, or forced to burrow their way to freedom through a mass of hair and blood. After a complete turn, the stairs opened into a round, plank-floored room. Drafts blew in through the arrow slits, disturbing Dante's candle. This room was largely empty, too, besides the few rotting chairs blanketed with cobwebs and an old set of dishes which weren't glazed but had instead acquired a fine finish of dirt. The following floors were just as barren. The tower's furnishings, in fact, gave every indication it had been in disuse for years now, if not decades and that the last owners to put it to use had employed it as the watchtower fortress it had clearly been built as. Then, some eighty feet up, the steps became a blank black space. Dante shoved his hands against the close walls, swearing, bracing himself against a vision of the fumbling body that would push him over the broken steps. Hold it! His voice echoed up and down. Blaze nudged him peering over his shoulder at the spot where the steps disappeared, a void that stretched beyond the curve of the staircase. Vestigial lumps of stone projected from the walls along the missing steps' former path, but these were just a few fingers wide and, obviously, crumbly even by the meek candlelight. No problem, Blaze said. Morn, get up here and throw me. What? Dante said. Blaze gestured at the yawning gap. He throws me, I land on the other side, we all praise my name. You can't even see the other side. Are you suggesting it's not there? I'm suggesting you will fall and break whatever parts of yourself you land on. I'll cling to the wall, like a handsome raccoon. Raccoons known worldwide for their proverbial jumping ability. Dante pointed at the cracked stone, jutting from where the stairs had set into the wall. At least try that before your leap of faith. Blaze crouched down, forcing Dante back a step, and leaned forward to test the jagged stone remnants with his fingertips. Parts were wide enough for a firm toehold, perhaps for a whole shoe, but in long gaps the broken steps were flush with the sheer wall. Dust and sand sifted down into the darkness, sprinkling on the stairs a spiral below. I don't know about this, Blaze said. Two seconds ago, you were ready to send yourself smashing straight to hell. Yeah, but that would have been over in a second. All this creeping along, waiting for the ledge to crumble underneath me. It seems kind of stupid. I'll do it, Lyra said from behind them. You're not doing anything. Dante looked in vain for a fly or spider he could kill, restore to unlife with the nether, and use to scout the stairs ahead. If you want to be helpful, start composing Blaze's eulogy. Remember to include a line about how I'm six foot nine inches. 
Blaze ran his hand down his mouth. All right. We tie the rope around my waist. I try to scooch along the side here. Morn holds tight to the free end of the rope while Gala sets up below to catch me if I fall. Meanwhile, Lyra and I will shut our eyes and pray. Dante stepped away from the broken steps, pressing his back against the wall. Let's do this. It took a full minute of awkward shuffling, retreating, and bumping around before Gala made it to the full turn below, where Blaze might fall, and before Blaze and Morn got in position on the lower edge of the gap. Dante took up beside Gala and sent a small white light up to the broken steps directly above them, eyeballing exactly how much of the staircase was missing. Even from below, it wasn't easy to tell. The missing portion was a good twelve feet overhead, and the tight spiral quickly stole the ascending steps from view, making it more than possible there was another broken stretch further up. But he guessed some eight horizontal feet of stairs were missing. He anchored the white light above the ledge where Blaze would cross, then slipped downstairs past Gala, keeping the nether close at hand in case of a fall. The whole stairwell smelled of fresh sweat and the sweet wax of burning candles. All set, he called. I still think I should jump, Blaze echoed. If you fall, use your last thought to pretend that's what you did. Make sure your head's out of the way. I don't want to get impaled. Leather scuffed stone. Blaze grunted. His leg extended into view, tapping down on the cracked ledge. Dust speckled into Dante's eyes. He turned away, blinking hard. His light above flickered. Lyle's balls, Blaze yelled. Let's wait until the next time before we try this in the dark, huh? Just trying to add to your legend. Dante redoubled his focus, restoring the full glare of the white light. Blaze clung to the wall, palms spread, his feet turning sideways for maximum surface area along the narrow, irregular rising ledge. A rope trailed between his waist and Morn, who'd installed himself at the lower edge of the gap, his feet and shoulders braced against the walls. Blaze took a minor step forward, dragging his back foot after. Inch by inch, he struggled on, pausing regularly to strengthen his toeholds and dig his fingertips into the crannies between stones, grimacing, panting hollowly over the ticking sound of falling grit. His next step led him to a proper foothold, a flat chunk of step protruding a full foot from the wall. Blaze extended his front foot and stepped onto the widened ledge. Whoa! He threw out his arms. Dante cringed, throwing his hands above his face. Blaze chuckled brightly. I'm fine. Good to see where your first instincts take you, though. Blaze caught his breath, then carried on along the narrow lip of ruined steps. Within a minute, he reached the far side. Dante maneuvered around Gala and climbed up to the edge of the gap. What now? Partly occluded by the curve of the stairwell, Blaze jerked his thumb upstairs. There are some sconces and stuff on the walls. If I tie one end of the rope up here, and you secure the other down there, it should be a lot easier to cross. Dante frowned. If they don't pull right out of the walls. Well, 
You don't have much choice. If you stay down there, I can tell everyone you're a coward and have three witnesses to back me up. Blaze disappeared upstairs, rope dragging along behind him. He returned seconds later to sling the loose ends downstairs. Dante caught it and wound down the steps until he located a wall sconce, then knotted the rope tight around its upturned iron fingers. He began the crossing before he could have second thoughts or face further taunts. Aided by the rope, against which he could lean most of his weight, when toeholds were sparse, he proceeded quickly, heart racing. Grit twisted under his soles as the rope's rough fibers chafed his palms. He stepped onto the solid ground of the far side with physical relief. I think you've got a future in the carnival, Blaze said. I've got plenty of experience working with freaks. Stop! Morn called, strangled. Dante whirled. Through his beard, Morn was pale, features pulled in a tight rictus. We're only kidding, Dante said, confused yet gently. You don't have to... Don't go upstairs! What are you talking about? We're fine, Morn. We're not going to turn around with the bow right up these steps. I just heard from Joe and Joe. Dante rolled his eyes. Joe and Joe's less reliable than a choleric's bowel movements. What you got to say this time? That by the highest place he meant the bow's been stolen by eagles, and we'll have to enlist the vulture king to get it back. He says we've been betrayed, and Cassander's personal army has surrounded the tower downstairs. Blaze blinked. That's specific. The prickling, dreadful heat washed over Dante's skin. This is a thing that's happening now. Morn's eyes were bright beneath his heavy brows. Look outside. An icy wind knifed from upstairs. Dante headed up, blaze on his heels, into a dusty and cobwebbed storage room. He dimmed his light until the chests and sacks glittering the floor were dim shapes of black and gray. Beneath the torn flaps of a burlap sack, a glimpse of tightly sheathed arrows sent his heart thumping. He moved past them to a window of tall sectional glass with a couple broken panes. Stars twinkled silently over the black field. Dante extinguished his light, blaze his candle. See anything, Dante whispered. A bunch of dark stuff. Think Cassander's army is made out of coal men? Wait. As his eyes adjusted, he began to pick out movements that couldn't be ascribed to breeze-ruffled weeds. Starlight glinted on steel. Eighty feet below, a row of men kneeled across the road from the tower's front door. Morn's right. You're sure? Because that would mean bad things for us. Stabby things. Twenty of them. Maybe more. Dante retreated from the window and relit his candle, crouching to hide the light from the soldiers below. It's all right. The bow's up here. We can use it to escape. There is no bow. Morn's voice filtered up the stairway, ethereal, dolorous, shamed. Dante returned to the top of the gap in the stairs. Morn hadn't moved. Their soldiers are at our feet, Morn. Very soon they're going to come up this tower or set a fire below 
and you will be roasted like a very hairy and treasonous pig. Now tell me what you're holding back. The Norin looked down at his heavy palms. Fear and doubt added years to his face. He closed his eyes. There is no bow. Or anyway, if there is, it's just a bunch of legends that built up around a very normal weapon. When you came in questing after it, Orlin let you believe it was real. What? He saw what you could do. That you're a sorcerer. He thought he could use you to... Gala rose behind the seated morn, blade in hand. That's enough. Lyra's sword flashed from its sheath to point at Gala's back. In the same instant, Dante shaped the nether into a swirling black ball. Silent, or you die. Gala's face took on a resigned smile. I don't fear death. I do fear my clan. We're going to die down there anyway, aren't we? Blaze shouldered past Dante, nearly toppling him down the empty gap. What does it matter what we know? Our brains aren't tea leaves. When our skulls get split, all that will leak out is a bunch of goop. So sit your giant ass down and let the man talk. Fleetingly, Gala's smile widened. She lowered her curved blade, sheathed it. Fine. If he wants his final act to be the dishonor of his clan, let Josin Joe judge him. Morn kept his gaze on Dante. Orlin was using you to get back the cousin clan. Dante swallowed against the tightness in his throat. And now he's sold us out to the enemy while he rescues his people from the mine. No. Morn's face jerked up, tight with pain. Orlin just wanted your help. He didn't think he could secure it without making you believe you'd get the bow. You were sold out to Cassander by one of our other clansmen. He thought it was the only way to get his family back. He's the one who tipped off the bloody knuckles, too. Once he saw we were poised to take back the clan of the Green Lake ourselves, he confessed to Orlin and V. Is that it? The Norrin's gaze flicked past his shoulder. The raid on the mine is real. So is the timing. Meaning there's hope of an even bigger distraction? Dante glanced at Blaze. What do you think? That they'll kill me over my dead body. Blaze grabbed hold of the rope and searched for a toehold down the ruined steps. We should get downstairs. Block the door or see if we can make a run. I'll be right behind you. Dante turned and jogged back upstairs. His mind whirled with anger and the helpless sense of being duped, of illusions torn away like shabby clothes but there was no time for the self-pity or humiliation that welled beneath his outrage. On the upper floor, he lit his remaining candles and hurriedly placed them throughout the room. Cassander's forces thought they had surprise on top of numbers, no reason to disabuse them of their own illusions. The others had already disappeared downstairs. Dante hardly slowed on his way across the rope, spanning the gritty ledge. On the other side, he lit his feet with tiny white lights to show him the way, and hurried to the ground floor, where the others waited in starlit darkness. I count about forty verses five. Blaze slid down from the narrow window to give Gala a pointed look. Or should that be four? She shrugged her broad shoulders. 
I hope to see my clan again. With that kind of enthusiasm, let's bump it up to four and a half. We could just let them siege us. Morn and Gala are very large, so it should take several weeks to eat them. We need to run, Dante said. I'll lead the charge. Morn gazed at the black window. To erase my betrayal, I'll try to absorb as many arrows as I can. You getting shot to death is not a plan. Dante crept to the window. Beyond, silhouettes of soldiers arranged themselves on the other side of the road. A picket of three or four troops waited further down the road toward the mine. Presumably, a similar group was blocking the opposite route to the manor. More than two hundred yards of open downhill slope separated the tower from the pine forest to the west, the obvious place for Dante to lose their pursuers, or to string them out and battle them in clusters rather than en masse. Suppose they've got cavalry, too. In reserve at best, Blaze said. A horse snort carries pretty far at night. So, the good news is, the cavalry might trample the arrows right out of our backs. Can you make us invisible? Dante shook his head. Too complicated. I would have to match the illusions to whatever was around us, on all sides, constantly. Is that all? Blaze gritted his teeth. But you could make illusions of us, which could run out to do battle, swords in hand. While the real usses make a break for the woods. While you wrap us up in one of those balls of darkness, like back in Bressel. Wouldn't be able to see where we're going. We'll trip constantly. They'll be on us in seconds. Will you stop making this so damned hard? Blaze laughed. So, we hold hands. Morn's in the middle, I'm at the front. You focus on keeping the sphere centered around Morn's big head, keeping the darkness just wide enough so I can peek out the front and make sure we're not about to plunge into a ditch. That is insane! Dante laughed, too, waving one hand in dismissal. Don't bother to ask. No, I can't think of anything better. Lyra shook her head. I don't understand a word of what you two just said. Don't worry, neither did I. Blaze grinned. Just hang on to my hand and cut anyone who tries to take me away. Are those the same orders you'd give a man? I don't know. Become one, and we'll find out. Dante wasn't troubled by the idea of maintaining a shadow sphere during their run. In that alley in Bressel, the Ball of Darkness had been the very first time he'd used the Nether. In fact, it had appeared completely by accident a physical manifestation of his quite conscious desire to escape the men who'd been pursuing them. In much the same way he could hold a conversation while watching a play, he was certain he could keep up the sphere and their illusory doubles, even while being tugged along blinds down a hill. If he tripped, however, or inhaled a fly, all bets were off. Then it would be them, in the open, before some forty armed men. There was just enough space in the tower for the five of them to string themselves out hand in hand. Dante conjured the shadow sphere, concealing them inside a ball of perfect black. He shrunk the sphere until Blaze called out that he could see, then held its size in his mind, memorizing the influx and arrangement of Nether that would keep it at its present circumference. When he let the sphere fall away, the starlight was so crisp and silvery he could see the faces of the soldiers across the road. Dante drew the wavy knife he'd won at Nolodun and traced a stark red line down the back of his arm. 
Netha fed on the blood as it ticked to the floor. One by one, he shaped the shadows into doppelgangers of their waiting crew. The matches were far from perfect. Their flat eyes and chunky hair would easily be discredited in direct sunlight, but under full night, the hulking forms of two Norrin would be unmistakable. He finished the illusion with two human males, one blonde and one dark-haired, and a woman with her long brunette locks clamped tight in a ponytail. Lyra watched her double walk to the door with the strange half-smile of someone who's just heard something unspeakably rude. Well, Dante said slowly, his focus splintered between the five stiff figures. I hope I don't die with a stupid look on my face. Morn lifted the board braced across the entry. Dante leaned into the heavy wood door and flung it wide, leaping back into the safety of the tower. Someone whistled sharply from the enemy lines. Dante narrowed his eyes. The five images hunched down and crept out the door one by one. Stop! A man called from outside in a clear tenor. Dante straightened the figures and sent them racing north, paralleling the road to the mine. The man repeated his order. The five real people gathered just inside the tower doorway, linking hands. Blaze at the front, morn in the middle. With the illusions fifty feet away and gaining distance fast, Dante summoned the shadow sphere to center on Morn's head. Total blackness painted his eyes. Go, Blaze hissed. A moment later, Morn's thick hand yanked Dante forward, his right arm jangled, tugging Gala behind him. His feet swished into the weeds. Dante could no longer see the illusions except in his mind's eye, where they pumped their feet and sent horrified glances at every shout and command of Cassander's troops. But he heard the arrows slashing the air, the thump of the soldiers' boots in sprinting pursuit. His own foot slipped in the damp grass. The shadow sphere flickered, allowing a ghostly glimpse of sword-bearing men charging away after the illusory silhouettes. For an instant, both of Dante's feet left the ground, his arms straining between the two Norrin's unholy strength, and then he found his footing and ran and ran. He redoubled his focus. The shadow sphere returned to total darkness. His feet struck packed dirt, jarring painfully. Some ways to his left, what he hoped to the gods was the south, hooves thudded the turf. Then he was back in the grass, feet churning. Morn grunted in pain, but didn't break stride. Up the road, a man cried out a string of incredulous profanity. Dante kept hold on the doubles and the shadow sphere. The confusion spread to a babble of voices, each soldier demanding, in his own specific phrasing, to know what in the nine hells was happening. Dante relaxed his hold on the sphere. Across the road and a couple hundred yards toward the mines, a man poked his sword into one of the false Norrin and waggled the weapon from side to side. Dante sent a final pulse of Nether to the images. They popped in a rainbow-hued burst of silent light. Men cried out in surprise. The woods waited just ahead, thrusts of pine mixed with harvested stumps that could easily break an ankle. Dante dropped the shadow sphere completely, his hands slipped from Morns and Galas. Behind them, men scattered across the grass, hollering frustrated updates. Torches flared, casting yellow light and long shadows. Dante pounded into the fringes of the wood. For a moment, he thought they might escape without being seen at all. 
In the trees, a man shouted. Right there. Faces swung to stare their way. Men broke into dead runs, torches flapping, swords in hand. Archers set their feet. Moments later, the first arrows hissed through the leaves, smacking into trunks and burying shafts half a foot into the damp earth. Blaze swore and veered left through the pines, then swung into a sharp right. Lyra began to limp. Blaze fell back with her, and after a moment's hesitation, so did Dante. The two Norrins slowed to a jog as well. Torches flashed between the trees, closing. It was a matter of time. Yet the chase had strung out Cassander's soldiers, house guards with little discipline. Feet thrashed through weeds and leaves. Blaze stopped and whirled, ripping his swords from their sheaths. The nearest guard was a good twenty feet in front of the others. His eyes widened as he pounded down the slope, unable to stop. Is this how you treat your guests? Blazer's sword sent the man's head spinning into the grass. Three more soldiers rushed down the hill. Dante flung a bolt of nether through the closest man's chest. The soldier's breath left him in a horrid groan. He crashed into the undergrowth, skidding face first. The two others stopped, faces painted with sudden fear, torches crackling. Bursts of shadow leapt from Dante's hands. Blood flashed in the starlight. The two men gurgled in the ferns. For Beckenridge, a man screamed from up the slope. Ten soldiers spilled down with him. Something heavy thumped behind Dante. Gala lay on the grass, an arrow jutting from her skull. Morn lifted his gaze from the body. Wordless, he strode forward, raised his heavy sword, and slammed it down on the first man to reach him. His opponent blocked with a high, crossword slant. Steel banged on steel. The man's sword shot out of his hand, thudding to the dirt. Morn's next blow cut straight through the man's warding arm and halved his head. Swords and blood and screams moiled in the torchlight and darkness. To Dante's left, Blaze punched his sword forward to meet an incoming blade, the weapon straining between their chests. Blaze dipped his offhand blade, jabbed the soldier's foot. The man yelped and fell. Blaze stabbed him without looking, parrying the thrust of another guard. A man rushed Dante, straight sword aimed at his chest. Dante intercepted with his own, dropping back two steps from the man's downhill momentum, and sent a spear of nether battering through his ribs. Beside him, Lyra fainted, fainted again, then stumbled. As her opponent closed with a downward stroke, she lunged forward. The stumble, too, had been a faint, angling to the outside of the man's swipe and driving her own blade through his stomach. Uphill, a mounted man stopped his horse and turned it sideways. His downy hair glowed in the torchlight. Shadows flocked to Dante's fingers. He danced back from a man with a spear, putting Morn between them and winged a dark bolt for Cassander's midsection. White sparks burst from the Lord's stomach. Cassander cried out, slumping from his horse and collapsing to the ground. Your Lord is dead! Dante summoned a point of light high above his head, so bright and piercing he thought he could see the soldiers' skulls through their skin. Do you want to die with him? Cassander's guards shrunk back. Several bolted for their master, lying motionless in the grass. A bow whispered, 
an arrow gashed through Dante's left ear. I say we try the running again, Blaze said. Morn sheathed his sword, grabbed up Lyra, and slung her onto his back. She blinked, hoisting her sword to keep it from slashing the giant man. Other than the blood dripping down her temple, Gala still hadn't moved. Dante turned and ran down the hill. The land dropped sharply. Every step threatened to spill him. Morn somehow matched pace, Lyra bouncing on his back. A handful of arrows hissed past. The guards resumed the chase, torches winking behind the trees. But between the skirmish and those who'd stayed behind to tend to Cassander, the pursuers were less than half the number that had gathered beneath the tower. That, perhaps, explained why they stopped five minutes into the chase, their fires shrinking with each step Dante took through the wet grass. Dante heard nor saw any cavalry either. The slope was too steep for horses, the night too full, but suspected they'd patrolled the roads for days. Still they ran, leveling out and splashing across a frozen creek, then climbing through slippery pine needles and frost-glittered ferns. At the top of the hill, Morn called for a stop. Blaze bared his teeth, breathing hard. He gazed downhill and planted his hands on his hips. Well, I don't think we have to worry about starting a war anymore. What are you talking about? Dante said. That was a disaster. Exactly. Blaze nodded down the slope. Dante turned. At the mines, miles to the north, a great fire glared in the night, gouting white smoke. Far south, a second fire burned from the manor where they'd spent the last three nights. I'd say the war's already begun. Chapter 6 Well then, Dante said, let's be on our way. Blaze blinked in the moonlight. Did you hear me? That war we were trying so desperately to avert? Here it is. Right now, I'm a little more concerned about that. Dante tipped his head to the woody valley, lightly smeared with mist and smoke. Beagles howled from the trees. I don't think I'll be worried about a war after I'm passed through a dog's belly and deposited on some lord's lawn. You think being a pile of shit's going to save you? That'll just make it easier for Kelly to stomp you. Dante offered his hand to Morn, who looked cadaverous beneath his beard. Sorry to part this way. Perhaps we'll meet again. Morn stiffened. I thought I might come with you. We're going back to Narashtovic. We're done with your clan. I'm afraid I am too. What are you talking about? Blaze said. You can't just run off on your clan. The Norrin tipped back his high chin, frowning down on them. I can do whatever I want. I can jump down this hillside if I determine that to be a rewarding course of action. If you wouldn't consider me a millstone around your neck, I'd like to come with you. We could use your help with her anyway. Dante nodded at Lyra. Lyra raised an eyebrow. I'll be fine. It's a sprain, not an amputation. Lyle's balls. I'm just saying you can't run at a time when we may need to. Can we get a move on? She nodded, mollified. Dante cut east down the slope, reckoning by the stars and the twin columns of smoke. 
his footsteps stirred the scent of pine needles and minty wintrel leaves. Even with Lyra leaning on Morn's shoulder, the huge man moved lightly, stepping over low branches to leave them undisturbed. Not that it would help if the dogs cut up with them. If that happened, Dante would have to resort to methods that would provoke some very sharp words from Blaze. The canopy closed above their heads. Birds peeped from the darkness. The howls of the hounds faded miles away. Chasing the clan of the Nine Pines, then. Dante expected the clan could take care of itself. It had certainly taken care of his own small contingent. Orlin and V had played them like a hand of two bluff. Oh, you're looking for the quivering bow. Right this way. It happens to have been stolen by our worst enemy. If you'd like it back, all you have to do is everything we ask. Dante had let them lead him by the hand like a child crossing a thoroughfare. That knowledge tingled in his gut and prickled down his skin, hot and nauseous. In the cold, he felt his cheeks flushing. He'd let himself be swindled, blinded by a fantasy of a bow that can turn the tide of war by itself. Cassander had done the same, letting his people feed Dante vague hints of the Lord's wondrous new weapon, baiting the trap for Dante to make his move. Blaze was right. The burning of Cassander's estate would spark the very war he'd been trying to stave off. And yes, in all likelihood, that war would have come at some point, no matter what they'd done. Gask wasn't going to just shrug as its Norrin vassals shucked their chains and began governing themselves. Eventually it would have come to blows. Many thousands of them, in fact. But it didn't have to come so soon. The stars had shifted by degrees by the time they struck camp. Fog drifted from the pines, pattering the tarp strung above their heads. Dante had a look at Lyra's leg. The healing wound was scarring nicely, but the skin around was swollen and pink. He soothed the ache with a flood of cool nether, then did the same for her sprained ankle. No one had even bothered to suggest striking a fire. Blaze passed around hard sausage and harder bread, crumbs falling from his lips. He thunked down in front of a tree and leaned against its mossy trunk. I don't see why we're bothering to run, he said. Not when Callie's just going to glare off our heads the moment we step foot in the city. He knew the risks. Dante gestured in the direction of the Norrin territories. This whole enterprise was his idea. And I think it was also his idea that we not take a torch to one of our enemy's bluest bloods. Then he probably shouldn't have sent us. Blaze grinned. You know, he might actually buy that. Who is this Callie? Lyra said. Another enemy? The pair laughed. Blaze rubbed his mouth. I don't know. Do you think a dog considers its worms the enemy? Dante tipped his head. I'd say he's more like a bull who can't tell the difference between the flies and his own hooves. I don't follow your path, Lyra frowned. Callie is the lord of the sealed citadel and head of Aron's council at Narashtavik, Dante said. I know him from our homeland. He taught me most of what I know, about the nether, anyway. I wouldn't even want to know what he thinks about art or women. He's an extremely clever and capable leader, 
who runs things in a way that would probably look outright blasphemous to the attendees of his weekly masses. In short, he's cunning, demanding, and unpredictable, but I know him well enough to guess he'll be madder than he's ever been. But you were pursuing a just cause, freeing the people you want to protect. Won't that count for anything? If anything, it'll make him madder. Blaze laughed again. Anyway, we weren't blazing the trails of righteousness. We were chasing a fairy story. Dante fought the flush down from his face. Which won't help. Lyra's face slowly went blank. Might he try to harm you? He's no Vartigan. He won't stuff our intestines with pork. Dante took a bite of cold sausage. But to redeem ourselves, he'll probably expect us to do a series of very dangerous things. Blaze scuffed his boot across the dirt, kicking away stray stones. Then again, that's what makes it so much fun. Lyra nodded, but the lines on her brow and lip suggested what she left unsaid. Dante gazed into the dark woods. Mice crept through the leaves. Every few minutes, an owl screeched like it was calling from another world. He hadn't heard the dogs in a couple of hours. They were miles east of the manor. He wondered if Blaze would accept first watch. His use of the nether back at the tower had frayed his nerves. He might pass out soon. Do you really think this will lead to war? Morn said. Dante looked up. The Norrin hadn't said a word in more than an hour. How closely do you monitor the political sentiment in Setevan? I follow my clan. His beard twitched unreadably. We keep to ourselves. Well, the king's not dumb. Setevan knows what's going on. They can see the Norrin are gearing up for independence, but we've been very careful to deny them any explosive proof. Tonight, with the assistance of a contingent of humans from Narashtavik, an outlaw clan broke into a nobleman's manor deep in Gaskin lands, made off with his property, and killed any number of human citizens in the process. Which other human citizens will take offense to? Popular opinion is a form of currency, Dante said. Tonight we dropped a gold brick in their laps. The Norin nodded. Through their talk, he hadn't quite met Dante's eyes. His gaze began to drift toward the center of their camp, where they might have built a fire if they weren't eluding pursuit. So what's the plan tomorrow? Blaze clapped. Some light robbery. Fatten our purses enough for three horses and an elephant for that one. He jerked his thumb at Morn. I thought we'd go downriver, Dante said. Northwest. That's the way the river goes. We are talking about the same Narashtavik, right? The same one that's thoroughly northeast. Hundreds of miles northeast. The distance between which may be thick with people looking for our faces. Take the river to the ports at its mouth. Then sail back to Narashtavik. Blaze narrowed one eye at Lyra. What do you say? Yalin's a busy port. Lyra said, whatever you think is best. Morn didn't glance away from his imaginary fire at camp's center. I've never been this far north, unless my parents took me here when I was very small. 
but even if they did, I don't remember anything that would make my input worthwhile. Play shrugged. I like ports. No one stays there too long for you to get sick of them. And if they do, you can just ship yourself off instead. Whether or not the rest of the group agreed, that ended the conversation. Dante found his head snapping upright. He nodded off. I'll take first watch. Morn said, meeting his eyes for a moment. For now, my brain would rather think than sleep. Dante didn't pretend to protest. Sleep rolled over him as sudden and unstoppable as a landslide. He spent most of the next day's walk to the river thinking about what he'd say to Callie. Maybe that was part of his motivation for wanting to sail home rather than taking the overland route. On a boat, you were much more likely to be racked on a reef or enslaved by pirates or stranded on an island beyond sight or hope of shore. Some ships just disappeared completely, like they'd sailed beyond the rim of the world. If he got lucky, maybe the same thing would happen to him. Ultimately, there wasn't much to say. He could play up the idea they were primarily involved to help the two clans, and thus earn their loyalty, but he'd still have to explain about the quivering bow. Callie would find out somewhere else, anyway. For him, ears sprouted like mushrooms. Dante and Blaze weren't the only ones he had gallivanting around the Norrin territories. Somber was out there as well, and he had an entire network of scouts, spies, and informants. Anyway, Callie would have planned for the contingency of sudden war. It was not in his nature to assume all would follow his most ideal plan. Still, Dante did not look forward to bearing the bad news. The river was wide and gray and cold. Smooth rocks clattered along its muddy banks. Fishing villages poked from the mist every few miles. At dusk, the lanterns of a modest town glimmered over the black water. Their group encamped a quarter mile from the road with the intention of enlisting passage downriver in the morning. Given their combined coinage could be held in a single palm without spilling, Dante wasn't certain how they'd hire their way, but there was always violence. Though they'd seen no sign of pursuit during the day, Dante once again ruled out a fire, no matter how badly his feet and legs ached from the walk. The others were quiet and heavy-lidded, lost in their own thoughts of future days. Dante conjured up a small figure of light and shadow, sculpted its hair into Blaze's tight crop, and shaped a tiny scabbard on its back and hip. For the next several minutes, he sent the figure bumbling over leaves, pawing through the grass, and scrabbling up trunks and limbs, each quest ending with an abrupt fall, be it of the figure to the ground or a spectral boulder on top of the figure, until Dante sensed his audience growing tired. With a flourish, the figure drew its swords, one white and one black, cocked its head in confusion, then drove both blades through its own ribs. It disappeared with a pop and a wisp of shadow. I think you're in the wrong line of work, Blaze said. You should be touring taverns. I thought it was funny, Lyra said. Thanks. Dante was surprised at himself. He wasn't normally the type to care about morale. The task itself should be important enough to command the focus of whoever pursued it. 
Perhaps he was trying to distract himself, too. He and Blaze had been playing this shadowy business for years, getting weapons to the scattered clans, forging relationships and alliances, traveling in disguise as merchants and field workers and malish pilgrims, all the while looking to subvert the Gascon lords who claimed the Norren Hills. In its way, it had very much been a game, like children dressing up as pirates and bygone heroes, or concealing themselves with branches and cloaks while their parents pretended not to see them. All this was about to change. There would be no denying the realness of their actions once wheat fields burned and smoke rose from the ashes of ten thousand homes. Dante had seen plenty of skirmishes. One time, he'd even fought in a proper battle with a few hundred to a side. They'd piled the dead in pyres and choked under greasy clouds. What would the Norren territories look like a month from now? A year? I could tell a story. Morn stared into the empty center of the camp. If you are people who find stories entertaining. Blaze gave him a skeptical look. I prefer to be entertained by boredom. Stories and music just bore me, which then entertains me, which then bores me, and... Hold on, my head's about to burst. Is that a no? Dante smiled with half his mouth and gestured at the bare earth beneath their dewy top. Does it look like you'd be interrupting our great works? Out with it. Moon's watery brown eyes flicked between the group. Okay. Well, promise you'll tell me if it gets too long. Blaze mock scowled. Please, Morn, there's a lady present. This is from a very long time ago, from before the animals forgot how to talk. He pursed his lips. Or maybe we just forgot how to talk to them. That seems equally likely, doesn't it? How come it's always their fault? Pretty arrogant of us talking creatures, if you ask me. Getting long, Blaze warned. Back then, crows lived in big flocks, fifty, even two hundred at once. They sang to each other because they thought it was fun. Their voices were different then, too, not all nasty and mad. Instead, some had voices like thick blankets after a night in the snow. Others had voices like fast streams after a run through summer hills. For a long time, the flocks lived alone in the pines. Singing to each other, talking. One day, a lost traveller wandered into their woods. He heard the crows singing, talking. He tipped back his head, more lost than ever in their music, transfixed until that night when they roosted in the boughs. The traveller found his way home to the lowlands, and he told the others what he'd heard. Soon, all kinds of travellers climbed into the high forest. They listened to the crow's song, too. After a few weeks of watching his fellow villagers climbing up and down the mountains, a clever man decided to catch some crows and bring them back to town so he could charge people to hear them sing. At first, he couldn't catch any of them. 
The crows knew the forest so well they could have escaped even with a broken wing. But the man came back with his nets every day, and finally he caught two crows. He brought them home and opened a little theatre, and all the other villagers came to hear the crows sing, to hear them talk. But that didn't stop the people from hiking up the hills. Other men wanted to open little theatres of their own. Soon, everyone in the village wanted a pair of crows for their own home, for pets, to ease the hours on their farms and mills. More and more crows left in cages. The older birds in the flocks didn't know what to do. The people kept coming, more and more of them, and they had cunning nets and snares. They were patient, too. They hid in the trees until the crows landed for the night, then snatched them up in bags and carried them off to distant lands. Morn paused, running his hands through his thick hair. All the while he'd stared into the imaginary fire, even squinting as he spoke, as if warding away the glare of flames that weren't there. He let out a long breath. But a young crow named Non was getting angry. Like all crows, he knew they weren't born with their sweet voices, their soothing songs. Berries grew among vines that lived in the crowns of the pines, and if he ate the berries, the roughest voice grew as smooth as glass. Non wanted to tell the people about the berries. If they grew them for themselves, they could eat them and sing to each other instead of coming to steal the crows away from their homes. The elders exchanged one look, then locked Non up in a cage of their own. They refused to let him out until he promised not to tell. The people kept coming, stealing crows, sometimes whole flocks. The old crows accepted this because most escaped to have more fledglings and keep their flocks alive. When Non grew sick of his cage, he made his vow to the elders. He was released. He kept his vow. Perhaps it could have lasted this way forever, a few crows lost here and there to greedy hands while the luckier ones lived on. But one night, on a hike up the mountain, a man dropped his lantern. Flaming oil boiled up the trunks. The whole forest burned to the ground. The crows had wings, so the flocks flew together to a new forest. But this forest had none of the vine berries. Soon the crows lost their cool song, their warm words. They croaked and squawked. To their ears the sound was so hard and ugly they couldn't stand to hear each other speak. The flocks broke apart. They stayed apart. Now... Crows live alone. They glare at people from the branches. And when a man grows too close, crows curse and spit until he goes away. Morn didn't move, but he seemed to shrink in the silence that followed his story. Lyra nodded, eyes downcast. Blazer's brows knit together and stayed tied, unusually serious. Dante watched Morn. I haven't heard that one before. The Norrent didn't look up. What did you think? 
I liked it. Very much. I mean about none. Do you think he should have told the humans about the berries, or should he have kept quiet like his flock wanted him to? The whole damn forest burned down, Blaze said. Of course he should have told them. But he vowed not to, Lyra said. Could you betray your people like that? I'd rather hang myself. Blaze cocked his head. Can crows get hanged? They seem awfully light. It can't be done. She rose and paced the cleared ground, head rumpling the underside of the sagging tarp. Your loyalty is all you have. If you forfeit that, you burn the forest of your soul. Morn watched her, expressionless, then slowly turned to meet Dante's eyes. What do you think? Dante held up his palms. I can't say. Yeah, the forest burnt down, but none didn't know that would happen. Judging from hindsight is like betting after the fight is won. What would you have done? If I thought it was the right thing to do? Dante shook his head. I would have brought the berries down myself and broken the wing of anyone who tried to stop me. Morn laughed through his nose, mouth maintaining its blank straight line. If I had to bet, which I don't, I bet you would. Cavernous sorrow opened across his face, then disappeared. He smoothed his beard. Josen Joe doesn't speak to us. That doesn't mean he frowns on what we're doing, Dante said. Anyway, gods can't speak to you every second of the day, Blaze said. He's probably off doing godly things, screwing a goose or whatever. I don't just mean us. Morn gestured across the small camp. He doesn't speak to anyone. Well, I can't state that as fact. Maybe he really does speak to some people. We probably think they're crazy, though. But he certainly doesn't speak to me, or to Orlin, or to V. Dante glanced between the others. What are you talking about? I said, we don't speak to Joseon Joe. Morn reached for his silver and bone earring, carefully unclasping it from the rim of his coin-sized ear. He extended it to Dante, gaze level. We speak to each other. Understanding hit Dante as quickly as the memory of a chore you were supposed to have handled the day before. Acceptance took significantly longer. Such a thing couldn't exist. It was just as imaginary as the quivering bow, and possibly just as powerful. What the hell does that mean? Blaze scowled at Dante. You look like you're about to kiss him with your eyes, and find out whether those eyes have tongues. Um, Dante said. Morn just gazed back. Dante hesitated, mouth half open. Morn couldn't really be saying that. If Dante said what he thought Morn meant, he'd look like a fool, a child, 
the kind of simpleton who believes every story he hears about fairies, dragons, and the sexual prowess of men from the Golden Coast. Are you saying what I think you're saying? Moore nodded. At last, Dante shook his head. I don't know what you'd call it. We call them loons, Morn said. Of course you do, Blay said. Now tell me what they are before I embed you in this tree. If I understand correctly, Dante said slowly, loons are a way of speaking. He glanced at Morn, who nodded. Across great distances. Correct, Morn said. Blaze rolled his eyes and flung up his hands. So? Battlefield trumpets can do the same thing. Is there any limit to how far they can talk? Dante asked Morn. Not that I know of. The Norrin shrugged. But I don't know much about loons besides they exist. Dante turned to Blaze. If you're capable of anything besides flapping around like a salmon, think for a moment. If we had a set of these, we could tell Callie what happened right now. As soon as he got done shouting at us, he could then tell us what to do next. He gestured at the dark woods. If we had loon-equipped scouts across Gask, they could report the moment some lord levies his troops. If we posted them along the river... They could tell us the instant Gask's armies cross into the Norren territories. We would know every step of their advance as they took it. Meanwhile, their reports would lag behind by hours, days, weeks. Blazer's head tipped so far back he looked straight down his nose. I can see how that could be useful. Forget that quivering bow of yours, Lyra said. It sounds like you found something even greater. Silence retook the camp. Again, Dante thought about his future. From their downcast faces, he knew the others were doing the same. This time, however, it was not with unease and mounting dread, but with wary optimism. Like spotting the hole in a rickety bridge before it plunged him into darkness. If he was careful, he could still find a way to the other side. Well, that was only true if he learned to harness the loon, to make more. He looked up from the bit of bone and metal. I'm going to need this, Morn. I know. I may have to take it apart, or break it. For all I know, I'll have to eat it. The big man raised his bearish shoulders. Do whatever you want with it. It won't be speaking to me again. Dante worked through the night. He hadn't meant to. It was just that, after what could only have been an hour and a half with the loon, two at most, he looked up to see the grey-blue breath of pre-dawn warming the trees of the eastern shore. He sat back on the dirt, suddenly bone-weary, as much from nether spending and lack of sleep as from the knowledge that he likely wouldn't get any rest until they were snuggled into a cabin on a barge, punt, or river schooner, headed for the sea. The loon had resisted him. Any artifacts powered by nether or ether were excessively rare. 
The only one Dante owned was the torch stone, a source of light as portable as a coin, immune from the dangers of blowing out or setting unexpected fires, and capable of glowing brightly for a couple hours before it needed some sleep of its own. Dante hadn't yet explored much artificing himself. He was aware of some theory, sure. The main problem appeared to be that the raw energy of nether and ether was notoriously difficult to bind to the solid matter of bone or rock or steel. It tended to slip away, to leach through cracks, to boil off. Eventually, for all your hard work, you were left holding a perfectly ordinary jewel or amulet or dagger. Fickle, shifting nether was particularly difficult to work with. Ether was more stable, more pure and abstract, in a way, and if you were clever enough, it wasn't impossible to bind the energy of ether-generated light to a stone meant also to generate light. For Dante, however, trying to wield the ether was like trying to wrestle a full-grown tuna to shore using nothing but his elbows. He didn't know why the ether resisted him so strongly. Maybe his inborn talent for handling the nether had come at the cost of being able to work its stabler counterpart. Not everyone who could work nether could work ether, and vice versa. Even among those who could handle both, most found one far easier to work with than the other, and thus specialized in it. In fact, if Dante devoted years to learning the ways of the ether, there was a fair chance he could learn to harness it. But why spend all that time learning to walk with the ether when he could already fly with the nether? A decision he regretted quite bitterly now that he was faced with the looms. As the others had bedded down on the hard dirt, he walked a short way from camp and delved into the loom. Physically, the main body of the earring was a single knuckle-sized talon or tooth, scrimshawed with Norrin runes too fine to read. A short silver chain contained two pea-sized bones, one shaped like a wishbone or stirrup, the other resembling a C or the curve of a jaw. The chain connected the talon to a silver icon resembling an arrowhead. Dante suspected it was a stylized pine tree. On its back, a blunt hook helped secure the arrowhead to a fold of the inner ear, while allowing the talon to dangle free. Meanwhile, a clasped ring would connect it securely through Mourn's piercing. Dante closed his hand over the loon and shut his eyes. He breathed slowly, deadening his thoughts, focusing on the feel of moonlight on his skin, the taste of the wind, the noise of the stones. Nether pooled around his hand and sunk through his knuckles. Where it touched the loon, his inner eye saw its shape. Threads of ether wound through both silver and bone, the hair fine strands as bright as sunlight on a pane of glass. His mind sight swam closer and closer until each thread loomed as big as a rope. Perhaps it was a rope. At closer look, what appeared to be a single thread was composed of hundreds of other minute fibers. He moved closer yet, examining a fiber, and saw it too was woven from hundreds of threads of its own. He pulled back, dizzy. The bright white threads faded. The loon was a simple thing again, 
a physical trinket of metal and bone. It felt like short minutes had passed. In the gaps in the canopy, the stars had leapt a quarter of the way across the sky. He closed his eyes and delved again. Did the structure of these threads within threads lend the item its power? Or did that just happen to be the form that power took when the ether that formed them bound to the matter? This time, he kept his focus broad. The gleaming white threads converged at three distinct points. One node met inside the tiny wishbone. The other met inside the tiny sea. The other was less densely packed around the blunt hook on the backside of the arrowhead, more resembling a tight net than a solid ball of ether. Other threads tangled through the earring as well, sparse by contrast. Structural support, perhaps. Subjectively, he spent an hour or so poking at the loon with delicate probes of nether, exploring crannies, turning it over for a better feel for its hole. And when he emerged, the dawn approached the eastern shore. He rose to urinate, then rooted through his pack for his water skin and a tore-off handful of bread. Long stale. At least the humidity kept it moist. Then he fitted the loon to his ear, holding it in place, he had no piercing himself, and listened. A minute later, he'd heard nothing but the pine jays greeting the sun. He waited for Moon to wake up, empty his bladder and gargle a mixture of water and salt, then held up the loon. You both hear and speak through this. Morn tipped his head to one side. I used to. Was it always active, or did it only speak to you when someone had something to say? It spoke like an old monk, rarely, and only when telling me what to do. Dante smiled. The others woke soon, stretching, rubbing their limbs. Blaze spit the dryness from his mouth. Lyra stretched and executed a choreographed set of martial exercises. After a cold breakfast, they cut through the woods toward the town on the river. Dante's head felt like a bruised cloud. They paused at the edge of the woods. Gray light touched the wet timbers of the town. A few pedestrians mingled with the mule teams hauling sacks and wagons to and from the piers. Smoke rose from the chimneys of pine-board houses. Look like anyone's planning to kill us, Blaze said. Dante squinted. No more than usual. Lyra frowned between them. That's usual. We have an unfair share of detractors. Blaze hoisted his sword belt up his hips. Probably because I'm so pretty. Two barges creaked at the piers. A rowboat inched downstream. Seagulls soared over the gray waves. Dante's pockets felt very light. He needn't have worried. Down on the docks, where the water smelled like wet rocks and fish bones, Blaze haggled with a barge master. The captain expected a load of coal and timber that morning. He'd be taking it all the way to Yallon. Short-handed, he offered the four of them passage in exchange for helping to load the barge and guard it from pirates on their way to the sea. Dante teetered on the planks of the dock, 
gazing forlornly at the broad barge. I could use a nap. That's what nights are for, Blaze said. If you plan it right, you can even get two or three good naps in a row. I was working on Morn's jewelry. Is that all it takes to make you swoon? If Lyra gave you a pair of her bloomers, you'd die of starvation. Lyra gazed pointedly toward the river. A pink blotch appeared on her turned cheek. Dante left for the nearest inn, a two-story place with a flagstone-paved porch and a mast rising from its roof, a towering trunk of pine stripped of all branches and bark. The wood was lacquered smooth, shiny under the overcast skies. The innkeeper was in the process of blessing plates of eggs and potatoes and bread, flicking drips of water over the steaming bowls, then snapping sprigs of wintrel and depositing them in the small wire basket suspended over their hexagon candles at the center of the table. Toasted mint filled the warm room. The innkeeper said a quick prayer to Aron, then finished the rite by blowing a pinch of flour mingled with black sand, the grist of Aron's broken mill, over the candles. Dante watched, transfixed. However many times he saw such open worship of Aron, he couldn't help his shock. Back in Malin, it would get a man tortured at the least. Probably he'd never be seen again. Dante rented a room for the day and collapsed into the straw mattress. Lyra knocked an hour later. He rose, confused and aching, feeling worse than before. Down at the docks, mules and wagons crowded onto ramps, unloading cords of wood and crates of coal. A crewman with a salt and pepper beard gave Lyra a wink. Now need to dirty your hands, ma'am. Prefer a tour of the ship instead. She stared him down. Do you think my breasts get in the way if I try to lift a crate? The man backed off with his palms raised, muttering an apology. Behind Lyra's back, Blaze shot Dante a smirk. It was the last smile Dante would see for some time. The next two hours were a monotony of picking up a cord of wood, crossing the flat gangplank, and tromping downstairs to one of the holds. Dante's leather gloves and the front of his doublet grew crusty with resinous sap. Blaze was panting within a few minutes, too. Lyra shuffled back and forth and up and down, face gray with pain, pausing regularly to catch her breath and rest her leg. Morn came and went without slowing down, strong as a flood, inevitable as the tides. Before long, Dante lost track of everything but the lessened gravity of setting down a bundle of wood. Two hours later, he rose to the docks and blinked in confusion. They were empty, removed of everything but stray twigs, flakes of bark, and black patches of coal dust. They were done. So was he. Ensconced in a hammock below decks, he slept until darkness. On waking, his body was sore from neck to soles, but his mind felt as if he'd just emerged from a warm bath. For several minutes, he did nothing more than breathe the cold air, smell the clean water, and listen to the soft slap of waves against the hull. Then he retired to a quiet corner of the empty deck and considered the loon 
until dawn. Examining its physical and ethereal structures wasn't doing him any good. He didn't know enough about artificing to tease any meaning from the knotted and netted lines of ether. Instead, he needed to approach the loon from a theoretical standpoint. If he understood the thinking that allowed it to be created in the first place, he could, if nothing else, present Callie with a framework to allow the old man to duplicate the earring's function. Not that this was any easier. What did the loon do? It sent your voice, and allowed you to hear back from someone who might be hundreds of miles away. Earlier, Morn had informed him the effect was instantaneous, or something very near it. So its principles didn't rely on those of noises that carried long distances. Thunder, for instance, could be heard miles from its source, but it could take several seconds after the lightning for the roar to reach your ears. If a trumpeter sounded his horn across a valley, you wouldn't hear the first note until after he finished blowing. Sounds traveled fast, but it wasn't instant. That implied the distance itself was somehow shortened, as if a piece of the speaker and the listener had been embedded in the loon, so when the speaker spoke, the loon spoke with him, however far away he might be. Morn dashed that theory, too. According to him, a loon could be used by anyone. That was part of why the clan of the Nine Pines kept their secret so close. Any enemy could listen in as easily as a member of the clan. Alternately, the loons themselves were perfect duplicates, identical twins who resonated as one. But Dante'd never heard of such a thing. You couldn't just copy a tooth. Silver, cast in the same mold from the same ingot, did not make the pieces the same. He couldn't rule out the idea completely, but as a solution, it didn't compel him in the slightest. Four days cycled along. Blaze gambled with the crew by nights, winning more than he lost. It wouldn't be enough to buy them passage on a ship to Narashtavik, but at least they'd be able to pay for food and lodging while they worked out those logistics. Lyra fended off the advances of sailors and paced around the deck to keep her leg limber and strong. Morn whittled arrowheads from scrap wood, embellishing his pieces with hooks and grooves and jagged edges. Is that supposed to kill someone? Blaze said leaning over a piece shaped like a devil's saw blade. Or circumcise him. Morn frowned up from his makeshift workbench. What circumcise? Blaze grinned. Dante walked off before he could explain. After the turmoil of the last few weeks, the peace of the passage down river was like an evening beer after a day behind the plough. Occasionally they were called on to haul cargo to the piers of various villages and towns, but for the most part those four days passed in total quiet. The morning of the fifth day since they hopped ship, the river widened until a mile of water separated its shores. Craggy islands jutted from the slowing current, furry with pines. The western shore neared as the river swung due north. Smoke curled from the damp trees. Sections of forest disappeared in favor of dark brown fields and young green shoots of winter wheat.
Above an inlet protected by a high spar of limestone, docks jutted into the grey water. Downstream, three more barges coasted toward the sea. A two-deck galley thrashed the water with its many oars. They reached Yallan by mid-afternoon. The city consumed the western bank of the delta. Two high-arched bridges spanned the sluggish water, connecting the larger islands and the eastern shore with its smoky tents, shacks, and furnaces. Masts piked the river, clustering thickly on piers that bustled with sailors and merchants and travelers. Instead of a wall, the city was banded at intervals by greasy canals some forty feet wide and spanned by low wooden bridges. Flat-bottomed boats navigated the canals with poles or ropes strung along the brick-lined walls. Inland, three hills considered the sprawl, their crowns heavy with towers and high wooden manors. Beneath, three-story row houses stood shoulder to shoulder, capped by sharply canted roofs of tar-sealed pine. The shining grey sea waited beyond the last of the islands, Dante smelled salts and shit and the cold of northern waters. What do you think? he said to Blaze, who watched beside him. It looks, Blaze said, like a place where things happen. I think it looks like a place where you figure out how to get us a boat. Why do I always have to be the one who gets things done? I'm sorry, Dante said twirling the loon between his fingers. I've been a little busy trying to save us all from decorating the spires of Setevan with our skulls. Blaze snorted. You've got nothing to worry about. Your skull's too ugly to show in public. Seriously, do you have any ideas? I have a very firm thought, in fact. Dante raised his brows. What's that? That you should shut up and let me do my thing. The barge angled toward the crowded docks. A couple hundred yards from the crush of ships, an oared tug pilot met them in the waves. Ropes flew between the vessels. Ashore, a team of oxen churned their hooves in the mud, guiding the barge into port. Hulking Norrin and well-tanned men coiled ropes, lowered barrels, and argued on the briny planks. Dante pulled up the cowl of his plain black cloak. The barge squeaked against the dock. Sailors flung ropes over the railing, followed by their own bodies. They landed lightly and tied knots as nimbly as the toe dancers of sway. Across the deck, Lyra climbed into the sunlight. Dante moved to intercept her. There's a fountain at the far end of the plaza. He pointed, then pulled her behind the safety of a cabin wall. The one shaped like a leaping salmon. I want you and Morn to wait there while Blaze and I see about finding us a boat. The creases of a subtle insult crinkled her eyes. Do you consider us baggage? Baggage? Bulky objects to be set aside whenever you plan to put your hands to use? He frowned. I consider you flags. Conspicuous things to be waving around when I'm worried about being found and flayed by the agents of a wealthy lord. She regarded him for some time. You won't learn to wholly trust us until you put us to use. 
We'll see about that as soon as we're out of increasingly hostile territory. For now, trust me and go wait by that damn fountain. Sailors and stevedores hollered back and forth. Once more, the four of them pitched in to help unload, sweating in the chill breeze. The last of the lumber touched the dock an hour before the sun would touch the western hills. Pax shouldered, Dante and Blaze thumped down the planks to the relatively dry land beyond the docks, a sodden square of wide-spaced cobbles choked with mud, sand, manure, and well-trampled grass. Taverns, public houses, and tailors fronted the square. Blocky warehouses rose behind them. Morn and Lyra entered the crowds and crossed toward the fountain with the salmon. Beneath his hood, Dante scanned the throng, easily distinguishing the sailors in their tight leggings from the locals in their knee-length fur coats. No one seemed to be paying any special mind to the Norrin and the woman. By the time Dante turned away, Blaze had already flagged down his first sailor and asked which ships were Narashtavik-bound. The sailor chewed his beard a moment, and then, his breath smelling of yeasty beer, rattled off the names of three vessels that would depart the next day. Where are they docked? Blaze said. The sailor scowled. Seems to me anybody who knows that would be some kind of expert. You know the thing about experts. They have expertise. And they don't give it away free. Blaze's brows muddled. Then he laughed. They sure don't. For your time and trouble, most honored bosun. He passed the bearded man an iron twopenny. The sailor ran his thumb along its clipped rim. The boons at Pier 15, the Vanea's song at Fairy's Punt. Can't miss it, he said, pointing downstream to a dock that bent from the shore like a misshapen Y. And the bad tidings is berthed at the Westlong docks. He gestured further downriver, then squinted between Dante and Blaze. Might not want to hop ship just yet, though. Hear bad things are coming Narestovic way. Like what? Dante said. The man shrugged, gazing off to sea with weighty significance. Aron's own dead, sent to right the heresy of that old man in the tower. He shrugged again. Anyway, that's what they say. Zombies, Blaze said, hushed. My goodness, I'm going to need a bigger sword. Pier 15 was just a short ways down the muddy banks. The boon was a large longboat, bearing a single square-sailed mast and a high bank of oar holes, but one of its mates informed them it was all booked and refused access to either of the ship's quartermasters. Marine-green kelp swirled in the cold estuary. They thumped down the salt-whitened planks toward the bent protrusion of Fairy's Punt. There, sailors dangled on ropes over the railings of the Vanea's song, gouging barnacles from its high hull with flat iron chisels. Taking passengers! Blaze hollered from below. Without turning, a soldier jerked his thumb at a rope bridge bobbing softly in the low swells. Dante frowned, waiting for more explicit permission. Blaze strode forward and threw himself onto the ladder. 
From the ship's deck, Dante had a clear view of the longboats, galleys, barges, caravels, and sloops snarling the dock between them and the open sea. Inland, a seaborne breeze dragged chimney smoke across the steep roofs of the city. Blaze rapidly learned two of the song's quartermasters were ashore in taverns unknown, but the third remained in his cabin. Blaze knocked on his well-cleaned door without hesitation. A middle-aged man opened it a moment later, his scowl deepening the heavy creases around his eyes, one of which was clamped tight around a thick glass lens. We'd like passage to Narashtavik, Blaze said. We have... The man's lens flashed. Four rounds and four pennies per body. Well, you see, we don't have that, but we do have someone in Narashtavik who would happily... Four rounds and four pennies per body to be paid before your boots hit the deck. Dante bared his teeth. It was easily three times what they had on hand. Perhaps we could strike a bargain for other services. The man's vowels were flat with an eastern accent Dante couldn't quite place. Four rounds and four pennies per body. Blazer's spine stiffened. You, sir, have just lost a customer. Four of them. He turned before the quartermaster could interject another word. They descended to the dock, which was suddenly chilly and thick with the scent of overripe fish. They don't leave until tomorrow, Dante said. That gives us plenty of time to locate a few pockets heavier than our own to relieve their owners of their burden. Blaze nodded, distant. I don't know. That could attract attention. Since when did you consider that a bad thing? Since legions of soldiers might be on our heels, not to mention the grumbling we'd face from Lyra. Dante waved his hand. She's so high on her horse I doubt we'd hear a word of it. Anyway, just because crimes are fun and easy doesn't mean I always want to do them. Blaze gestured downstream, in the vague direction the sailor had indicated for the West Long Docks. Besides, we've got at least one legit chance left. Dante considered him a moment, then headed down the docks, swerving around an inborn oxen team and the spittle flying from the driver's lips. A quarter-mile walk took them to a rather less peopled stretch of warehouses and half-paved streets. Grains of wheat and corn speckled the muddy alleys. Planks lay between the stone streets and the doors of the blocky lofts and silos. Broad, flat barges wallowed in the waters beside the thick piers. Mussels and dark green slime coated the pilings. The Bad Tidings was one of the few sailboats at the Westlong, with one high mainmast and two smaller and well-mended sails snapping in the steady offshore wind. Blaze hollered more than once before a sailor in a knit cap popped up on its deck. The crewman let them aboard to see yet another quartermaster, a man in his early forties with a beard thick enough to raise robins in. His name was Mart, and he was blunt but reasonable. Over the course of a few minutes, Dante and Blaze bargained him from a fare that outstripped the official on the song, and down to a mere three rounds and change apiece, still more than double what they had on hand. I'm sorry, but that's as low as reason allows. Mart reached for a much-scribbled scrap of paper. If you change your minds, 
We'll be here until tomorrow afternoon. Dante sighed through his nose. I hope by then to be able to take advantage of your generosity. Blaze glanced out the porthole. Sunset's last red spark trickled through the bubbly glass. He leaned from his chair and slapped the wooden floor. What are you hauling here? Mart glanced up, eyes sharp. Barley. A whole lot of barley. Got rats? Does the king's mistress have crabs? That would explain the pettiness of some of his recent policies. Maybe we can offer you something besides money. Blaze tipped his head toward Dante. My friend here is the finest rat catcher in the land, possibly in all the lands. Mart smiled indulgently. Is that so? So they say. Dante played along. Here's my proposal. Blaze leaned forward conspiratorially, patting Dante on the shoulder. My friend Blegworth goes down into your hold and goes to work on your rats. If he clears them all out, we get free passage, us and our two companions. But if he leaves a single rat alive, we go on our merry way, and you still have a whole lot less rats in your hold. I'll need complete solitude, Dante said. The presence of others might scare the rats into their dens. Mart juttered his lower jaw. So you can steal the rum, or set fire to the entire hold? What then? Blaze held out his hands. Then you and your crew stab us until you feel justice is served. The quartermaster laughed for the first time. I can't tell if you're arrogant or insane, but it sounds like I win either way. If you can get rid of all the rats, the trip is on me. They squared off the details. The crew was still in the midst of relocating goods, refreshing supplies, and patching sails, but Mart claimed he'd have them cleared out below decks by eleventh bell of the evening. Dante climbed down to the deck and headed off ship. On their way to meet Morn and Lyra, Blaze stepped over a grassy pile of manure. So, can you actually do that? I have no idea. Fantastic. Do you think you can do it? Dante slowly shook his head. I have an idea. I can't say whether it's a good one. If it were, I would be highly skeptical it was yours. Thanks for volunteering me, by the way. If I can't pull it off, I expect you to sell your body for the cause. Blaze snorted. If I did that, we could buy our own boat. Then get to work. Dante detoured around the ring of hooting bystanders. In their middle, two men swayed and postured, throwing more insults than punches. What did you call me back there? Blegworth? You look like a Blegworth. Lanterns sputtered from plaza poles and the cabins of boats. Blaze waited at the plaza's edge while Dante rendezvoused with the others. Water sprayed from the mouth of the stone salmon on the fountain. They accepted his explanation with little comment. Moorn looked tired, Lyra stiff. For whatever help it would be with their lodgings, Dante passed over his comically light purse. Meet back here at dawn he said. 
I'll be the one who smells like rats. Lyra tilted her head. What exactly are you doing out there? What I do best, exterminating. They parted ways. With several hours to kill, Dante and Blaze meandered the nearby streets, eventually settling in at a thriving tavern. Rather than tables, deep shelves stood at rib height along all four walls. A vaulted ceiling with naked beams allowed space for a sort of shack in the center of the room, where men lined up to step through a curtain, spilling a fan of bright green light across the tavern floor. They emerged a minute later with mugs in hand. At intervals, smoke jetted from the pipes protruding near the top of the shack, smelling of kelp and orange rind and bitter leret root. Blaze pressed iron into Dante's hand. Go buy some drinks, will you? Dante frowned at the hissing shack. Why me? Because I'm paying, and because I'm bigger and I'll shove you around if you don't. Dante joined the roped-off line. It moved quickly. Each time a man came and went through the curtain to the shack, green light washed the floor. Soon it was his turn. Inside the shack, green light gleamed from bottles of all colors of the sea. Blue, gray, green, and black. A very average-looking man tapped his fingers behind a short bar. Dante stared at the source of the light, an unwinking stone suspended a few inches from the ceiling. Is that a torch stone? The man didn't glance up. That doesn't sound like any drink I've ever heard. Since they were within spitting distance of the Hukali Islands, Dante bought two anise-flavored caven and found Blaze parked at one of the drinking shelves. Past the gritty glass windows, the bustle of daily labor shifted to the whoop of nocturnal play. What do you think? Blaze asked, once they'd drained their second mugs. They'd been talking around the war for the last few minutes. I mean, what do you really think? What do you think? I think everyone's full of shit. Hot, windy shit. Wait, that's pretty gross. Blaze tipped back his mug, dislodging another couple drops of rosy liquor. I think Setevan gins up an ultimatum, the clans huff and puff for a couple weeks before backing down and accepting their demands, and Callie plays it as dumb as he can to continue the illusion we're keeping our noses clean. Nobody wants a war. Dante gazed at the greasy window. Low clouds had encroached with the night, and misty drizzle dewed the cobbles. I think Setevan's growing increasingly displeased with the unruliness of the eastern branches of their kingdom. I don't think they'll discard the opportunity to put us in our place. Hours plodded by in that bovine way time takes while waiting on an unwanted task. Dante sipped his way through his third cup. Tenth bell rang from the spires of Tame. A half hour later, he cut Blaze off and started back for the bad tidings. The ship was so quiet, you could hear every wave rippling against its hull. Thousands of pounds of sealed wood creaked and popped. Up top, Mart waited for them, 
flanked by four sailors armed with straight swords. The hold is all yours. He gestured to his men. If you try anything funny, you're all theirs. Just them, Blay said, and I'll require your swords. Ah. Blaze reached for his buckles. Well, that might even it out. Dante passed over his sword and his two larger knives. Mart nodded to a crewman as tall and thin as the mainmast, who moved to pat Dante down. Dante clung to his last blade, a pick as short and slender as his little finger. I'll need this one. Mart chuckled, expression unchanging. That's how you'll be rid of them. We leave tomorrow. Of this year. See you at dawn. Dante smiled with half his mouth. He nodded at Blaze. Cover the top of the stairs. No humans are to come down, nor rats to come up. Blaze crossed his thumbs in the salute of the Bressel Armsman's Guild he'd never actually been fit enough to join. Of course, my liege. Dante stepped over the rim of the hatch and clumped down the stairs. The main chamber of the lower deck was a square roughly thirty feet to a side, lit by a single smokeless catch lamp at both ends. Barrels lined most walls, blocked and chinked in place. It smelled of fresh beer and stale water and the acrid stink of small mammals. Barley gritted underfoot. Something small rustled from the gloom. Large serving tables took up the remainder of the room. Small cabins filled the aft with a galley and chain locker at the fore, the iron links of the anchor lying heavy on the floor. The second set of stairs descended to the main hold. This was split between three main spaces, front, middle, and rear. It was pitch black. Dante drew out his torch stone and breathed on it until white light expanded over the casks, barrels, sacks, crates, and chests. Some sections were packed higher than his head, held fast through arcane packing techniques that required few, if any, ropes or restraints. White grain dappled the deck. So, too, did tiny black droppings. He would work his way down. The creatures of the dark always descended in times of crisis. He ascended to the lower deck and knelt beside the stairs. He drew the slender knife and traced a line of blood across his left forearm. He'd never summoned the nether on open water before, but if it differed from the sources on land, it was too subtle for his eyes. The same moth-like shadows fluttered from the cracks and corners, coating his hands, turning gently as they waited to be shaped. He rubbed his thumb against the torch stone until it faded, leaving him in the weak light of the catch lamps. It didn't take long. Submerged in the nether, his sense of time was somewhat blurred, destabilized perhaps by the eternal cycles of the shadows. But no more than five minutes could have passed before the first rat crept from the maze of cargo. It moved in stops and starts, stopping to haunch back, nose and whiskers twitching, before it lurched forward to snatch up a stray kernel of barley and crunch it down to nothing. Dante stilled his mind and struck the rat with a narrow spear of nether. 
It flopped to its side, legs kicking, smearing blood across the timbers. All creatures, great and small, carried a pulse of Nether within their skin or shells. By the cycle of Aron, all life itself was Nether-born, brought to motion by the black grist ground from Aron's cracked mill. With his fear and rage and pain, man carried the most Nether of all, but if Dante made himself go quiet enough, he could feel the thin thread waning in the struck rat's veins. Even once each of its organs went still and dark, the nether didn't disappear. It simply quieted, too. Dormant. Only when the body decayed and dissolved would the shadows also pass away into the earth. Dante seized this snoothing nether, melding it with a strand of his own. With the thought, he returned the rat to its feet, where it waited in perfect undead stillness. Go, he told it. Find the others. Bring them to me. It skittered into darkness. A moment later, a short, inhuman shriek pierced the silence. Fur whispered on wood. The undead rat backed into the cleared space around the steps, tugging a fresh corpse along in its teeth. Dante brought this one back to its feet, too. Before he ordered it away, he closed his eyes and shifted his sight into it. Vertigo bent his head. He looked back on himself, terribly tall even when kneeling, a pale-faced giant whose features were sharpened with the cruelty of one whose role is to kill. He sent the rat his command. His second vision swung as it turned on its claws and raced into the towering alleys of crates. Its whiskers tickled along the splintery wood. It reached the wall of a cabin and squeezed into a crack that would be invisible to a standing human. Dante felt it rustling among loose shreds of chaff, splinters, and the browning rinds of lemons. In total darkness, its teeth clamped down on something hairless and pink. The baby vermin screamed. Dante opened his eyes and gazed at nothing. It was dawn by the time he returned to deck. Mart raised thick and skeptical brows, then lowered his gaze to Dante's left arm, laced with paper-fine cuts and crusted with rusty layers of blood. The man's face softened into something that might have been concern. Sleeping or on, Mart said. Did you challenge them all to a fist fight? Blaze shouldered past the quartermaster, puffy-eyed, with the grueling sort of hangover that comes from burning off one's liquor without the help of sleep. Well? Well what? Dante said. Did you get all the rats? Oh, that. I ferried it out the last one hours ago. Blaze gaped. Then what have you been doing down there all that time? Napping? I want to nap. Dante let out a breath. I understand the loons. Chapter 7 Fortunately, Mart brushed that off as the delirious statement of a man who spent hours in the dark with no company but his thoughts and a growing heap of dead rats. As hand-counted by a teen boy who was clearly on the outs with Mart, 
These totaled two hundred and forty, all told, a bleeding and mutilated heap that had the growing crowd of sailors eyeing Dante with some emotion between respect and disgust. Mart took a tour below decks, while Dante leaned against the railing and let the ocean wind wash the scent of blood, fur, and feces from his nose. Mart thumped up the steps a few minutes later. He leaned against the rails beside Dante and gazed seaward. The fact of the matter is, there's no proof of your achievement. Dante turned, incredulous, and gestured at the mountain of motionless rodents. What do you call that? Coincidence? Did I smuggle them on board in my pockets? Contempt hardened Mart's eyes, quickly fading. Our agreement insisted you kill every single rat. It took a moment for this to penetrate the fog of sleeplessness around Dante's mind. He stiffened. And there's no way to prove they're all dead. Not without tearing the ship apart, board by board. I see. He supposed he should be angry. He supposed he would be, after he'd had some sleep. After the bad tidings had sailed away. But if I left you ashore, my crew would tear me apart, board by board. Mart nodded to the idling men. One scooped up a rat and waggled it in a bearded man's face, earning himself a meaty punch in the shoulder. The rat bounced from the deck. Men laughed. You've earned your passage. You could have told me that from the start. I could have, but I didn't. He gave Dante a long look. Regardless, if we arrive in Narashtovic and discover you've missed any, I can simply pass your debt along to Kalimandicus. That wiped the fog from Dante's brain. If you want a safe trip, I wouldn't speak a word of who we are. I'm not going to give your name away. I'm responsible for all my ship's cargo, human or otherwise. Now fetch your friends. He did just that. At the fountain of the salmon, Lyra and Morn looked enviably well-rested. Back on board, they were shown two cabins below decks, one for three males, one for the lady. Lyra's jaw drew tight. I am sworn to protect this man. She inclined her head at Dante. I can't do that isolated in my room. The young sailor ducked his eyes. Ma'am, barring storms or giant squid, I think he'll be perfectly safe. After seeing what he's done to those rats, nobody's going to want to find out what he'd do to a human. That only raised further questions from Lyra, but at least it settled the arrangement of sleeping quarters. Dante meant to see the ship's departure into open ocean. He'd sailed enough rivers, but never the sea. But on settling into his down mattress to rest his body, the rest of them quickly followed suit. By the time he woke in the early afternoon, the shore was a far line of pine green across miles and miles of white-capped grey. According to a crewman whose superhuman focus on reining in his flapping sail may have been due to the fact he'd lost two fingers earlier in life, the trip to Narashtovic would take six days, allowing for the wind and their planned stop in port at Canaver. All told, they'd span a good four hundred knots, which struck Dante as a miracle.
Even with good roads and spare horses, traveling overland would have taken them more than twice as long and been far more dangerous. In fact, the duration was perfect. Six days ought to be plenty of time to confirm his operational theory of Morn's loon. If Dante was equal parts lucky and dedicated, he might even have a fresh one to show Callie. If anything could blunt the old man's wrath, it would be an item of immense practicality that came wrapped in the priceless ribbons of secret lore. Lyra happily lent him the privacy of her cabin. She sat outside on a stool while Dante set to work. The boy who'd shown them their cabins turned out to own a two-book library consisting of The Cycle of Oron and a picaresque novel about pirates who spent more time clinging to the wreckage of their ship than in committing any actual piracy. He lent Lyra the book without a second thought, and even through the closed door, Dante could occasionally hear the rasp of pages or Lyra's warm, low chuckle. Besides that, however, his only distractions came from the pitch of the ship, which his stomach hadn't begun to adapt to, the occasional holler from the crew up above, and rarest of all, the carrying cry of the huge winged birds that scoured the ocean's surface for prey. In truth, the rodent body count had been 246. Dante had slipped six of the smaller adults into his pocket before rising from the slaughter to show Mart his catch. Because he had a theory. If his theory proved seaworthy, he expected he'd need more than one body to refine it before landfall. The idea had arrived from a special kind of nowhere, a place no other human had been, from inside the dead rat's own heads. Yet the concept was simple enough Dante could have put it together years ago. When he was linked to the body of a rat, he could sense whatever they sensed, see what they saw, hear what they heard. Assumedly, he could taste what they tasted. This worked whether they were in the palm of his hand or miles away. Essentially, they were doing the exact same thing the loons did. He borrowed, requisitioned, and gathered more than just the dead rats. In addition to these, which lay in neat piles atop cloth on the cabin's floor, he had a hand axe, his small knife, a tin spoon, the strips of what had once been one of his older shirts, and perhaps most important of all, a bucket of water. He separated one of the rats from the others, took up the hand axe, and severed its head less than expertly. With a concentrated effort to ignore the noises and smells his next actions made, he used the knife to peel away all the skin, flesh, and tendons from the skull, then picked the axe back up and whacked it once along its long axis. A splinter of bone pattered across the pinewood floor. He noticed the smell then, the thickening blood and hours-old flesh, and opened the small round porthole. After a few breaths at the window, he raised the axe again. The next strike split the skull from snout to base. Pink mush splattered the deck. The bone hadn't broken completely along its bottom edge. Dante cracked it in half, then used the spoon and knife to dig out everything he could reasonably extract. 
Uncertain the leftovers would be of any use, he set these aside in one of the cloths, then spent a long time cleaning his hands and the two pieces of mostly empty skull. He knelt beside the mess and brought forth a palmful of nether, which he sunk into the bones like a wave into sand. He re-established the netherial link between the two halves, then opened another line between himself and the half he dubbed the ear. He set the ear to his own ear, aligned the ear hole of the second piece, which he thought of as the mouth, to his mouth, and said, Hello. Had he heard? He put the ear to his other ear and tried again. As previously, the word sounded strange, somehow distorted, but not conclusively different from whatever he was hearing aloud. Perhaps it was simply too close for his senses to separate the sounds. He cracked the door. Lyra looked up, closing her book around her finger. Dante flushed with sudden embarrassment. Lyra, he held out the mouth. I need you to do something for me. I'm going to go back into your room. Three seconds after I close the door, say something into that. She reached out for the cracked bone then jerked her hand away. Is that a rat skull? Of course not, it's one half of a rat skull. What am I doing with one half of a rat skull? Helping me win a war. She considered him for a long moment. Are you being serious? He held up his palms, discovered the underside of one forearm was globby with gore, and hurriedly wiped it off on the leg of his pants, which he immediately regretted. I'm sure this looks very strange. It looks like you've decided to become a butcher, or a pervert, or some combination of the two. You don't have to touch it. He bent and placed it on the floor. Just speak into it. Directly. Where the ear would be, ideally. Oh, and don't speak loudly enough for me to hear what you're saying through the door. Understand? As much as that's possible. He closed himself inside the cabin and held up the ear. Three seconds later, he heard Lyra murmur, If you're hearing this, then perhaps you're not crazy. But rather than hearing the words through his ear, the way Morn had described the loon as functioning, he heard them inside his head, the same way he'd perceived such things when he was piloting the dead rat around the hold to hunt down the living. He returned to the hall. I spoke into it, Lyra said with the unconcealed disgust of a childless adult watching another person's kids pour through an apple cart. I'm not crazy. She blinked at him. Perhaps not. He took the mouth and went back inside her room to kneel beside the mattress and think. So, it was possible to take pieces of a skull link them together, and share the senses experienced by one of those parts by the other pieces of the whole. In a sense, then, he had just created a very poor loon. It was one way, only he could use it, and it would cease to function the moment he dropped his focus from the link between ear and mouth. Still, it felt like he was onto the principle. Now all he had to do was refine it. 
he understood how to solve the one-way problem at once. If he could be either a mouth or an ear, either able to speak or hear, all it would take to be able to do both would be to combine two sets of these things. To create a linked mouth A and ear A, a second mouth B and ear B, then combine mouth A and ear B into one loon, and mouth B and ear A into another, such that words spoken into one loon would be heard through the other, and vice versa. He did just that, axing his halved skull into quarters, so each fraction contained a part of the original structure of the skull's earport. Then he formed two proto-loons, and had Lyra speak into each in turn while he listened from the cabin. He could hear her through both pieces. She couldn't hear him, of course, because she lacked any link to the loons herself, but if he could solve that problem, all that would remain was to make the items permanent. Day faded from the porthole. He opened the window and flung the rat's headless body and bits of brain into the sea. He hid the intact corpses as well as his skull pieces in his pouch, wishing for some ice or a cool hole in the ground. They were already starting to get a bit squishy. He cleaned his tools and his hands in the reddish water and then sloshed that out the window as well, splattering just a bit on the interior wall. Feeling work-worn but energized, he went to the second cabin to find Morn, whom he engaged in a makeshift game of Nulladoon, using pieces cobbled from stray barley, pennies, and bits of cork, with clay tea-plates standing in as terrain. They set up on one of the common tables below decks. Before the end of their second turn, a pair of off-duty sailors stood over their shoulders, brows knit, asking questions about the intricacies of play. Soon, most of the free crew stood about them, placing bets over mugs of watered rum. Dante lost, drawing sighs and curses from those who'd wagered on him, and cheers from the opposition, but he grinned anyway. He'd already determined the shape of the puzzle of the loon. Now it was just a matter of filling in the pieces. They made port in the Hukali Islands two days later. Dante scowled at the jagged crags and churning windmills. He was no closer to any solutions. Whenever he tried to load up his loons with enough nether to keep them functional after he dropped his focus, the bones leaked his shadows like a punctured water skin. He'd done no better with the problem of getting the loons to make audible noise, rather than restricting their transmission to the brain case of their creator. In fact, on dwelling on that problem, he'd only discovered another. That unless he wanted the loons to yammer aloud to everyone in earshot, he needed to find a way to make them whisper to their intended recipient alone. It was a reminder, and not a welcome one, that for all the ways he'd learned to command the nether, to forge killing spears, to make the dead walk, to bend reality to illusion, he lacked the scantest understanding of many of its subtleties. For him, trying to make anything permanent was like pouring water on a flat floor and expecting it to take the shape of an angel. You look, Blaze said beside him on the windy deck, like someone's been squeezing your nuts all night. That would be bad. Maliciously. 
sailors called back and forth, trimming the bad tidings to angle it toward the island of cliffs and cold marshes where roundhouses hunkered in the wind. It's the loons, Dante said. I know the effects I need. I have no idea how to create them. Well, that's a bit of luck then. Yes, about as lucky as a starving man with a net and no ocean. No, I mean that we're here, in Quixote. Blaze gestured to the modest city of stone homes and wood huts buffeted with shed-wind stalks, tall reeds which held uncannily still in all but the harshest gales. The Hanassans have their temple here, on Mount Sereni. You know, I don't get why mountains are so popular among the monks. It's like such a feat of piety to walk up a hill. Anyway, the Hanassans know everything. Dante cocked his head. How do you know about the Hanassans? What, you're the only one who gets to know things? They were my favorite as a kid. Used to make my mom tell me stories about them every night. He considered this a moment, then shook his head. Even if they could help me, which they can't, they wouldn't want to. We'll be in port all day, Blaze snorted. What else are you gonna do? Dress those little rats of yours up in bonnets and booties? Dante laughed, flushing. Once the bad tidings had completed the rather tedious process of nosing up to the deep-water docks and tying off, he clambered down the ladder and made for town. He knew very little about the Hukolians other than that they rarely left their homeland. They favored fur hats from the skin of a biskin, a ferocious bear-like predator that, as far as Dante knew, didn't actually exist, and it was virtually impossible to tell whether they were serious or pulling your leg. He couldn't even trust the directions to Sereni Temple he got from a local stevedore. Walk up the mountain until you can't walk anymore. Just in case the stories of the Biscans were true, he took his sword with him, but left Blaze and the others behind. This mission had the feel of a pilgrimage or an embarrassment, and either way it was best faced alone. The streets were paved with broad slabs of basalt with irregular sides, but which fit together with minimal cracks between, as if they'd all been snapped off from the same massive table of stone. Live shedwind lined the paths to most houses, their straight green shoots eight feet tall. The road climbed a rolling hill. Behind him, the sails of the bad tidings gleamed white against the glittering gray sea. The town and the pavement ceased abruptly. Round stone farmhouses stood off the dirt road. Fields of green and brown stretched for half a mile or more. At their borders, dark firs rose in a towering kudzu. Ahead, the road led straight to the tallest of three modest mountains with white-painted peaks. The nearest mountain was banded with alternating shades of green. Dante saw why, an hour later. With the ground rising beneath him, the madly hissing forest that had swallowed the path suddenly vanished in favor of motionless fields of shedwind. A couple hundred yards later, the forest resumed, only to cease just as abruptly for more shedwind some ways past that. Meanwhile, waist-high stone dogs bracketed the road at the border of each change. 
They had the straight spine and pricked ears of the watchdog of Menok. But the statue's ears were decidedly foxy, their tails flaring and puffy. The eyes were simply hollows in the stone, but their sockets counted in a cunning expression, which made no sense at all. Menok was as somber as it got. His distanced gloom, untouched and unaffected, no matter how chaotic the earth or heavens became. The fox of Carvajal, meanwhile, lived to cause trouble. To play gods and humans against each other in any combination. He'd probably trick the trees if he could. Combining these two icons into one watching, laughing canine was either blasphemous or an incomprehensible joke. The alternating bands of firs and shedwind continued for four or five miles. Just when Dante thought the path would never end, it did. A flat and grassy plateau abutted a sheer black cliff. Crumbled basalt slumped against the cliff face. The road branched four ways, leading to four caves set into the vertical stone. Thirty yards ahead, a man stood across the path dressed in furry leggings and several layers of jackets. So, you made it. Is this it? Dante said. The temple? You were expecting lofty spires? The man said without smiling. Delicate stained glass that paints the floor in rainbows? In truth, Dante had expected something quite like it, are you waiting here for me? Anyone who'd walk up a mountain must have an interesting question. What if he doesn't? Then it is fun to laugh at him. The man touched his blonde beard. What is your question? Dante went as still as the shedwind. What was his question? He couldn't flat out ask about the mysteries of the loon. If its secrets got out, their entire advantage would be nullified, leaving them to face the armies of Gask with nothing but inferior numbers and prayer. Anyway, what would this cave-dweller know about the Nether, of bending it to form artifacts that could outlast an age? The man tipped back his head, as if reading Dante's mind. You came all this way without knowing your question. Maybe it's too complicated to pose simply. Maybe you're too simple to make it simple. Dante tightened his jaw. What do you know about the nether? Whatever it allows me. Nice dodge. Has anyone who knows what they're talking about ever fallen for it? The man stuck out his hands at arm's length, face contorted in revulsion. Black slime dripped from his fingers, pattering soundlessly on the dirt path and evaporating like water on a griddle. The viscous slime climbed his forearms, swallowing his elbows and then his shoulders. As it slithered up his neck and began to form a black mask, the man went motionless and smiled like a painting. The nether disappeared. Oops, he said. I spoke too fast. Dante said. But that display was awfully fast itself. My problem lies in making such things last. A lasting mark. 
The man nodded. The concern of every young man. And likely every young woman, too. But they hide it better. If the nether comes from my hands, how do I make it stay once I take my hands away? The man tipped his forehead forward, frowning. You think the nether comes from your hands? Dante blinked. That's not what I meant. Strange, because that is what you said. Well, where do you think it comes from? Me? The man looked genuinely surprised. Oh, I believe I'm a rawn in human skin. I've yet to be proven wrong. Do you know how to get it to stick to a thing? This is no longer interesting. The blond man nodded downhill. I think you belong back there. Already? But I came all this way. The man raised a brow. It really isn't that far, you wimp. Now move, for I have praying to do. Wind gusted through the plateau, stinging Dante's eyes with grit. The man didn't seem to notice. Dante waited for several awkward seconds, then turned and started back down the banded mountain. In town, he found Blaze ensconced in a bench, recessed into the floor of a tavern just past the docks. Blaze smiled over a stein of caven, so heavily spiced it must have been brewed locally. Well, he sipped. How'd it go? Dante shook his head. I think he made fun of me. Is that it? Blaze said. I could have done that right here and saved you the trip. By the time they finished at the pub, Dante had a hard time climbing the wooden ladder back to the ship. In the cabin, Morn snored on the bunk across the room, his hairy shins jutting from the edge of the bed. Blaze banged through the door and flopped into bed with his boots still on. His phlegmy breathing soon joined Morn's. Dante hated the oracular speech of monks and priests. If you used enough vagaries and poetry, you could make anything sound profound. The wise man heavies his plate with eggs, for the wisdom of the unborn is unbound by perspective. Either the blond man knew how to help him, and should have said so explicitly, or he didn't, and should have been equally explicit about that. No wonder so little ever changed. When people weren't lying outright, they peddled half-truths and obscurities. Next morning, Blaze woke with a scowl. He slung his feet off his bunk and crinkled his face. Did I step in something? He squinted at the soles of his feet. Did I sleep in something? Just yourself, Dante said. When Blaze left for breakfast, Dante quickly took his satchel of rats next door, confirmed Lyra was out, then occupied her cabin to chop up the rodents' bodies, clean out their skulls, and dump everything else into the sea. He spent all morning and afternoon with the nether, saturating the fresh bones with shadows that melted away the moment he turned his mind elsewhere. How could he possibly convince it to stay? If it was a spirit— an essence of the thing to which it was attached, how could he force it to stick to an object it didn't embody? 
Sunset bathed the cabin red. He left Lyra's room for his first meal of the day. He intended to return to his work, but Morn asked for a game of Nulladoon, and as he wavered, three other sailors eating at the table goaded him to accept the challenge. Morn's play was careful and thorough. In the end, his last pebble was too strong for Dante's original orange seed. By the time they dissected the game over two beers apiece, Dante was too tired to even think about nether or bones or cryptic monks. That left him two days until Narashtivik, two days to find something to bring to Callie's door besides apologies and empty hands. He paused mid-stride on his way to the plank that served as the head. Empty hands. Empty hands he filled with nether. Was that what the monk had meant with his question about the nether's source? Because his hands weren't quite empty, they possessed a drop of nether themselves. If he honed his focus like the point of a pen, he could draw the substance from his palms like a line of ink. If he then spent it, it returned in the next hour or day, didn't it? There was a reason he felt drained from practice and refreshed with rest. It was no different from the way his physical strength wore away and then returned. Presumably, any object that contained nether would regenerate it, or rediscover it, with enough time. Heart thumping, he spread out his assortment of bones. He sucked nether from the walls and himself, spinning it into the veiny network that connected him to the dead rat's dormant senses. And then, with all the care of a hobbyist mounting a butterfly, or a traveling barber pricking the cataract in the eye of a patient, he drew the droplets of nether from the bone itself and used them to smooth a tight sheath around the shadows he'd drawn from himself. He held his breath. If he could have, he would have held his heartbeat. Gently asleep, he removed his focus from the pair of loons. The veins and their sheaths stayed in place. For a minute, Dante did nothing but watch. Nothing changed. Nothing faded or slipped away into the crevices it had been called from. At times, the sheath glimmered darkly, as if rippling under a pale moon, but Dante saw no movements of any other kind. And detached from the loons, he couldn't feel them, either. Not with his mind, anyway. The two loons lay on an old cloth on the floor. He touched the nearer one as cautiously as if it had just been plucked from a boiling pot. He felt nothing but bone. He lifted it to his ear, heard nothing but the dumb hiss of a cupped seashell. He brought it to his mouth, paused to think, and said, I don't, I don't, said the loon still resting on the cloth. Dante sprawled back, banging his spine into the side of the bunk. He crumpled forward in pain. Several seconds later, when he was fit to walk again, he snatched up the second loon, burst from the cabin, and plowed through the neighboring door. Blaze sat straight up, bedsheets flapping, and pawed at the recessed shelf beside his bed, rattling his scabbards. I've got it, Dante said. 
Blaze glowered, face puffy. Unless it is an unstoppable fire or a giant hole in the floor, you can tell me about it later. Take this. Dante pushed one of the loons at Blaze's groggy face. What is this? It looks like a bunch of bones wrapped up in string. It is. Now, stay there. Dante ran back outside and slammed the door, drawing a stare from Lyra, seated a short ways down the hall. He ducked into her room, closed the door, and brought the loon to his mouth. Blaze Buckler prefers the company of aquatic mammals. Holy shit! Blaze's voice piped from the bundle of bone in Dante's hand, followed by a painfully loud clatter. Something hard scraped against wood. Are you dropping my priceless artifact? Dante said. No, I mean, it talked. I mean, you get hard from dolphins. I will now be accepting nominations for sainthood of me. That requires proof of godly ancestry, Blaze said through the loon. No more than four generations removed, if you can trust my mom. The door to Lyra's cabin jarred open. Blaze wandered inside, still speaking into the loon held in front of his mouth. Which I do, because she also told me I was the handsomest boy in Malin. Close the damn door, Dante said, hustling to do just that. So, there now exists the non-zero chance Callie won't use us to mulch his garden. Blaze turned the bundle of bone and string over in his hand. I'll admit this is impressive. Not impressive enough to redeem yourself for sparking a war, but probably impressive enough to get you off the hook if you'd slept with his sister. Kelly's sister would be a hundred years old, and no doubt bearded, but hunger turns stones into soup. Once I had the idea, it really wasn't that hard to piece together. Dante reached for the other loon, holding one up in each palm. It's based on the same principle I used to delve into the senses of dead animals. Through forming two such linked pairs, then splicing those pairs together, you more or less have the basis for a functional loon. Except only I can use it, because I'm the only one with an ethereal link. If I then go on, however, to exploit the object's own inborn nether to support the structure instead of using my external focus to do so, it turns out that fascinating, Blaze said. Now shut up and let's tell the others. Except not like that, unless you're sick of them and want them bored to death. Dante glanced at the closed door. I need to ask Morn a few questions. I don't think Lyra needs to know, though. Why not? Because I don't really trust her. Blaze raised his brows. Of course not. It's not as if she's pledged her life to you. I pledge to serve you bacon-shaped to spell your name every morning so long as we both shall live. Dante bowed. He straightened and met Blaze's eyes. Guess who's going to be deeply disappointed tomorrow morning? Come on. She's been nothing but trustable. She could have turned us into Cassander's people any time in the last week. Dante took another look at the door. Unless she's holding out for an even bigger reward for bringing them a working loon. Fine, she gets to know nothing, Blaze said, but only because it's a genuine war secret. Dante went to fetch Morn and found him wave-watching from the bow. Empty grey waters rolled to the eastern horizon. To the south, far white hills slept under new and gleaming snow. A steady wind assaulted Dante's ears. 
One of the crew struggled with the rigging of the mainmast. Atop the stern, another two argued with the rotund captain. The deck was otherwise clear. In the isolation, Dante gave Morn a quick demonstration of his loons. I can hear the wind coming out of both of them, Morn said after a moment. The clan's loon spoke directly into your ear, and only when someone had something to say. Well, I'm not done. Dante wrapped the bones in cloth and tucked them away. I just wanted to see what you thought. Why would you want my opinion? I didn't have anything to do with making them. The only reason I know about them is because I had the privilege of being born into the clan of the Nine Pines. I may as well build a castle and ask that gull over there what it thinks. Dante frowned out to sea. I think we should rename you Cheer. He wanted to construct a second set of loons, and confirm his success with the first wasn't some confusing fluke, but he still wasn't sure what would come of the first. Besides, despite having sailed for several days, he'd spent less than an hour with the ocean. So he sat down beside Morn, legs folded, and watched the incoming swells, the subtle tilt of the horizon as the bad tidings climbed each watery hill and slid down the other side. Waves hissed and splattered. A cold and constant wind grazed his face and forced its fingers past his collar. He reached his mind out towards the pair of loons every two or three minutes, unable to stop himself despite knowing there would be little or nothing he could do if the delicate nether sheaths began to crack. Still, this ceaseless double-checking reassured him, releasing a growing pressure that began in his head and slowly filled his gut. An hour later, he checked the loons and found the nether was gone. He brought one to his mouth and spoke. He heard nothing but his own voice. The nether had simply disappeared, reducing the loons to inert matter. He returned to Lyra's cabin and assembled another functional pair, but an hour later, it too reverted to dumb, simple bone. He tried again, watching the third set without interruption. A little over an hour later, shining white cracks appeared in its shadowy sheath. The cracks thickened, little by little. Without warning, the black case burst apart. The trapped nether that linked the bones together dispersed at once, absorbing into the rag and floor beneath the loon. Nothing he tried that day made any difference. He stayed up late and woke early. His head was heavy, but he forced himself to get up, wash his face, and return to work. Something strange had happened with the broken loons. The droplets of internal nether he'd used to form their sheaths had returned, but were unshaped. He took that nether and reforged it into fresh sheaths, wrapping these around new globs of nether drawn from foreign sources. An hour later, however, the sheaths collapsed again. Dante fell back on the cart, exhausted. What good was a loon that could only last an hour? Late that morning, bells and shouts yanked him from his labor. Narashtovic grew on the horizon. Within hours, he'd be brought before Cali and held accountable for setting off the war.
Chapter 8 Not long ago, Narashtivik had been called the Dead City. It was known as such even among its own citizens, what few remained anyway. No one thought anything of the ghastly appellation. That was simply its name, earned through centuries of warfare and sackings that had reduced the city's outer rings to crumbling ruins. For those who stayed, it was a home, no more and no less, and while it was true that you could find ribs and skulls if you chose to poke through the fallow houses on its fringes, life at the core of the city was still normal enough. Things had changed since Samaran's aborted war against Malin some six years ago. The pine forests that infiltrated the city's old borders had disappeared, cleared for timber and tilled for crops. Fresh-cut wooden homes replaced most of the old stone ruins. The rasp of saws was like steady breathing, the rap of hammers, a heartbeat. To the north, a high green hill considered the city, the site of the cemetery where Laramore was buried. Past the outermost homes, the pride gate circled Narashtivik's interior. Further yet, the inn gate that surrounded Narashtivik's oldest quarters was hidden behind steep black roofs, but at the city's very center, the staggering spire of the Cathedral of Ivars punctured the sky. Beside it, the keep of the sealed citadel rose like an upthrust fist. As far as Dante had a home, Narashtivik was his. He hadn't seen Bressel since before the war, and anyway, he'd hardly lived there a handful of weeks. Before that, he spent his childhood and middle teen years in a farming village in Malin's breadbasket. Memories of his youth were a golden haze of streams and fields. Since leaving, he rarely thought of it. Because, in a way, he had been the midwife to Narashtivik's rebirth. He'd helped put down Samaran's holy war on Malin. The refugees and survivors of that aborted conflict flocked to time-withered Narashtivik, making their claims on half-ruined homes that had lain empty for generations. When he wasn't busy on council business or one of Callie's endless errands, Dante enjoyed exploring those abandoned homes. They felt secret, sacred. Yet he'd been happier to see new families make them their own. Between the chimney smoke and fresh fields, it was clear the city had swelled all the more in the two, three years he and Blaze had spent arming, supplying, and scouting the Norrin territories. Dante had missed that growth, that bustle, the knowledge he could step out into the street and see or buy or experience whatever he wished. So he was worried about Callie's reaction to their news and fearful of whatever fate might befall the city in the next months or years. But he was also glad, plainly and rightly, to be home. Think it still stinks? Blaze said beside him on the deck of the bad tidings. Absolutely. Figure out those things of yours. Absently, Dante touched the cracked bones in his pocket. Not by half. Well. We're still a ways out. Plenty of time to finalize your will. It's not going to be that bad. Maybe he hasn't even heard. You're leaving me all your stuff, right? Blaze said, because I'm going to say you are anyway. There was no point in a last gasp scramble to perfect the loons. 
Dante was simply out of ideas. Instead, he descended to his cabin, nodding to the scurrying sailors below decks, and packed up his spare clothes and blanket and the cracked skulls of the rats. Back above decks, the bad tidings slipped past the western banks of the bay, where a thicket of grounded ships rested in the silt where the river met the sea. There, an impromptu neighborhood had assembled among the racks. The ship's sails were long gone, the bronze and iron stripped from figureheads and railings. Instead, clean white laundry flapped from masts. Residents jogged across planks nailed between half-submerged decks. Improbably, smoke curled from more than one of the grounded cabins. Slant-walled shacks clung to masts and forecastles. The last time Dante had seen the bay, the old ships had been completely uninhabited, their hulls crusty with salt, gulls piping from rotten rigging. I almost hate to make port, Mart said behind him, startling him. We're bound to pick up some new rats. So, you're happy with the outcome of our arrangement? Dante said. Happy? We'll have the only shit-free barley in all of Gask. You must be very proud. I've got half a mind to press-gang you. Mart's eyes glittered above his beard. But then the sensible half suggests my body would wind up piled with the rats. The boat came to port, and sailors debarked to tire off. Over the last few weeks, Dante had become so familiar with the process, he could have pitched right in. By the time the crew secured the gangway to the dock, a crowd of longshoremen, merchants' aides, and would-be travellers had gathered at the base of the pier, babbling and jostling, breath visible in the harsh light bouncing off the sea. A queue of carriages idled in the open square beyond the waterfront, but Dante decided to walk. No need to hustle to his fate. Few Norin lived in Narashtavik, and Morn drew more than one look as their group thumped down the damp pier toward the waiting crowd. His hulking presence was enough to open a gap in the throng. Dante led the way, composing his route to the sealed citadel. Camden Street would be the shortest, but it was the first day of thaws, and the main streets would likely be clogged with a plague of potters, tailors, and shoppers, all looking to— Metal flashed from the forest of fur coats. A short man plunged from the crowd, knife darting forward, his gaze locked on Dante's chest. Too late, Dante grabbed at the nether, his panic whipping it into a charcoal froth. The man's arm straightened, preparing to drive the blade home. Lyra flung herself forward, ramming her shoulder into the man's ribs. They thudded to the boardwalk, hands locked together, grappling for the knife. Lyra rolled the small man onto his back and flicked her fingers at his eyes. As he flinched, she clamped both hands on his knife hand and twisted his wrist toward his body, bearing down hard. The man screamed. His wrist gave with a fleshy pop. Blaze's sword snaked past Lyra and speared the attacker through the left lung. The retreat of the crowd left Dante in the middle of an empty circle. He stood there, shaking, as pink blood burbled from the attacker's mouth, the man's broken wrist flapping against the boardwalk. Blaze pulled his blade from the dying man's ribs with a wet shoop. I didn't think Callie would be that mad. 
jittery fury flooded Dante's veins. He knelt beside the assassin and grabbed him by the collar, yanking his head from the pier. Who hired you? The man blinked, glassy-eyed, and coughed thickly. Dante shoved him down by the collar, banging the back of his head into the planks. Was it, Cassander? All you have to do is nod. The assassin choked, coughing bubbly pink blood over Dante's heavy coat. He fell back, spasming, fish-like. He looks pretty dumb to me, Blay said. Let's ask his pockets instead. He crouched on the other side of the body and turned out the pockets of the man's cloak and doublet and trousers, revealing three more knives, one long and two small, a handkerchief, a plain leather purse clinking with coins, a bag of dried venison and cherries, a sewing kit, comb and scissors, and a pinky-thin vial of a viscous black-brown liquid. Boots jogged the planks. Two armed men hurried down the pier, dressed in the black leather and silver trim of the city. They stopped cold when they saw the body. Drawing swords, they shuffled forward, right feet extended. Blaze pocketed the vial. Dante stood, sleeves foamy with blood. This man attacked us. The guards' faces were drawn with angry caution. On seeing Dante, the expression of the man on the right shifted to relieved recognition. Are you all right, my lord? I'm fine. Dante nodded to the knife Lyra had knocked down the planks. Be careful with his blade, it may be poisoned. Another pair of guards arrived to handle the crowds and the corpse. The first pair led Dante and crew through the holiday-busied streets to the nearest guard station, a tight-quartered space inside one of the three-story towers that rose at intervals from the Pride Gate. There, Dante answered questions, which he mostly ducked. He'd pass his suspicions about Cassander along to Callie during his dressing down, and waited around for a half-hour until yet another guard arrived to inform Dante and Blaze their presence was required at the sealed citadel. As if fearing they'd attempt to flee, this latest guard accompanied them from the tower into the rising hills beyond the Pride Gate. Children wove through the crowds, their dark hair threaded with grassy crowns. Men stopped at public houses while their wives eyed bright fabric and bought pies stuffed with the first and hardiest harvests, frost peas, gaskin squash, turnips. Most of the buildings here had been occupied and maintained even during Narashtevik's leanest times, and showed little of the recent patching and reconstruction that dominated the structures beyond the outer wall. Stone gargoyles guarded the rooftop gutters, silently judging the boisterous humans below. Thank you, Dante said to Lyra. It was the first moment of semi-privacy they'd had since the attack. I suppose that makes us even. She shrugged, gazing across the revelers. An action done in the name of duty is never the equal of one taken freely. He gave her a long and skeptical look. Are you talking about snagging you from that boat? We did that to find out where the bloody knuckles had gone. Saving you for information is no different than saving me because of some crazy debt. What if I walk away and you're killed five minutes from now? My debt wouldn't look so repaid then. It's no fair if you keep changing the rules.
They passed under an arch of the inn gate, a second ring of solid stone which had separated nobles and well-landed merchants from the decay that beset the city for so long. Inside, the streets were rather more subdued. Families strolled together between the bright tarps, shading the stalls and carts gathered at every intersection and plaza. Dante could have differentiated the traders past the ingate from those outside it, even without the fine dress and casual pace of their clientele. Outside the ingate, carts were piled high with cloth and toys. Inside it, velvet-topped displays held a bare sprinkle of goods, a half-dozen rings, say, gleaming amidst the empty space of their surroundings. A wide stone avenue climbed the city's central hill. The endless shadow of the cathedral fell over Dante's face. Across from that, a towering citadel gazed down from behind its unscratched walls. Dante wore none of the trappings of his station, but before he could introduce himself at the sealed citadel's iron gate, it raised with a series of heavy clanks. What? They don't even ask your name? Blaze said as they crossed into the courtyard. If I'd arrived by myself, I'd be waiting until the walls fell down. Gant waited just inside the courtyard, pale enough to look as though he walked between sunbeams and narrow-shouldered enough for Dante to believe he did just that. The majordomo bowed, back curved in that particular Narashtavik fashion. My lord Dante, it's been too long. I know, Gant, Dante said. Hello, and goodbye. Gant tilted his face. Goodbye? Figured I'd better say it now since Callie's about to murder me. Is he up in his chambers? I believe so, and I don't believe he will murder you, my lord, no matter what you've done this time. Oh, I don't know. He gestured to Lyra and Morn. I've got two guests, as you can see. Will you find lodgings for them? At once. Gant bowed and bobbed his head in a fashion that perfectly intimated Morn and Lyra should follow him up the stairs into the keep. Dante followed too, but as Gant swept the others through the quiet foyer on his way to the guest rooms at the rear, Dante and Blaze curled up the main stairwell instead. Well, Blaze said, the single word echoing up the stone steps. Well, Dante agreed. You don't really think he could? No, I don't think so. Callie's a tyrant, but generally not a violent one. That's a relief, Blaze said. Except for the fact that means we have no idea who just tried to kill you. Dante saved the rest of his breath for the stairs. Callie kept his quarters at the very top of the keep. Dante had no idea how the old man managed to climb up and down the stairs all day long. It probably involved demons. Big ones. At last they reached the upper landing. A black carpet striped the hall. Tapestries illustrated and insulated the walls, weavings of Aron at his mill, and the starry arrangement of the heavens. Callie's double doors were closed but unlocked. As Dante opened the door, a wintry breeze knifed from the open balcony and cut past his face. Dante's boots sunk into the cushy black rug. The woman to occupy the room prior to Callie had busied it with pious marks of her station as high priestess of Aron, holy books, candlesticks, 
intricately illuminated parchments, and silver statues of the white tree. On moving in, years back, Callie had hollered, Look out below! from the balcony, and then flung most of the room's contents straight out the window. Now his chambers most closely resembled a scribe's den, bookshelves along both walls, black grenados of ink gleaming from the door-sized desk, great nests of parchment and quills, and quill snips and jars of white blotting sand. That left the room's center quite empty. So, too, was the stuffed red chair at the far end of the room. The fireplace was cold and dark. Suppose he's invisible, Blaze said. No, I suppose he's quite visible, in a place that isn't here. Dante left to track down a steward. The third man he found knew where Callie was, among the ruins on the outskirts of town, but balked at leading them there until Dante reminded him that dusting the mantles was several rungs less important than a direct order from a member of the Council of Narashtovic. After that, the man led them back downstairs and into the streets in a southerly course. Past the Pride Gate, as many houses were ruined as intact. Many lots were nothing but snow, grass, and mounded stone. Twice, Explosions boomed through the ruins further to the south. That's him, isn't it? Dante said. The servant didn't glance over. I couldn't possibly say, my lord. That's definitely him, Blaze said. The steward led them into a patchwork field of snow and grass. One wall of a farmhouse stood between a slew of old stones and rotten timbers. Beside it, a solid chimney rose thirty feet into the sky, freestanding and intact. The servant led them toward its massive hearth. The ground around it was scorched. The cold wind stirred the scent of something burnt and sharp. A hinged door of iron had been bolted to the base of the chimney. It was also scorched. My lords, the steward said. Yes, Dante said. I have taken you to Calimandicus. May I return to the citadel now? Blaze knelt and touched the patina of charcoal around the chimney. Ye gods, we're too late. He's blown himself to hell. Two skinny legs thrust from the entrance to the chimney, wrinkled and bare. They were accompanied by a muffled, echoing voice. Who goes there? A confused person. Dante said. Two confused people, Blaze said. Oh, the voice said. You two. The legs kicked, toenails scraping soot from the chimney walls. Ash sifted to the blasted ground at the chimney's base. The old man tumbled to the ground with a grunt. Callie blinked at them in the overcast sunlight, soot smearing his cheeks and his tangled beard. Between the black of the ash and the white of his beard, his eyes gleamed from his cheeks like captured sky. His bare legs sprawled, liver-spotted and hairless. A long shirt draped past his loins. What happened to your pants? Blaze said. My... Callie glanced down at his legs. Oh, lost those about an hour ago. Doing what? Dante said. Or is that a question I should leave in peace? doing this. 
Callie collected himself from the fireplace, careful not to bang his head on the brick of the overhanging hearth, and padded to a cart parked halfway across the field. There, he loaded a wheelbarrow with two sacks, one small and shifting with something like sand, the other big, clanky, and bulging with what sounded like crockery. Wheel this over for me, would you? Crawling up chimneys is hard work. Dante muttered and leaned into the wheelbarrow. Back at the chimney, Callie tossed the small sack into the soot at its base, then gestured at the bag of dishes. Get those out and pile them up, would you? Dante tore open the sack, which was, indeed, full of dishes, and began placing them atop the smaller bag, stirring fine clouds of choking dust. He dropped his third handful, shattering crockery over the brickwork. He swore. No matter. Callie flapped his hand, as if to wave away the dust. It'll all be like that in a moment. Dante shrugged and returned with considerably more roughness to loading up the dishes. Callie swung the iron door closed and clamped it shut with several locks, sealing the hearth. He batted cinders from his beard. You might want to step back, unless you would prefer to be flung back instead. Callie turned and ran, shirt tails flapping. Dante and Blaze followed. Some fifty feet from the towering chimney, Callie hunkered down in the snowy grass. Nether roiled around his hands. His tongue poked from the corner of his mouth. Shadows flowed in a river from his hands, gushing under the iron door and disappearing into the chimney. A tremendous bang rattled the chimney, the door, and Dante's teeth. Black smoke plumed from its mouth. An upward hail of crockery vomited into the sky. Tames, virgin daughter, Dante hollered. Callie chortled, pointing at the soaring debris. You see? Very good, Blaze said, rubbing his ear. You've discovered the world's worst way to clean a chimney. Dante goggled up at the tumbling specks. What was in the other sack? Callie shrugged his bony shoulders. Dried urine, black sand, a few other things. That just gives it an extra shove. Most of the force came from the nether. What happens when it comes down? Oh, yes. Well, we should probably run again before that happens. Callie took his own advice, dashing across the field with considerable speed for his advanced age. A stand of pines flanked the dilapidated farmland. Before they'd crossed half the distance to the shield of trees, jagged flecks of dishes rained down to earth, pattering the snow and plinking from stones. Callie flung his arms over his head and laughed. Dante reached the pines and hunkered under the branches to catch his breath. Black smog drifted south on the bay-birthed wind. What's all this about? A crusade against crockery? Imagine if you aimed that chimney at, say, thirty degrees. Callie sketched its angle through the air. What have you fired it at a formation of enemy troops, or a fortress's walls? How much nether does it take? Lots. A lot of lots. Why not aim the nether directly at the enemy instead? A lot fewer things can go wrong, then. Callie rolled his eyes in disgust. Except if they have sorcerers of their own. Then they snap their fingers, 
and your big ball of nether fizzles away like dandelion seeds in the gale. But I suppose you didn't think of that. I suppose I didn't. Anyway, this is just the theoretical stage. A perfected model would be much more effective. He clapped his knobby hands. Want to fire it again? Yes, but we need to talk first. Dante blew into his hands. Listen, have you heard about what happened? Callie's white brows shot up. That you burned down the ancestral manor of Cassander of Beckenridge, and he's going to talk the king into declaring war on us? Why the fuck do you think I'm out here blowing stuff up? Dante laughed hollowly. Oh, his highest kingship, Lord Modigan, has already levied a new estate tax, you know. It's enough to think he plans to pay for several thousand men to march across several hundred miles. It's his fault, Blaze pointed at Dante. He was chasing down the infamous quivering bow. Dante whirled. What the hell? What? You'd rather he hear it from someone else? I was going to ease him into it. How were you going to ease me into explaining that? Callie snarled. He drew himself to his full gangly height, his elbows as swollen as the gut of a freshly fed snake. Beneath the soot, his hair and beard hadn't been combed in days or cut in months. Well, did you find it, or did you get diverted by a herd of snipes? Regrettably, Dante said, we discovered that it doesn't exist. Do you know what you've done? I thought it could win the war before it began. We made contact with the clan of the Nine Pines. They promised it was real. Callie ran his hands down his snarled white beard. His eyes were closed, as if he were weathering a cramp. Within the next few weeks, the king is going to issue an ultimatum. It's going to be outrageous, possibly so much that the Northern Territories, if they accept, will wish they'd simply gone to war instead. I thought war was the plan all along. Years from now, when we were ready, when our position would be so strong, even the clowns in Setevan would rather let the Norrin go than try to march against them. Dante stared at the grass. Beetles crawled between the blades. I thought I could help. The Norrin won't back down from this. Not all of them. They're too fractured. Callie turned away from the city. Bitter wind whipped his beard. People are going to die, Dante. I found something else instead. Something... Callie raised his splayed palms to his shoulders. The council meets tonight. The issue, to put it indelicately, is whether Narashtovic will stand with the Norrin or abandon them to the warhounds of Gask. Dante cocked his head. How did they know I'd be back today? They didn't. As it turns out, the world goes on without you. Try to make it a better place for once. Callie's weary disappointment stung worse than any wrath. There was too much to say, so Dante said nothing. In time, they returned to the citadel together, wordless the whole way. Pantsless and begrimed as Callie was, the gatekeepers still recognized him. Dante supposed it wasn't the first time they'd seen him in such a state.
That could have been worse, Blaze said once they were alone in the stairwell. Oh, really? Dante said. We could be dead. Dante gazed at the musty walls. I think I'd rather be. Maimed, then? Weighed down by a brick of guilt and two broken legs? Pain would be a welcome distraction. Blaze grabbed Dante's shoulder, jarring him. Will you knock off the self-pity? This thing has hardly begun. What do we do to de-disaster it? We have no choice. Dante lifted his face. We have to help the Norrin. We're the ones who got them into this mess. Great, so quit moping and figure out what you'll say to the council. I'll go get the molten silver. Molten silver? To pour on your tongue. Dante shook his head. A floor down, he discovered, his long vacant room had recently been cleaned. The bedsheet smelled like soap and the pine needles the servants pestled to scent the linens. There was no fire, of course, and it was too cold to take off his cloak, but he left his door shut and locked. For the moment, he needed isolation. In time, he belled a servant for a bath, which he sat in until the water grew lukewarm, letting the slow work of water wear the salt and dirt from his skin. He shaved and dressed himself in the council's colors, then faced himself in the small mirror above his basin. His jaw and cheeks had gone harder. Suggestions had become definitions. Under normal circumstances, he was the type to plot out every word of what he might say at the meeting to sketch the branch of every argument he could make or anticipate facing. Instead, he closed his eyes and opened his inner sight to the nether, watching it trickle through the room's dark places, its minute pools under his bed and dresser, its shining dust glittering from every surface. A servant knocked. It was time. Dante returned to the upper floor, and made for the council's chambers. The cherrywood double doors bore the image of the white tree of Barden, ghastly and beautiful, its trunk and limbs fused from spines and ribs, molars and canines forming its flowers and thorns. Inside, a long, plain table dominated the room. Sectioned glass windows overlooked the vivid pink sunset on the bay. Dante was among the last to arrive. Old Tarkin was already seated, his cane leaned against the table. He winked Dante's way, heavy wrinkles bunching around his eyes. Hart sat, too, a mountain of anorin with thick clouds of beard swirling about his head. Ollivander's head was bent in apparent prayer, muscly soldier's shoulders bunched around his neck. Joseph's ancient eyes were closed. He may have been asleep. These were the lone survivors of Kelly's uprising beneath the boughs of Barden. Some of the dead had been replaced within days. Wiry Cav, whose carved features betrayed his noble birth, but not his age, which must have been passing sixty. Ulov, chubby, a simple monk raised above his station. Maria, the old woman whose blue tongue would better suit a stevedore than one of her aunts chosen. Somber, Quick-eyed and twitchy, his brown skin and elusive accent a product of one of the southern isles. 
Varla, who spoke as rarely as an oracle. The last to arrive, besides Callie, whose habitual lateness was more a product of indifference than a conscious display of his station, was Wint, who, in his mid-thirties, was the youngest councilman besides Dante himself. Assorted servants orbited the table, too. Behind Dante's right shoulder, Blaze leaned against the wall. Callie ambled into the room, and the council rose as one. Excellent, Callie said, seating himself. I can't remember the last time we didn't have at least one empty chair. Tarkon pursed his lips, ruffling his beard. Then again, you can't remember the last time you emptied your bowels, either. Nonsense. On matters of importance, my scribe takes the strictest notes. Callie's smirk faded. I'm not going to rehash every detail. If you're not up to date, it's your own damn fault. In short, a clan of Norrin burned Lord Cassander's estate to the foundations. In response, King Modigan has levied a new tax. He's begun headcounts in Bonn and Latover. Headcounts means troop counts. Troop counts mean we'd better grab our balls and run for the hills. The debacle with Cassander was my fault, Dante broke in. We led a clan on a mission to rescue their enslaved cousins. Things turned violent. Wint lifted a thin black brow. I heard the search for a few missing Norrin was just one of the reasons you were there. From behind Dante, Blaze snorted. Of course it was. Do you think we'd cartwheeled through some lord's door, torches in hand, all for the sake of a single clan? It doesn't matter why it happened, Callie said, cutting off any potential objections to lowly Blaze speaking out of turn. What matters is what course we take from here. If none of you want to figure that out, my next course is straight to bed. The other members glanced between each other. A servant coughed. Ollivander leaned forward and clasped his heavy hands on the table. If Modigan marches, it will be on the Norrin, not us. Sounds like the very reason we should stay clear, Wint said. They're counting on our loyalty. Somber's head jerked back and forth. Since when is suicide the best expression of loyalty? We preserve ourselves, stash our loyalty away, then return it to the table when it's actually worth playing. Tarkin rolled his eyes. Would that be before or after the Noran territories are converted into the world's largest charcoal bed? I've met Modigan, Cav said in his academy-honed tones. He doesn't believe in half-measures. If we throw our sticks in with the Noran, he'll burn us without blinking. Callie grimaced. Ollivander, what kind of numbers can we muster? Reliably, I mean. You military men seem cursed with double vision whenever you survey the troops. Three thousand, the big man shrugged. A tenth that in cavalry. Between the last war and the immigrants, our infrastructure hasn't had time to rebuild. And what can Modigan come up with? Ten thousand by July. At the very least, maybe double that. I'm no algebraist. Wint said, but that sounds horrible. 
They'd have to thread their campaign through a narrow needle, Vala said softly. The Dundons are often snowed in by October. And that snow won't fall on whatever hill we huddle on, Calve countered. Why are we arguing whether to help, Dante said. We're the reason they're facing invasion. If we hadn't been stirring up trouble the last five years, they'd still be just another unhappy territory. We, Wint said, the institution of this council and the higher lord we serve. Cav gazed at the white plaster ceiling and the chandelier's twelve clusters of candles. The key fact is that promise was made five years ago. If we were looking at the world as it lies right now, would we make that same promise? Which, of course, has nothing to do with the fact we did make that promise, Kelly said. Anyway, the thinking here is very all or nothing. There are ways to aid and resist that don't involve a field of troops, a rousing speech, and a million kegs of blood. If we commit one man, we may as well send a thousand, Wint said. You think they can sweep through the Norren without picking up our tracks as well? With proof of our involvement and an army at our doorstep, what king in his right mind wouldn't take the chance to finally annex us properly? Talk went on for another half hour, but Wint's cold logic effectively settled the issue. Callie called for a vote. He, Dante, Tarkon, and Ollivander favored continued support. The remaining eight decided to cease all involvement in Norrin matters until a later date. While the others filed out, Dante slumped in his high-backed chair. Blaze sat on the table and kicked his heels. Well, good luck to the clans, I guess. This is bullshit, Dante said. How can they just turn their backs? We've been working towards this for years. Maybe the Norrin will do all right. I'd rather break rocks with my balls than try to scour the clans from their own hills. You think so? Well, probably not. I'd only expect to lose one ball fighting the Norrin. Tarkon tarried with Callie for some time. With nowhere else to go, Dante sat and stewed, seething over every insipid argument and call to cowardice. Had he just wasted the last five years of his life? Had he actually made a bad thing worse? What was the plan from here? To sit in the citadel, making faces of concern while the armies of Gask stamped, raped, and gorged their way across the Norrin lands? Once Tarkon left, Callie ushered out the last of the servants, retook his seat, and hoisted one slippered foot to rest upon the table. Disappointed? Dante smiled grimly. Why would I be disappointed? It's only my fault the Norrin are facing war. I've just been ordered not to help them. I couldn't be happier if you told me my mom had walked back from the dead. I see. I suppose you think I deserve this. Well, the Norrin are about to be punished far worse than me. Deserve it. Callie laughed scornfully. I am no tame. I don't hand down judgment from my righteous throne. By and large, everyone deserves nothing. The rightness of this belief is proven by the fact that's precisely what they get. 
Now that's a rousing philosophy, Blaze said. The kind of thing that inspires you to spring out of bed, rub the grit from your eyes, and dive right back under the covers. Kelly flapped his hand. Listen, Dribblemouth, I'm no happier about their decision than you are. Could have fooled me, Dante said. Well, the answer to that quandary is very simple. Kelly reached out to lower his stiff leg from the table. He stood, cracking his knuckles. We're not going to do a damn thing the council says. Chapter 9 Dante blinked. You mean to help the Noran anyway? That quick brain is precisely why I appointed you to the council. In that case, I have something to show you. Dante jogged out the door to his rooms, gathered up his satchel, and returned to the meeting chambers where Kelly and Blaze passed a badly rolled cigarette between them. Dante closed the door behind him. Under the tobacco, Dante smelled sift spring, an odor of sage and cold winter mornings. It could perk their nerves a little bit. Kelly favored it when he did his deepest thinking. Dante placed a lumpy rag on the table and unfolded it, revealing several pieces of cracked skull. Kelly leaned over, smoke rising dragon-like from his nostrils. Very nice. Bits of dead things. There's more. Yes, I saw the string, too. Those are some tidy little knots. Hang on a minute, you old goat. Dante stood over the pieces and summoned the darkness to his fingers. Kelly glanced away from the cigarette in his hand, frowning slightly as Dante drew his ethereal connections between the bones and sheathed them tight in the bone's own power. Dante had built loons a score of times now, and the ritual took him less than two minutes. Blaze, meanwhile, wandered to the fireplace to poke at the embers with a brass gaff. Dante set one of the completed loons in front of Callie. Wait here. He unlocked the glass doors, stepped onto the cold, windy balcony, and shut himself outside. He pressed his face to the glass to watch the old man, then lifted his loon to his face. Callimandicus! Kelly jerked back from the table, gnarled hands twisted in front of his face. Dante chortled and went on. This is the voice of Aron. You are to give the one you call Dante Galand a tower and a harem to fill it with. Kelly gaped at the door, beckoning furiously. Where did you learn to do that? I try to tell you. Dante locked the door behind him, shivering in the sudden warmth. We didn't find the quivering bow, but we found these. This is brilliant. I don't understand why I didn't think of this myself. He turned the bones over in his deep-lined palm, tapping them with his yellowed fingernails, peering into the crevices between the strung-together pieces. He cackled and flicked the loon into the air, snatching it at its apex. Two simple links. Who taught you to make this? The Noran who came here with us had one. I think they severed its connections when he left the clan, so I had to deduce how it worked on the trip here. It won't hold together for long, though, will it? Perhaps a couple of hours. How can you tell? Dante said. Because this little wrapper you've got holding it in place is already evaporating. 
Callie set down the loon and sat back, beard rolling into a smile. Still, this changes things, you know. Things are very changed. Do you think we have a chance? Hardly, Callie snorted. But now's not the time to be worrying about trivial things like chances. Get your Noran up here. We have work to do. Callie worked with the discipline of a scholar and the enthusiasm of a fieldball fanatic. He examined Morn's earring for five seconds before declaring the tiny wishbone-shaped bone was that from the inner ear of a human. He dispatched a servant to the basements to find as many such bones as he could, then set to work on making the loons permanent. Callie had it figured out before the servant returned. The Norrin loons weren't always active, allowing the ethereal sheath to recharge, as it were, whenever they were silent. If ever the sheath were exhausted, it would collapse, permanently severing the link. But so long as the loons were used sparingly, less than an hour a day, they could, hypothetically, last forever, or at least as long as the physical object maintained its coherence. They could be further stabilized by employing a second sheath of ether drawn from an inorganic mineral such as silver used in the earring. Dante could no more command the ether than he could leap and kiss the moon, but he took Callie's word for it. The servant returned with several miniature bones and three intact skulls, one of which was still wrapped in withered flesh, its hair like dried seaweed. Callie picked the bones apart with scalpel and tweezers and quickly bundled them into two new loons. After some fiddling, he sent Dante to the balcony. With the loon pressed to his ear, Dante heard Callie's voice as a low murmur. On attaching bits of scrap silver, the old man wrangled two different sheaths, one ether, one nether. He and Dante spent a half hour running through the keep like children, loons pressed to their ears as they exchanged insults, commands, and cryptic aphorisms. Early morning sunlight splashed through the curtains. Still, Dante could hardly sleep. By the fourth time he woke, he didn't bother trying to lie back down. He dressed, dashed up to Callie's room, and knocked softly. Callie replied at once, clear-voiced, to call him in. Dante slammed the door behind him. Well? Callie grinned, blue eyes flashing. I think I'm going to declare a holiday in our honor. They still work. And now comes the hard part. We can't tell a soul about our godlike greatness. To be perfectly frank, Dante said, I don't understand why this is a secret in the first place. Callie raised the thickets of his brows. Are you kidding? This is a highly sophisticated concept. Few enough know how to animate the dead, let alone sense through their senses. Variations of the idea, then. Like, what if I killed a bunch of eagles, then returned them to the sky with a red cloth in one claw and a white cloth in the other? They could pass a message to everyone watching them in moments. Or I could park a dead rat in your room, go to the palace in Setovan, spy on the king, and then have the rats tap out exactly what the king was saying. The old man chuckled. Have you ever tried to make a dead bird fly? Well, no. It works exactly as well as when a normal person tries it. As far as commanding a rat from five hundred miles away goes, 
Have you ever tried that? I've commanded them two or three miles from me, Dante said. I didn't notice any loss of control or need for additional focus. Try it at ten miles sometime, Callie said. Or twenty. Anyone can waggle a three-foot stick. Try holding up a fifty-foot branch sometime. Building such a speech web would require an army of nethermancers dedicated to nothing but making rats tap-dance yes or no to other nethermancers. There aren't enough saucers and all gasp for that. Then why do the loons work at such long range? Those rats of yours tax your hold on the nether at every moment of the day. It's the same way it taxes a warrior to wave around his sword. Most of the time, the loons are sheathed. A sheathed weapon draws no strength from the wielder. I get it. More or less, Dante said. So, we've got the loons. What's next? We plan your next trip, Callie said. I don't know about that. Dante frowned. The last time I was let out of the house, I accidentally touched off a war. That's precisely why I'm sending you out to undo it. Not for a couple of weeks, of course. I'd like to let tempers cool before we throw you back into the field. Well, that should give me plenty of time to figure out who tried to kill me yesterday. Callie drew back his bearded chin. Someone tried to kill you? You didn't hear? When I got off the boat, they were expecting me. Well, I can't say I blame them. Callie beckoned toward the door. Now go get ready for diplomacy. Bathing was a good start. No sense going to the tailor just yet, Dante said. Not before I know whether I'll need new clothes for the blue bloods or to wear at my own funeral. Speaking of which, I'd like you to take a look at something. It might be poison, so don't eat any of it unless you'd like to make my day. He brought Callie the vial of black-brown liquid, then found Blaze eating toast and bacon and dried peaches in the dining hall. After querying two servants and a blacksmith, he tracked Morn down in the armory, where the Norrin was discussing serration with the house arrowsmith. Lyra took somewhat longer to locate, she had taken to the gymnasium of the auxiliary barracks, which was presently empty. Dust motes swirled in the sunlight, slashing through the empty windows. Cobwebs strangled the exposed rafters. Lyra practiced in the space at the far end of the barn-like barracks, short sword in her left hand, her right hand empty. She moved as slowly and fluidly as cool honey, her blade tracing crisp patterns, while her free hand moved in concert, clawing, grasping, and twisting imaginary foes. At times, she exploded into furious motion, hand and sword flowing through combinations far too fast for Dante to follow. After one of these flurries, she sensed him and turned, lowering her arms to her side. She wore a light and simple shirt, and sweat shined from her temples and neck. What are you doing with your offhand? Dante said. That seems pretty intricate for shield work. There's no shield. But a lot of the time you were leading with it. I'll admit I'm an amateur, but that looks like the first form for loss of unwanted hands. She sheathed her sword and ran the fingers of her left hand from elbow to wrist of her right. 
Armor goes here. You need the fingers free. Combat is sensitive. Not in my experience. Anyway, I don't see how you'll ever get close enough to use your bare hand. She gave him a look, then went to the wall where the wooden swords were racked. She handed one to him, hilt first. Come at me. He took two steps, then lunged, his longer blade keeping his body well separated from hers. She shifted her heels, thrusting her short sword left-handed over top of his. As it slid harmlessly past her side, she grabbed his wrist with her empty right hand and collapsed into the gap between them. Her sword pressed against his gut, its short length a sudden advantage. That's how it works. She held the pose, steel tapping his stomach, then withdrew. With a hollow clatter, he returned the sword to the rack. Very clever. Unless they come at you with two blades. Then my bare hand takes one of the knives from my belt. She swept her arm across her sweat-smudged forehead. I'm not making this up as I go along. I spent my youth in the Carlins. Their warriors have been dealing with the Anirian pirates for eight hundred years. I'm going to speak to the guards again about the assassin. I'd like you to come with me. Afraid to walk the streets alone, she said, perfectly expressionless. He narrowed his eyes. Was that a joke? No, I thought I'd do the right thing and turn you in for assault. Come on, the others are in the courtyard. He stepped into the cold sunlight while she toweled off and dressed for the wintry air. The gate cranked open as they approached. The streets were subdued. The rowdiest revelers were sleeping it off, regrouping their strength for another afternoon of beer and a long evening of whatever drinks were set in front of them. Dante caught a whiff of vomit. Urine, too, but it always smelled like that. The guards who'd taken the body were out on rounds. The attendant in the short stone tower told Dante the body had been moved to the carnitarium for storage and study. Figuring it would be faster, Dante climbed the tower stairs and set out across the top of the pride gate. Exposed atop the stone, the bayward wind streamed across his face. The carnitarium, Morn asked. Don't worry, Blay said. It's just as bad as it sounds. Only if you have the constitution of a daisy, Dante said, mildly insulted. The establishment of the carnitarium had partly been his doing. Four odd years back, the city guards had been dying in the streets at night, throats torn, bodies clawed bloody, hearts torn from their chests. Witnesses confirmed the attacker had been a great shaggy beast. For a few weeks, there had been something of a werewolf panic. Dante didn't buy that for a second, even after he and Blaze had taken on the case and seen the shredded dead for themselves. And he had been vindicated after discovering the culprit was nothing more than a vengeful sorcerer and his undead dog. The citizenry were glad enough, naturally, for the panic to be put to rest. What caught Dante off guard were the scribe-written letters and visits from the families of those the sorcerer and his dog had killed. Their gratitude wasn't driven by the satisfaction of vengeance or justice, but from simply knowing what had killed their sons and husbands. 
With the support of Tarkin and Maria, and aided by volunteer monks from the Cathedral of Ivars, Dante cleared the catacombs beneath the cemetery on the hill and installed equipment and storage. A small crew of willing monks was trained for a simple purpose, to investigate any strange or suspicious deaths brought to them, primarily via whatever clues could be discerned with the Nether. The Carnitarium had not been his idea for the name. Laughter and the clatter of hooves filtered from the streets. They passed through the upper floor of a guard tower every quarter mile, where guards glanced at Dante's sapphire brooch and black cloak and waved them on. Once the curve of the Pride Gate took the wall east-west, Dante descended at another tower and strode through the quiet streets. Weedy yards separated the modest houses. A high hill rose ahead. There were no words carved above the door in the foot of the hill. Instead, a stone plaque bore the image of a millstone pierced by an angled pole. The pole's tip was astered by the four-pointed star of Jorus. Why do humans insist on putting your dead in their own little holes? Morn muttered. What do you do? Blay said. Prop them up at the table. We've seen their funerals, Dante said. They leave the bodies on the oldest hills. If there's more than one, they pile them up in one big grave. I thought that was just for the people they don't like. We don't think our dead should rest alone, Morn said. If you belong to a clan in life, why should you be isolated in death? The dim tunnel swallowed them up. A flicker of decay wafted on the breeze. Torches burned from the rough limestone walls. A short, gritty walk took them into a foyer furnished with a handful of chairs and an end table with a small gong on it, which Dante struck. A bald monk padded into the room, nose lifted as if he smelled a pie. My old student! Nack smiled. Come to lord over me with your latest promotion? Someone tried to kill me yesterday, Dante said. I'd like to see the body. Right this way. Nack padded down the stone halls, exchanging pleasantries. The smell of rot thickened on the cool cavern air. Nack led them to a small room. The dead assassin rested on a stained table, bodies stripped bare. Nack frowned sharply. I'll fetch the Nathreiter. He padded off, leaving the four of them with the body. Blaze sniffed. Doesn't look so tough now. Nobody looks tough when their balls are hanging out, Dante said. Lyra shrugged. People who fight naked are more frightening than those in full chain. I have my doubts, Blaze said. Let's put this to the test. They were interrupted by the arrival of the Natriter, a man with dark circles around his eyes and an expression chilly enough to preserve the flesh of any corpse he glanced at, which made sense. It was his job, after all, to decide how the dead had died. Dante nodded at the body. What can you tell me about him? The man gave him a level look. The stab wound tells me he died of a stab wound. 
Any indication where he came from? A womb, most likely. Blaze paced around the body. Look, this justifiably dead person tried to kill my friend here. Anything you can tell us about him would do wonders for our ability to continue going unassassinated. The Nartritus sighed through his long nose and closed on the corpse in a single stride. He pushed back the dead man's lips. He still has most of his teeth, unlikely to be a sharecropper, but his hands are awfully rough to be a lord. Excellent, Blaze said. So he could be anyone but the poorest of the poor or the richest of the rich. The man didn't acknowledge this. The hem of his cloak smelled like wintrel. What did the nether show? Dante said. Nothing abnormal. You're welcome to check for yourself. Dante shook his head. Please hang on to the body for now. Once it turns, I'd like the skull preserved, just in case. Whatever you say. Dante waved to Knack on their way out of the catacombs. Outside, the sun felt hard, the air gentle and pure. That wasn't half as bad as you made it sound, Lyra said. Blaze rolled his eyes. That's because we didn't go to storage. Did we just learn anything at all? Dante said. I don't think Wintrell grows anywhere but the Gascon interior, Blaze said. So that rules out our old enemies from Malin, or pirates. Not river pirates, Morn said, or land pirates. Another finger pointing Cassander's way. Dante glanced up. Dark clouds mounded in from the bay low and fast. Or anyone who wants to get in his good graces, which describes nearly everyone in Gask. Perhaps it was the comfort of being home after a long journey, but Dante didn't feel all that concerned that an unknown enemy had recently tried to take his life. Then again, this wasn't the first time he'd been attacked in the street. He had a full flask of experience to draw on in comparison. The fifth strawberry never tastes as sweet as the first. So he didn't think much about the dead man as he led the others to the ingate tailor who handled the citadel's ritzier garb. The sharp-eyed proprietor closed her shop and led them upstairs to a world of fur and silk and cotton. Pins and swatches and cloth tape flew as she and her two assistants fitted them for travel and court. The old woman took Morn's fitting as a special challenge. Morn appeared to feel the same challenge about her measuring tape sliding under his armpits and around his groin. When they left late that afternoon, snow whirled down from the clouds. In protest, the Thor's Day's revelers burnt all the moths they could find. Traditionally, the last days of Urt were associated with cicadas, but Dante hadn't seen one of those since leaving Malin and smashed snowmen with axes and hoes. Several days passed in complete peace. Dante spent hours discussing his upcoming diplomatic tour with Callie. He found maps of Gask's provinces, holdings, and fiefdoms, and took them to the monks for copies. He visited with a handful of Narashtivik's lords, merchants, and ambassadors, 
juicing them for information about the men and families he should most try to sway. According to Callie's scheme, each visitation would carry its own goals. At one manner, Dante might entreat the Lord to pressure his colleagues in Setevan to ease back on any measures against the Norren territories. In another, he might subtly ask a baron to remain quietly neutral should war erupt, or at least provide minimal aid when the king's campaign came calling for men and grain. At yet another household, Dante might do no more than attempt to gauge its master's opinion and remind the man, with Dante's own presence, that other powers and interests populated the lands of Greater Gask besides those concentrated in its capital. Word arrived the Viceroy of Dolendon and the border towns had banned all Norren from bearing arms in public without notarized consent of the local guard. Several Norren had already been arrested. Two days later, one of Callie's scouts rode through the gates with news the clan of the Broken Branch had ranged across the river to burn a slave camp to the ground. The clan left no living human behind. It's just a matter of time, Blay said, after a long time planning routes in his room. We ought to just dig a huge ditch around the Norrin lands and fill it with all the trash we can find, see if that keeps them out. Dante stood from the desk, knees popping. Speaking of trash, I'm hungry. Want lunch? Five times a day. Dante clomped down the back stairs to take the shortcut to the dining hall. The high, wide walls were a product of an earlier time, and so too were the rules of etiquette that continued to govern it. Anyone within the citadel was allowed to eat on the hall, from the lowest charmaid to common soldiers to Callie himself. When there were lines, no favors were to be expected or granted. Most shockingly of all, perhaps, in practice it played out just like that. The few who had issue with such egalitarianism, such as blue-blooded calf, simply took all their meals in their room or out on the town. This order amongst the classes was self-policing and easily explained. Pull rank on a servant in the hall to help yourself to the last slice of plum duck, and the next time a meal was delivered to your room, it was likely to contain an additional spicing of saliva, hair, and pestled rat feces. So the hall bore its usual assortment of soldiers, footmen, and monks. Flatware clattered from plates and long wooden tables. Across the room, Lyra faced Wint, her back as stiff as charcoal-forged steel. Wint smiled and gestured towards her waist. Her hand flinched. Ah! Blaze strode across the wooden floor, sidestepping a servant waddling along beneath a tray of cups and bowls. Dante jogged to catch up. My point, Wint said, voice threading through the rattle of knives and laughter, is why limit yourself to bodyguarding while you're awake? Lyra didn't move. You're proposing to hire me in my sleep? The young councilman shook his head. I wasn't aware your services were paid. Her limbs went loose, not from a deflation of tension, the alert looseness of a warrior readying her muscles to react in an instant. Stop speaking to me. Is that 
a command? Wint's smile withered. Just where do you think you are? Positioned in front of a rather poor view, Belay said, slipping between them like a knife between ribs. But I bet I can pound it into shape easy enough. Wint laughed inches from Blaze's face, brows bent. Everyone's forgot themselves today. Officially, you're a retainer of the Citadel, yes? Bound, in other words, to carry out orders from every member of the Council. Blazer's hand found the handle of his sword. Yes, but I have notoriously bad hearing. To me, all orders sound like stab, stab, stab. Nether flickered to Wint's thin fingers. Perhaps your ears are simply clogged, and the blockage can be knocked free with sufficient force. Stop this, Dante said. Nobody wants a bunch of blood in their food. Nothing to worry about, then. There's no blood if a man's heart just stops. Wint winked at Blaze, then turned and strode for a nearby table, snagging an entire plate of skewered beef from a passing servant. Lyra met Blaze's eyes. I can take care of myself. I know that, he said. I've just always wanted to hit that guy. He was reaching for the nether, Dante said. Blaze snorted. I've been around you long enough to have worked out a plan or two. Let's see how well you bust those shutters around while I'm twisting your nipple off. Dante shook his head. Blaze rapidly dropped the subject in favor of a tirade about the inherent superiority of peppered chicken and herbed kasher, but Lyra was silent, even by her own laconic standards. Then again, she and Morn had been cooped up in the citadel and its grounds for days now, sitting on their hands, while Dante, Blaze, and Callie schemed and mapped and planned. It's the last day of Thor's, Dante said. Why don't we go out tonight? Blaze jabbed a greasy chicken bone his way. Not if your plan is to go look at churches or attend some play. My thinking was more along the lines of eating, drinking, and repeating until our corpses have to be swept into the street. That's what you consider fun, Lyra said. She came along anyway. Dante took his loon, leaving the other with Callie. Blaze took an emergency flask and an emergency emergency flask. Lyra took three extra knives. Morn took himself. Their first stop was just beyond the gates. A similar scene was about to play out in squares across the city, but the plaza between the Cathedral of Ivars and the Sealed Citadel was the most popular by far. Three thousand people ringed a wide, roped-off circle. Twelve monks were spaced along its interior. They carried long-handled nets and foolish grins. Spectators jostled, placed bets, exchanged good-natured jeers with the monks. The sun sank beneath the cathedral roof. A gap opened in the crowd directly in front of the church's doors, revealing an elderly woman. Holida, the institution's master. She shuffled to the center of the vast ring, head bobbing, a squirming sack tucked beneath one arm. Four men in black hoods circled counterclockwise among the monks, passing out ceremonial wine. 
confused, blind, and chaste. Holida smiled. At least you're not alone. She whipped the sack away. A blindfolded rabbit wriggled in her arm. Around the circle, the monks chugged their mugs. The crowd whooped as the monks set down their cups and took up their nets. Holida raised her free hand for silence, then spun three times and set the rabbit on the ground. It listed like a hulled ship, careering straight for a portly monk. He swiped at it with his net, missing widely, drawing a hail of booze. A woman sprinted forward, robes and black hair flapping. The rabbit bolted between her ankles. Three others jogged to intercept, holding a chevron formation. The creature veered toward the crowd. They stamped their feet until it reversed course, and straight into an old monk's net. He hefted it over his head, its long legs kicking as he raised his fist in triumph. The audience laughed, shouted, clapped. I don't understand what I just saw, Lyra said. Narashtivik, Dante smiled. Five hundred years of sieges and decay has left them a bit fatalistic. And weird, Blay said. Onward! Last light dwindled from the rooftops. Knowing the best taverns were rarely the richest, Dante led them beyond the inn gate to one of the city's less loved neighborhoods. In squares, people stomped the slush and shoveled it to melt beside snapping bonfires. The smell of wood smoke on cold air always made Dante feel at peace. In front of the six-sided spike of the Karin Tower, a man in a patchwork cloak made delicate hammer strokes from atop the ladder he needed to play the ten-foot strings of his god's harp. The pub hunt didn't start strong. The left hand was too crowded to fit through the door. The pine and hatchet had burned to the ground. Finally, Dante settled on Cattens, a four-story pub and inn with an auxiliary basement they opened for holiday crowds. To a surprise, several tables were open in the main room. Their group occupied one and quickly populated it with mugs of stout. Dante wasn't as enthusiastic about pubs as Blaze, but for his coin, the second drink was always the best. Settled into his chair, that first rum or beer soothing his nerves, the anticipation of the evening to come. The mood of the crowd at Catton's matched his. Placid to begin with, but gradually growing more excited for no apparent reason. By the time the barback shoved two tables aside for a boisterous quartet hailing from the eastern mountains, Dante's toes began to tap on their own. I think I need to dance, Blaze declared. Dante glanced away from the short-haired blonde, whose voice was as crisp as her flute. I didn't know you danced. Not well, but that's why it's fun. He stood, chair-scraping, and extended his hand to Lyra. My lady. I don't dance, she said. Meaning, I don't dance. How stupid. How about you, Moon? The Norrin blinked. Do male humans dance with other males? No, but they sometimes joke about it. Wish me luck. Blaze swung from the table and approached the hodgepodge of men and women dancing in front of the sweating quartet. 
he quickly linked arms with a young woman whose white smile flashed between the black brackets of her hair. Each time Blaze stumbled, he leaned in and shouted something above the music. Each time, the girl drew back laughing. He's very enthusiastic, Lyra said, especially for putting our lives at risk. Dante sipped his thick and bitter beer. Why don't you dance? I have to choose to be thought of as a warrior or as a woman. Shooting for both targets means striking neither. I can only imagine. Lyra laughed in the high-pitched way of someone who's very pleased with herself. You bought it, didn't you? Not that it's entirely a lie. She peered at him over her beer. Primarily, I'm afraid I'd break both legs. I'd probably break a third one I didn't know I had. Dante chuckled. The musicians finished on a stutter of hard notes. The dancers fell apart, laughing and clapping and bowing. Lyra gestured their way. Do you dance? Just often enough to remember why I never do. The next dance involved a rhythm of boot stomps and partnered claps that Dante couldn't begin to follow. Blaze blustered through in a flurry of stinging palms and barking laughter. At the end, the dark-haired girl hugged him and left with a wave. He plopped back in his chair, sweaty and grinning. I'm not going to ask if you watched, he said. Saying no would only prove you're a liar. We conversed, Dante said, mostly about the best way to scrape the remains of your partner from the bottom of your shoes. Lyra clapped her mug to the table. I should dance with you after all. I'm much harder to stomp than some waif. Blaze grinned. Another drink first, and much more air. Then we'll see who tramples who. Air was breathed. Drinks were drunk. The band took a breather of their own. When they returned, Blaze stood up and offered Lyra his hand. She accepted with a curt nod. What am I seeing? Morn said. Dante shook his head. A man eager to make a mistake. Lyra moved with a rhythm that more or less matched that of the fiddle. Dante thought she'd be clumsy, stiff, openly dangerous with her elbows and toes. But she danced with a martial precision that resembled a less practiced version of the crisp mastery she showed with her forms in the barracks. Despite this, it wasn't unpleasant. Through it all, she kept her limbs and muscles loose, guided by the confident hands of training and alcohol. The players leaned into their instruments, elbows jumping back and forth. The creases of concentration smoothed from Lyra's brow. She flowed after Blaze's lead, matching his steps and gestures as if she'd rehearsed for weeks. Dante smiled. Two people in tune to each other, and the music that brought them together. Years later, he would remember nothing else from that evening, but his memory of the dance would persist with the sharpness of splintered obsidian. Regret came with that remembrance, of course, but also the knowledge that for everything that happened afterward, that song, that dance, that moment could never be destroyed. The final notes swept the crowd. 
Blaze grinned, slicking his hand through his sweat-clumped hair. Lyra stepped away with a small smile and returned to her chair. I hope that wasn't too disgraceful. Dante shook his head, laughing. You did just fine. Their travel plans took shape. Callie ruled out spending any serious time in the lands directly between Central Gask and the Noran territories. If it came to war, the lords there would be deluged by the king's men, incapable of the first hint of resistance. Even acting too slowly to support the king's army could result in the forcible appropriation of food, men, and their very titles. Callie would dispatch another diplomatic attachment to visit those lords and make carefully apolitical promises of Narashtavik's friendship. Dante, however, would be sent further afield. His natural targets would be those distanced geographically and politically from the capital's gravity. A long ride south-southwest would take him to the plains of Tatonin, eighty miles of grain and grassland not far from the Noran Hills' western edge. They had long ties to their Noran neighbors. Tatonin had been absorbed by Gask in the same wave of expansion that gobbled up the Noran territories. Many of its farmers and baronets had never taken to the royal yoke, no matter how many decades passed. It would be unable to muster much in the way of men, but if Dante could convey to its rulers that a Norin victory would enable all of the eastern states to self-rule, Tatonin might be convinced to misplace its excessive grain before the king's collectors came to call. Dante's second stayover would take place among the lakes of Galador Rift. Some three hundred miles further west, nestled between the mountains, the lake's merchants were rather boisterous proponents of preserving peace at any cost. Calm waters bring many sails, or so their motto went. Dante's pursuit there wouldn't be material gains, but political ones. If he could convince the trade nexus that a war against the Noran would be slow, messy, and chaotic, the merchantmen would assuredly pressure Setevan to settle the conflict through gentler means. The third shot was a long one not just in the sense of the sheer distance to the meandering inlet of Pocket Cove. At least Dante could find the place. The same might not be true of its residents. Even if he could track down the people of the Pocket, there were no guarantees they wouldn't flay him on the spot and kite his skin on the beach. With no unforeseen diversions or delays, the trip to all these places would last two months with much of that time reserved for introductions, dinners, and multi-day stays in stately manners. The trip back could take as little as three weeks, less if they were willing to kill a few horses. They'd be back by the end of June, in other words. If he planned to take the Noran territories before winter, Modigan would have to commit his forces to the field around that same time. Three days! Callie said after reaching that conclusion. Dante glanced up from the maps on the table in the old man's room. What about them? That's when I kick you out the front gates. That's hardly any time at all. Blazers had hangovers last longer than that. Callie scoffed, flicking his beard with his fingertips. You have an entire castle at your disposal. If you were feeling cramped, you could clap your hands and have a new house built for you by the morning. Dante blew on the notes he'd been taking. 
It just seems fast. I suppose three days is enough. It'd better be, because you'll actually only have two. What? Why the hell did you just tell me I'd leave in three? You will. Callie peered down his crooked nose. But one of those days will be spent with me. It's time you had another lesson. Dante looked up sharply, smudging his ink. In what? Clearly, it ought to be patience. Tell me. Poetry farming, the old man said. What do you think? That was the best Dante could get out of him. He left to tell the others the plan and get started on a final list of all they'd need along the way. Despite the details demanding his attention, his focus refused to stay put, returning incessantly to the idea like a dog to a wounded paw. He wasn't sure Callie had given him any proper lessons after they first met in Malon. While Blaze waited for the gallows and Dante fumed, impotent, Callie taught him the secret of blood. A tomb had served as the old man's schoolhouse. His methods, chiefly, had been insanity. But by the time he finished showing Dante how to feed the Nether with his own blood, Dante had been able to carve his way through the dozen guards that stood between him and Blaze. That had been some six years ago. Six years of constant practice with the Nether. What would Callie be able to teach him now? A knock jarred him from sleep. The room was blacker than Nether. His headache implied it was hours before dawn. He put on a robe, opened the door, and stared murder at the waiting servant. This had better be about the end of the world. Kalimandikus requires you on the roof, now. The servant's eyes widened. His words, not mine. I meant no. Shut up, Dante said. Tell him I'll be up in a minute. And that I hate him. He slugged down a half-empty mug of cold tea, dressed in a thick doublet and thicker cloak, and shuffled up the steep staircase to the roof. Callie stood in its center, head tipped back, beard and hair flapping in the vicious wind. Far below, smoke furled from brick chimneys. Far above, stars burned from the perfect sky. Without clouds, to trap it in, all the day's warmth had been lost. A film of frost slicked the stone. What time is it? Dante said. Callie didn't turn. Does it matter? I guess I'd want to throw myself off the roof, no matter what time it was. So you don't think it matters? Dante huddled in his cloak. Is this part of the lesson? Callie's brow darkened. His eyes were as bright as the stars. You're wrong. When we go to extremes, your wrongness is clear. It's the end of winter. If you were a farmer, you should be preparing your first fields now. If you waited to plant your tomatoes and peppers until the fall, October frost would kill your crops, and then you. That's a difference of seasons. I'm talking about an hour or three, the difference between a normal morning and a pounding headache. So there's no difference between hours. What about days? Will today as a day be different than tomorrow? Dante rubbed his eyes. It will be longer, by a minute or two. 
If you woke at dawn both days, could you tell one dawn from the other? I highly doubt it. The old man nodded to himself. The clouds would look different, of course, unless something were terribly wrong. The moon, if visible, will have waxed or waned. It will be warmer or colder. The city may be awake or recovering from a feast. Callie, I feel like I've been swung by my feet into a wall. I don't get where this is going. Do you think it's coincidence our holiest text is called The Cycle of Aron? Callie waited just long enough for Dante to fear the question might not be rhetorical. The turn of the Celeset takes twenty-six thousand years to complete. You could chart the stars for years and see no movement, yet Joris won't always guide you north. He scowled at the stars. Do you know why Earth's followers venerate the cicada? Dante shrugged. His cloak slipped from his shoulder, exposing his neck to the wind. Because they're insane because the cicada emerges once every seventeen years. For sixteen years and eleven months, you wouldn't have the first clue they existed, but walk in the woods at the end of the cycle, and you'd think the trees grew cicadas instead of leaves. So, all the world's a cycle, even when we can't see it. Callie rolled his eyes. You are terrible about simplifying things. Could you describe males without invoking balls? Tell me, when you touch the nether, does it always feel the same? A sudden gust of wind tore at Dante's breath. He choked on the cold air, belching. Most of the time, it's cold as a mountain stream. Others, it's warm like... That was not the type of question that should be given a literal answer. The old man shooed his hand at the stairs. Go back to bed. Wait, was that supposed to be a lesson? It's not my business if you can't understand it. I think that's exactly what a teacher's business is. So go to bed. Perhaps things will look different once the sun's come up. Dante shook his head and headed downstairs. After the freezing winds, the cool stone of the stairwell felt like a lit hearth. He'd been a fool to get his hopes up. Callie was a man of games, most of them stupid. He asked ten questions to make a single statement. What good would a bit of linguistic philosophy do for Dante just a day before a two-month trip? He saw no more of Callie that day. Hours passed in a blur of packing and preparation. The sun set and rose just the same as it had the day before. Dante's anger at Callie's opacity persisted until it came time to leave. He gathered in the pre-dawn courtyard with Blaze, Morn, and Lyra. They had two horses apiece and a whole pile of luggage. No trumpets met them, no honor guards. Even without such fanfare, the council would note Dante's absence soon enough, but at least the lack of ceremony would help grease Callie's lie. That he'd sent Dante and crew out on a simple scouting mission to the Norren territories. Callie met them just inside the gates. A shapeless cloak obscured his thin body and wild white hair. His breath curled from his mouth. Another man stood beside him, fine-boned and trim. Everyone, 
Cully said, gesturing to the man. Meet Fan. Well, Matt, Fan said cheerily, extending his hand. Please consider me your guide through the wilderness that is foreign culture. Guide, Blaze said. How different can these places be? It's all part of the same empire. The man shrugged his narrow shoulders. It wasn't always. Thank you for the offer, Dante said, but I think we'll be able to handle a few blue bloods. Fan cocked his head, one eyebrow raised in perfect mockery of a bemused scion. Did you know that in Tantornin it is considered a mortal insult to come to your host's house bearing eggs? I wasn't going to bring any eggs to anybody. And I suppose you know every other custom, tradition, ritual, and insult across Greater Gask? Well, suit yourself. It's not as if the entire fate of Norrendom depends on this trip. Fan turned to go. We should take him, Lyra said. Blaze scratched the blonde stubble on his neck. I think she's right. Oh, all right. Dante glared at Callie. I hope he's more helpful than your advice. You're still mad about our lesson, aren't you? Callie laughed. What if you die out there? You'll regret your ingratitude for eternity. Do you have any idea how long that is? You made out like your secret would change my life. Maybe it will. Yes, in that I'll never listen to anyone over fifty again. Ah, then tragically you won't hear me say, Here, take this for your journey. He pulled a shallow box from his cloak, lacquered black wood that reflected the wind-teased torches. What's that? A present? Blaze leaned down from his horse. I'll take it if he doesn't want it. On one condition. Callie held a knobby finger aloft. You can't let him see them until he says something nice about me. Deal. The old man passed the box with a metallic clink. Anyway, let's not make this a big to-do. I expect to see you again in a relative blink. Try not to let your failures drag you down. It won't be easy to convince others to turn against the long knives of the king. Callie bulged out his whiskered cheeks. Then again, try not to fail completely. If you do, we could all die here, you know. I'll see what I can do. Dante said. He nudged his horse forward. It took the first step of what would be a very long journey. Chapter 10 Dante clopped beneath the gate. Its thick stone occluded the stars. He liked best the journeys that began before sunrise. They always had an air of purpose to them an import so weighty they had to be started while the rest of the world was still snoring. Best of all, when the light finally touched the land, it showed him a different place than the one he'd woken up in. Where are we going again? Blaze said. Lyle's balls, Dante sighed. Really? Count me out, then. We're headed to the plains of Tatonin. There we'll attempt to... I'm just fooling with you. Blaze turned over the wooden box and held it to his ear. Say, what do you think's in here? He gave it a shake. 
Stop it, Dante said. That could be dangerous. To us, or the mysterious contents of this box. Knowing Callie, it could be both. He gestured across the empty boulevard. If you're going to explode, do it over there. Like I'm going to pass up the chance to take you with me. Blaze unclasped a flat metal hook, brought the box inches from his nose and cracked open its lid. Oh my. What is it, a tiny unicorn? Better. A tiny unicorn with an equally tiny little flute with which it is shockingly proficient? Close, but this is still better, Blaze said. This thing's useful. Really? Dante nudged his horse nearer. Let me see. Blaze snapped the box shut. Uh-uh. You heard what Kelly said. And normally you treat a suggestions the same way you would a spider crawling over your toast. I gave him my word, Dante. That isn't just something you throw away. Dante plodded along. Morn coughed into his fist. Dante shook his head. All right. Callie looks very fine for a 120-year-old. Insufficient. That's a plenty nice thing to say. You're living up to the letter of the law, but not its spirit, Lyra put in. That's what scoundrels do. No one asked you, Dante muttered. He rolled his eyes at the stars. Callie's an excellent leader. He's unorthodox but logical. Bold, too while his particular mix of fearlessness and schemery is precisely what got us into this mess with Setevan, I can think of no one more likely to bring us and the Norrin through to the other side in better shape than where we left. Now can I see what's in the God's damned box? Blaze twisted in the saddle to regard the others. What says the audience? Heartfelt, Lyra nodded. I can't weigh in on whether it's true, Morn said, but anyone would be flattered to hear it. Fan took a moment to register their stares. It was good. I should make you put it in writing. Blaze passed over the box. You won't be disappointed. Dante cradled the box in his lap. The lid opened noiselessly. Inside... Four brooches rested on a bed of black velvet, ivory carvings of the white tree banded by a ring of black iron. The facets of a sapphire winked from the trunk of one tree. A note was tucked into a slit in the velvet. Variants of your new toy. Distribute as you see fit. I suggest you take the pretty one as it will match your eyes. They may be bonded to the recipients with a drop of the intended wearer's blood. Don't say I never did anything for you. See. Dante closed the box. He wanted nothing more than to pass out the loons and deduce whatever special properties the old man had woven into the sapphire brooch, but his horse had just passed the ingate. In less than an hour, they'd depart the city, back into the wilds. The road spooled south through farms and forests. The first night they slept beneath the pines a quarter mile from the road. The second they found a crossroads inn at a farming village. The third night found them in Cowles, a modest town mixed with humans and Norrin. 
They entered the Norrin territories on the fourth day. Patchy snow dusted the open fields and low hills. A few times a day, the wandering clan appeared on a ridge or stoked fires from the protection of a draw, but offered neither greeting nor threat. Dante had passed out one loon to blaze and, after some thought, gave Morn and Lyra the other two. Callie could always make more later. And if either the Norin or the woman turned out to be a traitor in waiting, Dante could just destroy his, severing the links between them forever. Because the sapphire loon, it turned out, was a hub for them all. By rotating the jewel ninety degrees, Dante could choose which of the others to communicate with, including, if he returned the sapphire to its original alignment, with Callie. He saw no forts or walls in the territories, few villages or proper buildings of any kind, nothing, in other words, that would present a threat to an incoming army. The road turned southwest. Short green winter wheat fought the last of the snows. They crossed out of the proper Naran lands and into the unsettled boundaries of the south. For a full day, they walked their mounts along flat stretches that either had been, soon would be, or were currently being ploughed. Oxen, workers, and short, sturdy houses dotted the fields of brown and green. Morn watched them steadily, tipping back his head as if trying to place an elusive smell. Town smoke rose from the clear horizon. An hour after dark, they reached Shan, the local capital, and bought up five rooms at a Fieldstone Inn. Dante chafed at the price. They could easily have made do with three, but they had appearances to keep up. Fan led them up a well-trod dirt path the following morning. With the sun approaching noon, Dante stopped in front of a rough stone manor. Three round towers filled out its body, four stories high and equally wide. Two-story connectors linked the silo-like wings. In the fields beyond, wooden barns and outbuildings stood above the young green fields. A light breeze ruffled Dante's hair. He glanced at Fan. I guess you should announce us. Don't be silly, my lord. Fan gestured up the gravel path. We're in Tatornin now. If you send your servants ahead to announce you, the locals will look at you like you've asked for a golden toilet. We should get one of those, Blaze said. I've always thought our silver seats were déclassé. Any other helpful advice? Dante said. Fan tapped his delicate fingers together. They're not fond of shaking hands, perhaps because theirs are always so dirty. In any event, doing so will brand you as an outsider. Furthermore, deposit your boots at the door unless you would like the head of the household to deposit his between your buttocks. I think that's enough. Dante dismounted and crunched up the path. He thumped the knocker of the banded wooden door. A middle-aged man appeared in the doorway, stocky and stubbled, his round gut and swollen biceps placing equal strains on the fabric of his brown doublet. Is Lord Brant in? Dante said. The man smiled. Unless I've been overthrown in the last five minutes. He turned and bellowed back into the house. Chilla! Have I been overthrown recently? You will, if you don't knock off that hollering. 
a woman called back. Brant chuckled and turned back to Dante. Looks like I'm still the Lord. His gaze dropped to the two brooches on Dante's chest. You must be, what's her name, from Narashtivik. Dante galloned. He didn't offer his hand. Thought you'd be older. Well, come inside. Your friends, too. I'll send a man to see to the horses. Dante had plenty of time to take in the household, as he picked the knots from his boots and placed his footwear beside the door. Hard winter light gushed through the windows of the large round room. The windows were glass, and fine-stitched rugs covered nearly every inch of the wooden floors, but there was a simplicity to the room beyond the informality of the baronet who owned it. Above the fieldstone fireplace, a hoe rested across two pegs, displayed as proudly as a knight's blade. The same one my ancestor used to first break these fields, Prant said, catching him looking. Scrub off the rust, and I'm sure it still could. Nonsense, a woman smiled from the stone staircase. You'd rather churn the dirt with your own teeth than let that old thing touch open air? I said it could, Brant said mildly. The woman was his wife, Jilla. While she made introductions, Brant trundled off to dispatch riders to inform the local lords of the group's arrival. After a lunch of pork, potatoes, and the best bread Dante'd ever tasted, Brant brought their horses back from the stable and led them on a tour of the estate. We'll have dinner tomorrow, he told Dante, rolling atop his cracked leather saddle. And tonight, of course. Imagine me taking you in and then leaving you to fend for yourselves. He laughed, voice carrying on the flickering wind. That's when we'll speak, I mean. That's fine, Dante said. Our time isn't so precious just yet. Still, I'll try to help you make the most of it. I have a rough idea why you're down here. I'm sure your offer will be a right one. But don't bet your winter on it being snapped up. Don't tell me they're afraid of the king. Why would they be? All he's got is an army, and a mountain of gold, and a kingdom of people who think no more about beating a Norrin than a donkey that stepped on their foot. Dante laughed. I'll modulate my expectations accordingly. Brandt filled the rest of the day with small talk about how winter had treated him, his expectations for the approaching spring, and questions about Narashtivik, which he hadn't visited in twelve years, meaning he'd seen none of its resurgence with his own eyes. Last time I saw the place, it was empty as an old man's mouth, he said during the post-dinner discussion his socked feet propped on a chair. You make it sound like it could sit next to Setevan in the jeweled crown of Gask. Not quite yet. Dante sat down his beer, a blueberry and clover-tinged lager Jilla had brewed over the winter. But the dead city is getting to be a more ironic name by the day. Brant nodded, uncharacteristically quiet. Things change fast, don't they? Dante went to bed not long after. His room was snug and draft-free. In the morning, Brandt brought them to town after breakfast to show off Shan's windmills and irrigation canals. It was a simple place, built to last, 
If war came, Dante hoped it spared these windy fields. Brandt's fellow baronets arrived that afternoon. Like Brandt, most of the six lords showed signs of long days on the farms, despite their noble titles, their forearms ropey, their faces tanned and lined. Their opinions were as large as their shoulders, their appetites too. At the long feast table that took up most of the lower floor of the second wing, they sat at attention while Gilla blessed the food, a stripped-down version of the ritual that involved a couple words and a couple flicks of salt water from her fingers. Then fell to the meal like it would be the last, disassembling roast chickens and vegetable pies faster than the two servants could bring out the next dish. Steaming bread appeared by the platter, puffy white loaves, round discs studded with nuts and grains, moist, crumbly slices embedded with raisins and dripping with butter, flatbread smeared with almond paste. Dante assumed this wealth of breads was just an extravagance of the feast, but over the next few days he learned it was entirely standard for Tatonin. Almost every meal involved their staple crop in some way, be it the wrapper of boiled pork dumplings, or in the pan-fried slabs that Tatonas carried as portable meals, pie-like medleys of boiled meat, raw nuts, potatoes, and vegetables, all mashed up and held together with a glue of oily dough. These were the most perfect invention Dante had ever seen. As normal for such gatherings, the Lord's dinner-time talk stayed light. How the last snows had treated them, the town cloudsman's predictions for a mild spring. Finally, the farmers toyed with chicken skins, juice-soaked bread crusts, and their fourth beers of the night. Unprompted, the oldest of the men, a thin and wind-chapped man named Ray, pointed a chicken bone at Dante. So. What is it you want from us? Dante swallowed beer to clear his throat. You've heard, I'm sure, of the recent unrest. I'm sure. We're not friends of any war, but we are friends of the Norrin. We fear that if invasion comes, many innocents will starve. Ray bunched up his grey brows. Do you think? Most I've seen do plenty well leeching off the land. Plenty of them live in towns just like you or me, Dante said. If an army marches on its stomach, towns and their granaries are the stepping stones they use to cross the river of conflict. Now that's a pretty metaphor, said a fat lord named Vic, his tone much drier than his beer-foamed beard. Blaze clunked down his mug. That's because he's too dumb to say stuff straight. Thing is, civilians will starve. You've got food here. We want some of it, and we'll pay money to buy it. Oh, Vic said. When you put it like that, it makes sense enough. But not why Narashtovic gives a sheep's shit, Ray said. We sympathize over common suffering, Dante said. The faces of the baronets were cow-like, slump-jawed. He clenched his teeth and let a long breath through his nose. I'm from Malin. A few years ago, I hardly knew a thing about Aron, except that he'd scythe off your head if you spoke his name over open water. Because anyone who did talk about him, the real Aron, 
the Iran of Narashtevik and Gask, got their head hacked off. Whipped, at the very least. Which is funny, because that's exactly what happens to any Noran slave who decides he doesn't want to be a slave anymore. Why does Narashtevik support the Noran? Because Setevan is full of shitheads. Maybe they'll march. Maybe they won't. But if they do, we want to be there to pick the Noran back up as soon as the king's done stamping on their backs. That drew a few wry chuckles. Brandt smiled and scratched his neck. None of us are too happy about those tax-mad shitheads either. They could cut our levies in half if they weren't so obsessed with clinging to every scrap of their creaky empire. Brandt leaned back, chin inclined. I'd be happy to sell whatever wheat I can part with, but it won't be as much as you want. Why's that? Blaze said. Everyone needs bread when the swords come out, Vic said. And when food's needed, farmers need it most of all. They're the first ones the men with swords come running for. Dante gazed at his plate, leaving you with little left over to sell. That's the shape of it, Brandt said. Of course, Morn piped up. The bandits don't help. At some point during the dinner, Morn had left his satellite table to stand against the curved wall, being careful not to lean against its tapestry of a deer silhouetted on a ridgeline. As a result, he was directly behind some of the lords, who had to turn their heads like owls in order to join the others in staring at him. Bandits, you say? Brandt said. Moore nodded. Lenoran bandits. Unless they are human bandits doing a very clever job of pretending to be Noran. You know that how, Ray said slowly. You running with them? If Morn was insulted, he didn't let it show. They've left signs all over your roads and fields. He nodded at Vic. If you're who they mean by the fat one, they're going to take your eastbound caravan this weekend. Vic bolted up, knocking back his chair. You are running with them. He's been with us for weeks, Dante said. Before that, he belonged to a clan that lives a hundred miles from here. Brandt gestured Vic back to his seat. There anything you can do about this? Or just tell us things we already know? Morn glanced between Dante and Blaze. That's up to my chiefs. How much have you been losing? Blaze said. Between guards, payment, and product? Brandt shook his head at the ceiling. All told, a tenth of what I take out of the ground. Blaze drank the rest of his beer to hide his grin. Here's the deal. We take out the bandits... You sell that ten percent to us, at half market rate. Ray scowled. Two-thirds. Half. Sixty per— Ray, you're missing sixty percent of your brain, Brandt said. Half's a whole lot better than none. He extended his hand to Dante, then shook with Blaze and Morn as well. You clear the roads? You got your grain. That settled the matter. With the business of business complete, 
the assembly turned to the business of getting drunk. By the time Dante got to bed, head spinning, he had all but forgotten they'd pledged to rid Tatonin of an entire clan of Norrin. Hangovers made the morning slow to materialize. Dante picked over his breakfast of toast and eggs and sweet, soppy cheese. Blaze joined him, took one look at his plate, and set his head down on the table. What did we commit to? Dante said. Blaze didn't move. Ask that shaggy mountain of ours. Are we going to have to kill a bunch of Norrin Morn? Because that doesn't strike me as a very productive way of helping them. Morn looked up from the window where he sat reading one of the manor's books. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I mean, in a very literal sense, I don't even know whether Blaze is going to vomit in the next five minutes. How should I know how it'll go with a gang of violent bandits? Dante rolled his eyes. How were you thinking it would go when you butted in last night? The Norrin shrugged his heavy shoulders. That depends on the clan. I'd listen if someone told me we'd be overrun and butchered unless I stopped stealing. And all we have to do is find them? Not hard. Not if you know how to read their signs, which I do. Blaze nibbled a corner of Dante's toast. Why would they leave big old directions all over the road? Morn stared at his oversized hands. Because if you are a clan in a hostile land, that makes you a thing that is a threat. A horde of bandits, an army. But if a clan splits up, a person sees one Norrin, three Norrin, they don't think much. If you're a chief, how do you bring your scattered clan back together when it's time to act or move? You can shout very loudly. You can set signal fires that can be seen by everyone with working eyes. Or you can leave signs so small your enemies will never know you're there. Dante sipped his tea. But you can find the signs to find them, too. Morn shook his head. I don't need wild signs to find a clan. After breakfast, Dante found Brandt and informed him they'd set out shortly. Brandt sent a man to prep their horses. Dante located Fan, who was holding a lively conversation with the farrier, and waited for a break in the talk. I was thinking you might find it more comfortable to stay here. Fan smiled slyly. What a polite way of saying I might get myself killed. You don't mind? Not at all. Fan doffed his round black cap. As you pursue the art of war, I will once more turn to the art of speech. The horse's manes and tails had been clipped and combed. Morn led the way down the main path to the road, scanning the ruts and weedy shoulders, clinging to the saddle of his plough-horse. Wind stirred the long grass. See anything? Blay said after a mile of travel. Hmm. Morn leaned forward, peering into the grass. They say the young blonde one is very homely. And the Norrin wonder why everyone hates them.
Morn twisted in his saddle, giving Blaze a stony look that soon softened to a smile. It's a good thing I know you. Blaze tipped his head to one side. I wouldn't go that far. They reached the road into town by early afternoon. Morn led them east at a casual walk. A few times an hour, he pulled up, dismounted clumsily, and crouched beside a stick or sprig of grass. His examination of bits of plants and dirt reminded Dante of divination, of reading the guts of unfortunate turkeys, but Morn moved with a stolid purpose. Mid-afternoon, he cut south from the road into an unplowed reach of crumbling hills with grassy heads and dense, thorny trees in their folds. They're around, Morn said. But unless we are better at this than I think we are, we probably won't see them until they want us to. Why would they want us to see them? Lyra said. Because there is a certain joy in revealing yourself to the thing you're about to kill. Morn rode cautiously and inexpertly through the grass and rocks. The snows hid in the deep shadows between hills. Blue-throated birds perched on bare twigs, peeping questions back and forth. They left the last of the carefully tilled fields behind. Here and there, huge boulders stood alone in the flatlands, as if dropped there by a forgetful god. When people spoke of the oldest places, they often mentioned mountains, forbidding mists and unclimbable spires. What they really meant was that mountains were pristine. No one had any business in the icy peaks except for hermits and the insane. But people could live in this undulating prairie. To Dante, the fact they chose not to, or once had but abandoned the place long ago, made the silence and wind more primordial and unknown than the most remote crags. Morn got down from his horse to proceed on foot. He mumbled to himself, gazing at flattened grass, his words stolen by the wind. What's that? Dante said. Morn glanced up. I said they know we're here. Send you a letter, did they? Sort of. The Norrin bent down and pointed to a branch of a jagged shrub. Two of the thorns were snapped at the base, dangling by narrow fibers. This says hello. That they use thorns means it is not a pleasant hello, although maybe they only use them because that's all that seems to grow out here. Dante shrugged. At least they're breaking thorns and not our arms. He dismounted to better read the trail for himself. Except for the clan's deliberate wild signs, which Morn mostly had to point out himself, the usual markers were in short supply. A scuffed rock here, a stomped leaf there. The day dwindled. When Morn shook his head at the dusk, they descended to a crease between hills and set up camp. Build a fire if you like, Morn said. If they want to find us, they will. That's comforting, Blay said. Well, if we're going to get stabbed in our sleep, I'd prefer to die in a warm bed. He and Lyra stoked a small fire. 
Dante pan-cooked potatoes to go with their bread and jerky. He pulled second watch. When morn woke him to change shifts, Dante found a dead rabbit and sent it to circle the hills, but he didn't see a single Norrin during his watch. Throughout the morning, the wild signs drew Morn further and further east. The day was a bust. After an identical dinner to their previous supper, Dante twiddled his brooch. A moment later, Callie's disembodied voice spoke into his ear. So, where are you right now? Dante smiled at the old man's tangible excitement. Chasing wild geese through the plains of Tertonin. Callie laughed. This is incredible, you know. I've had to resist summoning you up every night to find out the latest. Same here. Dante filled him in on the negotiations with the baronets and their as-yet-fruitless hunt for the Norrin bandits. He could almost see Callie nodding along. If anything big is stirring in Gask, it's so large no one knows what they're looking at yet. I'll let you know if anything changes. For now, I advise continuing your search. Will do. I bet it's cold there, isn't it? We've had the most wonderful inland breeze, not that I've noticed in my warm little tower. Good night, Callie. Dante cut off the link. That night, the wind felt as cold as wet iron. Wind and birds and grass and stones. Despite Callie's reassurance, the relentless landscape wore at Dante's resolve. Days in, and he still hadn't seen a single Norrin. Besides Morn, of course, who read tracks too subtle for Dante to notice. High gray clouds carpeted the sky. If it rained or snowed, even Morn might not be able to continue the trail. On the other hand, rain would mean a chance to refill their water skins. They hadn't seen a stream since the morning before. The grass, meanwhile, had gone notably more yellow. They could always turn to the shaded snows, but even those had grown mean, shallow patches gritty with dirt. Dante sipped miserishly. He needn't have worried. They crested a ridge, a shallow, bowl-like valley bottomed out in a deep blue lake, whose octopoidal arms extended into the crannies of the intersecting hills. They led their horses through the pines and birches gathered around the shore. The waters were murky and green, but this place was so far removed from human stains, Dante didn't even think about boiling his water before drinking it. The horses appeared to have no such worries either, slurping away at the algal shore. I don't feel like we're making progress, Dante said after they'd all had a drink and a bite of bread. If we don't see anything in the next couple of days, I think we should move on. Morn smiled faintly. We won't have to wait that long. You sound awfully sure of yourself, Blay said. It's a feeling I have. That sounds very scientific. Specifically, the feeling of being watched. Funny you should say that. Blaze rolled his neck, because I have the feeling of a stiff back and a sore ass, and that scraped-up feel your mouth gets from eating crusty old bread, all of which points to the greater feeling of tromping around an empty wilderness with no hope of finding anything more substantial than dried-up deer turds and— Shut up. The voice came behind them, 
soft and faintly accented. Blaze whirled to his feet. Dante dropped his water. Three Norans stood among the white-barked birches, bows in hand. The foremost gazed steadily at Morn with one eye, his other a scarred-up hole. This has gone on long enough. You're the ones who dragged it out, Morn said mildly. Dragged what out, the man said. This is our land. We do as we please. And apparently it pleases you to treat the humans who live here as prey. The one-eyed man shrugged. It's our land. So why are you in it? Are you the chief? I'm the one in front of you. Morn shook his head. I need the chief. I need a new wife, the man said. I have the one I've got. Then attack us now. That's the only way you'll stop us. Assuming you win. If you don't, your clan will have three less men between us and its head. The man glanced at his two clansmen. They maintained their silence. He shook his head at Morn. Come with me. Morn rose. Dante followed behind, reins in one hand, Nether in the other. The clansmen led them around the foot of the next hill. There, beside the wind-rippled waters, three dozen Norrin joked and lounged and carved and weaved. Did you know how close we were? Dante said. Morn glanced over his shoulder. I had an idea. The last few wild signs have been lies. Unless they are so dumb they actually don't know east from west, they were trying to throw me off. At the camp, chatter ceased. Half the men and women reached for bows and swords and spears. The one-eyed Norrin gestured Morn to stop, then joined his clansmen. He approached and spoke with a seated woman in her mid-thirties. After a minute, the pair walked across the springy grass and stood in front of Morn. I don't know you, she said. Her braids were brown with strands of red and black. I'm Morn, of the Clan of the Nine Pines. The woman nodded. Whale, chieftain of the Clan of the Golden Field. What do you want? For you to stop attacking the farmers here. You're not going to get what you want. Morn gazed at the lake. Why prey on men? It's simpler, Whale said. What simplest is best? There's nothing best about the Norrin who'll starve if war comes to the territories. If you stop your raids, we'll have the grain to save many of our people's lives. She smiled with half her mouth, eyes lit with something much older than her years. That's many ifs. If war comes, why not take the grain and dole it out ourselves? Who are you? Her smile deepened. Who says we're not already fighting a war of our own? The humans with me are from Narashtovic. He gestured to Dante and the others. This is part of their plan to help us. I don't know them. I don't know any humans who help Norrin. Then I think I'm finished. Morn turned to her clansman. Are you unswayed by my words? The man didn't hesitate. I'm on suede. 
Morn smiled at Whale. I don't sense any sway from you. I am unswayed, she said. Dumb. I hoped I was wrong. Morn smiled. He gazed at the lake, his eyes as distant as whatever force had dumped the stray boulders across the empty lands. Then I request Solonat. Whale's smile broke the ice. You're not from the Golden Fields. You have no right to succeed me. Not for your place, for this one boon. Whale glanced quickly at her one-eyed clansman. He met her gaze. She turned back to Morn, eyes smoldering. What weapons? Oh, Morn said. You challenged, I shoot first. I know. Prepare. She strode back toward her clan many of whom stood as she approached, sensing the moment. The one-eyed man went with her. Blaze gaped after her. Is this some kind of duel? Morn shrugged. She's going to shoot at me. If I'm still alive, I'll shoot back. This continues until one of us decides to stop. Or can't voice an opinion either way, which is taken as implied concession of defeat. Are you serious? Dante said. I thought you settled things with rhetoric. Yes, but we didn't start doing that until all our best leaders kept getting shot, stabbed, and clubbed to death. Well, you can't just let her shoot at you, Blaze said. You might get shot. Morn sighed. This is the only way to stop them, without killing them all, or doing something else I haven't thought about. But this is the only way I know. Why would you do this? Dante said. Lyra cocked her head. Because he believes. Dante bared his teeth. You don't have to do this, Morn. The war won't hinge on a few wagons of wheat. I get the impression we'll need every resource we can get, Morn said. Besides, this isn't Narashtovic. You can't tell me what I can't do. He gave Dante a small smile. Well, you can, but guess how much it'll matter. Dante had no argument. He couldn't see the future. Not well enough to know whether the grain of Tatonin would wind up making any difference to the Norrin. He could see that if they wanted to do any real good, they'd all have to do things they didn't want along the way. To put their lives on the line. Right now, he needed Morn to take his turn. Good luck, then. And thank you. Can you even shoot a bow? Blaze said. Of course, Morn said. The real question is whether she can. The one-eyed Norrin returned with a quiver and a bow taller than Dante. This way. Morn followed him through the birches. Up slope, the hill leveled off into breeze-swept grass. Wales stood a hundred yards away, bow in hand. Morn stopped in the open grass and tested the pull of his long weapon. The clansmen removed five arrows from the quiver and stuck them point down in the dirt. He eyed the humans. Step away. Interfere and forfeit two things, your friend's challenge and your lives. Blaze snorted. Well, I don't agree to those terms, 
Dante backed off ten yards, where he stood with Lyra and Blaze. Across the hill, Whale licked her thumb and raised it to the wind. Downslope, the clan of the Golden Field watched tight-faced from the knee-high grass. The one-eyed Norrin looked to Morn, who nodded, and then to Whale, who did the same. Whale raised her bow, arrow pointed straight skyward, then drew back and leveled it at Morn. She held it there for several seconds. Dante willed her shot to fly foul, for her elbow to twitch, for the wind to gust, for the arm of Joson Joe to reach down from the sky and squish Whale into the dirt. She let fly. The arrow whipped above the grass. It struck Morn's chest with a wet smack. He collapsed to the ground. Soft groans rose from the watching clan. Dante raced to Morn. Nether flocked to his fingers. The Norrin lay on his back, blinking, face white beneath his beard. The arrow jutted from his ribs. Get away, he hissed. You've got a fucking arrow in your chest. This isn't over. Morn rolled to his side, eyes widening in pain. He found his knees and reached for the dropped bow. The clan murmured. A hundred yards distant, Whale stood perfectly still. Morn pulled an arrow from the dirt, but barely began his draw before his string snarled into the arrow twitching from its ribs. Gingerly, he set his bow and arrow in the grass. A far-off look washed across his face. He grabbed the arrow in his chest with both hands and pulled. It slurped free. Morn staggered, blood dripping from his wound. Teeth bared, he picked up his bow and drew it back. His elbows quivered, jogging his aim. He breathed through his nose, jaw clenched, until his arms steadied. He fired. He sat down before the arrow landed. The arrow slammed into Whale's chest, spinning her into the grass. She didn't move. Dante sprinted back to Morn. Help her, Morn waved. Dante goggled. Shut up and lie down. Morn lurched halfway to his feet, bloody hand bunching in a fist. My deal was with her. What happens if she dies? Lyle's boss! Dante charged across the slope. The one-eyed Norrin was already crouched beside Whale, along with three other clansmen. The man turned to Dante, reaching for his sword. Dante held up his empty hands. I'm a healer, goddammit. Let me see her. You die if she does. Yes, yes, get out of my way. The man frowned, trying not to let hope get the better of him. Dante knelt. The arrow stuck from the left side of Whale's chest. For a moment he feared it had hit her heart, but her chest was rising in shallow jerks. He reached for a knife and cut her clothes from the wound. The shaft had sunk deep between her ribs. Dante wiped blood on his pants. You'll have to push it out the other side. The Norrin glanced between each other, silently conferring. The one-eyed man nodded and rolled Whale onto her side. Dante cleaned his knife on his sleeve and cut open his much-abused left forearm. Beside him, the one-eyed man grabbed the arrow shaft and bore down. Whale snarled, eyes clenched shut. The arrowhead broke through her skin. The one-eyed Norrin snapped off the fletching and drew the broken remainder from Whale's body. 
Her blood flowed thickly, pulsing with the cycle of her beating heart. Nether roiled from Dante's hands into the hole through Whale's chest. Blood gushed unabated. Dante could feel the impatience of her clansmen, their fear and worry, ready to morph into rage and pain. But he could feel the changes in Whale's body, too. Torn vessels sealing shut as Nether smoothed rough edges together. Flesh meeting flesh, and becoming one flesh. Within a minute, she stopped bleeding. Within two, both holes through her chest were covered in firm, black scabs. Dante popped to his feet and ran to Morn. Blaze bore down on the bandage he and Lyra had wrapped around Morn's chest, putting pressure to the wound. The cotton sopped with red. Dante delved inside, flooding the Noran's veins with hungry nether. Morn's eyes stayed closed as Dante stabilized the bleeding. The one-eyed Noran walked up, hands sticky with blood. We'd like you to stay here until she wakes up. Blaze cocked his head. So you can stab us if she doesn't? She will. Will your friend? I think so, Dante said. He nodded. Then she will want to speak to him when he does. I think you can trust him, Lyra said as she returned to Whale. He's protective, that's all. So are mother bears, Blaze said, and I wouldn't want to share a den with one after I shot one of her cubs. I'm going to clean up and move the horses. Lyra stood and headed for the lake. Gail, if he betrays you. By the time she returned, the one-eyed Noran, whose name was Skull, had brought Dante and Blaze into camp proper and served up pan-fried fish and bread. Aroused, perhaps, by the smell, Morn stirred, blinking through the pain. Did I not die? You'll be fine, Dante said. As your physician, however, I insist you refrain from armed duels for the next three weeks, ideally for the rest of your life. Gingerly, Morn touched his bandages. Has anyone ever told you getting shot by an arrow really, really hurts? Blaze, repeatedly, and without shame. Blaze wiped fish grease from his mouth. Well, it does. No member of the clan spoke to them except Skull, who came by to ask Morn how he was doing and nod at his fast recovery. Dante woke at dawn, lightly sore. Birds peeped from birches. Fish rose to suck insects from the surface. Skull came to see him while he explored the far side of the lake. Whale was awake. Her face was pale, haggard. I heard you didn't let me die. I'm saintly like that, Dante said. We needed to make sure you stuck to your promise. Skull would have kept it for me. She turned to Morn. You shoot too well. Like I had a choice, Morn said. I couldn't let you have a second shot. I couldn't believe it when you got back up. I knocked you on your ass. I should have stayed there. It was much comfier. Whale smiled, then coughed into her hand, which she then checked for blood. The clan of the Golden Field will stop our raids and ensure no one else takes our place. Let the farmers know. Moore nodded. 
Then are Solunatus fulfilled. Good. She gazed out on the quiet lake. If the humans march on the territories, you know where to find us. Dante packed up his bedroll. They made their goodbyes and rode north from the lake. He was tempted to contact Callie via Loon, then and there, but wanted to confirm their deal with Brandt first, and then deliver all the news to the old man in one fell swoop. It would be much more impressive that way. Really drive home to Callie, why he trusted so much to two of the youngest figures in the sealed citadel. Without the need to hunt for tracks or Norrin wild sign, they reached the road by nightfall and the town of Shan shortly thereafter. With Morn looking worn out, Dante bought rooms in an inn and hired a rider to make all haste for Brantz with the message they would return tomorrow, accompanied by an announcement. In the morning, Dante checked Morn's wound, which was crusty and disgusting, but showed no signs of excess, redness, or swelling. Followed it up with a brief walk around town to restore his appetite, then returned to the inn for a breakfast of beef, bacon, bread, and green beans topped with crispy onions. After so many cold, hard meals on the trail, it made him never want to stray from the road again. At Brandt's three-winged manor, the brawny lord met them with an anxious smile. What's the word? Hello, for one, Dante said. Don't play coy, spill your guts or I'll spill them across the pig troughs. Blaze yawned. I hear beer's a peerless interrogation technique. Rant's smile was as open as the fields. Then prepare to be tortured within an inch of your life. The kitchen was warm and smelled of rhubarb and cherries. Brandt brought up a small barrel of hoppy beer and poured cups for everyone, including Fan, who'd come down from his chambers. Dante and Blaze laid out the events of the last few days. Lyra watched, sharp-eyed, interjecting any details they'd forgotten. Morn gazed into his beer. Occasionally he verged on a smile. By the time the story finished, Brandt gazed at Morn with awed horror. You just stood there while she shot you? Morn shrugged. The risk to the challenger is why so few challengers get made. What would the world be like if you could kill your leader whenever you wanted? It would be a pretty bad world, I'd say. That sounds awful enough as it is, Fan said. Brandt considered all this over a long drink. Do you trust the clan to keep their word? I do, Dante said. The Noran tend to be honest. On the rare times they're not, they're so devious you won't know you've been tricked until it's too late to matter. You lot are trouble, the farmer grinned. I'm glad we're on the same side. The other baronets filtered in through the evening. Once again, they didn't push for details until after a dinner of pork ribs with mustard seeds and pillowy yellow bread studded with dried cherries. Dante and Blaze then told the story again, their words clumsied by beer. At the end, the lords laughed, head shaking. Even gaunt old Ray shook Morn's hand. You're very stupid, or very brave. Morn shrugged for the hundredth time that day. If I were very stupid, 
You couldn't trust my answer either way, so I suppose we must conclude it's bravery. Until the next time I run away. Ray laughed gruffly. Brandt poured beer. Dante paced himself as best he could under the festive circumstances. He still needed to speak to Callie. He didn't get the opportunity until several hours passed on the clock and several refills passed through his bladder. In the quiet of his upstairs room, Dante clicked his brooch to the old man's setting. Callie answered seconds later. How goes the hunt? All hunted up, Dante said. We've got the grain. Stupendous, Callie said in his ear. How'd you manage that? Did anyone die? Dante took a long breath, preparing to relate the story for the third time that day, then shook his head. Too drunk. Just get a bunch of silver in a wagon and steer it this way. I'll tell you more tomorrow. Afternoon. This is nonsense. I fund your trip around the country, and you get so drunk you can't even tell me about it. Dante belched. You can either hear it told crummy tonight, or told well tomorrow. Worthless. Callie sighed. It better be worth the wait. In the morning, of course, Dante was little more articulate than the night before. Fortunately, any early morning updates to Callie were staved off by breakfast and packing and goodbyes to Brant and Gilla, and then, after the ride back to the main road, by concerns they were going the right way. Fan assured them they were. And then by the pressing need to keep both eyes open for bandits, poor footing, and the general lay of the western land. Thin clouds skidded across skies so bright they practically crackled. The wind no longer felt so cold. Snow rested on the southern peaks, but those were fifty miles away or more. It felt, at last, like the first days of spring. Chapter 11 And over the next few days, spring acted like it had something to prove. Lukewarm gales battered the high grasses followed by days-long rains that soaked their cloaks and left the horses steaming and gamey. Most nights they slept under tarps in the fields. Anywhere with an inn, however, Dante shelled out for a night under a roof and a morning next to a kitchen. If there was ever a time to keep spirits and energy high, it was now, when they might not taste success again for many weeks and many leagues. Callie was unreservedly pleased to hear about the deal they'd swung in Tatonin. A caravan had already been dispatched to bring the initial payment to the farmers and pick up whatever reserve grain they could part with before the first harvests. In the meantime, nothing major had emerged from Setevan. The king's men had dispatched a small force from Dolondon to put down riots on the eastern fringes of the territories, but the matter was expected to resolve quickly and without a fight. The Norrin lands had never been wholly peaceful. The clans were too numerous, grudgeful, and splintered to wholly resist the urge to raid and squabble. But they had always melted into the hills and forests at the first sign of Gascon troops. Don't be afraid to push them on the pass, Callie had concluded, referring to Dante's strategy toward the merchants of Galador Rift. 
They talk quite sweetly about water's ability to overcome. But how long will it take to wear a new way through the mountains, hmm? How much tea will rot on their shores when the Dundon Pass is shut to all those new markets in Mallon? I'm not sure how convincing that will be, Dante said. We don't control the pass, and never have. Yes, well, whatever comes of all this, we can all but guarantee a shake-up of the administration of the Norrin territories, can't we? And which city is the largest and closest, and thus most likely to wind up with de facto control of the pass? What do you think I'm bending Duke Holland's ear about right now? Nothing, I'd hope. Or he must be very confused about what his ear has done to deserve it. Oh, enough of your negativity. I'm beginning to think these things might be more cursed than blessing. Callie shut down the loon. The land sloped upward, mile by mile, a rise as gentle as a fog. Blue mountains sat in proud deltas to the northwest. The road bent to meet them. They stopped at a simple town astride a swift and rocky stream. Dante settled them in at the inn, a two-story rectangle with flared eaves and a mill-wheel splashing in the turbid creek. The bartender's eyes were dark and bright and stayed locked to Dante's brooches, which he hadn't bothered to hide due to the semi-official nature of their trip. Anyway, it was good for the priests of Narashtavik to be outside the citadel. Too many rumors flew about what they did behind their walls. See a man enjoying a beer, and it's much harder to believe he'll be speaking with demons later that night. The bartender lingered after delivering Dante his second and final beer, gaze pinned to the ivory carving of the white tree. Are you from Narashtovic? Dante nodded, somewhat guarded. For the last few years, anyway. Malinborn. There's word you've had a hand in the Norrin troubles. The man glanced around the room, as if to reassure himself the walls sported no ears. If the king's army comes to the territories, do you think Narashtovic will be safe? Unless the king has a thing for sacking innocent lands— Anyway, Narashtovic is the seat of Aron. Why are you worried? My sister lives in the city. I wonder if— The door opened, welcoming a cold wind and two sour-looking men. The bartender straightened and left to greet them. He glanced Dante's way more than once before Dante retired for the night, but didn't speak to him again until morning, and only then to say goodbye. From the town on the stream, the deeply rutted dirt road became a highway of travel-worn stones glued together with sandy cement. Here and there a weed poked from the cracks, but otherwise the road looked younger than Dante himself. Traffic grew more frequent. Two mule farming wagons, peasants on foot, caravans with bright banners and the brighter spears of mercenaries. They reached the road into the mountains eight days out from Tatonin. Three great peaks stood from the mounded hills, the slopes green, their caps white. Shorter mountains ran along a line that extended some thirty miles northeast and southwest. The pass was an easy climb, cold but snowless, the stone road carrying them past grasslands squishy with meltwater.
high-peaked homes and warehouses formed a township just below the crest of the pass. With the shadows of the mountains swallowing the road, Dante stopped for the night. Dawn warmed the green lowlands, but hadn't yet reached the top of the pass by the time they crossed to the other side. Below, a great lake twinkled between the misty rims of the valley, miles in length and impenetrably blue, dwarfing the waters Morn had dueled beside in the wilds of Tatonan. In spots, the mountains descended in sheer cliffs, the road switchbacking along the face of the grass-tufted rock. Below the cliffs, the land was carved into terraces, giant green steps leading down to the lake. Thick, green bushes grew in serpentine rows. Their leaves smelled spicy and sweet and rich. Tea bushes, the product of which was boiled, strained, and served across Gask, Malin, and every other island, province, and territory the tradesmen of Galador could reach. Without breaking stride, Blaze snapped off a tea branch, stripped its leaves, and tucked them into a satchel, scattering the twigs beside the road. Lyra watched him steadily. Blaze rolled his eyes at her. They won't stink like thievery once we boil them. She shook her head. Bad seeds make for bitter brew. Oh, what do time-honored proverbs know? I never met a pure seed in my life. Maybe you need to travel in different circles. Zigzags are more fun. Blaze urged his horse forward. They're more likely to take you places like this. A vast city swamped the shore. Masts bristled the piers. Ferries splashed between the banks of the city of Wending and the islands smattering the water. Smoke lingered in the heavy valley air, mingling with the morning mists, steaming off the massive lake. I hope you fellows like boats, Fan said, because our host lives on one of those islands. Boats. Blaze glared at Dante. You can bring a man back from the dead, but you can't make us fly. Not once. I can't bring a man back to life, Dante said. Callie says no one can. Not in this day. Huh? I thought you saw some guy resurrect a dog once. I thought I had, but I'm not sure it was dead to begin with. Or if it was, that what came back was alive. I'll forget it. Rather than the clabbered slums typical of city fringes, the upper slopes of Wending were dominated by green lawns and isolated villas. Crooked trees grew at deliberate intervals, their crabbed branches trimmed. Even in the early hour, men with pikes stood on the front stoops, backs straight, eyes watchful. The houses they guarded had been modeled after the farms on the hills, sprawling ground floors and terraced upper floors with stepped towers standing five and six stories high. The curved eaves gave the roofs a tent-like look. Next to every manor, a golden pole jutted fifty feet into the sky, isolated in a circle of gravel raked into alternating spokes of white and black. What the hell is that? Blaze said. I mean, besides a big old pole. Fan shot him a distressed look. A temple. It looks like a very sickly tree. 
These people come from ancient lines of traders. In olden days, they planted brass-capped poles at crossroads, where the gleaming metal would attract the eye. Even the most ephemeral bazaars took on the air of sanctuary. Few use the poles in that way now, however. Across Galador, they've become houses of worship. Not much of a temple if everyone's got one, Dante said. Fan shook his head briskly. Quite the contrary. These were nomads, remember. In modern times, services are held at a different swapole every week. Some of the larger orders may not meet the same pole more than once a year. By the way, don't approach one without flipping a coin at its base. Why not? Blay said. It's considered akin to shitting in the well. So, should I not do that either? Fan sighed. The poles all but disappeared as they entered the city proper, and its smells of manure, lake mud, and the savory tea sold from carts and tea houses in every single plaza. The corners of roofs swooped and curved. Squat, short-legged horses trundled through the streets, carts strapped to their thick bodies. Men and women wore bright, skirt-like things, slit to the knees. It was like they'd crossed the mountains into another world, yet, at the same time, Wending was nothing more than another major city, with the same wood and stone and pressing flesh of all the others. Than led them to the ferries, stabled the horses at the massive barn beside the docks, and hired a man with a rowboat and a sibilant accent. Two heavy-shouldered men paddled them across the cold, deep waters to Bolling Island, a sharp ridge of rock a few hundred feet long and less than a hundred across. Stairs climbed from its jetty. There, Fan hired a waiting porter to help with the luggage and escort them to the house of Lord Lolligan, where they were to stay. A servant let them into the foyer of the five-layered house, where they waited in a receiving hall insulated against the lake's chill by lush carpets. Padded benches and paintings of sloops on misty lakes furnished the room. Lolligan emerged shortly, a thin, avian old man with a pointed white beard and light brown skin. You may as well sit, he said, eyes creasing with a smile, unless you plan to stand for the next three days. I don't take your meaning, Dante said, because it was deliberately unclear. In less obscure language, the man you want to see is named Jokubs and he won't see you for three days. We'll see about that, Blaze said. We've got places to be. Lolligan tipped back his chin. That's precisely the problem. So does everyone else. Nevertheless, he let them down to his private pier, where two of his servants rowed Dante and Blaze to another island, a fraction of a mile further out on the lake. There they called on a terraced house much like Lolligan's, if a little older and statelier, and were brought to a closed-off deck overhanging the lake. Jokobs was not in. They were met instead by Brilla, a woman who was unobtrusive in appearance, but whose cool command made clear she was used to speaking for the household. I am afraid Lord Jokobs is not available to see you, she said. I am sure he'll be pleased to hear you came to announce your arrival in person. Dante leaned forward on his padded green bench. We're pressed for time. Our meeting with Lord Jokobs will only take a few minutes. 
a few minutes Lord Jacobs does not currently possess. What if we wait here? Blaze said. Then you will be waiting for three days, which I assure you would be more comfortably passed at Lord Lulligan's. Dante rubbed his mouth. Perhaps he can squeeze us in at the end of the day. Brilla tented her hands. Regrettably, the end of the day is already accounted for. Is every second of his time blocked out? Of course not. That would be ridiculous. Is every minute? All the important ones, she said. Dante's brow lowered. Then perhaps we can intrude on some of his unimportant minutes. Impossible. Her dark hair swung as she shook her head. That would make them important minutes. And thus accounted for? You can see the bind I'm in. So he can stay up late, Blaze thundered. Tame, sagging ass. Our rider beat us here by a week, at least, to set this up in advance. We're here to stop a war, and your lord is too busy counting tea leaves to spare us fifteen minutes. Brilla gave him a look that could have withered all Tatornin. I'm not stopping you from seeing him. I'm just explaining to you why you can't. Oh, yeah? Then what would you do if I ran upstairs and kicked in his bedroom door? Obviously, I would stop you. You're lying like a rug that's very tired, Blaze said. Either that, or you honestly don't understand— Dante cut in. There are issues at stake much closer to Lord Jacob's interests than any conflict. Dundon Pass, for instance. Brilla's gaze snapped away from Blaze. What about it? Narashtovic continues to be concerned about reprisals from Malon about the last war. Dante lied. We believe the pass may need to be restricted, possibly even shut down. You can't do that. Nevertheless, we may. We had hoped to kill two birds by bringing the matter to Lord Jacobs, but if we have to move on before he's free... Rilla held up her fine-fingered hands. I let him know that's the best I can do. I'm sure that's true. Blaze said. I'd hate to be anywhere near when you show off your worst. Her lips compressed to a tight line, but she fared them well at the door. Lolligan's boatman rode them back to Bolling Island. Lolligan sat in his receiving hall, holding a lively conversation with Fan and Morn. He looked up with a cheerful smile. How did it go? I have no God's damn idea, Dante said. Well, You'll find out soon enough, the old man said. Or not. What, are you related to Brilla? Blaze said. You both equivocate like you were born into it, like you had to convince your moms to have you in the first place. Lulligan laughed, dry yet cheerful. Do you know what Galadites are most often compared to? Mossy stones, Fan said. And why is that? Because your people live in close proximity to a great many rocks, Morn said. Fan shook his head. Because they're so slippery. Indeed, Lolligan smiled. What good is a contract you can't wriggle out of? What good is it to want something if everyone knows about that want? That is how business survives when everything else perishes. Dante narrowed his eyes. 
You seem awfully upfront in your desire to help us. Oh, that's because I'm more gambler than businessman. I see Narashtovic, more specifically, the man who runs it, as the sneakiest bet to hitch my wagon to. A servant coughed from the doorway. It was time for dinner. The lake shimmered pinkly through the floor-to-ceiling windows. The meal was a bevy of trout found nowhere but the lake, seasoned with black and red peppers and a savory tea-based sauce. Lolligan made no rituals before it was served. A letter arrived from Jacobs before dessert. The Lord would see them tomorrow afternoon. Jacobs received them on the same enclosed balcony where Brilla had given them the verbal rundown. Jacobs was elderly, stately, with wing-like grey eyebrows that turned up at the ends. His bald head was as shiny as the lake, and he moved with the slow confidence of a man who's always known a servant would catch him before he fell. For all that, Dante liked him. He smiled readily, and insisted they forget his title. I'm puzzled why Calamandicus would be worried about the pass at this juncture, Jacob said. It's been, what, six years since your little squabble with Melon? If it takes them that long to respond, surely they're not much of a threat, eh? The thing is, Calamandicus is very old. Blaze reached for his lake-chilled champagne. It makes him prone to forget that everyone younger has better things to do than stew about the past. I'm sure I don't have to mention we find that pass very useful. It would be a shame to have to run a new road through the southern mountains, which would run closer to Wending, of course. But why tip a rolling cart? Dante smiled. I think we can talk him down. But we wanted to be certain you still had a use for the pass if Calamandicus does wind up its steward. Jacob's winged brows leapt. Does he think that's likely too? I must say, I haven't heard one thing about this whole mess that doesn't smell like a buzzard's gut. I'm beginning to think we'll level out status quo. He disagrees, I'm afraid. I assume Wending has no interest in a war with the territories. Seller said no. How do we ship tea to Mellon when there's a horde of damned soldiers clogging up the road? Rolling carts and tipping hands, etc., Blaze added. The elderly man grinned. You sound downright lakeborn. Narashtovic doesn't want war either, Dante said. We feel a certain paternal sympathy for the Norrin, for one. For another, I'm afraid Setevan may be misinterpreting the acts of a single clan for statewide unrest. It sounds like you need an audience with the Tradesmen's Association. How do we make that happen? Well, I could ask for one. I am the head of it. Jacobs chuckled, then leaned back on his bench and folded his hands across his modest belly. I can schedule our meeting within, say, eight days. Eight days? Dante said. Does time pass more slowly in Narashtovic? It's just that we have other places to visit before we head home. Jacobs lifted one thatchety brow. 
and I've got to assemble a quorum of the Tradesmen's Association of the Greater Valley of Galador, some of the busiest men and women in the entire empire. Compared to that, putting the brakes on a war might be easier. Dante laughed. Fair enough. Please let us know when the time is confirmed. He returned to Lolligan's home, happy enough. Even with an eight-day wait, they'd remain slightly ahead of schedule. A schedule that was somewhat arbitrary to begin with. In truth, he and Callie had been expecting more movement out of Setevan by this point. Aggression along the borders, tough talk, more levies. Instead, all fronts had been quiet. Perhaps King Modigan felt no need to stomp out a few unruly bugs. Perhaps all their worries of war were just phantoms. Even if things were progressing behind the scenes, the movement was too slow and small to notice. Lolligan agreed Jokup's timeline sounded reasonable. If anything, it's on the fast side. Everybody must have already dragged their fat asses back to town to cover them up before bad times hit. How do you think the negotiations will go? The old merchant snorted. Heard anything about not rocking the boat yet? Tipping the cart? What about shaking the baby? Blay said. Surprised that one hasn't caught on yet. Lolligan gestured at the shimmering lake. The men here. They like to keep things smooth. We have a fish here, the cad. Pudgy things, about the size of your thumb, with yellow spots and a mean little beak. By and large, cad eat anything that's too small and too slow to get out of the way. Snails, minnows, the bones of other fish. They won't look twice at something their own size. But once in a while... If something in the water's bleeding bad enough, or thrashing around just so, the entire lake flashes yellow with cads swarming for a bite. So, don't be a snail, Blay said. Words to live by. What I'm saying is they'll eat you alive if the opportunity looks tasty enough. I suspect that may be the chief rule of existence, Dante said. I think we're overlooking the crucial issue here, Blaze said. The chief concern, as far as I see it, is we have eight days ahead of us and zero things to fill them with. Lolligan smiled, the sharp triangles of his mustache twitching. I can occupy a few of those days. If you find it tragically boring, you can spend the rest of the week drinking away the memory. You should be a salesman. Blaze clapped his hands to his thighs and stood. What are we going to see? Nothing much. Just the most vital ingredient to a happy and healthy life. A pink field stretched for a mile in all directions, flat and glittery as a pond, bowled on all sides by craggy brown hills. It was shockingly warm. Dante had already shed his cloak and was currently sweating through his doublet. A few yards away, women crouched and hacked at the field with sharp, sharp metal hoes, scuttling forward as soon as they loosened the soil. Boys dawdled after them, shoveling the crumbly pink dirt into wooden buckets. Lolligan grinned like a proud grandpa. Blaze sniffed. 
Is this it? Lulligan whirled, gaping angrily. Do you have any idea what you're looking at? Dirt. Dirt. Pink dirt. Lolligan shut his eyes and forced the anger from his face. That's salt. Just growing from the ground. Ripe for the plucking if you have the right to pluck it, which I do. Dante knelt and touched the ground. Hard, solid, crystalline, lightly gritty. Can I taste it? That depends on how much money's in your pocket. Lolligan smiled and gestured grandly. Be my guest. Dante touched his fingertips to his tongue and rolled the grains around his mouth, letting them dissolve. It's different, sharper, almost a little sweet. Exactly. Sprinkle that on a steak, and you'll never again be able to pass a cow without taking a nibble off the flank. The trip had taken the better part of three days. From Balling Island, Lolligan had rigged up his flat-bottomed sailboat and cruised north across the lake to a gap carved straight through the hills. A shallow canal led them to another lake that was notably squatter than Galador proper. From there, Lolligan docked at a busy little town, hired a pack of rugged, short-haired horses with funny, pushed-in snouts, and led them beyond a craggy ridge. The land descended through a hellscape of sharp, broken rocks, steaming sulfurous pits, and hot pools on top of bulbous yellow rock that looked like frozen snot. After another row of barren hills, they finally reached the salt flats, a pink sea even stranger than anything they passed along the way. Lolligan passed the voyage telling them how he'd made his fortune as the first son of a wealthy tea merchant. He'd inherited enough wealth to last an era, then swiftly lost it through a series of bad investments and worse bets. After twelve years of living hand-to-mouth, including four years as a mate on a single-mastered cog, he returned to Wending on Galador, gambled all his savings on high-altitude plots the other T-men had utterly failed to turn fruitful, and promptly sowed the soil with seeds picked up during his years at sea. The resulting tea leaves were scrawny, little larger than the last joint of your pinky. His friends feared he'd be ruined a second time. But his tiny leaves made delicious tea. Since they were so small, supply was scarce. Demand soared, and prices with it. In the two decades between then and now, others had moved in with small-leafed brews of their own. That elevated him to the fringes of respectability, but the politicking of the traditional tea-growers kept Lolligan excluded from the inner circles, including the tag-vog Jacobs ruled over. Lolligan seemed to regard this exclusion with equal parts. Who needs em, humor? and needling resentment. Not bad, Blaze said there on the pink plain. He licked his fingers. Salty. Where do you get your salt in Narashtovic? Lolligan said. The sea? Dante shrugged. Blaze wagged his head. The salt fairy? The salt? Lolligan pressed his palms together, elbows splayed. Look, why don't you take a box back with you? Narashtovic hasn't been much of a market for a long time, but I get the impression all that has changed.
He barked orders at a boy. The boy sprinted toward a wagon parked just past the flats, sandals flapping. Is this why you took us in? Dante said. To sell us salt. It's our reason. I like to have more than one. I thought good traders didn't make their wants known. Except when they do. Such as when the product's quality speaks for itself. The boy returned with a small wooden box. Lolligan took it and gazed at the women and children chipping and scooping the pink field. Some people use Noran, you know. They can sure haul their weight. Have a bad habit of dropping dead in the summer, though. I don't think they're built for this heat. Blaze blinked against the crystal-reflected sun. We came all this way for salt. The trip back took just as long as the journey out. Dante wanted to be in top shape for the meeting with the Tagvog, leaving a single night to peruse the city and take in a drink. At Lolligan's Manor, Dante gathered up the team and took the boat into town. They passed one nondescript pub, then took up a bench in the second they found, a three-story watering hole with a tented roof, its second floor resting on pilings above the lapping shore, open to the cool lakeside winds. Blaze demanded they try the local flavor, a murky white liquor called Mullen, that tasted nutty and earthy and mixed well with hot and sweetened tea. They drank from slender, square-bottomed glasses like fluted vases. Fan turned his glass in a slow circle. Talk, that immortal butterfly made its rounds while you were out. Oh, yeah, Blaze said. What kind of flowers did it assault? The Rose of Trade. I heard several proposals that Galador's support in Setevan could be acquired through an exclusive deal or three with Nareshtovic, as well as Callie's commitment to pave the main roads. Too good for dirt, are they? That sounds promising, Dante said. Mutually beneficial, even. Fan tipped his head to one side. I got the impression there was the expectation of heavy profit. There was talk of sheep. Cost us less than raising an army, won't it? Blaze said, or holding a funeral for every person in Narashtavik. Unless we got a mass grave, Dante said. You'd probably like that. All jammed up like that, you might be able to force a woman to touch you. I'll just have to pray the gravediggers finish their work before rigor mortis wears off. I think I'm off to bed. Fan smiled tightly. He rose. Morn joined him on the brief walk to the piers. Lyra stayed, scanning every patron as they came and went. I hope this isn't too boring, Blaze said to her. He pointed to Dante. I find it pretty dull myself, and he at least pretends like I have some influence around here. Lyra smiled at the steam rising from her tall glass. You think I find your company disinteresting? His? Definitely. In the last few weeks, we've attacked a nobleman, freed a parcel of slaves, foiled an assassination attempt, and traveled halfway around the Empire speaking to some of Gask's most powerful men. Lyra sipped her mullen. Before that, getting left for dead by pirates was the most exciting thing to happen to me in years. 
Blaze turned to Dante, laughing. I think she actually likes this. Spent too much time around you, no doubt, Dante said. No such thing. That's like having too much summer. Summer's awful, Lyra said. If I have to sweat, I prefer to earn it in other ways. Like what? Blaze said, straight-faced. Long runs and cold baths? Talk came easy, but a couple hours later, even Blaze was ready to leave. They stood, buttoning cloaks, draining the last of their mullen. Lyra adjusted her collar. I think we may be followed home. Oh, yes, Dante said. Is that because you're crazy? It's because we were followed here. What? Man in the northwest corner. Luke Cloak, don't look. Dante scowled. I wasn't going to. Well, Blaze murmured, that raises an interesting question, doesn't it? Dante shot him a look. Oh, no. No, we don't know this city well enough for that. Is the big bad wizard afraid of one hired goon? If he has a knife, or friends in a dark alley, yes. Yes, I am. Lyra clunked down her glass. What's being talked about like I'm not here? Dante patted his chest, ensuring his brooches were in place. Whether to catch a boat straight home, or take a leisurely stroll through the city. I think we should walk, Blaze said. We know what you think. Do I get a vote? Lyra said. Dante glanced at the door. Depends if it's a good one. If he means us harm, it's better to draw him out now than be attacked unaware. Damn it. Dante snugged his cloak around his neck. Let's go for a walk. The open-walled pub had been plenty chilly, so the transition to the outside air was minimal. The wooden steps rocked under Dante's feet. He hit the damp streets and headed up the slope towards the heart of the city. A minute later, wood creaked behind them. Dante forced himself not to look. He tightened his cloak again and passed beyond a circle of lamplight. The lamps here were few, placed only at major squares and the tall brass swap poles. Faint haze diffused the shine of the stars and half-moon. Blaze whistled, reeling Rilla, as out of tune as usual. Lyra spent a lot of time gazing into any glass windows they passed. It was a bit after ten, and the streets were sparse with people. Plodding drunks, hurrying pedestrians, women standing in tight wraps and knee-high skirts while men sat behind them, fiddling openly with knives or clubs. Dante made a left turn toward a well-lit square of short grass and broad, crab-like trees that had just begun to grow new buds. He strolled straight through the park, pausing often to admire the artfully trimmed trees, and stopped in the light of another pub to hold a false discussion about whether it looks like their kind of place. He and Lyra overruled Blaze. They moved on. Occupied with memorizing landmarks and routes and keeping their orientation straight, Dante could no longer tell if they were being followed. Instead, he led them through a meandering semicircle that brought them back within a bowshot of the docks, where he stopped in front of an empty, 
gaping warehouse. Lyra risked a look behind. Nothing the last five minutes. Ready to head home, Dante said. Blaze nodded. Dante crossed the slick stones to the docks. The skiff's oars stirred the black water. They spoke of nothing important until they were back within the warm walls of Lolligan's house. Must have been just scouting us, Blaze said then. That dawdle through the park was an engraved invitation to stab us. That's what I was going for. Dante turned to Lyra. What did you see? Her eyes wandered to the ceiling. Short, thin, male, unobtrusive, dark hair, hitch in his step. A hitch? Like this? Dante limped in a circle. That's a wobble. This was more of a hiccup. She demonstrated, jerking her spine straight with every other step. Not that exaggerated, but you get the idea. Maybe it's Robert, Blaze grinned. After us for rum money. We could use him about now, Dante chuckled. He unclasped his cloak. It's probably just one of Jacob's men, making sure we're on the up and up. But keep your eyes peeled. Well, I'm in for nightmares now, Blaze said. Have you ever thought about how gross that expression really is? The day before their meeting passed with blessedly little excitement. A letter arrived from Jacob's. The Tagvog had its quorum. They would meet at his house at one o'clock the following day. The morning of the event, Dante rode a skiff into the city and took a long walk in the early sunshine. He felt calm and ready. He returned to Lolligan's at noon and, accompanied by Blaze and Fan, was rowed to Jacob's Island. A servant showed him to the carpeted dining hall. A dozen odd merchants were already there, primarily old and male, but disrupted here and there by unwrinkled or female faces. Servants danced between the men of means, bearing gold trays of olives and figs and sweet port that tasted of chocolate and prunes. They brought fish, too. Dante lost count at ten different kinds. One type, red as beef, two baked and headless, three fried whole in skins and heads and tails, one mashed up with soft cheese and a salty, savory paste, which the merchants ate on thin slices of toast. More and more old men filtered into the vast room, accompanied by one to three servants and secretaries apiece, who drifted around their fat employers like pilotfish. Dante was introduced to face after face, forgetting the names attached to them as each new one shuffled up to greet him. The room was in constant, dizzying motion, a slow whirl of forty estate holders and a hundred attendants. Conversation shifted to his thoughts on the potential conflict and Narashtavik's stance to it, official and otherwise. Dante found himself in the middle of a sea of faces. Abruptly, he realized the meeting had already begun. He faltered, then laughed as if at a private joke. No place handled its business quite like anywhere else. How large and strange and wonderful the world was. It's a fundamentally simple position, he said to the school of curious merchants. We don't want war. We've seen it too recently to believe any good can come of it. 
Furthermore, we know the Norrin too well to think they mean Greater Gask real harm. We're concerned for our own lands, as well as our neighbors. Even friendly armies tend to leave muddy tracks. There's no need and no want for one half of the country to march on the other. We know Galador carries heavy weight with the king. Without the taxes your ships and wagons bring home, Modigan would have no army to send forth in the first place. That's all we're here for. With your help, we can spare a lot of strife and a lot of lives. A smattering of applause followed, though it wasn't particularly that sort of gathering. Dante expected to be assailed with a public back and forth afterwards, but instead the room dissolved into a dozen different knots of conversation. For a moment, he stood isolated and ignored. Then, one by one, they came for him. The first was a man in his early thirties, with a widow's peak and an arch smile. I hope you are ready for this. This being, Dante said, You've just made an offer. Now come the counters. You don't expect our aid will come for free, do you? Narashtovic's not so different. We're ready to make any reasonable agreements. Well, I support you. The man swept back his hair. I've scheduled my first caravan this spring. Fresh leaf, bound for Bristol. Would hate to delay just because a few tribes of overgrown men would rather spend their time fighting than shaving. The second to approach was a middle-aged woman, whose skirt brushed the floor. When she walked, she appeared to glide over the plush carpet. Quick speech, she said. That's good. Fewer details to offend the sensitive. I didn't know I was giving one until halfway through. She smiled with half a mouth. Frankly, the clans have never shown much concern for the safety of their roads. Calm them down, and you'll convince a lot of the people in this room. He thanked her, and she moved on. Most of those who spoke with him over the next hour were the newcomers, the fringe dwellers, those who needed every leg up they could get. They queried him on trade pacts and the northern markets for tea and salt and fish. The elder men, the finest dressed, the easiest with their laughter and pronouncements, stuck to their clusters, chuckling and snacking. Eventually, one of these epic figures detached from his cohort and swayed over to Dante. His silk skirts rasped. His gray mutton chops swept into his bristling mustache, all of which was thick enough to impress any Norrin. His olive skin was as craggy and pocked as the sulfurous hills by the salt flats. I wonder if, he said, at the end of the day, we have any influence at all on the movements of men and kingdoms. You and me, personally. Dante cocked his head. Because I imagine King Modigan has rather a lot of influence on the movements of Gask. The man waved a fleshy hand. You're from Narashtovic. You believe Aron has no influence over the actions of our earthly king? I suppose he could. He tends not to intervene directly. Dante smiled wryly. I think he laughs hardest when a man's folly is his own. To put it another way, would we be speaking now if Modigan's ancestors hadn't annexed the Norrin territories three hundred years ago? I don't know. I doubt it. 
So our king, it can be said, is playing out the story written for him by his ancestors. That would mean you and I are too. The man's mutton chops lifted in a smile. We're all at the mercy of ghosts. The merchant gave a slight bow of his head and turned to rejoin his compatriots. That was more or less the end of the dialogues. One other youngish man approached him with questions about Narashtevik and was interrupted by a servant who informed Dante he should stay until the quorum dissolved. This took the better part of three hours. That evening, Jacobs beckoned Dante and Blaze into the enclosed balcony, leaving the servants to fetch tea and sweep up the dining hall. Well, Jacobs eased himself onto a bench, glancing at the sunset on the lake. I hope you had a good time. Blaze jerked his chin in the direction of the hall. The fish were so good it's a wonder you don't live in the lake. With them. I'm glad. He folded his hands on his stomach and gave Dante a sideways look. I hope it wasn't too imposing. Dante shrugged lightly. Not at all, although I'm confused about what we accomplished. With exceptions, the association sympathizes with you. We have a few peripheral details we'd like to work out with you. I don't think most of us knew how large Narashtevik had gotten, but I think you can count on a positive vote at the assembly two weeks from now. Is that a joke? Glay said. Jacobs blinked, lower lip out thrust. If so, please tell me what struck you as funny. I've always wished myself wittier. Two weeks? Yes, I think so. Blaze laughed, glancing at Dante in disbelief. And then you'll reach a decision? Then what the hell was this party for? A frown gathered on the merchant's face. To see if your proposal was worth pursuing. The next two weeks will be about working out the specifics. Some of the estates represented by the men you met are the size of small kingdoms. Dante's head buzzed. I don't suppose this can be hurried along. Not in any significant way. The man leaned forward and patted Dante's knee. It will be fine in time. If it takes this long for Galador to shift course, just think how long it would take the entire kingdom to come to grips with something weighty as a war. Dante expressed his thanks, turned down a final glass of port, and walked down to Jacob's pier. Well, so much for our schedule. So much for our youth, Blay said. Maybe we should just give up. Run off to be pirates. Wait, is that an option? Why didn't you tell me that years ago? Dante nodded at the skiff tied along the dock. There's our flagship. Let's go. Lake pirates are a thing, right? If not, we can make them a thing. Blaze stepped over the side of the hull. Down the pier, two men dislodged from the boathouse and hurried down the planks. We'll blaze watery new trails for highwaymen everywhere. The boatman paddled them back to Lolligan's.
where the old man asked Dante for a detailed recap of the quorum. While Dante spoke, Lolligan cocked his head, frowned at spots on the wall, and muttered to himself, petting his pointed moustache with a single finger. Shokar, he said once Dante finished. What? Lord Choker, the elderly man with the mutton chops who spoke about ghosts and strings. He's the only part I can't figure out. Well, that's good, Dante said, because I don't understand any part. It's straightforward enough. And so is an ant's nest, if you're an ant. If the Tagvog already knows they want to send a delegation to the king on our behalf, why do they need another two weeks to finalize that decision? Lolligan waved a sun-browned hand. This assembly wasn't about deciding whether they should try to talk down the war hawks. Other than those who dabble in arms and armsmen, none of the Tagvog is keen on a fight. Today, they were judging you. How much Narashtivik wants their help, and how far you will bend to provide it. They've bought themselves two weeks to suss that out and maneuver to leverage you to the hilt. Excellent, Dante said. While they're off counting coins, the king is counting troops. And unless his abacus is bent, he'll soon discover he has far more than the Norin. When in doubt, look to the path of the crowd. Lolligan gestured across the water toward Jacob's home. If those old bastards thought time were running short, do you think they'd wait two more weeks? Remember, to these men, ignorance is the water between them and gold. Information is the boat they use to cross it. Dante nodded, comforted. Most of these men had built their fortunes through shrewdness, caution, and prudence. Even the lure of squeezing Narashtivik for every ounce of its excess silver would only push them to tempt fate so far. They were all wrong, of course. The king would hand down his proclamation the next day. It reached Galador just two days after that. In the style of all great ultimatums, it brooked just two outcomes. The Norin would rebel, or never be able to again. Chapter 12 On hearing the king's proclamation, Blaze had one of his own. Horseshit! He replaced his teacup on its saucer. A sixty-pound sack of horseshit! Dante felt sick. Horseshit isn't nearly offensive enough. This is... Ape shit, at least. He switched on his loon. On hearing the news, Cali was silent for a full ten seconds. Well, that's no good. Not unless you're a mortician, Dante said, or a vendor of rebel banners. Unless you feel like defecting and at this point I wouldn't blame you, there's no reason to stay in Wending when the king's decision has already been made. See what there is to see at the cove, come back through the lakes on your way home, and see if the merchants can talk Modigan down, but don't waste a lot of time if they're waffling. Callie hymned. Leave Fan behind to grease whatever wheels he can reach. He won't serve any use at Pocket Cove, except as breakfast. The orders cleared Dante's head. 
Fan accepted his charge with a silent nod. He was used to being dispatched to courtly settings as soon as the road turned rough. Blaze clapped his hands. Morn turned to gather his things. Lyra smiled strangely and reached for her hip for a sword that wasn't there. Lolligan was equal parts apologetic and eager for them to stay. We don't know how the path may fork from here. Mordigan could be deliberately outrageous in order to appear benevolent when he scales back his demands. Dante gazed at the sparkling lake. I won't bank on that. Then talk the Tagvog into talking him down. There's still time. I don't understand how this city works, Lolligan, and I no longer have the time to learn. The king has made his decision. It's time for your friends to make theirs. They're not my friends, Lolligan muttered. Dante wanted no more of it. For what little good it would do, he composed a brief letter to Jacobs, then took a rowboat into the city to pick up provisions while the stables prepped the horses. Waiting at the bakery, he realized he had no desire to go to Pocket Cove. But it wasn't a choice. They were ready to move by late afternoon. The sun was already within a hand's height of the western peaks, but the roads in Galador were the best Dante had ever seen, besides the sheer mastery of those in Kling, anyway. Riding by night would be no danger. He squeezed his knees against his horse's flanks, urging it forward. As soon as the city shifted from row houses to farmland, he sped to a trot, swerving around an oxen team. This was no time to rest the horses. Everything would be moving faster now. By the king's order, the territories were to be parceled out in four-mile squares. Each clan was to be registered with one of a score of new baronetcies, and would remain restricted to their new territory by force of law. In addition, every four years, each clan was required to provide one fit male slave in tribute. If no males fit the bill, a female would suffice. If a single clan denounced or defied these new conditions, King Modigan claimed express authority to pass through any and all lands on his way to quell them. If the rebellious clan could not be found, its neighbors would be held accountable until it was located. That last bit was the poison pill. Disinclined as they may be to accept the heavy hand of human rule, a majority of Norrin, particularly those in the cities, would rather accept it than face invasion. But there were at least two hundred clans. Probably several times that many. Dante couldn't believe the Nine Pines would accept this treaty. No doubt they'd be just one among dozens of rebel clans. War was no longer a question of if— but when? Meanwhile, should the clans defy their nature and acquiesce, either through threat of invasion or forced to by battle, Modigan had set himself up to feast on the loyalty of all the powerful men vying for those new baronetcies and the lands, status, and titles that came with them. No doubt several of Galador's tea-growers and salt-miners would not only jump ship from the Tagvog's desire for peace— but would dig extra deep to help fund the war. It was a masterstroke, the overbearing play of a man fully confident he couldn't lose. And Modigan was right. Soon the Norrin would be forever quelled, penned and farmed like cattle, unable to trouble him ever again. Unless...
and a dwindling unless at that. The ultimatum gave the tribes three weeks to register and two months to volunteer their first slaves. With so little time to spare, Dante couldn't see spending more than three days at Pocket Cove. It wouldn't be enough to win the favor of the people of the Pocket. His only hope for discovering the Cove's secret, whatever had kept them from being conquered, ever, lay in the observations he drew for himself. Observations which must run deeper than the land itself. The Pocket Cove was supposedly surrounded by sheer cliffs on all sides, but that would do nothing to prevent a naval invasion, which Gask had attempted many years ago. Their fleet had disappeared as if it had sailed off the edge of the earth. The king, at the time, announced victory anyway, adding the cove to the mounting list of imperial acquisitions. But the people had never, so far as Dante knew, paid taxes, tribute, or homage to Setevan and to this day remained independent in all but name. If Dante could ferret out whatever secret saved their sovereignty, perhaps he could employ it to do the same for the Norrin territories. The far side of the mountains took them through a thick forest of bamboo. They rode hard, switching horses and pace to keep their mounts fresh. Budding trees blanketed the hills, for three days they saw nothing but wind-washed grassland. Lightning streaked between mounded black clouds. Hailstones popped from the grass, salting the road and stinging Dante's hands. The towns were small things, a few dozen houses at the crossroads, the green fields speckled with white sheep, grey goats, and black crows. For a morning and an afternoon they passed nothing at all, yellow grasses and graying stone. The road stopped, as if erased. To the west, a black line lay along the horizon, thick and unbroken. What the hell is that? Blaze said. Looks like Tame took a great big quill and tried to scratch out the end of the world. So the legends say, Dante said. Wait, he did? Yeah, right after he beat Gashin in a mountain-throwing contest, and then baked a potato so hot even he couldn't eat it. Blaze scowled. This is why no one takes priests seriously. The stories you make up as jokes aren't any crazier than the ones you worship in your books. They're cliffs, Lyra said. Dante turned in the saddle. Cliffs? She nodded, looking him in the eye. Tall. Rocky slopes, typically vertical. What are cliffs? Tall, rocky slopes. That! Blaze pointed at the thick black line. We're here! So, can we finally know what brings us here? Morn said, besides our horses. Dante quickly explained Gask's history of failed invasions. The people of the pocket have been protected by more than cliffs. We're trying to figure out why no one can get in or out. They get out when they want, Lyra said, but few recognize the people when they see them. What makes you so sure? They sail south sometimes. We saw them in the Carlin Islands every few years. The black cliffs rose three hundred feet from the plain, perfectly sheer, unclimbable. A shallow scree of broken stones rested at their base. 
Dante halted to consult the maps copied from Callie's library. The originals were poorly scaled and very old, but they indicated a pass through the cliffs not far to the south. Some five miles later, dusk forced them to encamp. There had been no breaks in the rock, nor any gentling of the slope. The vertical black stone was striated like gills, blocking off the heavens. Question, Blaze said around their fire. If no one can get in, why do we think there is a way in? Because the maps say so, Dante said. Those things are older than Kelly's balls. I'm pretty sure those aren't any older than Kelly himself. Then thank Aron, you've never seen them. Dante blinked. When did you... Anyway, Blaze went on, if they came from the kind of books Kelly reads, they're automatically suspect. Dante unrolled one of his parchments and held it to the firelight. Look, the road ended here, just north. He tapped the map, then another spot below that. One of the passages is supposed to be here, right before this black can place. That should be less than a day's ride. Sure, we've already wasted four. What's one more? We're not wasting anything. We're not the only ones working on this, you know. Callie's got a squad of diplomats in Setevan. He and Ollivander are probably working out how to levy an army for Narashtovic right now. Scores of different clans are plotting how to fight back on their own. Dante paused to accept a hot heel of bread from Morn. The crust was lightly charred, the white steaming and fluffy, gooey with butter and speckled with fresh-picked lowleaf. All those people are making the normal preparations for war. We're out here to bring back something... Strange. They kept the fire lit that night. The light and smoke would carry far across the grassland. But they were at the edge of the world, a step beyond the map. There were dogs to keep at bay, too, wild things with howls like sobbing mothers. Despite their yips, Dante slept well, the fire's warmth easing the stiffness from his legs and back. In the morning, he brewed tea as the others woke. They rose easy, as if revitalized by more than tea, but by the knowledge they were in a nowhere place, a realm where nothing could help them but themselves. That knowledge was bracing, a kick to the heart that could last the whole day. They rode out with the light, skimming the face of the cliff. Small black birds burst from the brush. The sun surged across the grass and died on the black rock wall. At noon, they stopped to eat dried beef and bread. Dante's border world energy had left him. The cliffs were featureless, unchanging, as if the gods had hacked them into a rough idea in the early days of creation and forgotten to ever return and finish the fine details. With the sun sliding down the sky, a black mound rose from the grass. Broken stones sat in a forty-foot mound. Time-tarnished bones poked between the rubble. Well, I see a black cairn, Blaze said. Now where's the way up? Lyra frowned at the cliffs. Maybe we haven't gone far enough. Dante reached for his pack. There's another map, too. It agrees with the first— the passage is north of Black Cairn. 
Perhaps they were once right and are now wrong. Then there should be something. A cave-in, a rock slide that buried the trail. I haven't seen anything but blank walls. Morn scratched his beard. Maybe we don't know what to look for. To mollify his doubts, Dante headed south past Blackcairn, riding with Lyra at a distance of two hundred feet from the cliffs, while Blaze and Morn rode right beside the looming stone. After two hours and ten miles, Dante turned around and headed north again, passing Blackcairn. Callie had advised him to expect missteps, to do what he could and move on without allowing the weight of failure to sap his resolve. Yet Dante couldn't help the bitterness he felt, the inward-pointing knives, the hard knowledge he might have done more and better. The trip started with such promise. After the success in Tatonin, every day since felt squandered, a drunken chase after things beyond his understanding. How large was the world, that so much of it felt like a foreign place? Here's something, Morn called from beside the rubble of loose rocks footing the cliffs. I mean, here are a lot of things, but here is something new to us. Dante drove his horse through the grass and jumped to the ground. Moore knelt, pointing at a clear print in the dirt, its edges rising from the hardened mud as steeply as the cliffs. You're sure that's not us? Dante said. Not unless one of us snuck out here while the rest of us were on the road. This track is at least three days old. Can you say where it leads? Morn shrugged at the slumped stones skirting the sheer face. Not without lying to you. Blaze swung down from his horse. Here's a question. We're what, twenty miles from the road? What kind of idiot would come that far for nothing? A very clever one. Dante slid into the shadows of second sight. Nether gleamed on the underside of leaves, winked from the gaps in the splay of broken rocks. Slowly, as a flower follows the sun, he scanned the cliffside, feeling its silent face. Southward, toward Blackcairn, at the edge of his vision, a deeper blackness rippled from the slaty rock. What? Blaze said. You've got that look. What look? Like you just heard Lady Swellchest has been widowed. Lyra turned from the cliffs. Lady Swellchest? Dante slung himself atop his horse and trotted south. The nether set into the cliff was rectangular, dark as moonshadow, the size of a doorway. He dismounted and walked up to the shadows. He let his focus fade. The rectangle of nether disappeared, replaced by solid stone. He reached for the cliff, his hand disappeared into the wall. Lyra gasped. Blaze laughed. Dante peered at the nether set into the cliff. The rectangle of false rock hung like a tapestry from three strands of shadows. He snipped them. One, two, three, and the nether collapsed like a watery blanket, oozing into the clutter of real rocks below. Where it had hung, a narrow staircase gaped from the face of the cliff. I'll stay with the horses. Morn said. Blaze snorted. Bravely volunteered. 
I'm not going up those stairs. My shoulders will get stuck, along with all the rest of me. Then you'll have to cut off my arms, and I won't be able to do anything with the horses at all, except watch sadly as they flee into the wild. You're staying with the horses, Blaze said. Dante didn't bother asking Lyra what she wanted to do. From his horse, he grabbed his sword and shit-sack, which was not at all what the word suggested, but rather a highly portable bag of dry rations, extra water skin, flint and steel, bandages, and other small necessities, a bundle Blaze had named based on the word you'd yell while grabbing it up and running away, and made sure Morn still had his loon. Speak up if anything strange happens, Dante said to the Norrin. We'll let you know when we're on our way back. And just how fast we're retreating. Blaze said. The stairs were so narrow, Dante's heels stuck past their edges. On the second step, he threw out his hands, convinced he was falling, then leaned forward and started up. The staircase turned ninety degrees, leaving him encased in dazzling blackness. His breathing echoed from walls which sometimes brushed both of his shoulders at once. Tingly heat flowed from his stomach. It smelled musty, dusty. It was perversely warm and humid. He fumbled for his torch stone. White light spilled over the darkness. The stairs seemed to widen, to fall away from his shoulders. He could breathe. Lost already, Blaze said behind him. I suggest trying up. Dante grinned. His nausea faded. He continued up. The stairs switchbacked every thirty vertical feet, each flight identical to those before and after. Was he certain the Shroud of Nether had been nothing more than an illusion of rock? What if it housed a doorway into another world composed entirely of this stairway? What if he lifted his foot from the final step and found himself back on the first? A draft tickled his nose, wet and salty. He cornered another switchback and blinked against the faint light. He rubbed his thumb across the torch stone, extinguishing it. Blaze yelped, then emerged into the diffuse sunlight, swords in hands. Around another turn, Dante faced a rectangle of gray light. He edged forward, shielding his eyes with the blade of his hand. He emerged from a massive black boulder into a high, misty plain. Streamers of fog coursed between irregular pillars of black stone. Moss and short green shoots clung to the ledges and faults. Water trickled down the weathered pillars, pooling in algal puddles. A frog sprung from Dante's path. We didn't just die, did we? Blaise said. This is how I always pictured the fields of Aron. Dante shook his head. The fields of Aron have no sun, only starlight. Remind me to die in another country, Lyra said. Somewhere above the mist, the sun hung in the west, reorienting Dante after the twisting passage up the steps. He headed the direction of the murky sun, keeping the nether close. Water dripped ceaselessly. Thumb-sized black birds flitted through the mist-scoured boulders. As Dante passed beneath a lintel of shrubs strung between two pillars, 
a centipede as long as his arm, unspooled from its waxy leaves. He dropped back with a strangled gasp. Blaze whacked it in half, leaving one end metronoming from the high shrubs, while the other half smacked the ground and wriggled sinuously. Blaze wiped off his sword. Maybe it's never been conquered because nobody wants the damn place. Remind me to never close my eyes again, Dante said. Lyra considered around the writhing carcass. When I signed on to protect you, I didn't imagine it would lead me to realms like this. Turn back whenever you want, Dante shrugged. With a thick crunch, she stepped on the centipede's head. Did I say I was scared? The going was hampered by puddles and slick rock and sudden bogs of mud. After an hour's travel, they might have made three miles. The flat highlands slanted down into slick soil loosely bound by flatulent-smelling clumps of kelpish plants. Dante's boots pulled and squelched. Despite the chill, a thin, clammy sweat glued his shirt to his back. A hundred feet downhill, more boulders loomed in the mist. The shadows flickered. Mud slurped beneath Dante's foot. He stopped dead. Run! He charged downhill, muck yanking at his feet. Blazoned Lyra smacked along behind him. The ground quivered, rumbling. Uphill, a shelf of mud dislodged like a god slurping a crater of pudding. At first, it flowed slower than their heavy, slogging steps, but soon gathered speed, a semi-solid tumble of mud and vines and death. Dante stumbled, pitching forward, clawing at the mud while his momentum carried him forward. Somehow he found his feet. The slope flattened. Pillars poked through the muck, misty and mossy. He dodged through the first line. A thirty-foot-high blade of rock stuck from the ground. He leapt against its face, palms tearing as he pulled himself up the slippery stone, muddy boots kicking for purchase. Ten feet up, he rolled onto a broad ledge and reached down to pull Blaze up. Together they hauled Lyra up behind them. With a deafening gurgle, the wave of mud hit the flats, sludge poured between the boulders. Dante forced himself higher, nails scraping through the cushy moss. A stench of cold, damp rot engulfed him. He reached the crest of the ridge and flopped on his side, panting, feet dangling from the other side. Blaze and Lyra followed, soaked and muddy. Mud burbled among the boulders, swallowing some whole. Stones ground and groaned. Dante wiped his hands on a patch of fuzzy green lichen. Gashins, bursting hemorrhoids, Blaze said. Got out of there just in time, didn't we? Too soon for the liking of some, Dante said. Like who, the centipedes? Dante stood, wincing at the pain in his elbows and knees. The spar of rock was nearly four feet wide, but in the breeze-blown mist, he felt like he could fall at any moment. He cupped his hands to his mouth. I know you're there. His shout died in the silent gray world. Blaze sighed. What do you think a centipede's voice sounds like, anyway? I'm thinking a raccoon choking on a rattlesnake's tail. Come out, Dante hollered, before I make you find out what's at the bottom of this mud.
Water trickled down the stones. On a rise of rock forty feet away, a woman materialized in the mist. Holy shit, Blaze said. She gazed at them, motionless, dark hair framing her face. She smiled, raised one hand, her wrist wrapped in red, and waved. Goodbye. Black, moth-like force gathered in her hands. Dante's eyes went wide. He drew on the shadows too, feeding them with the blood welling from his scraped hands. The woman tipped back her head, pausing her work. Beside him, Lyra held out both hands, palm down, and rolled them at the wrist until her palms faced the sky. Worlds within worlds. The nether flowed away from the woman's hands. What are you doing here? We came to... Dante snapped his mouth shut. In a rush, he understood. We came to discover why Pocket Cove has never been invaded, but I suppose we can leave now. The woman's red wrap fluttered around her wrist. Do you find our world hostile? Yes, and I've just figured out how you keep it that way. Unfortunate, she said. Now that you know, you cannot leave. That's downright uncivilized, Blaze called across the gap. I feel so unwelcome, I think I might just turn around and go home. Please, come with me. What happens next is not for me to decide. Blaze dropped his voice. Alternately, we kill her and run away before her friends come out to find what happened. Lyra gave him a dark look. The people don't kill as indiscriminately as you. We should go with her. Dante stared through the mist. It would be easy enough to turn back. The woman's hold on the nether was strong, but not strong enough to save her from what he could command. Still, though he knew how they protected their land, it wasn't the type of knowledge that would allow him to use their methods himself. He needed to know more. We'll come with you as friends, he said. The kind of friends who don't try to kill each other. The woman nodded and climbed off the edge of her ridge. Dante followed suit. The descent was much trickier than his terror-aided climb up, and he nearly slipped three times, banging his knee hard enough to draw blood. At the bottom, he lowered himself to the thick layer of mud. His boots sunk to the ankles, but he could walk. The woman introduced herself as Asher and squelched west across the mud. Dante followed her absently, lost in his second sight, keen for any telltale glimmers of nether around her hands. Hard stone once again thumped beneath his boots. When have you met our people? Asher asked Lyra some time later. Who taught you that sign? Lyra didn't take her eyes from the misty horizon. I grew up in the Carlin Islands. When I was old enough, I began hiring on ships as a swordsman. That lasted a few years. My final assignment was with the Shadow. It did a lot of business with your people. I know of the Shadow, Asher said. I saw it just last fall. Good to know it survives. My last voyage with it was three years ago. 
It was the summer. We were meeting one of your vessels at Harl Island to buy all the barn whelks it could carry. Barn whelks? Blaze said. Lyra nodded. Snails. Snails? When fresh or properly dried, they can be used to treat the venom of most other creatures of the sea. Asher said, in most parts of your country, a handful of barn whelks will buy you a household. New idea, Blaze said. We forget all this slave business and become snail hunters instead. This is enough about snails, Asher said. You were saying? Lyra stepped around a knee-high swell of slick black rock. We were on the piers, finishing the exchange, when the pirates struck. The eye-teeth gang. We were outnumbered, grossly. Those of us with blades went to the docks to hold them off, while the shadow and the people of the pocket shoved off. We managed to hold them off just long enough. Most of my fellows fell. I tried to fight to the death, but the eye-teeth took me instead. They wanted to know where the shadow had gone, as well as the vessel of the people of the pocket. I didn't tell them. Asher's expression darkened. What did it cost you? Lero pulled back her lips and pointed at the gaps where her eye teeth had been. Dante looked away. He'd assumed they'd been lost to simple rot. Those, she said, as well as two of my toes and all my toenails. But you didn't speak. Lyra shook her head. I was sworn to protect the shadow. Asher cocked her head. But not the people they did business with. Revealing the people of the pocket's destination could have compromised the shadow's location. In any event, it would have compromised the shadow's interests and would have been a violation of the spirit, if not the letter of my vow. After a few days, the eye-teeth knew my cause was lost. They ready to kill me. But a few days was all the time the people of the pocket needed to return. The eye-teeth had taken several of their crew as well. The people's nethermancers wiped them out. They would have killed me too for what I had seen, but a woman named Istvel had seen me keep my tongue throughout it all. She gave her name for me. I was saved. Asher held her hands out, palm down, and rolled her wrist until her palms pointed at the fog-matted skies. And she showed you worlds within worlds. She showed me worlds within worlds. Lyra nodded. That is why you're here with me and not back there beneath one hundred feet of mud. I don't think that's the only reason, Dante muttered. Asher smiled as coldly as the mist. For the next two hours, they walked in silence through the sweating stones. The sun waned, its fog-blocked glare drifting toward the horizon. The mist thinned abruptly, they stood on black cliffs above light blue seas, rhythmic waves hissing over a beach of black sand. Asher crossed to a doorway carved into the side of a rocky mound. White light blossomed in her hand. She led them down another long, enclosed stairwell, emerging from the bottom into the pink rays of sunset.
Lyra took a long breath of salty air through her nose. Have outsiders ever seen this? Sometimes. Asher walked south across the stand. Then they are given the choice to stop being outsiders or stop being alive. To the north, a spectral call of oot, oot, oot floated down the shore. Asher's feet whispered on the sand. Down the beach, a proper door opened into the cliffside. Asher opened it, revealing a high tunnel lit with the unblinking white glare of torch stones. Their feet echoed in the closed space. Laughter rang down the halls. Asher turned down two side passages, stopping in front of a door made from something papery and semi-translucent. Please don't leave this spot. She opened the door, revealing mounds of blankets and white light then closed it with a whisper. Low voices seeped through the thin door. She returned a minute later and gestured them inside. On the far side of the stone room, a woman sat on a pile of blankets, her black hair shot through with gray. She wore snug, featureless black clothes and a red scarf on her wrist, which fluttered as she gestured to the blanket across from her. Dante sat, trying not to gape. Nether rolled from her like heat from a stove. She did nothing with it. In fact, she didn't even appear to have summoned it. But he could feel it nonetheless. A dark ocean he'd never felt from anyone besides Callie himself. Please, tell me what you know, she said. Please, don't try to lie. Dante forced himself to meet her eyes. All I have are guesses. Then kindly tell me what you guess. The cliffs keep most out. I don't know whether you shaped them or simply found them useful. When armies came, you buried the soldiers in mud or sand until they stopped coming at all. If even that doesn't work, you seal off your caves and leave the invaders to wonder where you've gone. She gave them a look as sturdy as the walls as stony, too. Where are you from? Narashtivik. Is Narashtivik still a possession of Gask? He risked a short laugh. Not for long, though our independence might be as short-lived as a dayfly. The king will march on us soon. I came here to learn how you've resisted every army that's come your way, in the hopes we might do the same. She nodded, gazing toward the ceiling. I see. Every people should rule themselves, if ruling themselves is what they want to do. Dante leaned forward. Then you'll teach me how to move the earth? Of course not, she laughed. I'm afraid we don't give a shit. Why do you think we're behind these great black walls? Dante blinked. But we have a common enemy. If you help us, you help yourself. Her brows lifted as slowly as a sunrise. They're not my enemies. Enemies can only be enemies if they have the ability to hurt you. I'll swear on anything never to tell.
never to use it against you. Why are you the only ones with the right to defend yourselves? We don't. But we are the only ones with the right to our secrets, if you please. She leaned back, folding her hands in her lap so her fingers overlapped at a right angle. Helpless fury rose in Dante's throat. He wanted to shake her until the knowledge popped right out her throat. What she knew could change the world, could forge him into a weapon every bit as strong as the quivering bow. To deny him that felt not just heartless, but monstrous. This isn't just for my sake. He fought to control his voice. This is for the entire Norrin people. King Modigan will cross their lands before he gets to us, and he doesn't consider them human. I sympathize. That's why I'm letting you leave, which I urge you to please do now. She shut her eyes. Asher detached from the wall. I will take you back to your land, please. It's time for us to go, Lyra said softly. Dante wanted to scream. Instead, he stood. Asher took a torch stone on her way out. It lit their way across the twilit beach, up the stairs, and across the miles of misty plateau. They crossed the last hour under full cover of night, their path through the rocks and mud lit only by an unseen moon and the lunarly glow of the torchstone. Dante stayed silent all the way to the staircase, back down to the plains. Asher halted there, atop the carpet of broken rocks. Please don't come back. But you've been so helpful, Dante said. Worlds within worlds, Lyra waved. Asher nodded. Worlds within worlds. She disappeared up the staircase. Morn's fire flickered in the grass. Dante didn't speak on the way there. As Morn rose to greet them, a crackling, banging rumble rolled from the cliffs. Dante whirled. Rocks and dust sprayed from the black wall. The remains of the staircase crumbled to the plains in a pile of rough shards. Chapter 13 The plains rolled away, the same empty miles they'd crossed just days before. Dante let Blaze and Lyra fill Morn in on what had happened in the pocket. He pushed his horse until it sweated and heaved. The return to Wending and the lakes of Galador was the last chance to stave off the coming strife. He resolved not to fail. A day's ride from the western peaks of the rift, he pulsed Callie's loon. The old man answered at once. Dante related the details of their trip to the cove, expecting Callie to respond with derision and complaints, but he turned thoughtful instead. So... They make the land do their dirty work for them, Callie mused. Wish I'd thought of that one. Can you move the earth? If I kick it hard enough. Dante sighed. Do you have any idea how it's done? Oh, I have ideas, Callie said. You could plant a rock beneath a stick holding up a giant vat of mud, and then use the nether to crack the rock but it sounds like the people of the pocket 
are a smidge more sophisticated than that. I get the feeling they could carve a statue for you without lifting a finger. Interesting that you put it in those terms. For the most part, we think of the Nether as a brute force, a thing that roughly grabs or bludgeons, an extension of our arm, perhaps, if our arms were made of large hammers. Yet they seem to have precise command of the ground. Are they using finer tools, or are they employing a different approach altogether? Maybe they're literally convincing the earth to move. I know this much, Dante said. They're skilled. Highly. I'd love to see a fight between their leader and you. I don't get in fights. There's far too much dignity for that. Callie coughed up something wet and substantial. Speaking of squabbles, the Noran haven't been quick to leap into one. None of their clans, towns, or individuals of interest have officially defied the treaty. Oh, and how many of them have officially fied it? Few, he admitted. Still, it's reason for hope, if hope is something you find useful. It was, as much as Dante might like to deny it. The following morning, he took to the road with something like a smile. White caps rested on the green mountains. A light haze softened the world, muting the early morning light. His horse stepped lightly. They climbed into the pass where a forest of bamboo sliced the sunlight into a thousand yellow wedges. The snows had retreated to isolated patches of blue-white shade, leaving the ground sodden and soft. The haze burned away by the time they crested the pass. Below, the lake of Galador glittered like the land's most precious gem. A warm spring wind followed them into Wending. They stabled beside the docks and rode to Lolligans. The old man answered the door himself. He smiled, but it didn't reach his eyes. And how are the people of the pocket? he said. Do their eyes really glow red? Is the lightning that shoots from their ass lethal, or just part of the show? They're creepy, Blaze said. If the rest of the world dropped dead, their only complaint would be the stink. Wait, you actually met them? Dante rolled his eyes and gained nothing from it. What about here? Has anyone's mind budged an inch? Lolligan's tanned brow wrinkled. Been a lot of talk, even by the standards of people who do nothing but talk. Good talk, not by your standards. Lolligan glanced from his doorway, as if expecting to spot men in black masks lurking in the bushes. I get the idea the association isn't as unified as Jacobs wants you to think. Dante locked eyes with the moustached man. What gives you that idea? The King's Treaty proved that if they want to move against it, they need to do it now. Yet they haven't. I think there are some warhawks in the Tagvog, and their strategy is to do nothing but stall until there's nothing that can be done. Then we'll have to force the issue, Dante said. Do you have any paper? I think it's time to send Jacobs a letter. Blaze gasped. 
Are you sure you want to be that bold? What will people say? Inside, Dante penned a brief letter in his finest hand, blotted the ink, and sealed it with a dab of black wax. Lolligan's boatman rolled away to Jacob's Isle. He returned in less than an hour with a letter of his own, an invitation to another dinner two days later. Dante sent out his clothes to be washed, went into town for a haircut and shave, had his boots resold and relaced. He spent the remaining time hanging around tea houses in the fancier districts, trolling for gossip and insight. The former was torrential, the latter a dribble. One rumor stated that Jacobs would marry his first daughter and the fortune that came with her to Modigan's second son if only the king revoked the treaty in favor of peace. Simultaneously, another claimed Jacobs would raise the army himself if Modigan didn't lead his country to battle. Others claimed Modigan was coming to town in person to rally support for his cause. The one thing they all agreed on was that the future looked uncertain and that uncertainty was bad for anyone currently doing well. The night and morning before the dinner, Dante sequestered himself in his room at Lolligan's, drafting speeches to hit this point home. By definition, every one of the merchants at the event would be a successful man or woman. A few of them might secretly hope to benefit from the upheaval. Most, however, would suffer. A few might lose it all. Wars were costly things. If Modigan's silver started to dwindle, no one knew who he might turn to for aid, and what threats he'd make to ensure he got it. Dante finished with hours to spare. He spent them bathing away the salt and grime of the trail. At the pier, he was surprised to see Blaze had done the same. Their boat pushed off, Jacob's bound. At the chairman's island, rowboats and sailboats clustered around the docks, which creaked with men and women in bright skirts and fur coats. They milled into the banquet hall, where servants stood ready with platters and crystal glasses. Jacob's avuncular laughter rolled across the room. Dante could barely see him behind the swarm of men and women vying for his word. Dante slid along the picture windows, maneuvering closer accepting a servant's offer of wine and a pastry smeared with farmer's cheese and baked trout. He recognized many of the men and women from the prior event, and he smiled and chatted with them while he waited for a break in Jacob's admirers. The room smelled of tea and wood smoke and charred pepper pike. Dante caught his break an hour later. Beside Jacob's, a merchant's young wife tipped back her head, laughing without reserve, her cleavage soaring. Heads turned. Dante wedged himself next to Jacob's, whose wing-like eyebrows were raised in amusement. Seeing Dante, he smiled warmly. I'm glad to see you made it back from the West with no loss of limbs or sanity. Dante smiled back. There was nothing there but grass and cliffs. The only risk was being winded to death. Ah, is it windy there? It's been unseasonably warm here. Good seasons ahead, I think. Jacobs scuffed his feet left, right, left, smiling apologetically at his own superstition. 
And how did the time treat Galador? Does this dinner mean you've reached a decision? Jacobs turned to the window, smiling at some distant peak. After we eat, good man, we wouldn't want to put anyone off their meal. Dante found himself subtly replaced by a whip-thin man with a triangular mustache and a hungry eye. He let himself be pried away, and was soon engaged by a man he'd met at the last quorum, the youngish one with the widow's peak and knowing smile, who reintroduced himself as Ewell. Ever figure out the cost? Ewell said. Dante cocked his head. The cost? Of striking this bargain. Besides precious days of my life? Dante gazed at the burbling crowd. I think they're still figuring the price out for themselves. How strange, Ewell said. You don't tease the hungry fish. You just drop your hook. Have you heard... Dante's breath left him in a groaning whoosh as Blaze drove his elbow into his side. In the same instant, the crowd went silent as a fog. Several glanced Dante's way with looks as if he'd farted in their soup. We're ruined, Blaze hissed. They've played us from the start. Dante rubbed his ribs. What are you yammering about? Stand up on those delicate little toes of yours and look. All the room's attention had turned to a door in the far wall. Dante craned his neck, but couldn't see past the well-fed wall of traders. He shuffled to one side until he found a gap in the quiet crowd. Across the room, a young man with a striking jaw and severely cropped blonde hair strolled up to a smiling Jacobs. As if sensing Dante's gaze, Cassander turned, met his eyes, and smiled. Fear and fury fought for Dante's heart. Jacobs cleared his throat in a way that was somehow humble yet piercing. The mounting murmur stopped cold. Today, we are graced by a man whose name speaks itself, Jacob said. We are happy to have him. Honored, too. I introduced Lord Cassander of Beckenridge. Cassander smiled thinly at the floor. I'm happy to be here. It means good things to know I'm welcome. I thought that might not be so. He paused, still smiling. Someone coughed. A glass clinked. Cassander went on as if there'd been no stop at all. Turmoil is frightening. I wouldn't have blamed you for questioning the king, but wealth depends on labor. Labor depends on loyalty. You prune an unruly hedge for its own health. This takes work, sweat, blood, if there are thorns. But when you are done, the hedge grows back. It takes the shape you have imposed on it. He looked up, smiles stretched to the breaking point. I am glad to garden together. Light applause accompanied the nodding heads of the crowd. Dante bowled his way forward, shouldering tea lords and their stately wives until he stood face to face with Jacobs. The merchant buried his smile and nodded discreetly to the door. Dante followed him out to his enclosed deck. Sunlight bounced from the lake, shimmering on the walls. The room was warm, 
and smelled of drying mussels. I'm sorry, Jacob said simply. Things happen very fast. Things, Dante said. Is that how you pronounce betrayal in wending? Jacobs gazed down on Dante from beneath the lintels of his brows. This isn't personal. This is a matter of pragmatism. It's going to be pretty God's damned personal to all the Norren who die. Do you think we gave that no thought? We gleaned the palace intended to enforce the king's will through any means necessary. We used what leverage we could to convince them to take the targeted approach. A barber's knife instead of a farmer's scythe. Dante closed his eyes. His head hummed. Everything could have been different. Jacobs laid a warm hand on his shoulder. I'm truly sorry. We're all doing what we can. Dante pulled away and headed through the muffled hallway to get Blaze. The banquet hall was a screeching riot of laughter and wheedling and clawing hands. He struggled through the hot crush of people and found Blaze watching the room from one of the walls. He grabbed Blaze's sleeve. We're leaving. Sure you don't want to leave our noble friend with a tap to the jaw? You never know, he might like it. Only if we follow it up with a stab to the neck. Hello, Cassander said behind them. Dante spun. The Lord smiled his thin smile. You've changed shape since I saw you. Weren't you a malish merchant before? We upgraded, Blaise said. How's the home? Rebuilding quickly. Norin backs are strong. Untiring. Dante jerked his chin to the milling merchants. How long have you been involved in this? Cassander gave him a glassy look. Since always. Money makes men forget themselves. My place is to remind them of theirs. Dante leaned in until their faces were inches apart. Cassander's breath smelled of mint and wine. Funny, I sometimes remind people it is everyone's place to die. The man laughed softly. I could have you arrested right now. Go for it, Blaze said. If I'm going to the Irons, I might as well kill you now and get my money's worth. Not while there's better to come, Cassander said. I believe in choice. I believe you will choose foolishly. I will laugh when you're hanged. Dante turned away before his clenching hands found the man's throat. As he knifed through the throng, he found a note in his hand, as if it had always been there. He glanced from side to side. Men laughed in each other's faces. Blaze shoved his back, propelling him forward. Dante clutched the note and stuffed his hand into his pocket. Blaze didn't stop pushing him until they dropped down the front steps on their way to the docks. Dante scowled against the afternoon sunlight. Will you quit shoving me already? You had that other look, the one where happy people are about to become sad little cinders. Dante had too much to say, so he unfolded the note instead. 
It was short as an oracle, composed of blocky capitals. Coburn Inn, Rooftop, Midnight. He handed it to Blaze, who, a few short years ago, couldn't even read his native Malish, but it picked up the Gaskin script as soon as he bothered to try. Someone gave me this on the way out, Dante said. Blaze smoothed the paper against his palm. Well, we're doing this. What if it's a trap? Then we reprimand whoever's trying to trap us. Dante glanced at the boatman patrolling the dock with buckets and mops. It's just like Lolligan said. They were stringing us along while playing the capital on the other end. Very rude. Rudeness that should be punished. We'll see what our mysterious messenger has to say tonight. Beyond that, it may be time to head home. Blaze grinned ruefully. This trip didn't go too well, did it? We got the Norn some food. No one can speak ill of food. Unless it's pickled. They returned to Lolligan's. Dante gave a brief account to the others. Morn's face darkened behind his beard. Lyra nodded stoically. Fan looked crestfallen. These men speak too much, don't they? I'm beginning to believe a man only talks at length when he doesn't want to know what he really thinks. I had a bad feeling the last few days, Lolligan said. I'm sorry it came to this. Dante's anger had left him too hollowed out to do anything besides take a nap. Blaze left to scout out the Coburn Inn. Dante woke in darkness, as refreshed as if he'd had a good long cry. The servants had saved him some supper, whitefish and bamboo shoots, in a thick gravy of mashed onions and chilies. The spice drove the last of his sleepiness away. Pretty typical inn, Blaze reported. Places to drink and places to sleep. How far? Thirty-minute walk from the landing. Figured we'd put Morn and a bow on a roof across the street, Lyra in the alley below. You know how I like to be able to run if things turn nasty. Dante nodded, wiping his spice-dripping nose. How's the neighborhood? Horrible? Would that be the word? I wouldn't be surprised if the mattresses were stuffed with corpses. That's not very practical. You'd have to change them out every month at least. Blaze brushed crumbs from the table. I think you're overestimating the quality of the service in this inn. They borrowed plain dark clothing from Lolligan's servants and left a minute after eleven. The city docks were quiet, gentle waves lapping over the pebbles. Blaze led them uphill through whitewashed row houses and tidily clipped parks. Soon the walls turned unpainted, weather-chapped. The green lawns disappeared in favor of raked stone and individual trees. A three-quarter moon lit snaking alleys and haphazard homes attached to and built on top of much older stone structures. The few windows that weren't shuttered were glassless holes opening on dim rooms. On the corners, men sat on chairs, exposed to the wind, swigging from leather flasks. A whole crew of sailors reeled past, singing a rhythmic song that was either about oars or penises. Torches fluttered from the more ambitious inns and pubs, otherwise the streets were dark as a closet.
The Coburn Inn's only identification was two sticks of bamboo crossed above its crooked doorway. Like everything in the neighborhood, it was wedged between two other unornamented structures, but it stood a floor taller than anything within several blocks. Not sure how much use Morn's going to be as a sniper when he can't cover the roof, Dante said. Blaze shrugged. We'll stand on our tiptoes. See if we can't convince whoever we're meeting to do the same. He led them across the street to the kinking alley behind the buildings that faced the Coburn. Wash lines webbed the space between the upper floors. Ramshackle decks jutted below shuttered windows. Pots clogged these platforms, sporting yellow sticks of withered plants. The walls were winter-warped wood, poorly chinked. Think you can make it up? Dante said. Morn tipped back his shaggy head. There's a chance I do, and a chance I don't. Blaze stared at him. Is there even a point to saying things like that? You don't think it's important to remember that everything's uncertain? When I'm climbing a roof, I want to be convinced there's zero chance my brains will wind up slopped all over the street. Well... To each his own, Morn said. I will do my best. If I don't make it, I'll yell. Involuntarily, I suspect. This was good enough for Dante. He watched the rooftops as they moved to the alleys behind the Coburn, which were more or less the same as the back streets they left Morn in, except they smelled somewhat worse of urine. Recessed doorways stood in the faces of nearly every building, as if the passage had been specifically designed to hide armed lookouts. Lyra chose one halfway down the alley and disappeared into its shadows. I can't imitate a bird call to save my life, she said. Or your life, for that matter, so if there's trouble, I'll yell too. Works for me. Blaze stepped toward the inn's back door, then glanced back over his shoulder. And thanks. Her teeth flashed in the darkness. Blaze tried the door, which opened with a squeak and a shudder. The public room was smoky, the product of a chimney that hadn't been swabbed in ages. A group of men rattled dice at a table. The walls were scrawled with carved initials and symbols, mostly animals and body parts. Dante rented the last available room on the top floor and clumped to the stairs. His room was tight-walled and all too redolent of the alley's stink. He locked the door behind them and swung open the shutters. Blaze poked his head out the glassless window and gaped upwards. These are the stupidest roofs I've ever seen. Dante leaned out the window. Above, the eaves flared away from the roof's edge. Maybe they were built to discourage people from walking on roofs. No one has ever walked on a roof for a socially acceptable reason. We're not committing a crime here. Yes, but if we're meeting at midnight on a roof in the shitty part of town, chances are we'll be conspiring to do so. Right now, I'm more interested in conspiring not to break my leg. Blaze pulled inside and knelt to paw through his pack, emerging with a steel hook and a line of rope as thin as his finger. He lobbed the hook up at the roof, hanging onto the rope's loose end. 
The hook screeched over the clay and fell down, banging against the shutters below them. Blaze swore, then repeated this exact sequence a half dozen times, while Dante gritted his teeth and listened for the angry thump of the innkeeper's boots on the stairs. Finally, the hook secured with a clink. Blaze yanked to make sure it was secure, then knotted the loose end around the shutter's lower hinges. As casually as if he were hopping off a step, he swung into the open air and scrambled up the rope. Dante gaped up after him. Come on, you sissy, Blaze stage-whispered from the roof. What's the worst that could happen? Dying. Only if you have overcooked noodle arms. Dante reached for the rope. I wonder what's killed more men over the years, wild animals or masculine taunts. It looked worse than it was. Though he lacked Blaze's natural athleticism, years of travel and sporadic sword practice had left him honed and lean. He pulled himself up, hand over hand. When his elbow cleared the eave's lip, Blaze grabbed his sleeve and hauled him in. There, the upturned edges of the roof proved beneficial, giving them something to bang into and grab hold of if they were to slip on the dew-slick tiles. Blaze leaned forward and headed up the steep roof on all fours. On the other side of its peak, the roof plateaued in a shelf some three feet wide. Blaze slid down to it, and Dante followed, seating himself. The flat stone street waited sixty feet below. The midnight bells tolled while he caught his breath. He squinted at the roofs across the street, but it was too dark to see if Morn had made it to the top. The bells rang a final time, were overtaken by silence. Blocks away, a man cackled and whooped, his voice bouncing down the street. Think Cassander's pranking us, Blaze said. I don't think he has the imagination. Right? Blaze laughed. He talks like a dead person trying to remember how it felt to be alive. A voice murmured behind them. He's more dangerous than you think. Dante whirled, tipping. He flung out a palm and caught at the roof. A figure crouched just behind the roof's peak, dressed from head to toe in midnight blue. Eyes peaked from two diamond-shaped cuts. My gods, Blaze said. Have we been ambushed by a towel? The fabric over the figure's mouth puffed with a single laugh. The laugh was a woman's. This is no ambush. That's good, because we've prepared an elaborate counter-ambush that would wreak terrible harm on any real ambushers. She shook her head. This is a proposal. But we just met. Dante almost shoved Blaze off the roof. Propose away. The woman slipped over the peak of the roof, joining them on the narrow shelf. Do you know what happened at Jacob's today? Sure, Blaze said. We got royally screwed. Jacob's represented the view of a slender minority, the woman said. Then what does the fat majority say? Dante said. Behind her cloth mask, the woman's look was unreadable. That he struck a deal, one that will benefit him and those with him at the top. Everyone below will have to scramble to avoid the coming flood. 
Dante shifted his weight across the wet tiles. Then, what are you willing to risk to divert the flood altogether? That depends on what you're willing to risk to help us. Easy answer. We've already risked everything. Support for the capital hinges entirely on Jacob's ability to whip the others in line. Her eyes were as gray as a winter sea, and steady as the streets sixty feet below. But no one likes the lash. Jacob's doesn't look out for our interests any more than he manages yours. He used you, leveraged your presence to get Setevan's financiers to give him everything he asked. I'm sure the terms were fat, too. But he favors his friends. When a road charges a new toll, he doesn't pay. The taxes on whatever blend of leaves he happens to be growing never rise. Whatever deal he struck with Modigan and Cassander, most of us will never see it. Our words and our votes don't matter. As long as he's in charge, they never will. Is this going where I think it's going? Glay said. What's the solution? Dante said. Very simple, the woman said. If you want the merchant's backing, all you have to do is kill Jacob's dead. Chapter 14 A cold wind flowed over the roof. Dante rubbed his mouth. Why don't you kill him yourselves? The woman's mask shifted in a smile. So you'll be blamed. Blaze laughed. Well, that's honest. Who do you work for? Dante said. Change, she said. That's all you need to know. Blaze sniffled against the cold. Generally, I prefer to do a little thinking before committing an assassination. How can we reach you? Hang a flag from Lolligan's roof. White for no, black for yes. Our offer expires at this time tomorrow. We'll let you know, Dante said. She nodded and vaulted over the roof's peak, disappearing with a single clink of tiles. Dante climbed up the roof, slid down to where their hook still clung to the eaves, and shimmied down to the open window. Half an hour had passed since they'd taken their room. On their way out into the alley, the innkeeper gave them a funny look. Lyra's silhouette emerged from a doorway. Someone vaulted across the rooftops a few minutes after you climbed up. They left the same way then, five minutes later. Sounds right, Dante said. He cut across the main street and back into the alley where they'd left Morn. So, what happened? Lyra said. Bad things, Blaze said. But you look fine. Oh, not for us. All this coyness is getting old. There was a sharpness to her voice. Dante hadn't heard before. The less you let me know, the less I can help you take your goals. You'll hear it when we explain to Morn and Lolligan. Dante cupped his hands and hissed up at the dark walls of the alley. Morn! I exist, Morn replied faintly. A foot scuffed high above their heads. Morn lowered himself from a high balcony, stretching his toes to meet the deck, the story below clinging to a clothesline for support. He reached the ground, nodded to himself, and joined them without a single question. 
Dante headed toward the docks, staring down every man who glanced his way, looking over his shoulder at every scrape of foreign feet. At the island manor, Lolligan opened the front door himself, too bright-eyed to have slept. He sent a servant for tea and bread and fish spread. The later the meeting, the more interesting it tends to be, eh? The tradesman smiled, beard ruffling. Now, spill it before I drop dead of anticipation. For a moment, Dante considered lying, or claiming it was too sensitive a matter to discuss. He'd only met Lolligan a couple weeks ago, and there had always been an eagerness to the old man that suggested he was pursuing submerged angles of his own. But right now, he had no choice. He needed Lolligan's knowledge. He had to trust him. The story didn't take long to tell. By the end, a strange smile had worked its way across Lolligan's face. This is funny to you, Dante finished. Lolligan's eyebrows jumped. In a way that's wry and sad. Over the years, there's been more than one attempt to dislodge Jacobs from his perch atop the swapole. Nothing ever changed. It's like corking up a tea kettle. And now the pot has burst. So this is real. They actually want Jacobs dead. I'm positive all kinds of people want that old son of a bitch dead. I wouldn't be at all surprised if someone were finally willing to do something drastic. I'll ask around tomorrow. Lyra's mouth had been half open all the while. She glanced around the padded benches where they sat. Are you seriously considering this? Murdering him? I don't think we have another option, Dante said. Yes, you do. The option not to murder him. I'm going to choose to not choose that, Blaze said. She set down her tea and stared at Blaze. You too. Don't look at me like that. I won't enjoy it, unless we make him slip in a puddle or something. You can't just kill a man for disagreeing with you. Really, Blaze said. Isn't that what all killing is about? Who's going to stop us? Her lips contracted to a tight line. You should. You should know better. Warriors don't stab each other in their beds. The same is true if you're fighting in the field or in the council hall. This is simple calculus, Dante said. If we kill him, one man dies. If we leave him be, thousands of Norrin will be killed and enslaved. You don't know that. She stood from her bench, pacing the snug room. None of us knows the future. The only certainty is death. That's why we must always act in life in a way that will make us proud in death. Blaze slurped the last of his tea. I'd be pretty proud if we cut this fight off at the roots. This has worked for us before, Dante said. He gazed at his hands. It isn't pretty, but sometimes it's necessary. Decisions like these are what define you. Lyra crossed her arms and turned to the door. I don't think I want to be part of this. Then it's time for you to make a choice, Dante said. This is who we are. When we need to, this is what we do. 
If that's not you, you can leave at any time. Nothing's keeping you here. Except my honor. And with her back to them, she turned her head over one shoulder. But I suppose you don't really laugh at that. Of course not, Blaze said. Not while you're standing right there. Morn cleared his throat with a thunderous rumble. I don't think anyone will judge you for going your own way. The room was silent. Lyra nodded twice, as if to herself, and retook her seat. I may yet. But if Jacobs has in fact betrayed us, then it is our right to take revenge. Dante lifted his eyebrows, reached for his loon. Guess I'd better raise Callie. Why in the world would you do that? Blaze said. Because he's in charge of this whole thing. Do you think we're making the right decision? Not really, no. But I figure we haven't destabilized a region's governing body recently, so we'd better go ahead with it anyway. Blaze rolled his eyes. Well, what's Callie going to say? Either, yes, go ahead and do that thing you were already planning to do, or, no, that's so dumb that if it were a person, it would forget what food is for. And if you do it after I've told you not to, I'll wear your skin for socks. Would that actually stop us? What's the point? When you put it like that, I guess there isn't one. Dante turned to Lolligan. Find out if this is real, then, and ready the black flag. Dante's attempts to sleep through the morning were thwarted by a steady clamor of boatsmen hollering their approach, knocks on the front door, and storms of laughter drifting from the rooms below. It sounded as if half the merchants of Greater Galador had spontaneously decided to pay Lolligan a visit. Dante didn't need to be told the truth, that they'd been invited over so Lolligan could determine whether they were serious about wanting to murder the leader of their order. This being the case, Dante spent most of the day in his room, venturing out only to visit the kitchen or one of the bathrooms that emptied into the lake. Instead, he read passages from Lolligan's copy of The Cycle of Aron, which was a more recent translation than the one they favored in Narashtavik, and a first-hand account of the Rafting Wars, an eight-hundred-year-old conflict fought between the long-ago tribes of Galador's lakes. Contrary to the title, these back-and-forth raids had primarily featured canoes and outrigger sailboats. The few bamboo rafts employed by increasingly desperate warriors had proven difficult to control and easy to destroy. Yet, rather than accepting repeated offers of peace, the three tribes who'd used the quick-to-build rafts had pushed on until the very end, provoking their rivals into a final counter-strike that had left every man, woman, and child of the three tribes dead. Dante finished just after sunset and wandered his room, contemplating another trip to the kitchen, even though he wasn't hungry. As he considered whether there was any meaning to the extinct tribe's steadfast refusal to quit fighting, Lolligan knocked on the other side. I couldn't exactly ask them outright, the merchant said, for the same reasons they couldn't answer outright either but the offer is legit. How do you know? Dante said. Their anger. It felt genuine. Real enough to hold on to. Got anything more concrete than that? Possibly. 
Lolligan touched the points of his mustache, swaying absently from foot to foot. I saw my friend Ulwyn today. She's a good woman, harvests bamboo from the mountains. There's a lot you can do with bamboo. Chairs, chicken coops, interior doors, if you're not too picky. You can even eat it, if you cut off the right parts and boil it long enough. No one else bothers with it on a large scale, because they think bamboo is just for those too poor to afford stone or hardwood. But that's exactly what makes it worth Ulwin's while. Two decades of bamboo has earned her a small fortune. Her vision is just what the Tagvog needs. But because her fortune's small, and her product isn't the one they use or favor, the Tagvog will never make Ulwin more than a peripheral member. Everyone's frustrated with their position sometimes, Dante said. Their solution usually isn't murder, unless they're in the Assassin's Guild. That isn't what tipped me off. That's the context behind the story she told me. A story everyone in Galador already knows. Lolligan pointed to the history book on Dante's table. Did you read that? It was fascinating. It's hard to imagine a time so long ago. After that war, the tribes held a few more, and then discovered everyone else in the world seemed to want our tea, too. So, instead of raiding each other's villages, we came together to raid the world's coffers. The city of Wending began to take shape. To keep order, it was decided to elect a tyrant every three years. One man who had to be obeyed no matter what your tribal or family loyalties. This system has its snags, but it worked smoothly for several generations, until the election of a man named Cayman. Cayman was a tea-man, self-made, worked for years as a sailor and bodyguard, then started his own farm, wound up one of the wealthiest men on the lake. Everyone loves a man like that. When he ran for tyrant, he was elected easily. At that time, the lakes and their cities all flew different flags. They all had their own tolls and taxes and regulations about what could come in and what could go out. To Cayman, this was terribly inefficient. Just as easily as he'd bought out the farms that made his fortune, he spent the next three years conquering, absorbing, and allying with every town, tribe, and county on the lakes. For the first time, Galador was united. He went unopposed in the next election. Not too surprising, nor all that surprising when he announced his plans to annex the Eastern Plains. Some people thought it would be easy. Just nomads, that aways. They'll run right off. But others weren't so sure. Regardless, Cayman sent a legion over the mountains. Presumably it was a disaster. Presumably. Lolligan nodded. Galador never heard from them again. But who knows? Maybe the soldiers all deserted and married five wives apiece and lived very happy lives. Again, regardless, Cayman assembled an even larger force. This time his doubters outnumbered his supporters, but what could they do? He'd been elected. Still, 
The lakes had been weakened in the wars of unification. So far as they knew, the First Legion had been massacred to the last man, and Cayman's second wave was only three times as large. A few of the nobles feared another loss would leave us helpless against a counterattack. They held a meeting to decide whether to assassinate Cayman. After the meeting, they held a vote. Do you know what happened then? Dante hunched his shoulders. They killed the hell out of him. They left him be. They let him march into the east. His army was destroyed. The nomads, having enough, sent back a force of their own late in the summer. Galador was theirs by winter. A hundred years later, Narashtivik conquered the nomads and Galador too, and another hundred years after that, some upstart barbarians from the western woods destroyed Narashtivik and took Galador for themselves. We've been owned by outsiders ever since. Lolligan rubbed his throat. That's the story my friend Ulwin told me. The story every citizen of Galador knows. I suppose that's convincing enough, Dante said. Also, after that, she told me she and some others had been setting aside a fund for years, and were ready to hire three hundred mercenaries from around the lakes as soon as the black flag flies. Dante didn't know whether to laugh or strangle him. They've got a private army in the works. You left that till the end because why? Lolligan smiled sharply, spreading his fingers wide. Because that is how a salesman closes the deal. Are you buying? All the way, Dante said. Run up the flag. The flying of the flag wasn't half as dramatic as Blaze would have liked. To conceal it from all eyes but the only pair that mattered, Lolligan waited until nightfall, then sent a servant to the roof, flag in hand. Dante and the others remained inside. Somewhat resentfully, the same servant returned to the roof fifteen minutes later, after midnight, to take the flag back down. In the morning, Lolligan found a scrap of black fabric pinned to the front door. Following breakfast, most of the household squeezed into Lolligan's boat and headed for the city. Lolligan was off to hire a half-dozen new servants, men whose arms would bulge under their sleeves. Fan headed toward the hills to make the rounds among his wealthy friends and gather any gossip concerning Jacobs, Cassander, and whatever else was worth knowing. Blaze and Morn holed up in a dockside pub to watch the traffic from the lake for Jacobs, or anyone close to him, with the intent of following them into the city. And accompanied by Lyra, Dante headed for the city's main library. His purpose was twofold. First, to brush up on any local poisons that might be surreptitiously introduced to Jacob's food or water, and second, to find out whether the Merchant King had been foolish enough to register a copy of his manor's floor plan with the city archives. It wasn't out of the question. Though the notion was rarely spoken aloud, a rich man's manor was often thought of as a monument to himself, and gifting archives with records of that monument, its meaning, its history, its architecture, even its cost, was a way to gild its legacy in local lore.
Not that it would be wise to ask about poisons in one breath and then the design for Jacob's home in the next. Dante would see what he could do to find these things on his own before enlisting any help. He had expected the library to be a monastery or converted wing of a cathedral, but it was a thing all its own, a four-floor square that occupied its own block. A swooping roof shaded elegant stone pillars. Two massive statues of pike flanked the front walk, resting on their tails, long bodies curved into an S. The high doors stood wide open. Dante headed inside, frowning, ready to be ushered away by a blustering monk or officious servant. Instead, a black rope barred his passage. A man in a clean white uniform stepped forward, hands clasped behind his back. Day's entry will be two and three, please. Dante stopped short. Two sills and three pennies. Just to go inside. For the day, yes. It would cost less than that to buy the book I need. The man tipped back his head, eyes downcast. Yes, but the library at Moor contains many thousands of books. In those terms, it is surely a bargain. Dante set his jaw and reached for his purse, counting out two silver and three iron. The steward glanced quickly at Lyra. That will be per person, sir. He sighed, paid, and walked from the foyer into a vast hall of shelved books. Old men milled through the stacks, taking down titles and thumbing cautiously through the yellow pages. A woman in white approached and offered her help finding Dante's title in exchange for three pennies more. Despite the prick to his sensibilities, he paid up. Under the pretense of having fallen in love with Jacob's home, he asked for any and all materials related to its planning, construction, or history. In one sense, the woman in white earned her keep. She searched with him for three straight hours. But that did little to mitigate Dante's frustration when she turned up nothing. After so much talk of Jacob's, he could hardly ask about poisons now, and even after three hours navigating the dry and dusty shelves, he had no hope of finding anything about them on his own. He left, angry. The afternoon was warm and muggy. His clothes rasped against his skin. Beside him, Lyra was placid and silent as ever. He gave her a sidelong glance. Don't you have anything better to do? She stepped over a greasy puddle. I'm here to keep you safe. From the high danger of a library. I could be paper cut at any moment. Belittle all you like, but you walked out in perfect health. Back at Lolligan's, the group compared notes. Blaze and Morn hadn't seen anything all day, but they seemed highly unconcerned about their lack of progress, probably because they were both half-drunk on beer. Fan confirmed their lack of results. From what he'd gathered, Jacobs and Cassander had practically fortified themselves on Jacobs Island, and weren't expected at any dinners, parties, quorums, or appearances for weeks. 
Lolligan, at least, had something to show for his efforts. He hired seven swordsmen, three of whom were already quartered in the servant's wing. He hadn't been the only one bringing on new arms. To hear him tell it, there had been more merchants and bureaucrats prowling the steel yards than mercenaries. Dante went to his room to stew. He was still stewing late that night when Lolligan came to his door, a clever smile matching his clever moustache. The woman in the blue mask had arrived. She didn't want to come inside. Instead, they gathered in the grass beneath a manicured tree, moonlight sifting between its spiky, gnarled branches. The scent of the lake was all around them. The woman was dressed in her midnight bodysuit, her eyes white behind its slits. Your decision makes us happy, she said softly. Now we decide how to proceed. I'm assuming kicking in the front door is out, Blaze said. She shook her head. That strategy would not be effective. Really, because I think he'd wind up pretty dead. Pretty, really dead. This is the problem. Oh, I see. You only want him half dead. She chopped both hands downward. We want his death certain, but its causes unclear. We want his followers to be confused, not suspicious. Obvious assassination provokes too much sympathy. It would provoke too much of the Tagvog into crossing over to the king's side. Poisonous household's food, Dante said. It'll look like they ate bad fish. There must be thirty people in his household, Lyra said. Servants, his family. You'd kill them all too? Dante scowled over the water. On the city pier, a buoy told in the darkness, far off and forlorn. It was just a suggestion. A needlessly ruthless one. You guys act like you've never thought about how to kill someone before, Blaze said. Set fire to his house and shoot anyone who runs outside. Pour a jug of poison down his ear as he sleeps. Hire a family of snakes to slither in through his window and give him a big fat kiss. I like the poison one, the woman said. It is simple and deniable. Also, it does not require us to know the language of snakes. We need to find a way to sneak into his house, then. Dante gestured across the calm waves to the dark blot of Jacob's Island. It doesn't sound like he's leaving it any time soon. So we need to go kick in his front door, Blaze said. Lolligan cracked his knobby knuckles. Men like him always have other ways in and out of their castles. It makes them feel clever. I've got a few back doors myself. I failed to find his floor plan today, Dante said. Maybe we can ask him to draw us a map. Blaze nodded. Or save us a whole bundle of trouble and poison himself. His weakness is vanity, said the woman in blue. Attack his weakness. Send over a stranger who'd like a tour of his island palace, Blaze said. A stranger with blood as blue as a drowned sapphire. The woman snapped her fingers. We have someone we can use. That's it, then. Dante knocked on the rough trunk of the tree. Find us a way in, 
and we'll do the rest. It was a good plan, simple, swift, and unsuspicious, and it failed before it began. The woman in blue came back the next night. She had sent a boat to Jacob's Island with a letter of introduction for a wealthy young traveller who'd yearned to see the house he'd heard so much about. The boatman hadn't been allowed to set foot on Jacob's docks. One of the four guards standing watch explained that Jacob's and Cassander were deeply engaged in critical plans, and please understand they could not be interrupted, no matter who came calling. Back beneath the tree and the moonlight, Dante sighed hard enough to rattle the branches. Guess it's right through the front door after all. We could do that, Blaze said, or we could use my perfect idea. Which is? We send a letter to Cassander asking for an audience. While you grovel and apologize for Narashtovic's insubordination, I take a look around and see if there's a way in. Or a way to take care of Jacobs then and there, if that isn't too obvious. That sounds awful. What's so perfect about it? Two things, Blaze said. First, it attacks Cassander's arrogance. There's no way he'll turn down the chance to watch you prostrate yourself. I think I know the second thing, Dante said. Second? You'll hate every moment of it. I knew the second thing. Dante glanced between the others. Anyone have a better idea? Please have a better idea. If they did, they kept it to themselves. Dante stayed up late composing the most polite and beseeching letter he could stomach, then dispatched it to Cassander at Jacob's home first thing in the morning. While he waited for the boat to come back with a response, he raised Callie on the loon. They hadn't spoken in days, and it took Dante several minutes to bring him up to speed. A carefully explicated speed, Dante told him nothing of their plans regarding Jacob's. Unfortunate, Callie said. No doubt the king offered the damn lake traders a better deal than we could ever swing. You ought to just burn down the whole valley and be done with it. That would show them, Dante said. Have you heard anything new from the world? The Norrin? No. And if the clans are hoping that ignoring the ultimatum will slow Modigan down, they'll have to hope harder. He's raising troops across the north. What are we going to do, Callie? Don't worry, son. The old man laughed. If they come for Narashtovic, we'll build a boat and sail to the North Star. Or die heroically. We're never forced to face a single fate. Dante knew son was just a phrase, but Callie had never used it towards him before. He opened his mouth, ready to tell Callie the rest of the plan to overthrow Jacobs and sway the Lakelands back to their side, but the loon went silent. Cassander replied in the afternoon. He was happy to hear from Dante and would welcome his visit two days hence. Dante was glad the invitation wasn't for that same day. The cold glee in Cassander's response had Dante ready to blast a hole through the wall. Or through Cassander. Or, to kill two birds with one stone, to blast Cassander through the wall instead. Lolligan produced a vial of clear, odorless poison. 
Before crossing the waters to Jacob's, Blaze sealed it with wax and concealed it in his underclothes. This turned out to be uncannily wise. When they stepped off Jacob's docks, the guards searched them top to bottom, taking Blaze's two knives. Dante smiled internally. Two small blades were nothing compared to the poison in Blaze's underpants, the nether in his own veins. The stately terraces of Jacob's home were strangely quiet. Dante was led to a small den heavy with carpets and wall hangings that helped insulate it despite the lack of a fireplace. On the pretense Dante wanted to speak to Cassander alone, Blaze waited outside. Cassander took thirty minutes to arrive. He entered as quietly as a knife, closing the door without a click, not bothering with the formal one-step retreat of greeting under such circumstances. His smile didn't warm his eyes. This can't be easy for you. Dante stood. How's that? To admit to a man's face that you wronged him? That's why you're here? Among other things. Good. If it weren't, this conversation would end now. Cassander sat on a backless chair, his spine straight. Let me hear it. The raid on your household was a mistake, Dante said, managing not to clench his teeth. The Norrin we were with deceived us. We deceived ourselves, too. I let things get out of hand. Are you sorry? That's what I just said. You didn't. You danced around the words like a three-legged dog. I wonder if you mean them. Dante stared past Cassander's shoulder. I'm sorry. The man touched two fingers to the blonde stubble on his head. And there it is. What now? I would hope my mistake hasn't endangered the long relationship between Narashtavik and Setovan. We support the Norrin in many ways, but it feels like Gask is two steps from civil war. How has it come this far? Because we let it, Cassander said. We indulged. We did not make our expectations clear. Our subjects in the southern hills did what helps themselves rather than what builds the empire as a whole. It is now our responsibility to correct them. Dante's eyes narrowed. He forced his face to go blank. What is your proposal? Before the Setovites took hold of this country, we followed a different set of laws. When a man killed, we didn't kill him. We made him a servant to the family whose son he had taken. When he went, his older brother went with him. If he had no older brother, it would be his younger. If he had no brothers at all, it would be his best friend. The killer became a simple servant, but the older brother had a higher responsibility. If the killer didn't rise on time, his brother would beat him. If the killer misfed the family's cows, and one of the cows died, his brother would whip him. And if the killer grew frustrated and killed another member of his new family, then his brother would kill him. Cassander held his gaze perfectly still. 
the Norin have sinned. Can Narashtivik be their older brother? The nether stirred in Dante, licking along his veins. If that is our responsibility. The young lord stood, adjusting the hem of his doublet. That is how we keep the peace. My lord, Dante said, hoping to stall him, to give Blaze as much time as possible to continue his rounds of the house, but Cassander didn't turn. He closed the door behind him, as if Dante weren't there at all. His feet whispered down the carpeted hall. A servant arrived moments later. I am afraid the house must be vacated, the man said. We'll find your friend and bring him to you on the docks. As he was led from the house, Dante examined every doorway, nook, and staircase inside, but there were no obvious weaknesses, no flap doors or person-sized cracks large enough to wriggle through with no sign of entry. Guards stood by the outer doors, some wearing Jacobs's colors, others wearing the pine green of Cassander. By the time Dante reached the pier, he was ready to fling himself into the water and let it take him where it may. Ten minutes passed before Blaze appeared on the path to the docks, escorted by two guards and looking as relaxed as a three-hour nap. The pair rode back to Lolligan's in silence. Inside the house, Blaze grinned hugely. If your face is any indication, your meeting went just as poorly as expected. Also, you're ugly. Oh, dear. How will I ever convince you to marry me? Maybe you can get rich? Dante flopped down in a chair. It would be much easier than trying to do good. How did your search go? Pretty great, Blaze said. I took a highly illuminating shit. Did your brains go with it? You were supposed to be searching for a way in. It's funny. There I was, perched on this wooden bench, when I discovered a strong draft doing strange things to my nethers. Once I finished up my first priority, I braved my health and sanity and stuck my head down the same hole my ass had just occupied. Really? And how did the family reunion go? Blaze stretched his arms wide. The crapper was as wide as a chimney. Darkest one, too, but I could still smell. You know what I smelled? The inside of a toilet. Yeah, but a surprisingly not awful one. Then I started listening. And you know what I heard? Dante pressed his palms against his forehead. My endless screams. Splashing. Soft, gentle splashing. Dante lifted his head. How wide did you say it was? At least four feet by three. Blaze grinned. As far down as I could see. Did I mention the bathroom was on the same floor as Jacob's bedroom? I think it's time to find Lolligan. According to his major domo, the salt merchant was on business in town. When he returned, Blaze explained his suspicion that the toilet opened straight into the lake. Lolligan's mouth fell open with laughter. I have no doubt it does. 
Why didn't I think of this to begin with? Because it's disgusting, Blaze said. We're going to need some more clothes, preferably something you won't mind having covered in shit and then dropped in the lake as we swim home. How soon can we make this happen? Dante said. Ulwin, has she hired her troops? Will she be ready to move if Jacob's supporters smell a rat? Lolligan nodded, smiling sharply. There's hardly an idle mercenary in town. Everyone's been hiring new help, and it hasn't raised an eyebrow. Unrest is coming, you know. You don't say. Blaze bent at the waist to touch his toes, grunting as he stretched. Guess we'd better practice climbing up a toilet. One of the five-story terraces that made up Lolligan's home had been disused since the previous summer, including its chimney. The next two days, while they weren't coordinating with Ulwin and the woman in blue, Dante, Blaze, and Lyra spent their time clambering up and down the wing's largest chimney, a square vault roughly three feet to a side and some thirty feet high. As it turned out, the enclosed space was just tight enough to make climbing easy. By bracing two or three limbs against the sooty bricks at any one time, Dante could push himself up the flue without the use of a rope or tool. Blaze and Lyra were more agile yet, scaling the vertical rise in less than two minutes. That left two wild cards. Finding the lakeside entry to the toilet and widening the hole through the boards at its upper end enough to climb through. After discussion, Dante decided not to try to advance scout the entry's location. Either they would find it on the night of the attack, or they wouldn't. As for the boards up top, through experimentation in the chimney, Blaze discovered he could brace himself securely enough with two feet and one hand to use his remaining hand to pry loose or saw through a wooden plank with minimal noise or time. It was even easier if he could secure a rope to the seat and dangle from that while he worked. All told, Dante estimated they could swim in, climb up, break through, deliver the poison to Jacobs, and climb back out in no more than fifteen minutes. I want to kill Cassander too, he said once he made that calculation. Blaze lifted his brows. Do you think that's a good idea? Extremely. Let me put this another way. Do you think that's more or less likely to get us exposed or killed in the middle of this ridiculous mission? Cassander's a duke, something like ninth in line for the kingship, with no concern or sympathy for the Norrin. If he winds up the general in charge of a legion, he'll massacre them. I'm sure of it. Blaze gritted his teeth. If one fat old man dies, well, that's what fat old men do. If a fit young duke dies on the same night, that'll stink worse than the route we're taking to get there. You're right. Dante let the idea slip away like a pleasant dream. But if the chance pops up, I'm taking it. That was all the more preparation they needed. They let Lolligan know they were ready. Lolligan let Ulwin know they would move that night. Dante napped through the day, waking for dinner. He dressed in a black cap and shirt and skirt and socks. The bells of midnight rolled over the inky waters.
For another two hours, they gazed through the window at Jacob's Island, where a pair of torches continued to burn with a strange white flame. A crescent moon barely outshined the stars. Lolligan went with them to the dock. After Dante, Blaze, and Lyra settled into a small rowboat Lolligan had stripped of any decorations, the old merchant untied the rope and knelt on the planks of the dock. His wrinkled face was taut, as if he were finally realizing the significance of the hour to come. I hope we're doing the right thing, he whispered. Good luck. He threw them the rope. Blaze caught it and coiled it in the prow, then shoved off and grabbed an oar. Lyra took up another. Dante knelt up front, watching the black water. They rowed slowly, the splashes of their paddles no louder than the ripples and gentle waves. As slowly as a mounting storm, Jacob's island grew in size. A black mound lit at its lakeward-facing point by two white lights. The rowboat swung wide around the dark side of the island and angled in to where the five-layered house sat flush against the water. Miles across the lake, a white light bloomed in the darkness, riding many feet above the surface. Dante hunched forward and squinted until he was certain the light was moving against the steady backdrop of the far shore. There's another ship out there. Blaze pulled his paddle from the water. What kind? It looks big. Too far away to tell. Then we'll keep moving. The boat crept forward. Dante split his attention between the distant vessel and the approaching island. He could make out the manor's curling eaves now, the glint of its windows. Once, a man paced along a balcony, and Dante coiled the nether in his hands, ready to strike the man dead if he called out a warning. The figure disappeared inside. Blaze steered the boat to within a few yards of the short, rocky cliffs supporting the house, where a guard would practically have to lean off a deck's railing to spot them. An outlying face of the house ran straight down into the water. Somewhere below it, a hole would open into the flue of the toilet. Dante glanced back across the lake. The vessel had cut the distance between them in half. He still couldn't make out its hull, just that strange white lantern hanging from its prow. A light that matched the ones on the northern tip of Jacob's island. That's what Jacobs and Cassander have been waiting for, he whispered over the wash of the waves. That boat is coming here. It'll land within an hour. Chapter 15 Blaze shrugged off his cloak, grinning grimly at the distant ship. Then I suppose we'll have to hurry. Dante twisted his face to him. You still want to go through with this? Do you think the contents of that boat will make this any easier tomorrow? Above, the house was silent, dark. No, this is our best chance. So quit arguing and let me go climb up that toilet. Blaze shucked off his cloak and shoes and slipped over the side of the rowboat. He paddled along the flat rock of the house, then bobbed up 
filled his lungs, and disappeared beneath the black water. Two bubbles popped to the surface. Water soughed against the land. Toward the city, the buoy clanged to itself, as far away and irrelevant as childhood. Dante loosened the small leather bag around his neck, fished out his loon, and turned the brooch to Morn's setting. He pulsed it once. Two seconds later, he tried again. Yes? Morn answered softly. There's a ship coming this way, Dante whispered. I don't like the looks of it. What should we do about it? Get ready. That's unhelpfully unspecific, Morn said. Tell Lolligan and our masked friend, Dante said. I'm sure they'll come up with something. He cut the connection. The talk had distracted him from the fact Blaze still hadn't returned. The water was open, silent. Dante's gaze leapt to every splash and ripple. How long had Blaze been gone? Well over a minute, closer to two. What if he'd gotten caught underwater, stuck in a pipe or a grate? Dante leaned over the lip of the boat, rocking it. Stars shimmered on the water. Should he dive in? He returned his loon to his pouch, where it clicked against the wax-sealed vial and cloth-wrapped lockpicks. He stripped off his cloak and took three long breaths, flooding his body with air. He filled his lungs a fourth time and threw one leg over the side. Below him, a pale face broke the water. Dante tipped back into the boat, banging his ribs on the bench. Blaze grabbed the edge of the boat and peeped over the edge. Found it. Dante righted himself, glancing at the house's balconies. How do you know? Because it smelled like shit and I wanted to die. Pass me the bag and I'll get the rope up. Dante handed him the bag with the rope and pry bar. Blaze tucked it under his arm, saluted, and disappeared under the water. Lyra paddled to keep them away from the rocks while Dante watched the white light across the lake. The boat it was attached to was a dark blot on the moonlit waves. It had advanced fractionally by the time Blaze returned and gestured them into the lake. The cold water gripped Dante like an unrelenting hand. He fought not to gasp as his head slipped below the water. Beneath the surface, Blaze's kicking feet churned a trail of bubbles. Dante followed them like a lifeline. A broad shadow loomed ahead. Blaze dove deeper, disappearing beneath it. Dante's ears popped. His heels banged and scraped against something hard and scratchy. The ceiling pressed above him, an unbroken plane of rough-cut stone. Air bubbled from his mouth. He flattened himself against the stone, struggling, as if he believed he could swim through rock as easily as the black water. The last of his air burst from his nose. He rolled over to hammer at the stone. A hand grabbed his wrist and yanked him forward. He rose into a tight square, brushing himself between two warm bodies and bursting from the water with a gasp. The stink hit him a moment later, a choking scent of feces in all stages of aging. Blaze and Lyra crowded beside him, breathing through their mouths. Something brushed Dante's face. He poured it away, felt the wet rope. He could barely see his own hand. High above, 
The sliver of moon trickled through a skylight above the square hole of the seating platform. Small things bobbed around his arms and chest. He was glad for the darkness. Blaze maneuvered around him and grabbed the rope. A foot bonked Dante's face. The rope swayed in the water, stirring the trapped sewage. Dante craned his neck to keep his face clear. Above, Blaze scrabbled against the slick walls. Something plopped into the water. The rope jiggled. Blaze gave a soft whistle. Dante grabbed the rope and climbed up, the spatter of water echoing up the flue. The rope swayed, banging him into the tight walls, dislodging sludge and coating him in foul stink. He breathed shallowly, but could still taste it on the back of his throat. He paused halfway up to gag. Do not do whatever you're doing, Lyra whispered from below. He continued up. The square of moonlight expanded. Blaze had pried away enough boards to crawl into the bathroom without squeezing his shoulders. After the ascent, through the toilet flue, the tight room felt palatial. Water splashed below, signaling Lyra's climb. Blaze stood on the bathroom rug, stripped to his underpants. What are you doing? Dante whispered. I don't want to walk around covered in shit. I don't care if it's the fashion. Blaze nodded at the rugs. Don't want to leave tracks either. Dante peeled off his shirt, skirt, socks, and gloves until he was down to his small clothes, the pouch at his neck, and a long knife tied to his thigh. Lyra emerged from the toilet, hopped to the floor, and stared. Like it's nothing you haven't seen before, Blaze said. She smirked and stepped out of her outer clothes. Dante wadded the soiled linen into a ball, dropped it down the chute with a splash, and wiped his hands on the carpet. They drew their knives. Blaze padded to the door and eased it open. Silence spilled into the bathroom, the kind that leaves your ears ringing with its purity. Blaze slipped into the hallway. Light lined the cracks around the door down the hall, but it was otherwise as dark as the night. Blaze crouched forward. A cough spotted from elsewhere in the house, muffled by doors and space. Blaze shrank against the wall, but the coughing stopped, consumed once more by that perfect silence. The hallway terminated at a wide wooden door. Blaze nodded significantly and reached for the handle. It opened, sparing Dante the trouble of fumbling with the picks in his pouch. Inside, moonlight coursed through unshuttered windows, painting the room in silver-blue shadows. Jacob snored thickly from amidst a canopy bed with the same tented peaks as his roof. Blaze eased the door shut. Dante took the vial from his pouch and clamped it under his armpit to warm it. Blaze cocked his head, gesturing towards the bed. Dante held up his palms and shook his head. The closer to body temperature the poison was, the less likely Jacobs would wake before the fluid ensured he never would. Dante waited half a minute for the vial to warm, then crept to the bed. Silk sheets rumpled around Jacobs' middle. White hairs curled on his slack chest. 
His snores smelled like sour beer. Dante ran his thumbnail around the vial's tiny neck, breaking the wax. He pulled the glass stopper and leaned over the sleeping man, but was struck by a moment of moral vertigo. He was about to kill this man. Did this man deserve it? Why had Jacobs crossed to Cassander's camp? For personal gain, promises of riches and titles, or to avert the king's wrath for his homeland of Galador? If the latter, how could Dante fault him for placing the safety of his friends, family, and countrymen over a horde of strange giants living far to the east? But if those were the rules, nor could Dante be faulted for placing Narashtavik and the Norin above the people of Galador. Whether Jacobs had signed his treaty to join the ranks of royalty, to preserve his people, or both, he must have felt very secure as he shook Cassander's hand. He was tucked away in the Lakeland Rifts, a week's hard travel from the flashpoints at the borders. He must have smiled. He must have thought himself very wise. But every choice carried consequences, and the reach of war knows no boundaries. Dante dripped the clear liquid into the old man's ear. Jacob stirred, sluggish, pawing at the side of his head. He didn't open his eyes. Dante waited for him to settle back into the covers, then poured another dose. Jacob's gray hair grew slick and damp. The thin fluid seeped into the folds of his neck. He let out a long, ragged breath. His chest slumped in thin and shallow breaths. He seemed to wither, to retract into his own flesh. Bright parchment rested on his bedside table, inscribed with fancy script and fresh ink. Dante folded the papers into his pouch. He gestured toward the door. Jacobs shot up in bed, shrieking. Dante moaned. Jacobs shook his hoary head like a dog clawing at his ear. He screamed again. A shudder racked his body, jiggling his hairy stomach. He hunched forward, bearish, and dribbled foam from his lips. His wild eyes fixed on Dante. Who are you? Help me. Bring me water. Blaze leapt forward and socked Jacobs in the temple, thumping him into the sheets. He gurgled, his chest shuddered, and went still. That was gross, Blaze muttered. I think it's time to... The door barged open, spilling light and an armed guard into the room. Lyra's knife caught him in the neck. He stumbled to the floor, blood fanning onto the thick carpet. Blaze scooped up his sword and blew out the candle he'd dropped. Shouts rose from down the hall. Dante cut the back of his left arm, smiling against the pain. Nether swelled in him like an incoming tide. He rushed out the door. Blaze jogged after him. Where are you going? To find Cassander. Is that secret code for get the hell out of here because right now... Feet thumped down the dark hallway. Swords glinted. Dante lashed out with a blade of raw nether. Just before it reached the guards, it burst in a shower of white sparks, sizzling away. The pale glow lit Cassander's face, ghost-like, smiling. 
Oh, shit, Dante said. Cassander stepped forward, flanked by guards. Most men of quality teach their sons to swing a sword, but what's a blade compared to this? He thrust a spear of white ether at Dante's heart. Dante shouted in horror. There were few nethermancers he truly feared. It was possible the king had a pet sorcerer or three with the power to beat Dante seven times out of ten, but Dante's power was unearthly, particularly for his age. In fact, throughout all of Gask, the list of nether-slingers who could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with him and expect to walk away alive might start and end with Callie. This was not true of the ether. Every single ethermancer, no matter how raw and untrained, posed a mortal threat to Dante. He knew too little of the ether to fight it with any efficiency. He could oppose it with brute force, sure, slinging gobs and walls of shadows at the incoming light. In most cases, his talent with the nether was strong enough to overcome his disadvantage, nonetheless. He could tire his opponent out and then strike, or simply overwhelm them striking with the tide of nether too fast and cold for any but the strongest to resist. If he and his ether-slinging enemy were anywhere closely matched, however, victory was far from a given. In that case, the enemy could wear him down, forcing him to expend clumsy amounts of nether to avoid dying on deliberately spare thrusts of ether. Dante could be overwhelmed, too. Even losing his focus for a fraction of a second could mean the ether would be on him before he knew what was happening. He'd trained to overcome this weakness, but it was a weakness that could only be patched over so far, and Cassander appeared to be uncommonly strong. Dante met Cassander's attack with a wild charge of nether. The two energies flared into a puff of light. Dante fell back, keeping the shadows close at hand. He tried to study the ether a dozen times throughout the years, but each time he found he could no more manipulate its solid, steady presence than he could give birth. He would rather face a mother bear in her den than a trained and able ethermancer. A knife whipped through the air, burying itself in Cassander's shoulder. The man dropped to his knee with a sigh. I like blades, personally. Blaze shifted his stolen sword to his empty right hand. They don't care who they cut. He grabbed Dante by his bare shoulder and yanked him down the hall. Glass shattered from Jacob's room. Lyra stood in front of a gaping hole in the window, gesturing with her knife. Blaze slung his sword at Jacob's motionless body and dived headlong out the window. Dante followed, yanking his pouch from his neck and holding it above his head. He plunged into the cold lake, water smashing around his head. Lyra burst into the water beside him. Where's the rowboat? he said. Off on a journey of its own. Blaze spun in the water, orienting himself toward Lolligan's. It's time to see if we've absorbed anything from all these fish we've been eating. He leaned into a crawl stroke. Dante turned on his side, paddling with one hand while he held the pouch aloft with the other. They went a hundred yards from the island before the first arrows whooshed across the darkness. Their points were bright with fire, 
illuminating the foam of Dante's kicks. The first few arrows missed handily. The next volley slashed into the waters, mere feet away, fizzling and popping. Dante sensed a cool power gathering on the deck of the house. He turned to face it, kicking in place. A bolt of white ether streaked through the night. Dante punched his free hand from the water. Shadows streamed forward. As they met the ether, the sizzle drowned out the hissing arrows. Dante continued swimming. Cassander didn't attempt another attack. Dante and the others swam from bow range, arrows plunking into the water behind them. The island fell away into the night. Across the lake, the secret ship and its white lantern advanced toward the dead merchant's home. Lanterns lined Lolligan's shores. Dante hauled himself onto the rocks, chest heaving, shivering so hard he thought his arms would shake loose from his torso. Someone swaddled him in blankets. Hands guided the three of them to a roaring fire in Lolligan's private quarters. A servant pulled away Dante's sodden underwear and replaced them with a full set of dry clothes. Under a mound of blankets to his left, Blazer's teeth chattered aloud. To Dante's right, Lyra stumbled while stepping into her skirt, her limbs too stiff to function. She dropped below the blanket a servant had hoisted for privacy, landing hard on her knees and palms, breasts swinging between her bent elbows. The servant rushed to cover her. Dante had barely pulled on his pants when the doors opened. Lolligan, Ulwin, and the woman in midnight blue rushed into the room. Is it complete? the woman said behind her mask. In the sense that Jacobs is dead, yes, Dante said, a shudder tore through his muscles. Is there another sense? Sight, hearing, smell, and touch, Blaze said. I know we engaged at least that many. The guys on their side probably tasted some blood, too. Dante breathed out slowly. His shudders seized except for a twitch in his calf. It's not over. Cassander saw us. We fought him. The house is thick with soldiers, thirty or more. Lolligan folded his arms, elbows tucked tight to his sides. I'm afraid we'll need to revise those numbers upwards. How so? His loyalists in the city can't have heard yet. The ship Morn told us about, Lolligan said. It landed at Jacob's while you were still in the water. It launched just a minute ago. It'll be here any moment. Crouched among his blankets, Blaze laughed in disbelief. How many men do you have here? Lolligan glanced between Ulwin and the masked woman. Mercenaries? Just twenty. We sent messengers into the city as soon as Morn mentioned trouble, but it could be an hour before reinforcements arrive, if they arrive at all. Blaze stood, shedding his blankets. Bring me my swords. Lolligan drew back his head. You're not serious. You just swam across a freezing lake. And after a feat of heroism like that, I'd be especially upset about getting stabbed to death. Swords, now. Lyra rose. I'll need mine as well. Mine too. Dante didn't bother to stand. For whatever good it'll do me. Servants brought their arms, along with an assortment of armor from Lolligan's stores, most of it antique.
Blaze wrapped iron-banded braces around his forearms. Lyra tried on a chainmail shirt, hurrying through her forms to test its flexibility. Dante lifted a tall shield. The enemy would be bringing archers, but it pulled on his arm with untenable weight. Across the lake at Jacob's, the newly arrived ship rode from the pier, lanterns off, and hove toward Lolligan's Island. Lolligan's men swarmed to the northern beach, a flat stretch of rocks that stood just about the waterline. Pile that beach up with junk, Blaze gestured. Anything we can hide behind. Soldiers and servants hesitated. Blaze turned to Lolligan. I'm going to start grabbing furniture, all right? Lolligan grimaced, twisting the end of his pointed moustache. Just leave the chairs with the blue felt. They were my grandfather's. He ordered the back doors propped open. Blaze jogged inside and came out with a wooden chair over his shoulder. Seeing that, Lolligan's men streamed into the house. The old salt merchant shut his eyes to the ransacking. His mercenaries came out with chairs and tables. Groaning pairs of men hoisted couches and mattresses. A team of four lurched under the weight of a dresser. Wood cracked inside the house. Two servants hustled outside, grinning madly, a door held between them. They piled it all in front of the rocky beach. The ship loomed nearer, oars churning from both its decks. Blaze ordered Lolligan, Fan, and the servants inside. Fan fiddled with his hat. That will be away from the fighting, yes? Unless things go bad, Blaze said. Excellent. Fan and the others hurried inside. Moorn joined the soldiers on the beach, as did the woman in blue. They both carried bows and thick sheafs of arrows. They were barely in place before the first arrows flew from the ship. These splashed in the water and plinked from the beach, testing range. A shout went up. The ship's oars backbeat against the lake. It slowed to a halt within easy bow range. The arrows ceased. Cassander's soft voice boomed unnaturally. Three people have to die. Those who killed Bill Jacobs. If you prefer... All of you can die as well. Blaze vaulted onto an overturned couch. If you prefer, you can kiss my ass, and you know where it's just been. He ducked as an arrow whisked over his head. He leapt back behind the makeshift walls of furniture. Cries rang out from the ship. Chains clanked and creaked, lowering longboats from each side of the galley. Volleys of arrows covered the soldiers' descent on the rope ladders. Dante counted roughly twenty men per longboat, another twenty archers in the prow, an unknown number of soldiers in reserve. Lolligan's troops were outnumbered at least twofold. If the galley's decks were full, as many as a hundred soldiers might stand against them. Dante took out his knife and carved a red line across his arm. Can you at least not smile when you do that? Blaze said. Was I? Always. It's like your forearm killed your mom and you're giving it the death of a thousand cuts. It's got so many scars, it's no wonder you didn't bother with a shield. Morn sniped at the archers on the deck, knocking two into the water. An arrow threaded through the barricade and pinned one of Lolligan's men to the ground.
The mercenary writhed, screaming. Dante ignored him. He needed all his energy. The longboats shoved off from the galley, shielded at their bows by thick hides. Dante lobbed a spike of nether at one of the archers on the galley. The man staggered, gagging blood. Dante smiled. Cassander hadn't tried to stop him. He closed his eyes and let the nether come. Shadows coated his hands to the elbows. The longboats stroked forward. When they were halfway between the galley and the beach, Dante stood, oblivious to the arrows hailing down around him, and flung out his hand. The side of the rightward longboat exploded in a hail of splinters. Men hollered, shielding their faces from the shrapnel. Water gushed through the yawning hole. Soldiers leapt up to bail it out with buckets and bare hands. Morn and the woman in blue popped up to pick them off. Soldiers flung themselves over the broken longboat's edge, paddling for shore in heavy armor. Most sunk beneath the placid waves. The second longboat beat on. Flaming arrows whopped into the barricade, driving the mercenaries into cover. Fire licked over feather mattresses. Other arrows arced far overhead, clinking on the clay roof of the house and clacking into the wooden walls. Two servants dashed from the house, one carrying rags and a jug, the other with a flaming brand. An arrow knocked the man with the torch to the ground. The man with the jug raced on, skidding into cover beside Morn, who poured oil on a rag, knotted it around an arrow, and glanced at the empty killing fields between the barricade and the house. He poked his arrow into the flames of a smoldering table, lighting the oily rag, then fired into the front of the galley. The hulled longboat slogged on, barely above water. The other ship groaned to a halt on the shore. With high cries of battle, men piled over its side. Blaze thrust up his sword and dashed through the burning furniture. Dante's body buzzed. He leapt to his feet and charged after Blaze, Lyra right beside. Lolligan's soldiers cheered and joined the charge. The galley's arrows felled two men before they met the invaders. As Blaze closed on the enemy, a spear thrust at his body. He met it with his left-hand sword, intercepting it near the tip and letting it slide past his chest as he closed. He drove his other sword into the spearman's exposed gut. The man in the red and white of Modigan's soldiers chopped diagonally toward Lyra's neck. Forearms crossed, she knocked aside his blade with hers, then grabbed his sword hand with her empty one, pivoted, and slung him over her hip. He cracked into the rocks. His helmet jarred away. With a backhand swipe, Lyra cleaved in the side of a skull. Behind her, a man cocked his sword and drove it toward her spine. Dante splayed his hand. A black blade severed the man's hand at the wrist. It fell to the rocks, still clutching his sword. His stump continued its forward thrust, his grin fossilized as his eyes tried to process the bloody absence where a hand and its weapon should be. He swayed and collapsed into the rocks, kicking. Blaze pivoted away from an overhand strike and spiked his blade into his attacker's extended neck. The man sank to the hilt, gargling blood over Blaze's hand. Blaze pivoted again, turning the man's body into an incoming spear. Its point pierced deep into the dying man's back. Blaze slid his sword free and shoved the man to the ground, 
yanking the embedded spear away from its wielder. The disarmed man backpedaled, tripping. One of Lolligan's soldiers dropped to one knee beside him, stabbing the man through the chest. An arrow streaked toward Blaze. He sidestepped and struck it down mid-flight. A man in red charged Dante, a rectangular shield covering him from chin to shins. Dante held his ground and fired a bolt of shadows through the man's eye. The body tumbled forward onto the shield, skidding over the rocks. Firelight lit the rocky shore. Every man in red lay among the wet stones, writhing or silenced, dying or dead. A burning arrow shot lanced from the barricade into the hide shield on the banked longboat's prow. Blaze hollered and swung his sword in a circle, waving Lolligan's men back to the safety of their makeshift wall. Arrows volleyed from the galley's deck and ricocheted from the abandoned rocks. Rhythmic cries erupted from the galley. Oars thrashed at the water, rotating the ship sidelong to the island. The galley began a slow advance. In moments, the archers on its forward deck would have clear fire on the barricade's flank. Shouts filled the air to the south. A dozen men rushed through the dark yards of the house, bows in hand. They swarmed up the stairs to a third-floor balcony, which was level with the firing platform on the galley. Two men pulled down the balcony's canvas roofing and draped it over the railing, providing some measure of cover for the others, who immediately rained fire on the archers in the galley. Fall back, Blaze yelled. Covered by the men on the deck, the soldiers pinned behind the fiery barricade raced toward the safety of the house, ducking low, shields held above their heads. Dante ran with them. Sporadic arrows whisked between them. One man fell, an arrow buried in his leg. Lyra ran back and helped him to his feet. Another band of reinforcements sprinted up from the pier. With the house between them and the galley, Dante took stock of the wounded. Four of Lolligan's men had died down on the shore. Another six had been shot or badly stabbed in the scrum, while those still fit to fight thumped across the house to get to the decks and fire on the galley, Dante called out the servants, who helped him bear the wounded into the dining hall. Dents in the rugs showed where chairs and tables had once stood. Now it was perfectly empty, the ideal place to stretch out the bleeding men and seeing to their wounds. Dante patched up the two unconscious men with the blood-hungry nether, then left the others to be bandaged by the maids and footmen. He ran outside onto the balcony. Men erupted in cheers. He grinned, but the noise wasn't for him. Past the dark shore, the galley had turned, thrashing northward across the lake. On the many decks of Lolligan's home, sixty-odd mercenaries hollered, wringing their swords against their shields. Dante ran from deck to deck until he found Lolligan, Ulwin, and the woman in blue, whose clothes clung to her body sodden with sweat and water and blood. They smiled from the balcony, watching the galley retreat. What are you standing there for? Dante said. Let's get on a boat and finish them off. Lolligan smiled, but his eyes were creased with worry. I think we've done all we can tonight. What are you talking about? Their men are decimated, their sorcerer is wounded and weak. We can take them. He speaks to the future. 
agreed the woman in blue. They attacked us first, in the concealing shadows of darkness. Who would say we don't have the right to fight back? Lolligan nodded. To hound them across the lake, however? To hunt them down and kill them? How do we argue that was a mistake? That it was forced upon us? Anger flashed over Dante, as much for this sudden split in solidarity as for the fact Cassander was escaping over the black waves. That man is one of the prime reasons the palace is pushing for war. Erasing him from the equation brings us one step closer to peace. Then there is tomorrow. The woman in blue gestured at the dark blot of the galley. What if we spend our men tonight, and the dawn brings a fleet of the king's ships? Not to mention potential pushback from Jacob's supporters in the Tagvog, Lolligan said. If you want us to be able to stand with you and the Norren, we'll need the manpower to stand firm against our enemies here. Exhaustion dropped on Dante like a fog. His muscles felt trembly, weakened by the climb up Jacob's water closet, the swim through cold waters, the battle on the shore. Sapped by the demands of the Nether, his mind felt like the longboat he'd hulled, sluggish, sinking beneath the surface of a cold abyss. It compromises us all, doesn't it? This struggle. Dante shivered. On the north shore, fires hissed as servants doused the mounded furniture with buckets of water. Bitter smoke boiled across the island. We'd better leave tonight, then. It'll be much easier for you to pass off whatever story you please when Jacob's killers aren't around to be questioned. Lolligan tipped back his head, eyes glinting in the moonlight. That might be for the best. Do you still have my salt? On the road, a small luxury can make all the difference. Dante smiled. I still have your salt. All I ask is you save a pinch for whoever runs your kitchens. He frowned at the city. You should leave for your own safety, too. Menoch knows what new horrors tomorrow will bring. Blaze would advise you to tell as many different stories as you can and let confusion win the battle for you. Lolligan chuckled, shaking his head. Thanks for all your help. Let's meet again in safer days. Dante went downstairs to round up the others. The house smelled of blood and smoke. Lyra had a gash on her upper arm, and a fist-sized bruise on Blaze's chest was already magenta and swollen. But none of their group bore wounds that would slow them down. Hurriedly, they cleaned their swords and packed their clothes. A rowboat awaited them at the dock. At the stables, the boy rubbed his puffy eyes and slogged off to fetch their horses. Dante settled their accounts and rode east. Everyone was as tired as the stable hand, too exhausted to even ask where they were headed. Then again, maybe it was obvious. They were going home. Dawn spilled over the western mountains when they were halfway up the pass. They stopped for breakfast, or the world's latest supper. Green mountains ringed the long blue lake. 
Pillars of smoke rose from hundreds of different chimneys. Birds peeped from the branches, pecking at fresh buds and hard green seeds. Pretty, isn't it? Blaze said. I hope Modigan doesn't decide to burn the whole valley down. At least that would slow down his march on the territories, Dante said. Lyra glanced up. Was that what this was about? Dante gave her a brief glare. This was about letting a people choose their own leaders. Specifically leaders who want the same things we do. I'm fine with what we did. Dante swung up into the saddle. His head thudded. It would be hours before they reached the next town and the beds it would offer. Lyra's accusation followed him all the way. Chapter 16 Ants scrambled in and out from the mouth of their sandy hill, unaware of their impending destruction. And what could they do if they knew? Run? Escape to the safety of their deepest tunnels? They certainly couldn't stop it. Their fear, their anger, the frantic waving of their antennae. None of it would make the slightest difference to the coming disaster. Kneeling in the dirt, Dante shaped a finger of Nether and pushed it into the top of the hill. He meant to dislodge a single grain. Instead, the rod of shadows shoved over the hill's entire top into a crumbling caldera. Ants wriggled in the sand, forcing their way into daylight and air. Dante stripped the shadows away until they were as nimble as a pin, then brushed sand up the half-ruined hill. Grain slid back into a lazy pile. If he wanted, he could push a boulder. He could crack the side of a cliff, shearing rubble into a lethal rain of falling rocks. He could pound the anthill into a hard-packed hole, killing everything inside it. But all that was physical brawn, nothing more. The people of the pocket hadn't been moving earth by brute force. They had reshaped it, made it grow like the body and branches of a tree. And however much Dante fiddled around in the dirt, he couldn't begin to replicate that. Still, he practiced during every stop they made along the eastward road. The mountains of Galador faded into the spring haze. Grass bent in the wind and danced in the rain. They saw no sign of pursuit from the lakelands. Still, they rode swiftly, trotting and walking until their horses grew tired, then swapping them out for their spares. He looned Cali two days out from Wending to let him know they may have led a revolution. Me, Cali said, what part is uncertain? The torches and pitchforks or your participation in waving them? We don't know how it turned out. Dante said. The king's soldiers might have come back and put it down. The king's soldiers? The ones we fought. Dante sucked in his breath. Unintentionally. Were they in disguise? Uniforms. Were you? Disguises wouldn't have helped. Cassander was leading them. So you fought, with swords and the like, against the king's own troops. 
Callie's fingernails clicked against something hard. Well, this ought to help the Norrin quite a bit. You think so? Dante said. Certainly. Now Modigan will ignore them altogether and come straight for us instead. Callie, at this point, do you really think there's any hope we can stop this? Sure. So long as every last Norrin agrees to a treaty they'll never, ever agree to. That's what I thought. Wending's merchants were ready to enlist themselves at the king's side. We just turned them into rebels. Callie sighed. I suppose you've done me a favor. Now when I tell the council this is all your fault, I won't have to lie. Pedestrians and horse teams trickled west, outnumbering the eastern traffic ten to one. After two days of this, Curiosity got the best of Blaze, and he planted himself straight in the path of a man, his wife, and their three children, all on foot. The man stopped, stiff, fist clenched near his belt. Don't worry, Blaze said. We're not bandits. Anymore. Why are you headed west? The man glanced at the odd assortment of Dante, Lyra, Moon, and Fan. To get out before the soldiers get in. Think it'll come to that? Norrin won't budge. The man gazed at Moon. Guess we have to instead. Moon stared at the road. We're not the ones making threats. The man tightened his fist. Blaze raised his eyebrow. The man hunched his back and continued down the road. Dante made no detours until the wheat fields of Tatonin. At the town of Shan, he broke north to Brant's estate. Again, Brant opened the door himself, greeting them with a grin, his thick arms crossed over his gut. Heard you've been sowing troubled seeds. Doesn't sound like us, Blaze said. Must have been some other Blaze. Funny. I heard two young men from Narashtovic fell in love with the daughter of some mucky-muck tea-monger. When they tried to abscond with the lady, the merchant objected, so they dumped a sack of tree-cobras in his room while he slept. Definitely not us, Blaze said. Me, I'm promised to my one and only. And as for him, he said, jerking a thumb at Dante, I don't think he even knows what a woman is. Nonsense, Dante said. They're the ones with the dresses and nice smells, aren't they? Brandt beckoned them inside. Whatever the case, the whole deal wound up in some ripping nighttime brawl. Last I heard, King Modigan sent a half-dozen galleys upriver to put down the fighting. Over dinner, Dante gave the farmer a more accurate, if censored, version of events, and was happy to hear that not only had the clan of the Golden Field ceased their banditry, but were suspected of having slain a crew of human highwaymen who'd begun attacking wagons themselves. Narashtovic's first payment had already arrived, too. In response, the farmers had dispatched their first load of grain to the territories not two days ago. Nice to know one thing in the world's going well, Dante said. It's the best things I've looked for us in years, Brandt said. If you could just get Modigan and the Norrin to let go of each other's throats, we'd have to build you a statue. They rode on. Smoke hung on the western plains. At a bridge over a swift and noisy stream, 
Blaze stopped to stock up on water and feed the horses. Dante picked through the reeds on the muddy banks and called to the nether hiding under the algae slick stones. Shaping it into a black stylus, he folded his hands in his lap and traced his name into the muck. Nether lurked in the mud, too, as well as in the water that welled up in the letters of his name. Pinpricks of darkness that he pooled in his palm. How could he speak to the soil, make it move in tune with the nether it contained? Shadows rushed to his hands. He pounded the nether into the mud, splattering himself and the stream, obliterating his name. A hundred miles from Narashtivik, the black woods swallowed them up. Kali raised Dante on the loon and told him to hurry home. He wouldn't explain why. Dante resumed at a gallop. They reached the city in two days. Cold spring rains battered the rooftops, swirling the streets into a slurry of horse dung and mud. Men ran from the doorways with their hoods pulled tight over their heads. Atop the pride gate, guards watched Dante pass. They were as still as the rooftop gargoyles, rain ticking on their metal helmets. Compared to the ebullience of thaws, the streets were desolate, tense, a place to be fled rather than enjoyed. At the gates of the sealed citadel, Dante pulled back his hood and called out his name. A guard leaned over the battlements and disappeared inside the gate tower. The portcullis cranked into the walls with a cacophony of clunks and shrieks. A footman splashed across the courtyard. Callie was waiting. Inside the keep, Dante shed his sopping cloak and jogged up the stairs, blaze behind him. Callie sat behind his desk, tapping the blunt end of a quill into a blob of ink spilled on the surface of the dark wood. He nodded at them without looking up. His eyes were sunken, ringed with wine-dark circles. His white hair lay flat against his head. Blue veins traced his unusually pale face, as if he'd already joined a Ron in the other world, where sunlight was a stranger, left to wander endless fields under the silver of the stars. You got here quick. His voice was as flat as his hair. That's good. Blaze rested his hand on the hilt of his sword. Either something's wrong or you're just starting to show your age. Since you haven't crumbled into a pile of dust, I'm guessing the former. Callie smiled wryly at the spilled ink. Is it that easy to tell? Oh, no. Only if you've got eyes. Callie dropped the quill and steepled his fingers against his chin. There was another riot in Dolendon. Modigan's troops marched across the river to put it down. They did. They burned down half the Norrin Quarter, too. Are you kidding me? Dante said. The clans have gone berserk. At last, Count 23 had rejected the treaty. The chieftain of the clan of Twin Streams actually shoved his copy up his own ass just so he could shit it back out. Dante pushed his fist into his forehead. 
I'm guessing Modigan didn't lay down his crown and do the apology dance. Kelly gazed at the congealing ink. I haven't received the official announcement yet, but rumor, as always, outraces the sun. The clans have been outlawed. Any Noran who resists the commands of Gascon soldiers, lords, or officials elected or appointed is to be seized as property of the crown, or killed without penalty. Callie looked up, impossibly old. It's been decided. He's going to war. Well, shit, Blaze said. You're the one who's been saying this could happen all along, Dante said. Or was I getting you mixed up with some other 120-year-old head of the Council of the Sealed Citadel of Narashtavik? The storm heads of Callie's brows collided. Yes, but among the manifold risks and rewards of supporting the Norrin, early war was literally the worst outcome. It's hardly fair. Fair, Dante laughed. Even if this was our worst nightmare, I assume you planned for it. That doesn't mean I have good plans. When the most powerful man in the known world decides to come stamp you into paste, there's not a whole lot planning can do for you. You always have options, Dante said. You can always fight back. Callie rolled his eyes, moustache twitching. You can leap off a cliff, too, but it won't get you any closer to the moon. Let's assume we've only got a few months left to our tragically brief lives, Blaze said. What's going to be the most fun for us to do in the meantime? A smile fought through the thicket of the old man's beard. Okay, fighting back. Blaze thrust up his fist. So, let's take a cue from the Norrin, stuff that treaty right up our ass, and shit it back out. We're not doing that. Then, at least let us go drive those red-shirted sons of bitches out of the Norrin territories. The council's going to hate this. Callie smiled. Brace yourselves for shouting. He scheduled the meeting for four days later. In the meantime, he dispatched riders to recall Ollivander from the villages of the eastern foothills, where he was running headcounts on men of fighting age, and to fetch Cav from his estate on the northwest shores. The rains continued, tumbling from the tight ceiling of clouds. Sometimes it poured down in great seaside squalls, solid sheets of water that flushed down the hills and flooded the basement of the barracks. At other times, the rain descended in a dewy mist, glomming Dante's eyelashes and slicking the cobbles. It was in such a rain that Callie insisted on taking Dante to the graveyard. Most of the graves on the northern hill were centuries old. A scant handful were adorned with the pine boughs marking the anniversary of their occupant's passage. Moss clung to the stone markers. Some of the tomb pillars had toppled, lying cracked in the weeds. Callie passed Laramore's marker, clean and white. Damp grass soaked the legs of Dante's pants. His cloak hung heavy and damp from his shoulders. His hands were as frigid as the dead. Are we scouting your future resting place? 
Dante slicked rain from his eyes. Or have you decided you'd rather die by a cold than a sword? Callie glanced over his shoulder, his beard as disheveled as a dog after it crawls from a lake and gives its first shake. This is for your benefit. You seem incapable of learning in civilized settings, so I thought I'd return our classroom to the site of your greatest success. This is another lesson. I hope it's more useful than your last one. If a sponge fails to absorb a puddle, you don't blame the puddle. That's assuming the puddle is made of something that can be absorbed, rather than something thick and intransigent and altogether muddy. Odd you should say that. Callie stopped in front of a rain-churned flat of dirt and grass. Mud is precisely what we're about to dive into. Dante frowned at the grave-studded field. I hope you're still speaking metaphorically. Honestly, I'm not sure. With some difficulty, the old man knelt in the grass, splaying his hand into the mark. Let's see if we can get this to move. I was trying that the whole trip back here. Nothing came of it except a few dead ants. That's because you are stubborn, and occasionally stupid. Callie squinted at the sloppy ground. My theory is that mud, being muddy, will be easier to move than rock, what with its rockiness. Yet we should think of both when we think of how to move either. The commonalities will allow us to stab nearly at the heart instead of flailing in the dark. Dante knelt beside him, rain soaking into the knees of his pants. They're both non-living substances. But do we know they're pure of life? What if these fine grains include bits of bone? What if the water that made this dirt mud once passed through a bear's bladder or a goat's veins? Dante paused with his hand halfway to the mud. Then this is a very disgusting world we live in. Few things have ever been only themselves. This is part of what I meant to impart to you about cycles. In a way, all the world is a Ron's mill, grinding old into new in a ceaseless turn. If it's all the same substance, does that mean the rock is the nether, and the nether is the rock? Callie cocked his rain-sodden head, staring into the brown sludge as if Dante had just swept it aside to reveal a cache of rubies. He shook his head sharply. No, we'd feel it, but that's good thinking. What else? Absently, Dante picked up a twig and began drawing a bunny in the mud. He stopped with the second ear half-sketched. What if there is no stick? You're beginning to talk like me. I don't like it. To draw a rabbit, I have to use this stick. He held it up. Mud clumped around its tip. If I want to knock down one of those grave pillars, I have to call the nether to me, shape it, and send it slamming into the rock. What if I found a way to throw out the stick? 
Callie's eyes slitted. He snatched away the stick and poked at the wet soil. Now that is an idea. Dante burrowed his focus into the mud, plumbing it for drops and trickles of shadows. He grabbed these up and tried to shake them like a dog shakes a squirrel. Callie smacked him in the side of the head, just hard enough to dislodge his hold on them. What the hell was that for? Dante said, rubbing his head through his hood. Don't just trample in like a puppy that's caught its first whiff of cheese. That's your whole problem. Look. Callie's eyelids drooped. His eyes became as cloudy as the rain pooling in the dirt. Dante looked, too. Shadows webbed the mud, infesting it, inhabiting it, embedded within and containing it, diffusing it like cream stirred in tea, yet as separate from it as the planks of a wrecked ship or from the swirl of a maelstrom. He didn't touch the nether, except to trace it with his mental fingers. He simply watched, looked, and listened. After a full hour, Callie unfolded his legs with a grunt. He stood and stretched and flapped his rain-soaked cloak. Well, I suppose that's enough of that. Try to work this out, though, won't you? You could stroll across the territories founding new forts with a snap of your fingers. Why don't you figure it out? Dante shivered. You're supposed to be the master. Yes, and the main perk of being the master is making your apprentices do your work for you. The old man strode down the hill, stiff from the cold. The upcoming meeting of the council was entirely Callie's business, leaving Dante with no immediate responsibilities for the first time since Thor's. He spent most of the following days watching the dirt. Twice, he tried to move it, but with the nether embedded in the solid soil rather than collected and shaped in his hands, it was like trying to push a wall. Perhaps it was even more like trying to push a mountain. The rains came and went. So did the riders, passing through the citadel gates with news from the outlands and heartlands. Several clans had begun organized raids on the human border towns. Casualties had so far been light. A few soldiers and guards, a couple Norrin warriors. The first of Mulligan's conscripts, four hundred men from the Hapark lowlands, were said to be inbound as an emergency stopgap against the clans. At the pub, Blaze nodded at the news. That'll keep the local taverns in business. Zero of those men are going to step outside whatever town they're parked in. Think so, Dante said. For certain, Lyra said. It'll be weeks before they have the strength to start striking out in force. It could be months. Dante frowned. Well, that's not how I would do it. The clans rarely number more than fifty people. If I were commanding the border troops, I would split them into three forces. A hundred and fifty to guard whatever city's at greatest risk, a hundred and fifty ranging far afield to keep the clans scrambling, and the remaining hundred troops on regular sweeps between their base in town and the neighboring regions. This third force could reinforce the rangers when called for, too. Fiendishly strategic, 
Blaze said. Unless the Norrin decide one clan plus one clan equals all your men are dead. So you'd just sit in town and twiddle your thumbs. Do I look like a coward? I can't tell with your back turned like that. Blaze snorted. Modigan doesn't need any bold stratagems and daring do. Do you know how huge his empire is? He can just advance town by town, county by county, hill by hill, the same way Morn plays Nulladoon, the same way time decays us all to empty dirt. That's a bit dark, Dante said. Blaze took a long pull of his pale brown, a spring blend of spiced rum and citrusy wheat beer. You've spent enough time with the clans, Morn. Do you really think a few scattered tribes can do anything to stop an army of twenty thousand men? Morn rolled his mug between his hairy hands. That question is dishonest. If all you do is compare a small number to a big number, the small number will never be the favorite. Well, that's all it is, Blaze said. A numbers game. They've got them. We don't. Dante set down his mug, arranging it so the handle faced him perfectly. What about what you told Callow the other day? That we had to fight back? Of course we'll fight back. But that won't mean we'll win. The table went silent. The smell of roasted lamb hung in the air, greasy and savory, undershot by boiled carrots and garlic and onions. Men murmured. Mugs clunking, their grim tones and slow words echoed Blaze's mood. Are you all right? Dante said. Blaze gazed out the smeary window to the street, which was nearly pitch black, other than the rain gleaming in deep pools. I just wonder if we've done the right thing. We do these things, and at the time they look right, but you come home and you put them together, and somehow they've added up to this bullshit war. If that's the result of all those good decisions, maybe they weren't so good in the first place. But they would look different if Modigan had responded different, Morn said. If he only responds with badness, our decisions will look like wrongness no matter what we do. That's the truth right there. Lyra gripped Blazer's wrist. You have to do what your heart and head tells you is best, no matter how the world might lash back. If you don't do what you know is right, how can right ever happen? Dante kept his peace. That wasn't quite how he saw it. If getting eaten by a bear struck you as unfair, then perhaps you should keep your hands off a mother's cubs. But... The discussion had already moved into the safe room of platitudes. Blaze drained his cup, plunked it down, and walked to the bar without a word. Dante scuffed his boots across the gritty floor, then ran his mind across the dirt there, seeking out the pricks of shadows contained within the grains. Morn nodded at the bar. I think he is in trouble. He'll be fine, Dante said absently. Everyone has moments of shadow. And blazes are about to manifest in the punching of that man. Dante twisted in his chair. 
At the bar, Blaze faced down a man whose fists and mouth were bunched in anger. The man stepped forward, shoulders rolling beneath his deer fur coat, throwing Blaze into his shadow. His shoulders were those of a smith or a woodcutter, a man who spent all day swinging something heavy and metal. Blaze smiled, swaying. Is this how you met your wife? Who can say no after they've been beaten into sleep? The man cocked his fist and threw a looping right hook. Blaze stepped inside it, flicking his left wrist along the man's incoming arm to take control of the punch. In the same motion, he turned his hips and straightened up on his bent knees, driving a hard uppercut straight into the man's advancing chin. His teeth clicked so hard, Dante winced. The man reeled backwards like gravity had just turned sidelong. He banged into the chairs behind him, knocking another man to the ground with a yelp. A mug shattered. The man hung there from the chairs, muttering to himself, eyes fluttering. Blaze grabbed the downed man's drink and gulped it down. Two men broke through the pressing onlookers. Like their half-conscious friend, they, too, had the hard-hewn arms of woodcutters. Blaze flipped the empty mug at their feet. Back the fuck off or join him on the floor. Morn plowed up to the bar, Lyra and Dante behind him. The taller of the woodcutters leaned toward Blaze. Apologize. Do it good enough and I won't take your jaw away. None of that is going to happen. Morn said, dropping his voice even lower than its typical rumble of falling rocks. The two men turned. They tipped back their heads to meet Moon's eyes. The fight fled from their faces. What's this? the man said. Start up trouble, then send in your slave to bail you out? Slaves aren't allowed to strike citizens. Morn advanced, broad-bowed as a war galley. I am not a slave. Dante wedged his way between them, dwarfed on all sides. It's time to stop doing dumb things. Then start by getting out of my way, the woodcutter said. Dante pulled back his cloak to expose the silver and sapphire brooch of the white tree. The woodcutter lowered his hands, expression turning pensive. We didn't come for trouble, sir. But I just saw my friend get punched by this whining mosquito here. Then maybe you should see if he's all right. Dante tipped his head at Blaze. That one happens to be my friend. We'll see he gets safely home. I'm not going anywhere. Blaze pointed at the man he'd punched, who had lowered himself to the floor, head held between his hands. He bumped into me. Dante bulged his eyes. There's plenty to drink at the Citadel. Blaze rolled his eyes. Fine, I think I'll go vomit on your bed. I'll go with him, Morn said. I don't need a nursemaid, Blaze said, unless she's a damn sight less hairy than you. And I don't like the way I'm being stared at. Morn rested his hand on Blaze's shoulder. Come on. They left, followed by the steady gaze of the crowd. The woodcutters helped their friend to his feet. 
Dante returned to their table and pulled out a chair for Lyra. She swept off her cloak, face flushed with battle spirit, and let out a long breath. A hunched and wizened beer boy had followed them to the table, rightly guessing they'd be in the mood for a drink. Lyra ordered two more pale browns. I hope he's all right, she said after the drinks had arrived. He put that man down without getting touched, Dante said. That woodcutter will be wearing Blazer's knuckle prints for a beard for the next week. She glanced at the door, as if Blaze might have snuck back in, then leaned across the table, breasts pressing against her doublet. Involuntarily, Dante remembered how she'd fallen beneath the servant's towel as they dried themselves at Galador, those flashes of pink and white. I mean, what he was talking about before. He sounded defeated. It gets to him sometimes. Dante shifted in his chair. This isn't baking pies. Our business requires making people unhappy. Sometimes we have to make them dead. She held there, half-stretched across the table, eyes steady. It doesn't get to you. Only when I can afford to let it. And what do you do then? Read. Research. Learn the nether. Lyra leaned back and sipped her drink. Just like I stretch or run or practice my forms. I suppose that's best. The only person you can always count on is yourself. He drank, too, buying himself a moment. The room felt suddenly warm. Thick, too. Lyra's words felt like a letter written long ago, thick with references long lost to time, impenetrable. He took another drink. I found a few people I can count on, he said. But you have to hold them close. It's so easy to get lost in the wind. She met his eyes and nodded. They finished their mugs and another round after that. The crowd thinned. There's something I don't understand, Dante said. Lyra glanced away from the window. Just the one thing. Among the universe of things I don't understand, there is one thing I would like you to help me understand right now, he amended. How can you be so... inflexible? I'm guessing you're not talking about my joint locks. Dante shook his head. Not unless your ethics have joints. And if they do... They're bad ones, because I'm pretty sure there's a lot of stuff you'd never bend on. Like what? Like, if it came down to you or me, your silly vow would convince you to sacrifice yourself. She raised a brow. You wouldn't do the same for these Norrin of yours? He sloshed his mug. Not a chance. What are you talking about? I've seen you put your life at risk for them a dozen times. That's different. I don't know I'm going to die. In general, I'm foolishly certain I won't. But if I were ever in a situation where I knew with perfect certainty it would be my life or their freedom, he shrugged, 
you would be left staring at the cloud of dust in the spot I had just vacated with all haste. Lyra smiled at the corner of the ceiling. I suppose you think you're being a clear-eyed, pragmatic realist. Are you scoffing at me? You're scoffing. Well, if the king and all his men strolled up to you with their swords and said, Listen, declare the Norrans should be slaves or I'll run you through. I don't see what's so noble about telling the truth and being skewered like a truth-telling pig. What good does that do anyone? Because... She leaned back, waving her hand over the table. No. I've had too much rum. I'll say no more. What? It's stupid. Dante waggled his empty mug. Well, I've had too much, too, and will surely forget whatever is stupid by morning, so out with it. She rubbed her forehead with the back of her hand. If the king were in front of me, I'd tell him the truth. The Norrin should be freed. But you'd be stabbed. To death. It doesn't matter. Lyra laughed at herself and shot him a quick glance before looking back to the cup in her hand. I believe that if I impose my will on the world, the world will bend. Dante blinked. Wait, like sorcery? Why didn't you tell me? No, not like that at all. I believe that when you stand up for what's right despite the consequences— because of the consequences, people take notice. Your will changes their minds. And maybe there is a mystical component, too, like if the gods see right action, it reminds them to change the world for the better. She glanced up. Is that stupid? No. He set his mug on the table so gently it made no sound. No. It's beautiful. For a fleeting instant, her smile was happy, light. Then it became ironic once more. But you disagree. I don't know. I don't think you can count on men or gods to remember what's right. To pick up the torch of your cause after kings and demons have struck it from your hands. If you want to change the world for the good, you have to be willing to put on the mask of the villain even if it means lying, killing, betraying all other values you hold dear, if that's what it takes. If it takes wrong to do good, then how do you know you're doing good at all? She drained her cup and clunked it down. Well, I've embarrassed myself enough. Shall we leave? They rose together, smiling and unsteady. In the streets, Rain misted from black skies, hissing on the corner torches that burned with the smell of whale fat. Lyra said something about the rain and sins. He laughed, his own voice racketing down the empty street. As they approached the inn gate, the clouds tore wide open, battering them with sheets of icy water. Dante grabbed her hand and ran for the gate. Beneath its stone cover, they laughed again, breath curling from their mouths. Lyra flung her hand at the pounding rain. 
What do you say happens first? That stops, and Modigan sticks our heads on pikes. Who cares, Dante said. He grabbed her belt and pulled her to him. Her lips were rain-cooled. Her mouth tasted like hops and sliced orange. For a moment as sharp as shattered glass, she was there with him, alive and bright beneath the gates, together in a pocket of safety from the rain and cold and the darkness. She drew back, stiff. He cocked his head. She shook hers briskly. He stepped away. She turned to the rain, still tumbling from the sky. It's just rain, isn't it? What are we afraid of? She walked into the night. Rain beat Dante's hood. In the citadel courtyard, he said goodnight. He took a fat bottle of beer with him to bed. Candles blown out. He listened to the rain against the window. On the whole, we failed, Callie said. We failed so thoroughly, you'd think it was our express mission. Several members of the council voiced objections. Callie just laughed from behind his chair at the table, hands clasped at his back. Don't cry out against me. Look at the facts. Modigan came down with demands that couldn't possibly be met. The Noran have been pushed from sullen discontent into outright rebellion. The western counties have already sent their first musters to Setevan, whose standing troops have already been dispatched to the borders. All the while, we've stood back, hands washed, faces innocent. Not that innocent, Cav said. Yes, well, shit happens. At the very least, we didn't push as hard as we could. We made no counter-threats against Modigan, no alternate treaties suggesting that Narashtavik be made steward of the territories, for instance, or that the capital abolish slavery in exchange for the official registration and restriction of the clans. Instead, we operated through half-measures, and now we're left with a complete disaster. Wint wrinkled his sharp nose. Is this going where I think it's going? I would hope so. Kelly said, unless you're not half as clever as you or I believe. Can we move ahead already? Tarkon said, hunching his bony shoulders. At this rate, Dante's going to miss the birth of his own grandchildren. A few of the council laughed. A few more frowned or glanced away as if they'd just caught a whiff of an unexpected latrine. Then I'll cave to public opinion and keep this brief. Callie placed his palms on the table, long white hair spilling past his ears. It's time we go to war, too. I knew it, Wint said, head wagging. Callie, Cav said in his modulate tones, with all due honor to yourself and your office, I wonder if your motives aren't unfortunately confused. Callie laughed, high and reedy. Is that a very roundabout way to ask about Gabe? If you'd rather put it that way. For those of you who haven't pried into my personal history, here's the short of it. When I was exiled by Summerland, I left for Malin. In Malin, I befriended a monk named Gabe, a Noran. Thoughtful fellow, even by the standards of monks. We kept in contact through letters and the like. 
It was through his help that I was eventually able to reclaim my place here. In exchange, I promised I'd see what I could do for his people. That's what this is about, Wind said. Paying off your old debts to one forgotten friend? Callie impaled Wint on his green-eyed gaze. My conscience isn't deep nor demanding. I could have bought it off with a sack of silver to an E.D. clan. But I looked, and I thought, and I tested. It turned out I liked the Norrin. I like the value they place on thought and craftsmanship and craftsmanship of thought. They are worth preserving. They are worth fighting for. There is no reason, no matter what the king has to say about debts of bondage and that the Norrin's ability to carry so much weight is proof of their place as our two-legged donkeys, for them to be enslaved and subjugated by the whim of a king. Except that he can make them, Somber said, eyes darting around the table. There's no good reason, none that fits Aran's scheme of justice. Now that's a curious evocation, Wint said. I think one could rightly argue Aron is all but unconcerned with earthly justice. What are you talking about? Dante said. The parable of Aron's mill isn't just the story of how a disturbance in the heavens made him grind nether instead of ether. It's an express metaphor for justice. Just as the heavens are flawed, so too is the earth. But while the nether may be flawed and unstable compared to the purity of ether, it's ours to shape, and so is our fate. And fate will be the operative word, Cav said. If we actively resist, Modigan's second tour will take him to Narashtavik. The Noran won't provide enough resistance to do more than slow him down. It's just a short march from their hills to our coast. We'd be lucky to make it through the winter. Callie laughed humorlessly. I see. Is this a joke to you? Oh, I'm laughing at myself. It seems I've failed again. Callie replaced his hands on the table and leaned forward, spine crackling. This time... I fail to make myself clear. We're not here for a discussion, and this isn't a vote. Cav's brow crinkled. Then just what is this about? To tell you where we're going next. To war. Chapter 17 the ensuing discussion followed a predictable cycle of outraged revolt, exasperated skepticism, and bitter resignation. Dante sat back, allowing the combatants to exhaust themselves. Callie didn't need his support. Callie was the high priest of Aron, the ultimate authority of both the sealed citadel and all Narashtavik. Barring violent revolt then and there in the council's chambers, his word was law. Narashtavik would fight alongside the Norrin. Not just yet, of course. Neither group had a proper fighting force for one. For another, there remained the chance, however vanishing, that nothing would come of this at all, 
and that Modigan and some Norrin high chieftain would glare at each other from across the field, fling down their swords, and rush to embrace each other, all misdeeds forgotten. Better to delay the formal announcement that Narashtevik was ready to make hate until after the other participants had committed themselves. In the meantime, they would set the stage. Ollivander would return east to muster the townships, then head to the mountains beyond to see if any of the free peoples cared to war against Gask in return for ongoing recognition of their independence from Narashtevik, which, if the Norren prevailed, would declare independence of its own, creating a buffer state between Gask and the free tribes. Cav could harness his deep reservations towards their involvement by travelling to Setevan to petition the king and any other nobles who'd listen to cool down and seek a peaceful solution. Several councilmen and women would tour cathedrals and temples on both sides of the border, pressuring local priests to petition their own mayors and baronets to provide political opposition. Somber still had links to a de facto spy network he'd belonged to earlier in life, and would leverage those for whatever they were worth. Most of the elderly members would remain in Narashtevik with Kali to maintain home rule. And Dante, naturally enough, would travel to the territories to conduct forward operations. Specifically, you're going to organize the tribes, Kali told him once the council had hammered the major details flat, a process that wound up spilling over into the next day and the last of the other members finally vacated the chambers. Inasmuch as such a thing is possible, anyway, I recognize that bringing those squabbling bands together is like trying to fill a bucket with water scooped by hand when the bucket is also made out of water. But whatever hope we have at this point rests on uniting them, however temporarily. Dante smiled. Why do I always get the jobs that can't be done? Because it's funny to watch you try. Furthermore, you not only have extensive experience with the clans, but with the method I plan to help unite them with. Loons. Callie looked up. Precisely. I put together several more while you were gallivanting around the country. Not enough for all clans, but it should be enough to spark a confederation. You're just going to hand them out. No, Callie said. You are. Dante twisted his sideburn between his fingers. How are we going to keep them from falling into enemy hands? Right now, they're about the only advantage we've got. Since I am so very clever, I have already solved that plan. For one thing, I have made them to resemble Norrin earrings, the sort of thing any Gascon blueblood will dismiss as tribal bric-a-brac. Secondly, I'm only sending you with one of each pair. The others will stay with me. Even if one of the loons winds up in the hands of a sorcerer who recognizes artificery when he sees it, and even if he is then able to threaten, trick, or torture a Norn chief into confessing what the loon is used for, he'll be navigating with half a map. I see. You're not convinced. We figured out how to make them easily enough, didn't we? The court has nethermancers of its own. Only the ones who couldn't hack it on the council, Callie scoffed. Anyway, if this is our lone advantage, logic demands we leverage it to the hilt. Start in the borderlands. Once the clans there are working in tandem, then you can see about hitching the inland clans to the team.
It was already mid-afternoon, but there was no time left to waste. Dante dispatched servants to ready horses and provisions. Blaze received the news of their latest trip with a broad grin. Another ride into the wild, huh? Can't wait. What are you so happy about? Dante said. We'll be out of the rain and killing Setavite bastards. What's not to be happy for? Dante alerted Lyra and Morn, then returned to Callis to update his maps with the latest news of riots, raids, and skirmishes. There had been more fighting on the outskirts of Dolondon. He planned to head there, rendezvous with the clans who'd been making forays into the burning city, hand out some loons, and offer whatever personal aid they could provide, and then continue south all the way to the fringes of Tatonin, where they could enlist Whale and the clan of the Golden Field to act as the centerpiece of the region. That was the plan, anyway. If Modigan gathered his troops slowly enough, they might even see it through. Kelly brought out a sack filled with carved bone earrings. Groomsmen brought around the horses. Morn considered his thick-legged mount with his usual pensiveness. I think I've traveled more in the last two months than I did in any year with the Nine Pines. They rode out an hour before sunset. The city soon faded into the haze of rain. The rain took two more days to disappear, chased away by a blustery wind that blew itself out overnight, leading to a clear morning just this side of warm. They each had a spare horse and switched them out every few hours. At their pace, they would reach Dolondon in a couple more days. They never made it. That afternoon, smoke bloomed to the southwest. By the time they reached the town, the fires had burnt themselves out, but the film of smoke remained, seething up from the scorched shells of houses. Dante checked his map, but it made no mention of the town. By his reckoning, they were some ten or twenty miles from the border into human lands. Towering figures flung buckets of water on the smoldering coals. Cave homes stared down from the hills. Dante and the other two humans drew dark looks on their way to the relatively untouched north end of town, but they were saved, perhaps, by the presence of Morn, unbranded, unshackled, even armed with a sword and bow of his own. Foot and hoofprints dried in the muck of the streets. Sobs filtered through broken shutters. Arrows poked from the ground and the walls of unburnt homes. Blood crusted the stones of the main road. The first undamaged inn they passed was closed, but the second had its doors wide. Inside, a handful of Norrin sat in tired silence, soot griming their nails and wringing their eyes. Behind the bar, a dour woman watched them with open hostility. Her hair was drawn back in a bun so large and round it resembled a second head. What happened here? Dante said. She gave him one look. Jane must have left the stove on again. Oh yeah, Blaze said. Cooking King's soldiers' surprise again? The woman almost smiled. It has a way of flaming up. Who resisted? Dante said. Townsfolk. Wandering do-gooders. A clan. Which one? 
of them. It took Dante a moment to realize that wasn't a foreign Norrin word. His temper flared. It's critical we speak to the clan. We're here to help them fight back. The woman glanced between the four of them. Quite a host you've brought, too. The king will be running scared in no time. Dante crossed his arms. While he composed himself, Morn gave the woman a small smile and a smaller nod. We'd like to speak to the chief. If that can be arranged, we'll be here in town for the next few days. No, we won't, Dante said. We can't waste time here when Dolandon's being overrun by— Yes, we will. Morn turned to him and bent down until their eyes were level. We came here to answer need. Look at this town. Is there any question that it is in need? If we leave without helping, haven't we declared there are some who aren't worth saving? Dante nodded jerkily. The woman watched them go, motionless as a grave pillar. Morn marched them back to the burnt-out rows of houses on the south side of town. The gazes of the locals were as cold as the sunset. Wales carried down a hoof-churn side street. Morn led them to another inn where the tables had been piled along one wall. On the floor, Norrin lay head to toe, groaning and bleeding, some unconscious, tended to by silent men and women bearing bandages and rags. As Morn stepped inside, the tallest Norrin Dante had ever seen arose from the wounded, detoured to a wall to pick up a chair, and stopped a few feet from the door, chair cocked back in one hand as easily as Dante would brandish a torch. Morn nodded at Dante. This man is a healer. Step outside. The Norrin's voice was as low as a bear's. Continue stepping until all you can see are empty hills. Morn advanced a single step. Take my head if he harms one soul. The man drew back his head. A drop of blood slid from his hand and spattered the floor. Kneel then, your face to the wall, and speak to Joseph and Joe if one word's been a lie. Morn turned and knelt along the wooden wall. Eyes closed, hands folded behind his back. The towering Norrin grabbed Dante's neck with his free hand and half carried him across the room to a Norrin whose brown hair was matted to her head by blood and sweat. Her face was ashen, twitching. The man crouched down and unwrapped a blood-soaked rag from around her middle. A rope of grey-pink intestines oozed from a gash in her stomach. Dante inhaled with a hiss. The man's hand ground to the muscles of his neck. Dante reached for his knife. The hand clasped his throat, crushing it closed. I can help, Dante gasped. Please. The strangling pressure eased. Dante coughed, massaging his throat. Once his coughing had settled, he cut a quick line on his left arm. Shadows flocked to the gleaming blood. He balled them in his hand and lowered his palms to the woman's blood-slick belly. Water, Dante muttered. Footsteps plodded between the moaning wounded. 
Dante pushed the loop of intestine back inside the woman's feverish body and held it in place with a firm hand. The nether flowed from him to her, seeking torn flesh, spurting veins. Dante took long breaths to fight the dizziness that still seized them when faced with the worst of wounds, particularly those of the gut and their hot, sour stink that threatened to close his throat as firmly as the Norrin man's grip. The woman barked in pain, head contorting to one side. Boots clumped across the floor. Dante's dizziness evaporated. Nether rushed alongside her rent belly, mending it like a pink zipper. A jug thrust into Dante's view. He took it with one hand, others still clamped to the woman's stomach, and splashed water over her wound, rinsing loose scraps of flesh and pink water to the floor. He removed his hand from her body. The cleansing water revealed clean and unmarked skin. The Norrin man sank to his knees and leaned forward to press his forehead against the woman's. He spoke her name, but she slept. He rose with tears dripping into his beard. She's my wife. Dante poured water over his grimy hands. And she will be, for years. He nodded to the ranks of wounded. Can you help the others? A few. There are limits. I humbly ask you to exhaust them. Dante nodded, stood and shuffled to the next victim, a man so young his beard was still patchy. His right arm extended just above the elbow. A belt knotted it off in a tourniquet. A far easier fix. All Dante had to do was stop the bleeding. He beckoned to the shadows. Mind half submerged in his work, he heard the tall man approach more and at the wall and bid him to rise. Dante ran his fingers along the severed arm, snagging bone. Scabs followed wherever he touched. We'll leave you here, Morn said from beside him. There is work elsewhere, too. Thank you, Dante said. Morn paused mid-step, as if puzzled, then thumped away. The door closed. Sunlight shrank from the windows. The unwounded Norrin lit candles, brought Dante water and stitches and cotton, which he turned to with increasing frequency as the nether grew stubborn and his head grew sluggish. Still, this work came easier than it ever had, as if the fickle shadows had decided this once that his work was their work as well. He helped heal a dozen villagers before he reached for the nether, and found it wasn't there. The tall man, his name was Saul, insisted Dante stay at his house, where he was fed seared beef and smoked salmon to repay his body for its labors. He ate until he had to be helped to bed. At breakfast, Morn joined him. Saul had found the others last night, fresh off digging a survivor out from beneath a collapsed barn. Today, they planned to continue to clean up wreckage and to patrol the outlying fields against any return of Gaskin soldiers. Dante accepted this without complaint. As much as he wanted to continue to Dolondon, he wanted to finish his work here first. He spent the day at the makeshift hospital, tending to the lesser wounds he hadn't had the strength to mend the day before. 
Norrin came and went to watch him work, moving on in silence. He napped through noon and woke halfway refreshed. At supper time, he rose with Sol's help to move to the next patient and found none remained. Calm, Sol said. Farron wants to see you. That's nice, Dante said. The woman at the Inn of Three Fingers. The one who talks like her words cost a penny apiece. That's her, Sol smiled. He walked Dante across town. Norrin swung massive hammers into charred walls, bashing them to the ground. Others shoveled wreckage into wheelbarrows. At the Inn of Three Fingers, Farron offered Dante a single nod. The clan of the Broken Heron has camped outside town. They're the ones who fought the king's men. Chief's named Hop. If you can keep your eyelids apart, he'll see it tonight. Dante knew he couldn't, so he returned to Sol's to nap again. He woke after dark, sore, but relaxed. The others were just getting in. No time for dinner, Dante said. We have a meeting with the clan. The clan can wait, Blaze said. My stomach can't. Lyra sucked him on the arm. Eat while you ride, or are you one of those people who has to hang on to the saddle with both hands? Just one. I need the other to cover my eyes. Saul put together a sack of bread and sausage and showed them the way, leaving his brother to tend to his still-mending wife. A three-quarter moon drenched the grass in silver. Four miles east from the town, he crossed a stream threaded between two hills, then followed it north for a few hundred yards, until Morn pointed out a trio of fallen sticks. Wild sign. He'd no sooner spoken the word than five Norrin warriors emerged from the trees lining the stream bed. They peered at Saul, nodded, and led the group further through the trees. The clan of the Broken Heron had no fires or children. They slept and sat beneath the trees, trimming twigs from arrow shafts, sewing ash-rubbed bone and dull bits of metal into cured leather hides. In a moonlit clearing, a man of late middle age laid clean lines of black paint into a circular canvas tied to a wooden stand by leather thongs. He was beardless, the first shaven man Dante had seen since Dolendon. On his stubbled right cheek, a circled R was branded into his skin. He didn't look up from his paint. I'm told you're a friend to the Norrin in Plough. We're a friend to all Norrin, Dante said. Are you, Hop? How can you be a friend to all Norrin? Are you my friend? Are you friend to my enemy clans too? Yes, in fact. It's my intent to ensure that you and all your enemies survive to keep killing each other for generations to come. Hop glanced up, mouth half open as he considered Dante. You're from Narashtavik. And we're here to make both our homelands free. You think we can't keep ourselves free? Dante took a step forward, holding the bag of loons. I don't know. I do know we'll have a better chance if we all stand the same line. I see. 
The branded Norrin laid another stroke of paint on his canvas and chuckled in satisfaction. We'll be fine on our own. Dante quashed a surge of anger. Do you know what loons are? Do you? As well as how to build them. He held up the bag of earrings. We want to give one to each of the clans. We can coordinate movements, attacks, bring all the Norrin to bear against the king's armies. A woman laughed from the darkness. Dante startled. She sat against the trunk of a nearby tree, her remaining teeth white in the moonlight. Hop smiled over his painting. Okay, he said. You'll take it. Who wouldn't want to fight together in perfect harmony? He held out his hand. Dante fished a loon from the bag and set it in his palm. It was bone and bluish silver, the color of moonlight. A drop of blood on the bone will link it to you, Dante said. Let us know whenever you see Gascon troops. With enough warning, we can prevent what happened in Plough from befalling any more towns. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Hop said. Good night. The contingent of warriors saw them back across the river. Sol led them back towards town. Chalk this up to cultural differences, Blaze said. But I didn't get the idea he took that very seriously. It's hard to say, Morn said. Not hard in the sense that I find the words physically difficult. They are no harder than any other words. But in the sense that Norrin can be guarded even between clans. Trying to read their responses to humans is like reading the face of a fish. At Sol's, Dante tried to raise Callie to tell him the news, but the old man didn't answer. Dante paced, contemplating a second attempt, then realized it was somewhere after 2 a.m. He went to bed and tried again in the morning. Callie answered within seconds, his tone somewhere between annoyance and amusement. I take it you made contact with your first clan? Did Hop reach you? Dante said. What did he say? I will recount the entire conversation. First, there was a fart, followed by goodbye. Then came a splash. Our chat concluded with an hour of what sounded like rushing water until the loon went dead. Uh, fart? Yes, Callie said. That's what I choose to believe anyway, as the alternative would be far worse to contemplate. Dante rubbed sleep from his eyes. Maybe a child got a hold of it. The timbre was notably adult. Of the voice, that is. Okay. I'll go speak to him and find out what happened. Do that. Where are you, anyway? A town called Plough, Dante said. Few miles from the border. Yesterday, Modigan's men burned half of it to the ground. Plough. Callie said distantly. Paper ruffled in the background. Somber's been in Rymark the last three days. That's due west on the borders. Two days ago he reported a troop heading east. Another left yesterday. A second wave. 
Dante glanced at the sunlight through the window. It was at least nine o'clock, approaching ten. I'll ride out this minute. If Hop's got any doubts about us, this should put them to the grave. Morn was already awake. Lyra answered at a knock. Blaze didn't. Dante had to barge into his small room and rip the sheets away from his bed. As they read it, Dante found Saul pulling planks from a charred home down the street. He nodded at Dante's request to act as their guide and led them back into the wild. The clan of the broken heron hadn't moved. Saul was intercepted by a man and a woman, a bow shot from the camp. After a brief and somewhat tense discussion, they took Dante alone to Hop, who knelt by the stream, shirtless, washing black paint from his hands, as if he'd kept painting all night. His back was crossed with stitch-thin scars. What happened? Dante said. Hop smiled at the water. I was inspired. To drop your loon in the water? Are you sure that's what happened? No, you might have thrown it instead. Hop took his hands from the water and dried them with a cloth finger by finger. I dropped it. I couldn't find it. Have you come to give me another? If you're sure you won't drop it. Dante reached in his pocket. I've got another gift, too. More troops are inbound from the west. They could reach Plough today. Hop squinted through the sunlight, bouncing from the stream. Someone ought to do something about that. We'll help, if you'd let us. We're stronger than we look. I'm one of the strongest nethermancers in the land. Why are you so keen to help? Dante splayed his palms. Why is every Norrin in the world so suspicious of that? A woman laughed, the same laugh from the night before. Again she leaned against a tree, concealed by the grass and the tree's low boughs. Dante gasped involuntarily. Are you scaring me on purpose? An old woman can't rest her back. It wouldn't be an issue if she rested more loudly. She laughed dryly. This reminds me of a story. It's a story from very long ago. No one who was there is alive to remember it. Instead, we remember for them. Do you want to hear my story? Dante glanced through the trees in the direction of the others. Of course. Everyone should listen as well as you. She hunched forward, speaking to the space between them. And so... Long ago, foxes lived in trees. Why did they live in trees? To hunt what was there and to go unseen by the creatures of the ground. Foxes never fell. When they did fall, they waved their tails and landed softly. This is how one fox was spotted by a passing vort. The vort thought about pouncing, but the fox was already back among the limbs. It sat on its haunches and said, There is a fire. Why don't you come down? The fox flicked its tail and said nothing. The vart sniffed the air. Can't you smell the smoke? Get down from that tree or the smoke you smell will be your own bones. The fox sniffed, nodded, 
and said nothing. The Vought began to pace in the dirt around the trunk. This is unreasonable, it said. I can see the fire there on that hill. What do you think you're going to do? The fox squinted between the leaves, saw the fire, and said nothing. The flames are here, the Vought said. I can feel them like a smothering hand. Its smoke is maggots in my nostrils, and you're in the tree. Come down and run with me. But the fox was gone. The Vought ran. The flames pursued. The old woman lowered her hand, blade-like, to her lap. Much later, when the world changed, the fox changed with it and moved to the ground. This is the end. What's a vaught? Dante said. I don't know. I've never seen one. They're gone. Did they all die in the fire? Why would you think that? Do you think the fire burnt the whole world? Give me another loon, Hop said. We've got plenty of scouts. We'll tell you if they come to take the town. Dante smiled and handed him another earring. Give us the word, and we'll be there. The old woman watched keenly as he returned across the stream. Blaze spat out a blade of grass he'd been chewing. How'd it go? Did the conversation actually take place via mouths this time? No. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need a moment with the creek. I'll be upstream. Far, far upstream. He took the loon, Dante said. He'll tell us if they see the soldiers. Be ready for a fight. They returned to Sol's, keeping the horses saddled and their weapons handy. Compared to the racket of industry of the last couple days, the streets were as silent as the wilds. While they'd been out, Saul's brother had spread word another troop might be approaching. The locals had taken to their homes with swords and hammers and spears and axes and hoes. Hours dragged on. They ate a light lunch of cheese melted on flatbread with greens and herbs plucked from Saul's back garden. Dante killed a few minutes by checking on Saul's wife. She was pale and had lost weight. Her arms were perversely thin for a Norrin. When she sat up in bed, they hung from her shoulders like broken flowers. She spoke and gestured freely, however, and her stomach was pale and cool, free from infection. The loon pulsed a couple hours before sunset. Dante's heart pulsed with it. I heard from your chief, Callie said in his ear. They've located the soldiers. Hop wants you to meet the clan at Farrow Hill at once. Where's that? You know, I'm not quite sure. As it turns out, I'm more than a hundred miles away. If you'd like to wait two or three days, perhaps I can ride out and find it for you. Did he say anything else? He did not. Then I need to go, Dante said. If you never hear from me again, build me some statues. He broke the connection. The others stared at him, eyebrows raised. He turned to Saul. Where's Farrow Hill? Farrow Hill, he said slowly. South and southwest, eight or ten miles. Can you take us? On my back if I have to.
He gestured to his wife's room. I still owe you the world. They mounted up and rode south along a dirt path through the grass. Mice darted away from the clop of hooves. Boarbirds squawked from the sparse and thorny trees. Dante rode fast over the rising path. The ground rolled for several miles, then began a steady climb. Every stir of the grass made Dante's eyes dart and his heart skip. The hill leveled off. Ahead, the stark ruins of a stone tower waited in the wind. Behind, the land spread like a full-color map, a sprawl of green grass and the haphazard squares of rich brown farms. Dante could just make out the ribbon of the road. Around it, Plough was a tiny cluster of dark mounds. Blaze gazed at the collapsed tower. One wall stood twenty feet high, orange lichen encrusted to the dark stone. Most of it lay in an uneven mound half buried. Grass and spring's first blue wildflowers sprouted between the cracked stone. So where is everybody? Blaze said. Dante reached for his loon and made sure it was aligned to Kelly. You there? Yes, Kelly said a moment later. Well, they are not. Have you spoken to Hop again? I would have let you know if I had. Can you raise him? I just want to make sure we're in the right place. He switched off. That's Faro Tower. Saul pointed. There's only one, and it's on Faro Hill. Dante stared over the distant plain. This feels wrong. They probably figured we could win the battle by ourselves, Blay said. Honestly, I can't blame them. I'm sure Hop farting into the loon was just a sign of respect. I don't know why we're even wasting time out here. We should march straight to Setevan, storm the palace, carve a tunnel through everyone who gets in our way, and slap the king with a wet glove until he makes Morn king. I don't want to be king, Morn said. That's all right. Blaze wiped wind-blown grit from his eyes. You can cede the crown to me. Wind rustled. Birds chirped. Three minutes later, Dante's loon pulsed. What did he say? He's not responding, Kelly said. Do you think something's wrong? I don't know. There's at least forty warriors in their clan. Unless they all fell down the same well, I'd expect one of them to have made it out here. I'll inform you the moment I hear a thing. I know how you get when things are uncertain. The link blanked out. Dante stared down the hill, straining his ears so hard they rang with strange tones. He began to sweat under his doublet. Blaze trotted around the crest of the hill and found nothing but open grass. As the sun dropped, the wind grew steady and cold. Dante felt sick, tingly, his head overrun by questions and doubts. What exactly did Hobbes say to you this morning? Morn said. Nothing. That he'd take the loon and scout for the soldiers. That's all. That's all. He blew into his hands to warm them. There was an old woman with him. She told me the story of the fox and the vort. A frown unfolded beneath Moon's beard. How does that story go? I don't really feel like swapping campfire tales just now. Just tell me how it went. Please.
Dante gave him a look. His eyes were anxious, guarded. Dante sighed and repeated the story of the querulous vault and the silent fox. At the end, Morn winced like he'd just taken a big bite of soup and chomped down on an unexpected bit of bone. We should go back to town. What is it? That story wasn't a story. Well, it was. It told about a thing that happened, but it was also a test. Of his patience, Lay said, it didn't even have an ending. Morn shook his shaggy head. Because there is no ending. The fox can't trust the vault, and it doesn't need to, because this isn't the first fire it's seen. It already knows the signs of fire and what to do when it comes. And long after the vaults have died or gone away, foxes live on because they know when to change. Oh, Dante said. You see. Right. All I see is two cryptic assholes, Blaze said. The Noran are like the fox, Dante said. I don't know if the Vort is Narashtavik or Gask or humans in general. Either way, they can't trust us and don't need us. So, Hop sent us on a Vort hunt, Blaze said, just for a laugh, or to get us away from something. Lyle's balls, Dante said. The sun neared the horizon, piercing and red. We'd better get back to town. Twilight slowed their return. It was full dark by the time they rode into plough. Men jogged down the street armed with bows and spears and pitchforks, whooping and laughing. Saul pulled aside one of his neighbors to get the news. The clan of the Broken Heron had ambushed a detachment of the king's men miles north of town. Not a single red-shirted soldier had survived the skirmish. Is it always going to be like this? Dante said. We come with aid and they send us off in the wrong direction and laugh behind their hands. What will they do when an army of ten thousand sweeps through the hills? You must understand, Morn said. Who are you to a clan? Do you look any different from the king? Then let's move on. Try a different group. They can't all feel this way. We could waste our time, Blaise said, or we can try something that'll work. You've got a better idea. It's very simple. We stop being human and start being Norrin. I'll see what I can do. Dante splayed his hand, grabbed up a fistful of nether, and flicked it at Blaze. Kablam! The shadows flashed in a shower of sparks. Oh dear, it didn't work. Should I try again? If you're having fun, Blaze said, but my plan's a little simpler. He grinned at Morn. I think we should join a clan. Chapter 18 Dante shook his head. That is among the dumbest things you've ever said, and I once heard you ask what a female rooster was called. Blaze quirked his mouth skeptically. I would rather not know that than have to grow up in a place where it's common knowledge. Like where? The world? Like your hometown? 
not that you can call two cottages facing each other a town. Anyway, it's not like you can tell what sex they are by looking at them. It's a chicken! Anyway, what do you know? Blaze waved his hand for peace. Morn, is this dumb, or is it, in fact, brilliantly smart? Morn's eyes shifted. If you could join a clan, you would be taken much more seriously by many other clans. Can we join a clan? Dante said. To my knowledge, which is not exhaustive, and is in fact quite limited, when you consider the small fraction of Norrin I've known personally, or heard reliable information about, during my as-yet-brief life on this— Will you get on with it? Morn folded his arms. No human ever has. Dante turned to Blaze. You see? Dumb. Dumb in the way of a rooster with its head cut off. Oh, that doesn't mean anything, Blaze said. Look then, how does a Norrin join another clan? You guys must marry outsiders now and then. I'm not marrying a Norrin, Dante said. Is it the hair? Morn said. Norrin women aren't any hairier than human women. Not so far as I've been able to tell anyway. It's not a species thing. I'm not marrying anyone. Women everywhere will be happy to hear it, Blaze said. Now, will you answer the question, Morn? Well, he said, there is marriage. There is also a debt system wherein if you can't repay what you owe to a member of another clan, and you're not well-liked enough within your own clan to be worth starting a feud over, then you may be offered to the other clan as a temporary slave— with the right to join that new clan once your period of slavery has concluded. How long does that take? Dante said. Two or three years, typically. We'll just ask Modigan to hold off the invasion until then. He seems reasonable. That's it, Blaze said. What if you just like some other clan more? Well, you could simply ask to join, Morn said. A clan can do whatever it likes with itself, can't it? Blaze threw up his hands. Why didn't you start with that? Why don't we skip all this? Dante said. Why don't we just go to the clan of the Nine Pines and get their backing to distribute the looms? I'd rather not, Morn said. Why not? Because they might kill me. Well, that seems a bit reactionary, Blaze said. I abandoned the clan in time of war. It would be their right. The clan of the Broken Heron is right here, Lyra spoke up. What can it hurt to ask them? This could work, Morn said. Right now, no one takes you seriously. If you were adopted by a clan, many others would suddenly discover that what you have to say is worth listening to. Fine, Dante said. Down the street, torches whirled. Norrin laughed in their booming voices. Four men heaved around a corner, leaning forward as if into a gale, lifting their knees high as if wading through water. Taut ropes stretched behind them. Torchlights splashed over the bodies of four red-shirted soldiers bouncing through the muddy streets. But if Hop says no, we move on, without argument.
Dante told Sol to go home to his wife and led the others through the hills to the stream. Even in darkness, he found it and the campsite readily enough, but the clan was nowhere in sight. They'd left nothing behind but fish bones and latrines. Dante rode along the stream half a mile in both directions and found nothing but grass and trees and moonlight. Shortly before midnight, he returned to Sol's, where the looming Norrin opened the door and promised to help them find the broken herons in the morning. He came through. Following the slaughter of the king's soldiers, the clan had relocated several miles south to recuperate and hunt fresh fields. Warriors snored in the morning sunlight. Those who were awake came to stop Dante's band with spears and swords, but on the word of Morn and Sol, they were allowed once more to see Hop, who sat on a broad rock by the stream, flicking a lightweight hook above the surface of the water. The chieftain didn't turn. He sighed through his beard. Why don't you save us all the trouble and throw that sack of yours straight in the stream? We're not here about the loons, Dante said. Then are you here to congratulate me? Yeah, hell of a victory, Blaze said. It was so impressive it's inspired us to join your clan. Pop laughed, his thick middle bulging under his deerskins. I don't think you're tall enough. Maybe we could hang you from your ankles for a month. Morn shuffled his feet and gazed at the bed of grass beside the stream bank. They are, regrettably, serious. Hop gazed between their somber faces. You are, aren't you? What do you even know of the clan of the Broken Heron? That you destroyed a troop of the king's soldiers with minor losses, Dante said. He glanced at the old woman who sat motionless beside a tree. That even though I couldn't hear it, you were kind enough to tell me how to be a better friend. The woman laughed softly. Hop smiled slowly. And what makes you worthy of the clan? That's not for me to decide. Are we finally getting somewhere? The old woman said. Hop touched the R branded on his cheek. No, I see no claim to our clan. No right to even ask it. We were there when the clan of the Nine Pines freed the Green Lake from Lord Cassander, Dante said. We brought peace between the clan of the Golden Field and the farmers of Tetonin, securing bread for your people against the upcoming war. Damn, that sounds outright heroic, Blaze said. Not to mention the four years we've spent bringing the territories food, silver, and weapons. Put it like that, and you could say we're already a de facto clan of our own. Oh, that you are the cause of this conflict in the first place, Hop said. Dante tipped back his chin. Would you rather go on as slaves to the king? Hop smiled tightly, distorting the R branded on his cheek. He nodded downstream. The creek ran straight for hundreds of feet, gushing around boulders beneath the canopy of willows. Hop pointed to a rue tree just before the stream bent and disappeared behind the willows. See that rue? Swim to it and you can join the clan. Blaze began to unbutton his doublet. Is that it? 
without taking a single breath of air. The beardless Norrin raised his shrubby brows. Think your devotion to the clan will support you after your air runs out? Well, that's just obstinate. Malaise shrugged out of his doublet and set to work on his belt. What are you doing? Lyra said. Going for a dip. With my head underwater, I won't have to hear any more of this nonsense. That must be three hundred yards. No one can swim that in one breath. We'll see about that. He finished with his belt and plonked down in the grass to unlace his boots. Dried mud crusted the fraying laces. Anyway, what's there to lose? If I can't do it, I pop up for a few deep breaths, we all share a good cry, and then we move on. Lyra turned to Hop with a look that could slice a falling feather. Your test is absurd. What will it prove? Hop stretched his arms behind his back, shoulders bustling. Whether he's got gills. Blaze flung his boots at Dante and stood to shed his pants. Keep those dry. There's nothing worse than walking around with squelchy boots. He glanced at Hop. Well, gonna watch me. If this is on my honor, why don't you turn your back and I'll holler when I'm there? Hop grinned, wolfish, and stood, knees popping. He gestured palm up at the stream. You've got spirit, don't you? I'm suddenly wishing I'd gone with a task that was remotely possible. Your loss. Or mine if I bang my head on one of those rocks. Reduced to his underwear, Blaze waded into the stream, grimacing as the hill-fed cataract washed over his calves. Another step plunged him to his thighs. He took three long breaths, swelling his muscles chest and bulging his belly. He sighed down at the swirling currents. The balls are always the worst, aren't they? Before anyone could answer, he lunged forward, diving into the stream. Lyra swore. Hop strode along the banks. In confusion, Dante jogged after him, scanning the foaming water for a hint of blaze. For some seconds he saw nothing but the constant rush of water, opaqued by turbulence, rippling over half-hidden stones. Splashing pulled his gaze downstream. Thirty yards away, far past where Dante had been tracking, Blaze burst from the surface, keeping his face below the water as his arms and legs churned. The current pulled him along, doubling his natural speed. Dante sped to a light run to keep pace. Hop, Lyra, and Morn thumped beside him. Three warriors, who had been listening from a distance, sprinted to catch up. A boulder cleaved the stream dead ahead. Somehow, Blaze spotted it through the roiling chaos of bubbles and water, cutting along its left flank. A quarter of the way to the ruse-Y-shaped trunk, the stream narrowed and deepened, submerging any rocks. Blaze cruised onward. Dante tore through the grass, splashing in the reeds. Halfway to the tree, Blaze slowed, legs faltering. As if remembering where he was, he pushed ahead, thrashing at the hurtling water. Dante realized he'd been holding his own breath. He let it go in a whoosh, tasting sweet spring air. The stream curved gently, 
Blaze drifted toward the right bank, his bare back a splash of white atop the dark water. Fifty yards from the rue, he stopped moving. A Ron's mercy, Lyra shouted. She charged forward, angling toward the bank, stripping off her doublet. Blaze floated on, borne on the current. Dante rushed after Lyra and grabbed her arm. Stop, he's almost there. She whirled, mouth agape, and punched him in the jaw. He staggered into the damp grass. She rushed on, hopping as she yanked at her boots. Dizzy and nauseous, Dante lumbered to his feet and ran after her, overtaken by Morn, Hop, and the three warriors. Just before the rue, Lyra slogged into the water, fully clothed except her bare feet. She dived into the stream and thrashed towards Blaze. Beside him, she threw her arm over his chest and pulled his head from the torrent. They banged into a rock, spinning crazily, disappearing under a white flush of water. Dante yelled. Their heads popped back up. Lyra sputtered. Blaze hung limp. She paddled for shore, sweeping downstream. A few feet from the bank, she found her footing and hauled Blaze toward the thicket of reeds. Dante splashed into the stream. Her face was white, sopping, furious. She tensed as if to punch Dante again, then pivoted her hip to sling Blaze's loose body forward. Dante ducked his shoulder under Blaze's arm and dragged him onto dry land. Lyra flopped Blaze on his back. His arm slapped into the grass. She bore down on his pale chest, pumping it repeatedly, hard enough to crack a rib. What the hell are you doing? Dante said. What we do when men drowned in the islands? She pumped again, then sat back, heaving, hair straggled down her face. Come on! Blaze lay cold and still and white. In a panic, Dante called for the nether from beneath the leaves and stones, but he had nowhere to send it, no wounds to knit, no blood to staunch. His ears roared. Two minutes ago, Blaze had been joking, grinning. Lyra gave his chest another series of compressions. His head rolled, mouth half open, tongue pale as a cavefish. Lyra yelled, a rising cry that could split the world. She hammered her fist against Blaze's chest. Water gouted from his mouth. He coughed, chest racking, limbs flapping. Lyra laughed through shocked tears. Dante's lip throbbed where she'd punched him. Blaze sat up and blinked at the rue tree upstream. So, do we get new names? I don't know why you'd join a new tribe if you don't get epic new names. Like the man who thought he was a fish, Dante said. I was thinking more along the lines of warrior whose balls were so big they scared away the sun. You cheated, Hop said. You just floated the last bit. Bullshit, I didn't take a single breath of air. Blaze tried to stand and staggered. Lyra reached for one arm, Dante the other. His skin was as cold as shadow. He coughed again, spitting stream water. See? I don't remember saying if it could be air or water. Blaze snorted, shivering, and turned to the three warriors who'd joined the chase. 
Which was it? Two gazed away into the trees. The third glared at them, letting the silence draw out, then turned to Blaze. Just there. Roast your eyes, Hop cursed. He clapped his hands and faced Dante. Who's next to prove their devotion to the clan? Nether leapt to Dante's hands. Do you listen to your own words? One of us had to swim for all the rest to join. You're right. Hop grinned wolfishly, stretching his scar. Can you blame me for wanting to drown a couple of you and save me the trouble? He extended his hand, palm down in the Norrin way. Welcome to the clan. Callie was less than impressed with their triumph. How do you know this isn't another of their games? Have you actually done anything clannish yet? We just joined this morning, Dante said into his loon. It seems to me this is a perfect example of that particularly Norrin sense of humor, where they're more than content to go on making fun of you for as long as it takes you to figure out that you're being made fun of. What? They're playing you for a fool. They'll keep you safely tucked away in their camp, while you delude yourself that once you earn their trust, they'll allow you into the inner circle of clan chiefs. What proof do you have this is worth a moment of your time? None, Dante said. But if we don't try it, we'll never reach these clans at all. Callie grunted dubiously. And what about the dozens of others who would gladly accept our loons right now if only you bothered to visit them? If they'll take loons from any old idiot out of Narashtovic, then send any old idiot out of Narashtovic. That could make a certain amount of sense. Give it a try. Please. If it turns out you need us to distribute them after all, we can leave this place. But unless we give this a shot, half the clans will never give us the time of day. All right, Callie allowed. But only because I don't think I've ever heard you say please before. Hop had been circulating through the milling members of the clan for a couple hours, presumably to explain why their numbers had been suddenly bolstered by four new members, three of whom were humans. He returned as the sun peaked, beckoning his new charges in with a swirl of his hand. It's time to discover what you can do for your new family, he said. You're all warriors, whatever that means to you. Dante nodded. I can command the nether. Blazon's lira, they're handy with a- Fine, Hop said. What nuller do you possess? Fletching, Morn said. That right. Bone, stone, or metal? Bone and stone. Morn gazed at the grass. I'm waiting to work with metal until I perfect the fundamentals. Hop nodded without any sense of approval. How about the rest of you? Healing, Dante said. I don't have one besides fighting, Blaze said, unless looking good counts. Then I have an idea for you. Hop smiled, eye teeth white in the late morning sun. Perhaps it's catching fish? I don't think so. My appeal transcends most species, but I think fish are too dumb. Let me put it this way. Go catch your clan some fish. In fact, perhaps 
All your nullah is to catch fish. Are you sure this is how we can best be put to use? Dante said. Hop drew back his head, affronted. Do you want your clan to starve? What could be more important than keeping them fed and ready to swing their swords? In Narashtavik, does food simply drift in through the windows every night? No, but it is delivered to the kitchen every morning, because we buy it. Why don't we just go into town and lay down some silver? Because. Hop closed on Dante, leaning down until their eyes were nearly level. Dante flinched. It was like standing in the path of a toppling tree. He smelled fresh sweat and crushed grass. Hop tapped him on the side of the head. What do you do when there are no towns? Where do you buy your fish from then? If you fling your coins in the stream, do you think it will belch forth trout? Dante sighed and stuck out his hand. Then give us our poles and let's be done with this. Poles? The Norin chief cocked his head. You will use spears. Bad news. We are out of spears. What are you talking about? Blaze gestured at two warriors sparring down the stream. Long staffs spun and clacked, metal tips glinting in the sun. I suppose those are just very long pole-mounted knives. Those are fighting spears. You do not use fighting spears for fishing. Would you use your father's battle sword to gut a hog? Depends. Is the hog armed? Morn grabbed Blazer's shoulder, bunching the doublet's fabric in his fist. We'll make our own spears. I'll show you if you don't know how. It's easy enough, isn't it? Blaze said. We just have to find a spear tree. Hop smiled to himself as they tramped downstream in search of suitably straight branches among the willows and walnuts. Dante trampled after Blaze through the thigh-high grass. This whittling will surely help us win the war. Blaze grinned. You never know. What if Modigan attacks with a deadly force of twig men? We'll pair him to ribbons. I assume this is one of their tests. We're going to have to fish our hearts out. Fish like we're at war with the fish. If trout don't want to be slaughtered in their stream beds, they shouldn't be so delicious when buttered and fried in a pan. Blaze jumped to catch hold of a walnut's lowest branches. He scrabbled into the tree, showering Dante with bark. Dante glanced upstream. Morn and Lyra were dozens of yards away. A branch cracked, but any other noises they made were drowned out by the babble of the stream, and the mindless drone of insects whirring through the slumping willows. When did you and Lyra become a pair? Dante said. What? Blaze glanced down, hands gripping a long branch half as thin as his wrist. What did she say to you? It was more of a non-verbal cue, in the form of a punch to the face. When did that happen? Blaze laughed. Did you make a pass at her? Earlier this morning, when I tried to let you continue drowning for the good of the land. Dante touched his swollen lip. Haven't you noticed the bruising? I try not to look directly at your face. Blaze tensed, pulling the branch down with a sharp crack. Bark and leaves showered Dante's upturned face. 
Blaze tossed the limb to the ground. You're not mad, are you? Dante set to the fallen branch with a knife, trimming twigs and skinning bark to shape it into a spear. Why would I be mad? Because you always are. I don't know. Sometimes people get mad. Well, I'm not. Good. Guess I thought you might think it would distract us from our duty or something. Dante grinned up into the branches. How dare you two be making moon eyes at each other? The fate of Norrin freedom depends on us stabbing these fish. Blaze pulled down a few more branches, then climbed down to help carve them into killing points. Lyra and Morn caught up with them, spears in hand. They splashed along the cold stream until it widened to a gentle flow among the rocks. Sunlight cleaved through the clear water. Current-drawn weeds pointed downstream, dragonfly nymphs clinging to their stems. Flies circled, buzzing in Dante's ears. He waded into a sluggish eddy beside the bank. Dark missiles of trout lurked in the willow-dappled shadows. His first thrust missed. So did his second, and his fifth, and his twentieth. Morn jabbed, smiled, and cleared his spear from the water, a fish struggling on its tip. After an hour, the Norrin had landed four. Lyra and Blaze managed one apiece. Dante had none. His breeches were soaked to the thighs, his patience strained to its peak. Morn frowned, stepped down from a flat rock, and slogged through the water toward Dante. The water lies to you, he said. Bulk hunched over the water as he peered at a trout lurking beneath a wall of reeds. Well, not really. In fact, it's just kind of flowing there, not saying anything at all. But the fish isn't where it shows you. It's lower. He struck at the trout with a splash, withdrawing an empty spear. Well, you get the idea. Dante did, but his arms and eyes didn't. He didn't land his first fish until mid-afternoon, after they followed the stream to a naturally dammed pond. In those languid waters, Dante acquitted himself with two fish by dusk. Lyra and Blaze had five and four, respectively. Morn shamed them all with seventeen. They headed home for camp, each step squeezing water from the rivets of their boots. Under twilight, Morn knelt beside Hop and unrolled the tarp that held their cleaned fish, head still attached. Twenty-eight fish. Hop gazed among the men and women seated around the banks of the stream. Thirty-nine warriors. This does not add up. Got bread, Lyra said. Sure. That's enough for me. Hop gave her an unreadable look and rolled up the tarp. It had better be. The ground sees no seeds until waiting mouths are full. Dante ate his bread without complaint. He got up before sunrise to reach the pond by dawn and catch the fish while they were first stirring. He caught a trout and a sunfish before the others splashed into sight. Ever since Dante had literally been punched into awareness, it was like a spell had been broken between Blaze and Lyra. 
They pushed each other in the water, splashing, laughing, teasing. At times, they disappeared around a bend for twenty minutes or more, returning flushed and grinning. During their disappearances, they rarely brought back fish. Dante waded the waters next to Morn, talking about the Norren, about Narashtavik and Malin, about responsibility and risk and life. Morn was a slow thinker, as plodding and deliberate in thought as he was with his footsteps or his Nulladoon play. But he was thoughtful, deep, capable of questioning his own assumptions in ways most men would never think to. Hours flowed as quickly as the stream. Days spun by. When spearfishing grew too frustrating, Dante gathered walnuts, walnut-sized snails, and the tender roots of cattails. He plucked breadgrass and mushrooms and wild carrots. On their fifth day, they returned with enough fish to feed themselves as well as the rest of the clan. Much like when Dante and Blaze had traveled with the Clan of the Nine Pines, the warriors of the Broken Heron paid them little mind. One morning, a woman stopped Dante before he could depart to the stream to show him how to fashion strong hooks from the bones of fish. Another evening, two men came to swap stories of Dante and Blaze's travels throughout the territories. One challenged Morn to a friendly wrestling match, which Morn lost after a long struggle. These interactions were the exceptions to their isolation. The rest of the clan sparred, rested, painted, hunted, scouted, mended weapons and armor and clothes. So often left alone, Dante spoke to the earth. It didn't answer back. He let his mind sink like water through its surface, past the turf and the damp confusion of roots and worms and last year's leaves. Somewhere below imagination, in the silent beds of dirt and stone, the nether rested, untouched, a deeper shadow than the darkness of the underground. Dante let it stay there, watching it, nothing more. After a week, the clan of the Broken Heron picked up and walked downstream to the northwest, covering some fifteen miles before bedding down. In the morning, Hop came to them with fishing poles and hooks and cunningly tied lures of feather, fur, and shiny metal. Turns out we had these all along, he said. Go ahead and use them, if you want. At first, Dante returned to the rod with relish, but standing on the bank and waiting for a fish to strike was far less fun than creeping into the water and impaling it with a single thrust of a spear. He fixed a bit of wood near the end of the line and wedged the butt of the pole between rocks. He left it there to catch what it may, rushing back to it, spear in hand, whenever it bent under the weight of a strike. That evening, they returned to find the clan in bloody disarray. Men limped to the stream to wash their grimy hands and faces and put cold water on their cuts and scrapes and burns. A handful of warriors were gone entirely. Dante found Hop by the creek, shirtless, wincing. Blood dripped from his hand into the water and swirled downstream. That's why we moved, Dante said. You got word of a battle. Hop chuckled. 
With such sharp eyes, it's no wonder you catch so many fish. Dante watched him bleed, seething. We can stab more than trout, you know. Keeping us fed is vital. It leaves the rest of us to fight. Why does anyone ever want to be chieftain when all you get to do is rebuke foolish questions? Hop pressed a cloth to his wounded hand, breath hissing between his bared teeth. Let me see. I'm fine. No one ever died of a cut finger. Yes, they have. By the thousands. Because a finger, and any cuts it carries, is the most likely thing to touch dirt, feces, stagnant water, and all other spoiled things that spoil the body too. Dante came around Hop's side and grabbed the man's thick wrist. Now let me see. Hop glared at him like an angry cat, then extended his bloody left hand. The tip of his index finger was nearly severed, hanging by a flap of skin. Blood patted the grass. Dante sealed it back together with a cord of black nether. Hop wiggled his finger. He licked his thumb, wiped away the blood, and gave Dante a shrewd look. I thought they exaggerated what you did in Plough. For all I know, they did. Now bring me anyone you want to stop bleeding. A line of wounded circled between Dante and three men who waited to dress the minor cuts and scrapes with needles, stitches, cloths, liquor, and water. Dante chatted with those he treated, piecing together the day's battle. The clan had rendezvoused with three others just after dawn, rushing down a hill to enswarm a legion of some 120 Gascon troops in the thick shrubbery between ridges. They broke the surprised red-shirt soldiers quickly, pushing them to the very bottom of the valley. But as the Norrin mounted to rush down the fold and overwhelm them, a cavalry troop burst over the hills and flushed the Norrin into the brush. From there, they fought a running back and forth among the brambles and walnut trees until the chiefs, concerned about the possibility of more reinforcements on the way, beat a slow retreat under cover of the trees. The kingsmen tried to pursue, but after a ferocious Norrin counter killed eight men in moments, the redshirts backed off to bow range, peppering the clans until the Norrin slipped away into the hills. Their adopted clan had lost five warriors in the battle, with another nine suffering modest to serious wounds Dante healed as best he could. At dawn, the clan left the stream and cut north at an easy pace. Three hours and six miles later, they settled back down beside a pond. Morn strung his bow and shot three mallards, two on the water and another from the sky. Dante saw to those who still needed seeing, then took his rod and spears and caught fish in the yellow haze of a waning afternoon that smelled of budding plants and the gentle rot of still water. This pattern continued for several more days. The clan recovered. Blaze and Lyra popped off into the tall grass. Dante fished and tended and gathered. Warriors began to invite Morn to sit with them during meals. Sometimes he accepted. Others he declined, eating with Dante instead. Hop called a meeting. 
It wasn't a meeting like the Council of Narashtivik, where members were brought together to reach a consensus, but a meeting where a newly established ruling would be handed down from on high. Previously, the clan had sent out four or six scouts at a time, but Hop had heard more soldiers were on their way. Henceforth, a full quarter of the clan would be sent out to range at any given time. They would scout in shifts. The shifts would begin that night. There would be no exceptions, including Hop and the old Norrin woman who spent most of her days sitting beneath the trees. The humans would scout, too. Dante was assigned to that first night, along with nine other warriors. He'd been up since dawn and didn't trust himself to stay alert through the night. He was paired with a woman named Yola, who rarely spoke except to tell him he was too loud. She slipped up the hills as if she'd been walking them her whole life, which, as far as he knew, she had. Bow in hand, undisturbed by the rising cackles of nocturnal birds and the whisper of rodents in the grass. A cold half-moon touched the hills with silver. Before cresting each ridge, Yola dropped to a crouch and crossed the peak, then knelt in the grass and waited, watching the horizons for silhouettes. After the warmth of the mid-spring days, the frigid night felt like another world, a place where the cold and dark might last forever. But Dante walked that world as if he'd been born to it. Birds hooted, crickets churred, his steps stirred the scent of wet dew on the broken grass. When the dawn came, chasing that world away in a bloom of ethereal gray-blue, he was more excited for the next night than he was to get to bed. He asked for and received ongoing nighttime shifts. Blaze and Lyra asked to scout together and were denied which Blaze complained about until Dante told him he was scaring away the fish. One afternoon, a scout returned to tell the clan he'd seen a trio of armed men a few miles west headed their way. Hop arranged a picket and roving sweeps, but the men weren't seen again. Three times they saw scouts from other clans. Once a full clan passed two miles to the south, and every warrior of the Broken Herons readied arms until the wanderers were identified as the Clan of the Lonely Hill, a distant cousin clan that was generally but not always on good terms with the Broken Herons. Hop walked out to see them and returned unscathed. Dante reached Cali via Loon and learned the old man had sent Somber and Hart, the old Norrin councilman, to the territories to try their hand with the tamer clans. They'd already distributed a handful of loons. More surprisingly, most of the chiefs who'd accepted the artifacts appeared to be using them as intended. Callie had already helped organize a successful raid on the outskirts of Dolondon. Three clans acting in concert freed sixty prisoners from the farms they'd been taken to after the first riots. Callie was trying to put together a series of attacks on the road to cripple the king's supply line into the city. But rumors from Setevan claimed the first major force would be arriving within weeks, a thousand men or more. Dante passed that on to Hop. Hop nodded. Thank you. Now go fish. Mid-spring became late spring. 
Warm breezes smelled of pollen and green. The broken herons moved camp twice more. Two of their scouts killed one of the enemy and brought his body back to be buried out of sight. A visitor from a friendly clan told them about a skirmish on the fringes of Tatonin. She didn't know which clan was involved. Dante wondered whether it was the Golden Fields and whether Whale and her people were all right. He was eating a lump of pan-cooked flatbread and watching the dragonflies skim the stream when his loon pulsed. He assumed it was Callie, but the signal was coming from Blaze. Hello, Dante said. I wasn't aware you knew how to use these. Sure I do. Me and Lyra talk dirty through them all the time. Where are you? On the sudden verge of vomiting. Well, finish that up and get over here. I think we found a scout. Dante chawed off a chunk of bread. So kill him, he said, spitting crumbs. I don't like what I'm seeing. Blaze described the lay of the land, a double-crowned hill not a mile west of the camp at stream. Dante grabbed his sword and ran west up the ridge, sweating in the buttery sunlight. He headed down a slope, thinly wooded with birches. At the bottom, marshy grass sprayed water from his thumping boots. Yeah, I see you, Blaze said. You run funny, arms out like a drunken bird. Keep heading straight up the hill. Okay, go right a bit, a little more. Can you see me yet? Dante smacked away a branch before it hit his face. Below the hilltop, a figure emerged from a stand of trees and waved its hand above its head. A Ron's liver, Dante said. A hideous monster just leapt out from the woods. As he approached, Blaze closed down the connection and put a finger to his lips. Follow me. Blaze hunkered down as they reached the ridge, weaving behind thick bushes with sweet-smelling purple flowers. On the other side, two of the clan's warriors lay prone behind a screen of shrubs. They didn't look up as Blaze and Dante slid in beside them. A small valley bowled out below them, flanked on all sides by hills. A couple hundred yards away, in the valley's swampy bottom, a man in plain brown dress moved across the flooded ground, stepping between tiny islands of turf. He stopped regularly, bending down to examine the weeds and muck. Each time, he glanced at the horizons, stood, and walked on to the next island. He's tracking you, Dante whispered. Don't you think you'd better move? We've got a while yet, Blaze said. Question is, who's he tracking us for? You want to follow him back? If he starts to get too close, I figured you could kill him as quietly as killings get. Dante nodded. A fly landed on his sweaty neck. He shrugged it away. Down in the bog, the tracker plodded along, checking for boot prints, scanning the ridges and repeating. After several minutes, he turned and hurried for the far hill, Blaze frowned. Does this seem off to you? What's his rush? Dante said. There's no way he saw us through this brush. He didn't even look this way before running off. The man retreated between the birches, 
topping the hill and dropping over the far side. One of the warriors turned to Blaze. If we're following, let's follow. Blaze stood. Dante dug his fingers into the soil and pushed himself off the ground. His fingertips thrummed. He paused there, as if frozen in the middle of a push-up, honing in on the faint vibration. Wait, he said. The thrumming flickered away. Had he imagined it? Had his hands fallen asleep? He lowered his mind through his fingers to the dirt. He could feel movement there, not with his fingers, not in the way you feel the kernels on a corn cob or the grain of wood on a chair, but in the way you feel an intruder moving through a pitch-black room. We're going to lose him, the warrior said. Wait! The thrumming wavered, threatening to fall away completely. Dante delved deeper, tracking the vibration through the solid earth, until it burst around him like a heavy rain, pattering and irregular. He followed it further, until he could feel it physically, a light tapping on his ribs and shoulders, a dozen or more blows per second. What are you doing down there, hiding an erection? Blaze said. Just get up and walk it off. I promise not to make fun of you until we're back in public. Dante shook his head sharply. I think the earth is talking to me. I am too, and I've known you for longer. Let's go. The taps tapped on, harder than they'd been mere moments before. There was a pattern to them, too, far too complex for him to break it down, but just prominent enough to recognize it was there. In five minutes, you can laugh at me all you want, Dante said. Until then, get down and be quiet. Blaze gave him a long look, then crouched back down behind the brush. The warriors murmured to each other. For a second, Dante thought the whole farce of him being a fellow clansman was about to break down. Then they, too, hid themselves behind the budding branches. Dante's arms quivered. He pushed himself upright and knelt. He brushed his hands off on his pants and touched them back against the dirt. The feeling was gone. It didn't come back. He sat perfectly still, watching the silent valley with a thunderous heart. One of the warriors sniffed. Dante scowled at the ground, willing the thrumming to come back. Holy shit, Blaze breathed. Dante snapped up his head. Back the way the scout had retreated, men in red spilled over the hilltop. Horses along the flanks, lancers shining in the sun. Dante reached for his loon and turned the brooch to Morn's setting. Okay, Morn said after some moments. Is this working? Tell Hop to move the clan, Dante said. All of it? Yes. To where? Anywhere the army I'm watching isn't. Oh, Morn said. And where is that? Just out of curiosity. And my desire to be of any help to Hop at all. Two hills to the west, about a mile and a half away, and shrinking fast. Oh, I'm just going to tell him that it may be time to run, then. Let me know once the clan's on the move, Dante said. 
If you guys take too long, we'll come up with something to distract them. Like running away screaming, Blaze said. Dante shut off the loon. That works for me. Over the next few minutes, he discovered he was wrong about the army. Specifically, it wasn't an army, more of a legion, some two hundred footmen and twenty-one riders. At the bog, the soldiers stopped to rest their horses, and themselves, stoking fires to boil the stagnant water. Morn reported in. The clan was heading north. Dante and the scouts backed up the hill and over the ridgeline. On the other side, they ran to the northern hill and waited behind a screen of leaves for the legion to reappear and continue its march to the west. When they rejoined the clan to be spelled by fresh scouts, Hop nodded at Blaze first, then Dante. When they ate dinner, a warrior named Roan invited them to eat with him and his friends beside the banks of the stream. The walls came down. Warriors greeted Dante in the morning. Blaze and Lyra joked with the other couples. Morn was invited to another wrestling match, which he won. When Dante expressed wonder at how quickly the clan's reception of them had thawed, Morn just shrugged. Thaw is the perfect word for group decisions among Norrin. The ice looks stable for weeks, then you wake up one morning to find it's cracked and swirled away. However the thaw had happened, Dante was glad to see the ice depart. He'd been feeling displaced. Not lonely, exactly. As much time as Blaze spent with Lyra, he was still around, as was Morn. He spoke to Callie every two or three days, too. But each had concerns of their own. Between that and being surrounded by nearly forty warriors who treated him like an ill-dressed stranger at a fancy party— their new nods, chuckles, and hellos felt as warm as the midday sun. Four days after he, Blaze, and the two scouts had narrowly averted a most unwelcome battle, Hop shook himself awake before dawn, and then moved on to roust Blaze from his tangle of blankets and Lyra. Up for a trip? Hop asked, once Dante had been to the latrine and had a cup of wintral tea boiled from fresh leaves. I don't know. Wouldn't you rather I go catch breakfast? There will be time for that later. The chieftain brought three more warriors with him, leaving the old woman in charge of the clan, and led the trek south. Dante followed with that question through the chilly dawn and dewy morning. Miles and hours later, Hop trudged up a hill. Dante startled. At its top, a dozen Norrins sat on a circle of lichen-encrusted stones. Several greeted Hop by name. Several more stared unabashed at Dante and Blaze. Hop wandered to the middle of the circle of stones. A general silence followed him. He smiled at Dante. I thought it was time for you two to be introduced. He swept his hand around the circle at the seated Norrin. These are the chiefs of your clan cousins. My chiefs? He gestured back to Dante and Blaze. These are the two newest brothers of the clan of the Broken Heron.
This audiobook has been broken into multiple parts to make the download faster. You have reached the end of a part, but not the end of the complete audiobook. So please check your library for the next part of this audiobook. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.